Jesus, The Last Night of Liberalism by Jörg Guido Hersmann Narrated by Paul Strickreda Copyright 2007 by the Ludwig von Mises Institute This audiobook was produced by the Ludwig von Mises Institute. To discover more about the Mises Institute and Austrian economics, visit mises.org. Preface In the summer of 1940, with Hitler's troops moving through France to encircle Switzerland, Ludwig von Mises sat beside his wife Margit on a bus filled with Jews fleeing Europe. To avoid capture, the bus driver took back roads through the French countryside, stopping to ask locals if the Germans had been spotted ahead, reversing and finding alternative routes, if they had been. Mises was two months shy of his fifty-ninth birthday. He was on the invaders' list of wanted men. Two years earlier, they had ransacked his Vienna apartment, confiscating his records and freezing his assets. Mises then hoped to be safe in Geneva. Now nowhere in Europe seemed safe. Not only was he a prominent intellectual of Jewish descent, he was widely known to be an archenemy of National Socialism and of every other form of socialism. Some called him the last knight of liberalism. He had personally steered Austria away from Bolshevism, saved his country from the level of hyperinflation that destroyed interwar Germany, and convinced a generation of young socialist intellectuals to embrace the market. Now he was a political refugee, headed for a foreign continent. The couple arrived in the United States with barely any money and no prospect for income. Mises's former students and disciples had found prestigious positions in British and American universities, often with his help, but Mises himself was considered an anachronism. In an age of growing government and central planning, he was a defender of private property and an opponent of all government intervention in the economy. Perhaps worst of all, he was a proponent of verbal logic and realism in the beginning heyday of positivism and mathematical modelling. No university would have him. Margit began to train as a secretary. Over the next decade they would slowly rebuild, and Mises would find new allies. He would also publish his most important book, Human Action. It would earn him a following whose admiration and devotion were beyond anything he had known in Europe. When he died in October of 1973, he had only a small circle of admirers and disciples, but this group became the nucleus of a movement that has grown exponentially. Today his writings inspire economists and libertarians throughout the world, and are avidly read by an increasing number of students in all the social sciences. There is an entire school of Miesian economists flourishing most notably in the United States, but also in Spain, France, the Czech Republic, Argentina, Romania, and Italy. This movement is testimony to the lasting power and impact of his ideas. The purpose of the present book is to tell the story of how these ideas emerged in their time. It is the story of an amazing economist, of his life and deeds. It is the story of his personal impact on the Austrian school and the libertarian movement. It is, above all, the story of a man who transformed himself in an uncompromising pursuit of the truth, of a man who adopted his ideas step by step, often against his initial inclinations. 
Once a student of the historical method in the social sciences, he would become the dean of the opposition Austrian school and humanistic social theory. He went from left-leaning young idealists in Vienna to grand old man of the American right. Dismissive of the metalists early in his career, he became an unwavering spokesman for a hundred percent gold standard. His example inspired students and followers, many of whom would take his message and method farther than he himself would go. The portrait of Ludwig von Mises offered here is primarily concerned with his intellectual development in the context of his time. Not much is known about the emotional layer of his personality. Early on, he conceived of himself as a public persona, Professor Mises. He took great care to destroy any evidence, from receipts to love letters, anything that could have been useful to potential opponents. We can report on some of the more intimate episodes of his life only because of the private records stolen from his Vienna apartment by Hitler's agents in March of 1938. These documents eventually fell into the hands of the Red Army, were rediscovered in a secret Moscow archive in 1991, and have been for us a precious source of information. The present book is squarely based on Mises's personal documents in the Moscow archive, and in the archive at Grove City College. I have also used relevant documents available from the Vienna Chamber of Commerce, the Akademisches Gymnasium in Vienna, the Graduate Institute of International Studies in Geneva, the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, as well as the materials that Mrs. Bettina Bean Greaves has inherited from the Mises estate. It goes without saying that I have studied Mises' writings in great detail, as well as those of the most significant other economists of his time. Furthermore, I have tried to familiarize myself with the historical context of his work, although remaining an amateur on these general questions. All this material is brought together here for the first time. I hope it will be a useful starting point for future research on Mises. This brings me to a final remark on the scope and purpose of this book. Though I never met Mises in person, I have been a student and admirer of his works for many years. The following pages are last but not least a token of my gratitude toward this great thinker. In my economic research, I have tried to go on where he had left off, though not necessarily in the direction he seemed to be taking. This raised a few basic questions for my work on this biography. Should I talk about the research that Mises has inspired in our day? Should I discuss the sometimes different interpretations of Mises that are now current? It might have enhanced the present work, and been more interesting to the present-day experts in the field to have included critical annotations on the literature, and there are many. But I decided to refrain from this. It would have drawn me away from speaking about Mises himself, and into speaking about the literature on Mises. To keep a book that is already rather voluminous focused on its main subject, it was necessary to minimize the discussion of the secondary literature, including not only my own works, but also the works of eminent Mises scholars, such as Murray Rothbard, Richard Ebling, Israel Kurtzner, Joseph Silano, Hans Hermann Hopper, Bettina Bean Greaves, Julian Del Gaudio, Eamon Butler, Patrick Gunning, Geoffrey Herbener, Percy Greaves, Hans Senholtz, Ralph Rako, James Rolf Edwards, Lawrence Morse, Gary North, Carsten Pallas, and David Gordon. This is an inconvenience, 
but an acceptable one in the age of the Internet. The main point of a Mises biography in our present day, when so little is known about the man and biographical research is still in its infancy, is to come to grips with a figure who, without any significant institutional backing, by the sheer power of his ideas, inspires, more than thirty years after his death, a growing international intellectual movement. What are these ideas that have such magnetic power? Who was this man? What were his aims, his struggles, his triumphs, his defeats? How did his ideas originate in the context of his time, and against the odds he faced? These, I think, are the main questions at the present stage. Those who love ideas, especially those who believe that ideas shape our world, may find the following pages worthwhile reading. If it does no more than raise further interest in Ludwig von Mises and his work, this book will have attained its goal. Jörg Guido Hussmann, Angers, France, May 2007 Part 1 Young Ludwig Chapter 1 Roots On September 29, 1881, Ludwig Heinrich Edler von Mises was the first in his family to be born a nobleman. A few months earlier, the Austrian emperor had ennobled Ludwig's great-grandfather Meyer Rachmiel Mises. The family would henceforth bear the new name von Mises. The emperor also confirmed on them the honorific Edler, which literally translates into the noble and was frequently accorded to Jews. Ludwig's birthplace was the city of Lemberg, the capital of the bygone Kingdom of Galicia and Lodomeria. For centuries Galicia had belonged to Poland, before it fell to the House of Habsburg in 1772, when large chunks of Poland were divided among its three mighty neighbours, Russia, Prussia, and Austria. The Kingdom of Galicia and Lodomeria had not existed before the division of Poland. The Habsburgs chose this name as a quasi-historical justification of the annexation. In the late Middle Ages, the Hungarian King Andrew had been a rex Galicie et Lodomerie, that is, a king of the old Ruthenian principalities of Halich and Vladimir. Even though the Habsburgs were the emperors of the German Reich, they never incorporated Galicia into Germany but kept it the northernmost province of Austria, the Habsburg's personal dominion. At the time of Ludwig's birth, the Habsburg Empire was the second-largest political entity in Europe, second only to Russia. Until the end of the 17th century, the Habsburg dynasty had also ruled Spain and its overseas colonies all around the world. Not long before Mises was born, the Habsburgs had ruled northern Italy, as well as Belgium and the Black Forest region in Germany. By 1881, the Empire had lost these latter dominions, but was still composed of twelve major ethnic groups, and hosted six large religious bodies. Young Ludwig grew up in a powerful nation with a rich mix of cultures, and a diverse ethnic heritage. In 1918, Galicia fell back to Poland, and today Lemberg and the adjacent lands belong to Ukraine. Other historical names of Limburg were Lviv, Lvov, Lvov, Leopoli, Lviv, Lvov, Louis, Leopolis, and Lviv. Even by Austrian standards, Galicia was an extreme case of ethnic richness. Most of its citizens were Poles, Ruthenians, Jews, 
and Germans, but there were also substantial numbers of Armenians, Greeks, and Italians. While Jews were an often tiny minority in virtually all other Habsburg lands, Eastern Galicia's Jews represented an actual majority. At the time of Ludwig's birth, they were nearly the largest group in the city of Lemberg, second only to the Polish majority. In 1848, the Galician population totaled 5.2 million. Among them were 2.2 million Roman Catholics, essentially Poles but also Germans, 2.2 million Greek Catholics, Ruthenians, 333,000 Greek Orthodox, and 333,000 Jews. The city of Lemberg had some 63,000 residents in 1840, of which 30,000 were Roman Catholics, 4,500 Greek Catholics, and 25,000 Jews. The Jews had come to the country because the Catholic rulers of Poland, for more than 500 years, had been more tolerant to a Jews than had any other government. Legal protection for Jews started with the statue of Kalitz in 1264, and the 14th century King Casimir the Great and his successors upheld and extended these rights during the next 200 years at a time when Jews were expelled from virtually all other countries of Europe. Over the centuries, the Jewish community in Poland gained ever greater legal autonomy, and by the end of the 18th century there was virtually a Jewish state within Poland. This country had become a homeland for the Jews of the entire world, a new holy land, many of them believed. By 1750, some 70% of all Jews lived in Poland a number that grew even during the Polish partitions. By 1780, Poland was home to more than 80% of all Jews worldwide. Because the early influx of Jews was from Germany, the German-Jewish dialect of Yiddish became the common language, even among later waves of Jewish immigrants from other parts of the world. Assimilation to the Polish language and culture was slow, if it happened at all. The strongest assimilation occurred among the Jewish intellectual and economic leaders, who shared business ties and other common interests with the Polish ruling class. The eminent Austrian historian and political philosopher Erik Ritter von Kuhnfeld-Ledin claims that this Polish background had an important impact on Ludwig von Mises's early development. Kuhnfeld-Ledin argues that young Ludwig was influenced by Polish political thought and political institutions which cherished an aristocratic ideal of republican liberty. Movements for liberty, as a matter of fact, have typically been carried on by the nobility which always opposed centralizing pressure and control. We saw this in England with the Magna Carta, in Hungary with the Golden Bull, in Aragon by the stubborn Grandes, and in France by the Fronde. In this respect, Poland went further, it became an elective monarchy in 1572 and called itself a republic. One of the slogans of this very independent nobility was Menace the foreign kings and resist your own. Political power rested with the nobility, which, before the partitions, had no titles and its claimants comprised a fifth of the population. It was a nobility without legal distinctions. And a proverb said, The nobleman in his farmhouse is equal to the magnet in his castle. And since all noblemen were equals, they could not be ruled by majorities. In the Parliament, the same, the opposition of a single man, the liberum veto, annulled any legal proposition. 
This Polish political tradition permeated the culture of the Polish upper class in Galicia, and must have had a considerable impact on families such as the Mises's, who strove to be received into the higher social strata at the turn of the 18th and 19th centuries. While his Polish heritage had its impact on the political thought of Ludwig von Mises, the cultural aspirations of his ancestors pointed in a completely different direction. Throughout the 19th century, in fact, the Mises family helped spearhead the Germanization of their native Galicia. In their eyes, German culture was the embodiment of social progress. The liberal policies pursued under Joseph II at the end of the 18th century promised to bring greater liberty for the Galician masses and emancipation for the Jews. This was exactly what left-wing secular Jews had been striving for. At the turn of the 18th and 19th centuries, these groups became pro-German under the determined leadership of wealthy merchants, such as the Mises family. They supported the new political administration. They welcomed immigration of non-Jewish ethnic Germans, and they promoted the infusion of secular German culture into Jewish circles. Members of the Mises family played a leading role in advancing the study of philosophy and secular science among local Jews. Heinrich Gretz reports, Since the wars with Napoleon, there had arisen small circles in the three largest Galician communities of Brody, Lemberg, and Tarnopol, banded together for self-culture, the promotion of education, and a war of annihilation against Hasidism. In Lemberg, a kind of literary circle was founded, at whose head was a wealthy, highly cultured man, Yehuda Loeb Mises, died 1831. He provided ambitious young men in Lemberg with money, counsel, and, what was of special value to them, with an excellent library of Hebrew and European books. After 1772, the Habsburgs imposed a caste of German-speaking bureaucrats on the country, and also encouraged German settlements on land confiscated from the Polish kings, the Jesuit order, and various monasteries. The Germanization of Poland went on for almost a century, during which the Polish aristocracy repeatedly tried to shake off Austrian rule. After a failed attempt in 1863, the old political establishment of Poland finally came to terms with the Habsburgs, promising loyalty of its Kolopolskie, Polish club, to the Austrian crown in exchange for a free hand in ruling Galicia. In 1867, the Polish aristocracy obtained a Galician resolution in the Austrian parliament, which granted them a large degree of autonomy in this easternmost part of the empire. The Polenklub in Vienna became one of the main factions supporting the Austrian governments until the eventual disintegration of the empire in 1918. At the same time, the Germanization of Galicia was rolled back and eventually died out. Only the traditional pillars of German language and culture remained, civil servants and secular Jews. In 1880, there were some 324,000 Galicians whose first language was German. In 1910, only some 90,000 were left. Thus, even at its high point, the Germanization movement had a weak numerical impact in the part of Poland annexed by the House of Habsburg. The main reason was that most of the new settlers were Catholics, and were therefore integrated into the existing Polish parishes and schools. Until 1867, 
pro-German orientation was the basis of the Mises family's influence in local political affairs. It made their influence felt even in national circles once the appearance of railroads brought Galicia into ever closer economic ties with the rest of the Habsburg Empire. It seems that railroad construction was a spin-off of Jewish initiatives to promote the industrialization of Austria. Thus, William Johnson states that a few years after 1831, Solomon Rothschild persuaded Metternich to promote industrialization in the Habsburg domains. In the second half of the 19th century, railroads were an advanced technology that profoundly transformed economic, political, and social relationships. Railroad companies paid the highest salaries, provided opportunities for rapid career advancement, and attracted the most energetic and best-trained young men of the time. Virtually all these men belonged to a new intellectual class that had emerged during the 19th century, the engineers. Typically, the children of bourgeois families, engineers epitomized intelligence, hands-on pragmatism, goal orientation, and success. Railroads came to Austria in the 1820s, and by the early 1840s, the government was trying to take them over. During the next ten years, many Austrian lines were socialized until the cataclysmic events of 1848 to 1849 brought the state finances into such disarray that, starting in 1854, a reprivatization became necessary. Once again under private ownership, the railroads reached Galicia, the Mises family was strongly involved in both of the two major Galician railroad ventures, serving as board members and bankers. A generation later, in the 1870s and 1880s, Ludwig's father, Artur Edler von Mises, born on September 6, 1854, worked for the Chernovitz Railroad Company, while his uncle Emil was an engineer for the Karl Ludwig Company. Artur von Mises had married Adele Landau, born on June 4, 1858, from Vienna. Her family came from Brody, an almost exclusively Jewish town on the border of the Habsburg Empire. Her father was Fischer Landau, and her mother Clara Kallir. Adele had followed Artur to Lemberg, where she gave birth to Ludwig and his younger brother Richard Martin, born 1883. A few years later they had a third boy, Karl, but he died of scarlet fever when Ludwig was twelve years old. Adele's native Brody was in those days a free trade zone for commerce with Poland and Russia. Her family had made good use of the profit opportunities and become affluent and influential. Her marriage with Artur was not only a matter of love, it was also meant to cement a more encompassing alliance between two of the leading families of Eastern Galicia. Significantly, at the 1873 elections to the Austrian Parliament, all three Jewish MPs from Galicia had family ties. Joachim Landau was elected for the city of Brody. Nathan Kallier joined the Parliament as a representative of the Brody Chamber of Commerce, and Ludwig's uncle Hermann was elected for the county of Drohobitz. Joachim Landau was the brother of Ludwig von Mises' grandfather on the maternal side. Ludwig's grandmother on the maternal side was a Kallier, his grandfather a Landau. More than any other male family member of this generation, Hermann Mises featured the virtues that had made the Mises family so successful, and which, a generation later, would also characterize his nephew Ludwig, enthusiasm, determination, 
intelligence, love for his fatherland, leadership, and unpretentious and clear writing. After directing a branch office for a large insurance company and exploring for petroleum in Galicia, Hermann moved to Vienna in the early 1870s to work for a major newspaper, the Morgenpost. In 1873, he became a one-term member of the Reichsrat, the Austrian Parliament, for the Galician district of Sambor-Strich-Drohobich, then returned to journalism, writing for another major paper, the Wiener Allgemeine Zeitung, where he was a tireless advocate for the industrialization of Galicia. There seems to have been an oil boom in what came to be called the Galician Pennsylvania. Hermann's election district around Drohobich, an area southwest of Lemberg, At the turn of the 19th and 20th century, Galicia was the number four producer of petroleum worldwide, after Russia, the United States, and the Dutch West Indies. Hermann and his brothers and cousins continued a tradition of achievement that can be traced back at least to their great-grandfather Ludwig's great-great-grandfather Ephraim Fischel Mises. Fischel was a large-scale fabric merchant and real estate owner in Lemberg. After the Polish partition of 1772, the inhabitants of this poor rural area greatly profited from the new Austrian rule, which brought unprecedented liberties for the rural population and also for the cities, even though Maria Theresa, empress at the time of the partition, was not a champion of Jewish liberties. Some of her most important consultants, the famous Sonnenfels, for example, were of Jewish origin, but she would not tolerate Jewish residents in Vienna. Jews were expelled from Vienna under Leopold I in 1669-1670. A few years later, these measures were rescinded rather half-heartedly, and so things remained as in 1670. As far as Maria Theresa is concerned, cultural historian Robert Kahn states, Within the first five years of Maria Theresa's reign, the Jews were driven out of Bohemia, 1745, and less than three years before her death, Less than five years before Joseph II issued the famous Tolerance Patent in 1777, she wrote these words, In the future no Jew shall be allowed to remain in Vienna without my special permission. In the cities that did tolerate Jewish residents, such as Lemberg, Jews were forced to live within special areas, the Judenviertel. They were generally prohibited from trading in the forbidden districts of the empire, and even those who had permission to trade there on business days could not stay overnight. So it remained from her reign well into the 19th century. Despicable as the system of regulations was, it allowed for exceptions. Thus the city of Lemberg would authorize Jewish residents outside of the Judenviertel if the person in question fulfilled three conditions. He had to be wealthy, he had to be educated, and he could not wear traditional Jewish clothes. A case in point was Fischer Mises, who enjoyed the privilege of living and trading in the forbidden district of Lemberg, where he also acted as the president of the secular organization of local Jews, the Jewish Cultural Community, Israelitische Kultusgemeinde. On June 23, 1800, Fischer's wife gave birth to the true founder of the Mises dynasty, the inexhaustible polymath Maya Rachmiel Mises. The boy quickly proved to be successful in many fields, and his father made him a partner in his firm early on. He also arranged a suitable marriage with Rosa Halberstam, 
whose father ran an important German-Russian export business. Barely thirty years old, Meyer became president of the Lemberg Jewish Cultural Community, and a year later he took on the role of auditor for the provincial court in charge of trade issues, the Lemberger Wechselgericht. When his father died in 1842, he set up his own trade firm. Still in his forties, he was not only a successful businessman, but also an influential social leader, elected several times into the Lemberg City Council, founder of an orphanage, of a Jewish school, and a Jewish kitchen for the poor. He also created several institutions, providing funds for scholarships and other public welfare-oriented purposes. These activities must have played a decisive role in his eventual ennoblement. Throughout Franz Josef's reign, contributions to public objectives or the creation of public welfare-oriented funds were instrumental in the ennoblement of wealthy industrialists, merchants, or bankers. Meyer was the leader of the secular, pro-German wing within the Lemberg Jewish religious community, in which he held various positions beginning in 1840. The top three items on the agenda of the enlightened Jewish faction under Meyer were 1. Spreading the German language 2. Creation of a Deutsch-Israelisches Bethaus, a progressive synagogue in which services were held in German and 3. The creation of a German-language Jewish school. The main stumbling block for these projects was the local rabbi, a leader of the Orthodox Ashkenazi. After the death of this man in the early 1840s, the Mises faction brought in Rabbi Abraham Korn, who was well known for his progressive views. Once in Lemberg, Korn was adamant in pursuing his agenda, and must have driven his opponents to despair. In September 1848, he was murdered. Gretz remarks, In almost every large community there arose a party of the Enlightenment, or the Left, which had not yet broken with the old school but whose action bordered upon secession. By the ultra-Orthodox they were denounced as heretics, on account of their preference for pure language and form, both in Hebrew and European literature. Maya Rachmiel Mises was probably among those who, after 1846, successfully led the country's bloody insurrection against the Polish nobility. These aristocrats had tried to re-establish the ancient custom of robot, part-time serf labor for the nobility that had slowly declined after the Austrian takeover of Galicia at the end of the 18th century. Two years later, when revolutionary insurrections broke out in Paris, Berlin, and Vienna, Meyer helped bring the fight to Galicia. He was one of the four Jewish signers of a March 1848 Galician petition to the emperor, demanding, among other things, legal equality for all social classes, emancipation of the Jews, the creation of a Galician militia, and of a Galician parliament. The petition had been initiated by the Polish politicians Smolka, Timolkowski, and Kulczycki. It also demanded the introduction of the Polish language in public schools and civil service. As an initial result, all forms of serfdom in Galicia were affirmatively abolished on April 17, 1848 though the Polish aristocrats received some compensation from the public treasury. In the same year, Meyer Achmiel Mises was elected to the Galician parliament. He had now become a visible member of the unofficial Jewish nobility, and was actively involved in major political reforms in this easternmost province of the Habsburg Empire.
He may even have been one of the democratic agitators who caused such headaches for the defenders of the monarchy. This was more than enough for a lifetime, one would think, but the most active and challenging part of his life still lay ahead. It came when the railways which had begun crossing the European continent in the 1840s reached Galicia in the mid-1850s. Meyer and his son Abraham positioned themselves in this business and were contracted by the Austrian army to transport wheat from Galicia in 1859. The army was preparing for its Italian campaign. The wheat deal brought them in touch with the financial empire of the Rothschild family. In 1855, Anselm von Rothschild had established the Credit Anstalt Bank, which specialized in financing industrial ventures and would soon become the largest bank on the Vienna Stock Exchange. One of its first major operations was to finance the Italian campaign. The deal must have gone well, for in 1860 Abraham accepted a position as director of Credit Anstalt's new Lemberg branch office. Meyer had moved to banking three years earlier, becoming a director of the Lemberg branch office of the Austrian National Bank, the central bank of the empire, until the creation of the Austro-Hungarian Bank in 1879. Anselm von Rothschild's son, Albert, became a general counsellor to the Austrian-Hungarian Bank and was commonly regarded as the key figure in the Austrian financial market. It is likely that his father played a similar though less publicised role in the National Bank. The thorough repositioning of the Mises family was complete when Meyer's younger son Hirscher, Ludwig von Mises's grandfather, became a partner and managing director of the Hallerstein and Nierenstein Bank, and his first-born grandson Hermann rose to the directorship of the Lemberg office of the Phoenix Insurance Company. Hirscher Mises was married to a member of the Nierenstein family, Marie Nierenstein. The Mises's economic interests starting in a provincial trade company, had now shifted to the most profitable national industries, railroads and banking. In April 1881, Emperor Franz Josef granted Meyer a patent of nobility, and in September of the same year granted him and his lawful offspring the right to bear the honorific title Edler, a lonely patriarch, Meyer Rachmiel Edler von Mises, survived both of his sons and his youngest daughter, Clara. When he died on February 28, 1891, in Lemberg, all of his grandsons had left for Vienna. This exodus was by no means exceptional. Tens of thousands of Jewish families from the eastern provinces had seized the opportunities provided by the liberal post-1867 regime, which had abolished all legal impediments to Jewish migration and established themselves in Vienna. Most of them held more secular views than those who remained in Galicia. Liberal Vienna held the promise of escape from the restrictions of small religious communities and of secular integration into the larger world. Before 1867, city life in Lemberg and other major towns could offer similar prospects in Galicia. But by giving cultural supremacy in Galicia to the Polish club, the Galician Resolution had quickly destroyed these prospects. The Polish aristocracy was adamant in suppressing any threat of social change. Liberalism and capitalism were not welcome. Neither were German language schools, the great harbingers of social change in the preceding decades. 
In the Lemberg Jewish community, the rollback of German cultural supremacy was completed in 1882, when a pro-Polish president was elected to the Jewish cultural community. In the case of Ludwig's father, Artur, however, the crucial circumstance prompting his departure for Vienna may have been more prosaic. Austrian state finances had recovered in the 1870s, and in the 1880s the government again took control of the railroad industry. The lines that had the greatest military importance were nationalized first, including those connecting Vienna with the borders of Russia in Galicia. In the wake of this takeover, Artur von Mises was accepted into the civil service as a construction councillor to the railroad ministry in Vienna. Other family members had followed in the same path. By the 1890s, at least three of Artur's brothers and cousins, Emil, Felix and Hermann, had left for Vienna too. Felix was a chief physician at the Vienna General Hospital, and Hermann was a reputable journalist and politician. In those days, joining the civil service in Vienna was a big improvement in any man's career. Employment in public administration was comparatively rare, and far more prestigious than any other field of activity. The family moved into an apartment at Friedrichstrasse 4, its home for the next fifteen years. Adele had a maid and a cook to assist her in running the household, standard in bourgeois families, while her main duty and passion was the education of her sons. This involved most notably placing them in good schools to prepare them for their future careers. The Miseses had become a typical Jewish family for the Vienna of that time, as described by cultural historian William Johnston. It was characteristic of them that a businessman father would marry a wife who was more cultivated than he was. Together the couple would settle in Vienna, often in the Leopoldstadt district where he established a career while she supervised the education of the children. The cultural ambition of the wife was then passed on to the sons who aspired to excel their fathers by entering one of the liberal professions. By all human standards, Adele von Mises did an outstanding job educating her two sons. Each did far more than just surpass his father. They both turned out to be scientific geniuses. Ludwig in the social sciences and Richard in the natural sciences. Ample administrations of motherly love provided the foundation for their astounding achievements. But there was more. Adele taught her sons to care for others. Charitable works were a quintessential part of her upbringing. She taught them to be modest and frugal. Ludwig was a rigorous bookkeeper throughout his life. He kept track of his income and daily expenditure in a personal ledger. She taught them to honor truth and virtue more than the encomiums of the world. She taught them the art of writing, and she taught them always to strive for excellence. In all of their later endeavors, Ludwig and Richard would be thorough and systematic. In their professional lives, this was a matter, of course. But it also permeated all their other activities. Ludwig, for instance, sought instruction even in popular sports, such as mountain hiking and when he played tennis it was always with a trainer. Like their mother, Ludwig and Richard wrote with a clear and unpretentious style. From childhood they set for themselves the highest standards, and as they developed taste and expertise, they would judge their own achievements and those of others in the light of these standards. 
Ludwig was especially adamant in his refusal to allow social or political considerations into his judgment of persons and deeds. He had a lifelong disdain for people who had attained positions of leadership without true competence. As a mature man, he would openly despise the great majority of his professorial colleagues, not for their errors, but for their dilettantism. About the typical German economist, he wrote, such studies of economic state science necessarily repelled young people with intelligence and thirst for knowledge. Instead, it strongly attracted simpletons. They were dilettantes in everything they undertook. They pretended to be historians, but they scarcely looked at the collaborative sciences, which are the most important tools of the historian. The spirit of historical research was alien to them. They were unaware of the basic mathematical problems in the use of statistics. They were laymen in jurisprudence, technology, banking, and trade techniques. With amazing unconcern, they published books and essays on things of which they understood nothing. His complete inability to suffer fools would make him many enemies and almost ruin his career. It gained him the reputation of a stubborn doctrinaire. Mises nevertheless got along on his rocky road thanks to his outstanding gifts, among them the natural gifts from his native Galicia. In this respect, too, he was a typical case. Jewish lawyers, doctors, professors, and journalists abounded after 1880, and there were not a few ranchers like Stefan Zweig or Otto Weiniger. These men, who had attended gymnasium and university in Vienna, often had grandparents who had lived in villages in Galicia or Moravia, close to the soil and to traditional Jewish culture. However ardently these young sophisticates might try to secularize themselves, they could not cut off all the roots in the Jewish villages. They retained an earthly energy, a love of nature, a breadth of horizon that served them well and accorded with Vienna's traditions. After 1860, Vienna's Jews were not products of generations in an urban ghetto like that of Berlin or Frankfurt. They were newcomers to the city who brought an energy, an ambition, an appetite for culture that made them capable of astonishing innovations. Earthly energy, breadth of horizon, ambition, and appetite for culture also characterized young Ludwig, and these qualities would lead him to astonishing innovations. The next chapters show how this newcomer conquered first Vienna and eventually the world of ideas. Chapter 2 School Years the Mises family moved to Vienna sometime between 1883, when Ludwig's brother Richard was born, and 1891. The move probably occurred before the fall of 1887, when six-year-old Ludwig began the mandatory four years of elementary schooling. The family settled in a suburban apartment in close proximity to what was then the city of Vienna, and today is its first district. From his home at Friedrichstrasse 4, Young Mises set out for many excursions and became acquainted with the city, its history, and its people. Vienna For many centuries Vienna had been the administrative center of the Habsburg Empire. After the revolution of 1848 to 1849 and Franz Josef's abortive attempt to reintroduce royal absolutism, the Austrian liberals had risen to power at the end of the 1850s. Their reign lasted about thirty years 
enough time to reshape the city to reflect their ideals. They demolished ramparts that separated the old city of Vienna from the surrounding suburbs, replacing them with the Ringstrasse, a magnificent U-shaped boulevard that now enclosed the old centre from three sides. The fourth border was an arm of the Danube River. The Ringstrasse became an architectural and aesthetic triumph, which, by virtue of its geographical concentration, surpassed in visual impact any urban reconstruction of the 19th century, even that of Paris. The nobility, too, had its palaces on the new boulevard, but the dominant edifices embodied the liberal bourgeoisie's political and cultural values. On the very spot where the large city ramparts had once symbolized the military presence of monarchial rule, now an opera and a Hofburg theater celebrated the performing arts. Splendid museums for natural history and art displayed human achievements and discoveries. Parliament buildings hosted the new political forces present in the Reichsrat. New buildings for the university and the stock exchange represented the forces of economic progress. And a magnificent neo-Gothic city hall symbolized the rebirth of municipal autonomy after ages of imperial supremacy. Young Mises could reach all of these places within a twenty-minute walk. Unlike most other major European capitals, the city of Vienna was surprisingly small. Until the 1890s, Vienna counted barely more than 60,000 inhabitants. Felix Omari recalls, everything outside the center was known as Vorstadt, the suburbs, which almost meant the same as provinces. After 1900, a municipal reform merged Vienna with its proximate suburbs. The old Vienna thereafter became the first district of the new city. Vienna hosted all central political institutions and administrations, the most important cultural centers, and the headquarters of the largest corporations of the entire empire. But one could walk across the entire concentration in a half-hour stroll. By comparison, it takes more than two hours of walking to cross Paris within the boulevard périphérique, and it takes roughly the same time to walk through the city of London. It was easy to encounter the empire's most famous and powerful people on the streets of Vienna. It was almost impossible not to see someone in some eminent position. Among the most popular individuals were opera singers, stage actors, and members of the royal family. When a famous singer walked by, or one of the more than sixty archdukes or archduchesses drove by in their carriage, people would greet them with spontaneous applause. And when the star from the opera or Hofburg theater died, flags flew at half-mast. Johnson observes that even simple members of the opera or philharmonic orchestras were greeted in public, and that many of them performed chamber music in the salons of the wealthy. Yet the best example, and almost unbelievable for us today, was Franz Josef himself, who frequently departed in just his carriage, from the Hofburg theater in the city to Schönbrunn Palace on the outskirts of Vienna, anyone could walk within reach of the carriage and lift his hat to the white-haired emperor. It was similarly impossible not to meet one's friends, relatives, and colleagues on the way to or from the office, shop, or school. It was in the cafes that the Viennese exchanged ideas, discussed events, debated issues, but they were already acquainted with one another just by walking from home to the office, by going to the opera or to the museum. The Viennese cultural elites did not live in secluded social circles. They perceived themselves as taking part in an all-encompassing social life, 
that brought together ministers and students, opera singers and scientists, stockbrokers and historians of art, philosophers and painters, psychologists and novelists, office clerks and architects, and so on, in countless variations. Having so many people in so small a city contributed to making Vienna, from the 1870s to the 1930s, a cultural hothouse that would shape much of what was most valuable in 20th century civilization. In those years, Vienna became the birthplace of phenomenology, medicine, psychoanalysis, Zionism, and Jugendstil, or Nouveau. It was one of the cradles of modern analytical philosophy, and most importantly, it was the birthplace and home of Austrian economics, that school of thought that Ludwig von Mises was to lead and transform. In the words of cultural historian Karl Schorske, in London, Paris, or Berlin, the intellectuals in the various branches of high culture, whether academic or aesthetic, journalistic or literary, political or intellectual, scarcely knew each other. They lived in relative segregated professional communities. In Vienna, by contrast, until about 1900, the cohesiveness of the whole elite was strong. The salon and the café retained their vitality as institutions, where intellectuals of different kinds shared ideas and values with each other, and still mingled with a business and professional elite, proud of its general education and artistic culture. The cafés had a decisive impact on the education of Vienna's young intellectuals. The café was of course a place to have coffee or a small meal, but it was also where professional people met to talk business, and everyone else met to discuss current interests. For students, the café was also an institution of learning. The better cafés subscribed to the major international journals of science, art and literature. Designed for the entertainment of customers, these subscriptions made the cafés function as a kind of private library. As a teenager, Mises must have spent many afternoon hours here, reading the latest articles in all fields of knowledge and achievement, and discussing them with his peers. It was probably here that he first encountered the writings of the German historical school under Gustav Schmoller, and found them less than fully convincing. He later recalled, I was still in high school when I noticed a contradiction in the position of the Schmoller circle. On the one hand, they rejected the positivistic demand for a science of law that was to be built from the historical experiences of society. On the other hand, they believed that economic theory was to be abstracted from economic experiences. It was astonishing to me that this contradiction was barely noticed and rarely mentioned. He was equally bewildered by the way the historical school presented its case against laissez-faire liberalism. Schmoller and his friends seemed to argue that the modern liberal era contrasted unfavorably with older collectivist times. But this made no sense. At that time I did not yet understand the significance of liberalism. But to me, the fact alone that liberalism was an achievement of the 18th century, and that it was not known in former times, was no cogent argument against it. It was not quite clear to me how an argument could be derived from the fact that in the distant past there had been community property in land. Nor could I understand why monogamy and family should be abolished because there had been promiscuity in the past. To me, such arguments were nothing but nonsense. The sheer cultural density of the city almost forced the Viennese to take an interest in science, beauty, and art 
thinking and talking about such things were not reserved for the elite or particular occasions. They were a part of Vienna's daily common life. Virtually everybody, from the emperor to the housewife, knew something about the latest achievements of science and held some opinion about this actor or that novel. In fact, any kind of culinary, artistic, scientific or technological achievement met with well-informed appreciation and critique. This permanent criticism, the famous Viennese Grantern, sharpened everyone's minds and attained standards virtually without equal. While the Viennese were interested in all fields of endeavor and refinement, what they were truly enthusiastic about was music. From about 1770 to 1810, they had witnessed the most extraordinary explosion of musical creation the world has ever experienced, when the geniuses of Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, and Schubert burst onto Vienna stages in rapid succession. Johnston writes in Vienna, Vienna, the concentration of the supreme genius of Haydn Mozart, Beethoven, and Schubert in one city over two generations has no parallel in the entire history of culture. The closest parallel would be the Rome of Raphael and Michelangelo, or the Athens of Sophocles and Euripides. Yet in no other art do the greatest geniuses so outstrip lesser creators as in musical composition. The city on the Danube became the world capital of music, and remained so into the twentieth century. Passion for music united all ethnic, social, and political strata of the population. Differences that made them opponents in politics could not separate them when it came to enjoying old and new masters in music, and in distinct contrast to politics, where irreconcilable worldviews seemed to rule out any objective standards and true expertise. A widespread consensus determined what was good and bad in music and these musical standards were applied to the performances of the Vienna Philharmonic and of the opera, without mercy. In the words of William Johnston, Slovenliness, schlumperei, might be tolerated in politics, but not in musical or theatrical performance. Mises did not share the Viennese acceptance of schlumperei when it came to politics, but he did share their passion for music. It would endure throughout his life. His stepdaughter, Gita Sireni, recalled her ninety-year-old stepfather sitting next to her at a performance of Strauss's Blue Danube in New York City. The old man's eyes were shining as he hummed along with the music. Viennese Jews Ludwig's parents could rely on a closely-knit network of relatives that greatly helped their integration in Vienna. In particular, Artur and Adele could build on blood ties with the local members of the Mises and Landau clans, as well as with the Nierensteins and Kalliers. Ludwig and Richard would have lifelong friendships with the young Nierensteins and Kalliers. On weekends, Ludwig often saw his maternal grandfather, Fischer Landau, whom he admired very much. His paternal grandfather had died before he entered the gymnasium. Summer vacations were spent in the countryside with the Nierensteins and other cousins. Social contacts outside the network of Jewish families must have been rare. The old Viennese establishment remained closed to newcomers, and even the noble pedigree of the Mises family was too recent to be taken seriously by them. Ludwig would see the day when titles no longer counted, officially at least. After the destruction of the monarchy in November 1918, the new Republican government abolished all titles 
and banned their use in print. Ludwig Heinrich Edler von Mises became Ludwig Mises, according to Austrian law. Outside the country, however, he would continue to use the title that his great-grandfather had earned for his family. The liberal era in Austria had reached its peak in the 1870s. While the following decades would see its decline, it remained strong enough to accommodate the Galician and Moravian Jewish migration to Vienna. All great metropolitan cities of the world derived their dynamics through the influx of new blood from rural provinces. Ambitious young people bring with them innovations in art, science, and business. William Johnston observes that the majority of great Viennese pioneers had been born outside of Vienna. In the case of Austria-Hungary, the eagerness of the provincial newcomer was compounded by the motivation of the Jewish upstart, who for the first time ever had the opportunity to integrate himself into a cosmopolitan society. Art and science offered opportunities for social mobility that Jews enjoyed in no other area. Business, the press, literature and theatre, music and opera, and the sciences became the great vehicles for the integration of secular Jews. Heinrich Gretz reports that the first cautious steps to a Jewish integration into Viennese social life were undertaken when Fanny Itzig, a Jewish woman from Berlin, that is, from the Mendelssohn Circle, moved to Vienna in the 1780s and opened a brilliant salon. By the 1890s, the Jewish impact on Viennese culture could not be overlooked. William Johnston remarks that at the turn of the century, when the Jewish population represented less than 9% of Vienna, it was responsible for almost half of the overall artistic and scientific achievement. This overwhelming success was due in part to the absence of a ghetto mentality among the new immigrants. The Jews from Moravia, Bohemia, and Galicia had been living for centuries under an oppressive rabbinical order, but they had not yet experienced any similar constraints in their dealings with Gentiles. In contrast to German cities like Frankfurt and Berlin, which had long had a Jewish settlement, Vienna first attracted Jews in large numbers after 1848. They came from small villages in Bohemia, Moravia, and Galicia, where Jewish culture had been preserved in relative isolation for hundreds of years. These were Jews who had lived in the countryside. In Bohemia, some of them had been farmers, and few had been touched by city life. They had been small merchants, often trading between towns or providing financial services to Gentile landowners. Anti-Semitism had been rare in these regions because the Jews provided services that the Gentile lords and peasants wanted, but would not perform themselves. The economic complementarity of the countryside had guaranteed the Jews' security and modest prosperity. The Jewish families who moved to Vienna from the eastern provinces formed the nucleus of a new progressive and liberal society. Vienna offered them the best schools in the world and equally unique cultural facilities, and the cosmopolitan atmosphere of the country's largest city offered progressive Jews the prospect of escaping the narrow confines of a life directed by the traditional precepts of their religion. The leading organ of this liberal Jewish immigrant community was the Neue Freie Presse, which relied on the financial backing of the Credit Anstalt Bank, the Austrian flagship of the House of Rothschild. The paper took an increasingly pro-German and anti-Slav stand. 
under its mentor and editor Moritz Benedict, 1849-1920, it fanned anti-Slav feelings among Austro-Germans. It lauded the post-1880 alliance with Germany, and in 1914 positively welcomed war as an ally of Wilhelm II. The Neue Freie Presse resembled the liberal bourgeoisie who read it. Exquisite taste in culture, accompanied by naivete in politics. Although the Miseses were more conservative than most other Jewish families in Vienna, Artur was a board member of the Vienna Jewish cultural community, and Adele was very religious. Ludwig grew up in an atmosphere that tended to equate progress and secularization, where prophets and saints were increasingly replaced by the inventors of engines and the heroes of philosophy, art, and science. What Schoska says about Theodor Herzl, the founder of the Zionist movement, also applies to Ludwig von Mises. When Theodor was born in 1860, his family was well out of the ghetto, economically established, religiously enlightened, politically liberal, and culturally German. Their Judaism amounted to little more than what Theodor Gompertz, the assimilated Jewish classicist, liked to call un pieux souvenir de famille. Schorska's parents even liked to call his bar mitzvah his confirmation. For young Mises, the transformation of Vienna through the exploits of science and technology was a continual process of never-ending improvements. When he arrived in the city as a young boy, the liberal governments had already put their stamp on the streets and architecture. Everything was new. Everything breathed the spirit of the time. As a young man, Ludwig saw gas lamps replaced by electric lighting, horse and carriage by motorized vehicles, the daily excursion to the public water fountain by new plumbing systems. He saw telephone lines installed throughout the city, and eventually saw airplanes taking off and landing in Vienna. The famous writer Stefan Zweig, one of Mises' contemporaries, claimed that the same progress seemed to manifest itself in social and political matters. For example, in the extension of suffrage and in pro-labor legislation. The new urban middle class came to believe that all social and political problems would disappear in due course. Conflicts between ethnic and religious groups would vanish, and mankind would eventually reach the state of universal brotherhood. Zweig was born in the same year as Mises, 1881, and also was a Jewish intellectual whose family had settled in Vienna only recently. Zweig's testimony is therefore representative of experiences and sentiments of the milieu in which Mises spent his childhood. It was no accident that the overwhelming majority of the Jewish immigrants to Vienna were liberals, happy to have escaped the religious and moral constraints of their rural hometowns, they tended to oppose the limitations of their new environment as well. This concerned not only the political order, which officially privileged Catholics of German ethnicity, but also the social role of the Catholic Church, whose prominence painfully reminded them of the rabbinical order at home. Two issues united Jewish and Gentile liberals, opposition to the Church and the fight against censorship. The latter had survived from the times of Franz I, who after the Napoleonic Wars had turned Austria and Vienna in particular into a police state that sought to monitor all the intellectual activities of its citizens. Police spies infiltrated the cafes and theatres, and concierges acted as informers. Foreign books had to be approved before they could be released on the Austrian market, 
and many foreign authors were prohibited. Newspapers were monitored as a matter of course, and even theatrical productions needed the authorities' prior approval. Newspaper censorship continued in force until after 1900. When the Mises family moved to Vienna in the 1880s, the stringency of the censorship laws had already faded under the impact of the liberal 1848 revolution. But the effects of the old laws on the Viennese mentality remained. Traditional city dwellers were reluctant to pursue what were possibly unbecoming innovations in business, science, and art. They were educated men and women of good taste and manners, but they lacked the initiative and drive necessary to realize projects against the resistance of a conformist environment. The entrepreneurial spirit came with the impatient Eastern Jew. The expression is Stefan Zweig's, from Galicia. Why had France's police state tamed the Viennese more than the provincials? Johnston gives this explanation. Vienna suffered far more harshly from censorship and police surveillance than any other region of the Habsburg Empire. In the days before the electric telegraph and the railroad, it was nearly impossible to harass a hinterland as effectively as a capital city. At no other time since Maria Theresa's centralized Austrian administration did the provinces compete so successfully with the capital in cultural prominence as during the Biedermeier period. These men cared far less about social disapproval than the old Viennese. Their rugged individualism transformed Vienna and Western culture in the course of a few glorious decades. Academisches Gymnasium In September 1892, shortly before his eleventh birthday, Mises entered the Academische Gymnasium, where he would be schooled for the next eight years. The gymnasium schools were very particular institutions, more demanding and quite dissimilar from their present-day successes. A product of the 19th-century continental system of education, they can best be described as a combination of high school and college. The children of ambitious and well-to-do parents began attending around the age of ten, after four years of elementary training. Three gymnasium models were available, a classical model featuring eight years of Latin and six of Greek, a semi-classical with Latin and one or two modern languages, and a thoroughly modern option with only modern languages. Eric von Kuhnfeld-Ledin states that the classical model had more prestige than the others, but they were all demanding. He writes, Often these very hard school years hung like a black cloud over families. Failure in just one subject required repetition of a whole year. This was the fate of Nietzsche, of Albert Einstein, and also of Friedrich August von Hayek. Young Mises, of course, got a classical education. The modern languages he learned privately. While at the Akademischen Gymnasium, Mises read Caesar, Livy, Ovid, Sallust, Jugurtha, Cicero, Virgil, and Tacitus in Latin. In Greek he studied Xenophon, Homer, Herodotus, Demosthenes, Plato, and Sophocles. One verse from Virgil so deeply impressed him that it became his maxim for a lifetime. Tu ne sede malis, set contra audensior ito. Do not give in to evil, but proceed ever more boldly against it. Many years later he pointed out the crucial role that the immersion in classical literature and the writings of the ancient Greeks in particular played for the emergence of liberal social philosophy 
and thus in his own intellectual development. Mises, it was the political literature of the ancient Greeks that begot the idea of the monarchalax, the philosophy of the Whigs, the doctrines of Althusius, Grotius, and John Locke, and the ideology of the fathers of modern constitutions and bills of rights. It was the classical studies, the essential feature of a liberal education, that kept awake the spirit of freedom in the England of the Stuarts, in the France of the Bourbons, and in Italy, subject to the despotism of a galaxy of princes. No less a man than Bismarck, among the nineteenth-century statesmen next to Metternich, the foremost foe of liberty, bears witness to the fact that, even in the Prussia of Frederick William III, the gymnasium, the education based on Greek and Roman literature, was a stronghold of republicanism. Mises argued, The liberty which the Greek statesmen, philosophers, and historians glorified as the most precious good of man was a privilege reserved to a minority. In denying it to metics and slaves, they virtually advocated the despotic rule of a hereditary caste of oligarchs. Yet it would be a grave error to dismiss their hymns to liberty as mendacious. They were no less sincere in their praise and quest of freedom than were, two thousand years later, the slaveholders among the signers of the American Declaration of Independence. And he went on, the passionate endeavours to eliminate the classical studies from the curriculum of the liberal education, and thus virtually to destroy its very character, were one of the major manifestations of the revival of the servile ideology. For a diametrically opposed assessment of the relationship between classical literature and liberty, see Frédéric Bastillat in his work Baccalauréat et Socialisme. Bastillat argues in particular that the classics have bequeathed to us the notion that society is a purely conventional construct, as well as the idea that legislation could fabricate society according to just any design. The Austrian schools had been reformed in 1851, at the beginning of the absolutist phase of Franz Josef's reign. Under the leadership of Count Leo Thun von Hornstein, the government seized control of secondary education, which had been the exclusive domain of the Catholic Church, and imposed a new curriculum that was meant to prepare the graduates for scientific studies and executive positions within the Austrian bureaucracy. The teaching of religion remained mandatory and was assured by representatives of the relevant religious organizations, Catholic priests and Jewish rabbis. But even the teaching of religion was supposed to be respectful of facts and laws established by scientific research. The other reformers were the professors Franz Bexner and Hermann Bonitz. Public schooling had become compulsory in 1869. Children had to have four years of elementary school, which prepared them to be good subjects of the state, before they could enter a secondary school. The gymnasium taught the humanities to the future elite of the country. Only about five percent of an age group was admitted. This number tells more about the nature of the gymnasium than any description of its curricula. To be admitted to a gymnasium was to be part of a tiny intellectual elite, it meant learning from teachers who were respectfully called Herr Professor, and who were in fact the peers of today's college and university professors, rather than of today's high school teachers. Positions at the universities were extremely rare, and it meant being measured by standards that were incomparably higher than those of modern high schools. Being among the best students did not guarantee a place in a gymnasium. Tuition was high, and outside assistance was rare. 
Only one of Mises' classmates had such assistance. But because the schools competed for the best pupils, they often waived the fees for exceptional young men who could not afford them, about twenty percent of the pupils in Mises' class. The typical gymnasium pupil was the intelligent son of middle-class or wealthy parents. Pupils with a working-class background were an exception. While the gymnasium was the best type of school, the various gymnasium were not equal in quality or reputation. The best schools were in Vienna, both in terms of the family background of the pupils and of the quality of the professors. The latter were often published scholars who actively engaged in research and made important contributions in their fields. For example, Ludwig's Latin teacher, Dr. Valentin Hintner, was a member of the Royal Prussian Academy of the Socially Beneficial Sciences in Erfurt. In Vienna, three schools stood above the rest, the Theresianum, the Schotten Gymnasium, and the Akademische Gymnasium. These were all male schools. Vienna girls were taught in separate gymnasien, yet they could take the graduation exam in one of the top schools. Empress Maria Theresa had created the Theresianum in the mid-1700s as a knight's academy, a school to prepare young aristocrats for future responsibilities as administrative and political leaders of the empire. In Mises' day, it remained a school for the sons of the high aristocracy and admitted bourgeois pupils only as day students. Among the latter were Karl Luger, who eventually became the first non-liberal mayor of Vienna, Rudolf Hilferding, and Josef Schumpeter. There were, however, many families who abhorred the snobbish atmosphere of the Theresianum and preferred other schools, such as the Benedictine Schotten Gymnasium and the Akademische Gymnasium. The Akademische Gymnasium was the most thoroughly secularized secondary school in Vienna. It was therefore the favorite place of education for the sons of the liberal bourgeoisie, and in particular of Vienna's better Jewish families. In Ludwig's terminal class, nineteen out of thirty-five pupils were Jewish, thirteen Catholic, and two Protestant. The school had been established in 1453. Today it is located on Beethovenplatz, near the Eastern Ringstrasse. The tall neo-Gothic building was constructed in the 1860s, with romantic towers and high windows on ivied brick walls. This is where Ludwig spent the next eight years. His weekly schedule in the first year, religion, two hours, Latin, eight hours, German, four hours, geography, three hours, mathematics, three hours, natural history, two hours, calligraphy, one hour. By and large, the same subjects were taught throughout the entire eight-year program. The only major exception was Greek, which was taught starting in the third year. Mises was one of the best students, although not at the very top. The only class where he truly excelled was history, and he eventually graduated sixth out of thirty-three pupils. The pupils were, however, somewhat disenchanted with their school because of the dour indifference of their teachers. Before the 1851 liberal education reform under Thun Hohenstein, the Austrian schools had been run by Catholic clerics. Accordingly, classroom instruction featured mainly church history and philosophia perennis. After the reform, civil servants replaced the clerics. These new secular professors were entirely steeped in the traditions and mentality of the Austrian bureaucracy, and performed in the classroom with the same detached attitude of other state bureaucrats. Their main interest was not to educate students, but to present their material efficiently. 
Apart from the insufficient motivation of the teachers, there was another reason for student dissatisfaction, a reason that also explains the explosion of creative energies in Vienna that began in the liberal era. The schools did not offer enough intellectual stimulation for the Jewish boys, who came from families nurturing a long tradition of literacy and of careful and sustained intellectual work. Then, as now, young students endured school as a routine. It was not where they found their interests or passions. But while students today might look forward to sports or movies after school, their Viennese counterparts at the end of the 19th century looked forward to reading and writing what was not taught in school, in other words, to their real educations. In school, a fourteen-year-old would read the Latin and Greek classics. He stuffed his brain with the minutiae of German and European history, and he did so without enthusiasm. But after school, he would devour modern writings on science and the arts. Why did these Viennese boys have such a different notion of having a good time from virtually all other generations at virtually all other places? The answer is, in brief, traditionalist Jewish culture let loose in a secular environment. William Johnston observes, Jews had enjoyed many centuries of literacy before the rest of Europe started to become literate in the 18th century. Thereafter, Jews entered as if by predestination into professions that required facility with words. The true passion of these young men, who came from families that just a generation before had left the rural rabbinical order, was intellectual adventure in the secular realm, a pursuit unavailable to their ancestors. They threw themselves into literature, theatre, opera, whatever aroused their curiosity. Raised to value religious scholarship, they found in Vienna the intellectual delights of the secular world. Ludwig von Mises seems to have been a typical specimen of this generation. He recalled that his interest in history was piqued in 1888, when he read articles in a family journal on the lives of the German Kaisers, Wilhelm I and Friedrich III, who had died that year. He was then barely seven years old. According to his wife, he set out to write a history of the Crimean War when he was ten. After writing his first page, however, he abandoned the project when he discovered that an English historian had published ten volumes on the topic. During his gymnasium years, he devoured the writings of the German historians, justifying the new Prussian supremacy in German lands. These readings provided a lifelong lesson. He realized that the acclaimed authors were in fact writing with a distinct bias. In his Erinnerungen, he states, as an Austrian, it was not difficult for me to realize the overtones of these writers, and I soon discerned the method of their analysis, which had rudely been called the falsification of history. Thus, early on, he trained the critical mind that would serve him so well throughout his life, and eventually turn him into the twentieth century's greatest intellectual champion of liberty. One of the few surviving photographs from his youth seems to forebode these events. Lou Rockwell comments, I often think back to a photograph of Mises when he was a young boy of perhaps twelve, standing with his father. He was wearing the traditional Austrian garb, popular in the 1890s, and holding a racket for sports. The picture was grainy and distant, and yet you sensed that there was something in Mises' eyes, a certain determination and intellectual fire, even at such a young age. His eyes seem knowing as if he were already preparing himself for what he might face. 
We look and try to discern what it was about him that caused him to be such a fighter, that caused him to stand while others fell, that gave him that sense of moral certitude to fight for enduring truths, regardless of the political winds. Even in that grainy photograph we have some sense that we see it in his eyes, that glimmer that reflects a heart that would never compromise with despotism, but rather advance the truth of human freedom until his last breath. These things appear clearer today than they were at the time. Ludwig's passionate interest in the sciences was typical for boys of his background and generation. So was his enthusiasm for the arts. We must imagine him as a teenager standing in line before premieres of the Hofburgtheater or Volkstheater. After school he would meet friends such as Hans Kelsen at a café to read journals and discuss their discoveries. The lives of Mises and Kelsen bear many surprising parallels that make this friendship particularly interesting. They were born in the same year and attended the same school. Later they would enter the same department at the University of Vienna, prepare for a scholarly career and publish their first major treatises shortly before World War I. Both became ardent defenders of the notion that there is no such thing as a science of ethics, but that all judgments of value are merely subjective. While Mises would become famous for his studies of a priori laws in economics, Kelsen became a pioneer of the pure theory of law. Also, both would marry women named Grete, move to the United States at the advent of World War II, and eventually die in the same year, far from Vienna. Mises in New York, and Kelsen in California. Kelsen's family background was lower than average academische gymnasium standards, while Mises's was higher. Mises was the only aristocrat in his class. This did not prevent the ambitious nobleman from befriending the ambitious son of a clerk and remaining his friend for a lifetime. It is likely that they became acquainted with the philosophy of Immanuel Kant, and especially with Kant's epistemology, at the same time when they were about sixteen years old. German idealistic philosophy, the philosophy of Kant, Fichte, Hegel, and their followers, exercised an enormous influence on many young minds in Vienna, not least of all because these books had been on the Catholic index of forbidden works. Kelsen was profoundly shaken by his confrontation with idealist philosophy. Through his reading of Kant, Kelsen had come to the conclusion that the reality of the exterior world was problematic. During the rest of his life he seems to have applied his early subjectivist interpretation of Kant to the field of law. As an old man, Kelsen still recalled his reading of Kant as a crucial juncture in his intellectual development. The philosopher from Königsberg did not have the same impact on Mises. In distinct contrast to Kelsen, Mises did not have a Kantian epiphany, and then set out to reconstruct economic science in the light of this idealist philosophy. Rather, Mises started from case studies and moved up to ever wider generalizations and greater abstractions. Eventually he would realize that he could not avoid dealing with epistemological questions, and then stress the a priori nature of economic laws. But even at this point Kantian epistemology did not have a noticeable impact on his thought. Many years later he had nothing favorable to say about the neo-Kantian movement, in particular Cohn and Natorp, which blossomed at the turn of the century. He said it was an era of decline and neo-Kantianism 
was its philosophical reflection. Mises's true primary interest was in political history and political action. All the other disciplines he eventually came to master, law, economics, epistemology, political philosophy, were subservient to these primary goals. In his final exam in German at the Akademischen Gymnasium, he had to write an essay on the following question. What are the moral inspirations that we derive from the study of the history of Austria? The written part of the exam also included mathematics and geometry, requiring, among other things, that he deliver a mathematical proof of a geometric theorem, as well as translations. Mises had to translate from Latin into German, from German into Latin, and from Greek into German. Though his answer to what are the moral inspirations that we derive from the study of the history of Austria is lost, a statement that he made many years later gives us a hint as to what he might have written in May 1900. Speaking of the benefits of studying history, Mises wrote, it opens the mind to it an understanding of human nature and destiny. It increases wisdom. It is the very essence of that much misinterpreted concept, a liberal education. It is the foremost approach to humanism, the law of the specifically human concerns that distinguish man from other living beings. Personal culture is more than mere familiarity with the present state of science, technology, and civic affairs. It is more than acquaintance with books and paintings and the experience of travel and of visits to museums. It is the assimilation of the ideas that roused mankind from the inert routine of a merely animal existence to a life of reasoning and speculating. It is the individual's effort to humanize himself by partaking in the tradition of all the best that earlier generations have bequeathed. The complicated political history of Austria was certainly interesting enough to attract the attention of a bright teenager. In fact, much of Mises's later work can be seen as an attempt to understand the problems of his age from the point of view of economic theory and social philosophy. But even more fundamentally, he was interested in practical questions. What could governments do to make their country a better place? Mises was never interested in merely collecting historical data. He wanted to explain history, to trace, observe events back to their causes, and he wanted to apply these insights in practice. How did the political and social institutions of his fatherland come into being? What were the causes of ethnic and social strife? And how could one combat them? What were the roots of imperialism? What were the causes of the great social progress of the 19th century? in rising literacy, declining infant mortality, and higher mass consumption. All these questions and their answers were preliminaries to action. Given our knowledge about causes and effects in social life, what is to be done now? For example, how could one promote the welfare of the working classes now more than in the past decades? A family tradition of commerce and social leadership had made young Mises used to seeing and seeking the bottom line. He brought this emphasis on results to the study of social life and social strife, which prepared him, as he would say, to take an active part in the great issues of his age. Thus, he turned to the study of intellectual disciplines that promised to give guidance in political matters, and because the conflicts of his era and ours were largely economic ones, Mises ultimately became an economist. Many years later, he wrote these lines. All the political antagonisms and conflicts of our age turn on economic issues. 
it has not always been so. In the 16th and 17th century, the controversies that split the peoples of Western civilization into feuding parties were religious. Protestantism stood against Catholicism, and within the Protestant camp various interpretations of the Gospels begot discord. In the 18th century and in a great part of the 19th century, constitutional conflicts prevailed in politics. The principles of royal absolutism and oligarchic government were resisted by liberalism, in the classical European meaning of the term, that advocated representative government. In those days, a man who wanted to take an active part in the great issues of his age had to study seriously the matters of these controversies. Only Boers neglected to inform themselves about the great problems that agitated the minds of their contemporaries. In our age, the conflict between economic freedom as represented in the market economy and totalitarian government omnipotence, as realized by socialism, is the paramount matter. All political controversies refer to these economic problems. Only the study of economics can tell a man what all these conflicts mean. Nothing can be known about such matters as inflation, economic crises, unemployment, unionism, protectionism, taxation, economic controls, and all similar issues that does not involve and presuppose economic analysis. A man who talks about these problems without having acquainted himself with the fundamental ideas of economic theory is simply a babbler who parrot-like repeats what he has picked up incidentally from other fellows who are not better informed than he himself. A citizen who casts his ballot without having to the best of his ability studied as much economics as he can fails in his civic duties. Economic conflicts were at the forefront of social dissension in Austria-Hungary during Mises' early years and were debated each day in the press, in new books, in cafes, and in the streets. Let us look more closely, then, at the fundamental political problems of fin de siècle Austria. Austria-Hungary Austria-Hungary as a political entity came into being after the defeat of the older Austrian Empire in 1866 by the Prussian armies at the bohemian town of Königgrätz. The conflict with Prussia was over supremacy within the Germanies. The military defeat settled the question in favor of Prussia, but the Habsburg family did not abandon its plans to regain its traditional position of leadership. The greatest problem for the Habsburgs' ambitions in the age of the nation-state was that their empire was not predominantly German. The Hungarian population was approximately the same size as the Austro-German population, and the empire contained several million each of Czechs, Poles, Romanians, and Ruthenians, as well as a handful of smaller nationalities. In the eyes of the liberals, in those days the strongest political force in the Germanies, this hodgepodge of nationalities disqualified the Habsburg family from leadership of the German Reich. After the defeat in the 1859 Italian campaign, various Austrian governments sought ways to make the empire more German and more liberal, to emulate the idea of a liberal nation-state. A constitutional reform in February 1861, under Prime Minister Schmerling, addressed the nationalities problem through the introduction of estate parliaments, Kurienparlamente. The idea was to use parliamentary representation as a means to settle political conflicts between different ethnicities and different social classes, without resorting to the nefarious one-man-one-vote principle. The Constitution guaranteed a majority of seats to the political and economic establishment. 
Primarily, it guaranteed the ethnic Germans and their allies a majority of seats, even where they were in the numerical minority. The Schmerling Constitution tried to make up for Austria's lack of German character, but with the military defeat at the hands of Prussia, a more pressing problem suddenly appeared, separatism. The Habsburgs felt they had to secure their power base by finding a way to guarantee the continued loyalty of the Hungarians. This was done in the so-called Ausgleich, settlement, that was hurriedly crafted and ratified within weeks after Königgrätz. The Austrian Reichsrat voted a new constitution on December 21, 1867. The Ausgleich established the principle of political dualism in Habsburg lands, the subdivision of the empire into two spheres of influence, one under German rule, the other Hungarian. The Ausgleich granted far-reaching autonomy to the Hungarian gentry and made them de facto rulers over other peoples within the confines of Hungary. This concerned in particular Slovaks and Romanians. The Kingdom of Croatia and Slavonia was also part of Hungary, but it was relatively autonomous. In exchange, the Hungarian establishment did not contest German hegemony in the other lands of the empire, and they consented to the continued existence of a common dynasty, a common foreign policy, and a common army. The Ausgleich also guaranteed the economic unity of the empire. From its very inception, however, the Ausgleich was prevented from securing internal peace, because its stipulations were interpreted in fundamentally different ways. In the eyes of the German side, the Ausgleich was an agreement reached between the different nations of the empire which implied that the signatories from the very outset conceived of themselves as part of a larger political entity. The emperor was not one of the contracting parties, rather he presided over the whole political entity, and the contract was between different parts of that whole. In contrast, the Hungarians saw the Ausgleich as a bilateral affair between themselves and the king of Hungary, who also happened to be the ruler of Austria and various other foreign countries. It was only incidental that the agreement with their monarch was mirrored by a parallel agreement between the Austrians and their emperor. In short, the Hungarians considered themselves a sovereign nation on its way to full autonomy, and the Ausgleich merely one step on this path. They were pressing these demands on their legal representative, the King of Hungary. The King was, of course, Franz Josef himself. For this reason alone, the Ausgleich failed miserably in providing a basis for the continued peaceful coexistence of the various Austrian nations, and thus for Habsburg power. Year after year the Hungarians presented new claims and reached new compromises at the cost of the rest of the empire. German-Austrians interpreted these ever-increasing demands as political extortion. They despaired over the disputatious behavior of the Hungarians, which undermined the very existence of the empire. But the Hungarian campaign did not suffer the slightest trace of remorse, and it steadily gained ground. How successful it was can be inferred from its impact on political language. The words Austria and Reich were increasingly abandoned to suit Hungarian-style political correctness. Common institutions of the empire were no longer called by the prefix Reich, as in Reichskriegsminister, but by the prefix K-U-K, Kaiserlich und Königlich, Imperial and Royal, thus K-U-K Kriegsminister. By contrast, Hungarian state institutions were prefixed with K, as in kingly, referring to the Hungarian crown, 
and the state institutions of the other non-Hungarian territories, which shared a common parliament under German supremacy, the Reichsrat, were prefixed with KK, Imperial Royal. Curiously, these other territories did not even have a common name. They were only the kingdoms and lands represented in the Reichsrat. In a great satire on this abbreviation orgy, Robert Musil, in his famous fin de siècle novel The Man Without Qualities, called the country of his hero Kakanian, Kakaland, and said it was the only country that declined for lack of a name. The Ausgleich also provoked resistance from others, most notably from the Croats and the Czechs. Support for the Ausgleich came from the Poles and the Italians. Both nations were settled predominantly in areas where they had the economic and political power, but were numerically inferior to other local nations, Ruthenians, Southern Slavs. Both saw the Ausgleich correctly as a scheme to perpetuate the current political privileges of Germans and Hungarians. The Czech radicals, calling themselves the Young Czechs, became famous for their ruthlessness in adopting the Hungarian strategy. Their representatives boycotted the sessions of the Reichsrat, the parliament of the Austrian half of the empire, and claimed to be one sovereign nation, which would deal only with its own king of Bohemia, who happened also to be the emperor, and they would do so only to secure more liberties for the Czechs. The ultimate effect of the Ausgleich was to alienate step by step all nations from the empire. The radical elements in each nation increasingly refused to perceive themselves as part of a larger whole. They considered disputes with other nations of the Habsburg crown to be matters of their own foreign policy that did not involve the empire or the monarchy. This tendency was reinforced in a fateful way when, in 1878, the southern Slav lands of Bosnia and Herzegovina fell under the dominion of Austria-Hungary. This was one of the stipulations of an agreement of seven governments at a congress in Berlin in August 1878. The Berlin Congress dealt with territorial questions in southeastern Europe and the Middle East. It was prompted by a crushing Russian victory over Turkey, and signed by these two states as well as by the governments of Austria-Hungary, Germany, France, England, and Italy. Rather than granting autonomous status to the new territories, the Hungarians immediately claimed the right to rule them, arguing that at some point in the distant past they had been conquered by a Hungarian king. Bosnia-Herzegovina therefore came under the co-dominion of Hungary and the kingdoms and lands represented in the Reichsrat. Over the next thirty years, this divided rule from Vienna and Budapest created fertile ground for southern Slav nationalism and Serb agitation. It was a major factor in the events that eventually precipitated the world into the Great War and destroyed the Austrian monarchy. Following the Hungarian strategy, the radicals of all nations eventually refused to deal with any other nation at all. The central government in Vienna made concessions concerning the use of language in the local branch offices of its bureaucracy, and so, around the year 1900, German, Hungarian, Italian, Czech, Polish and Serbo-Croatian were all in official use. But such concessions could not satisfy the aspirations of the radical. At the turn of the century, many Italians, Czechs, Slovaks, Poles, Ukrainians, Magyars, Romanians, Serbs, Croats and Slovenes strove for national independence. They insisted on the sovereign status of their ethnic group, and argued that matters of domestic policy existed only insofar as they pertained to their relationship with the local monarch. 
The greatest problem of this stance was that the traditional political territories, the kingdoms and lands, did not have nationally homogeneous populations. Except for some of the Alpine regions, all these traditional territories hosted at least two nationalities, often more. Van Joseph slipped more and more into the impossible situation of being the sole embodiment of a political entity scorned by millions of his subjects, the Empire. He was still acceptable as a political partner, but only in his capacity as a king, that is, as king of Bohemia, king of Hungary, king of Croatia, etc. In the minds of his subjects, the monarch was the only element that tied together the various lands and nations who felt no desire or no need to come to terms with one another. One of Mises's fellow students recalled, No more than three hundred meters separated the university from the parliament building in the Vienna Ringstrasse. If the young people fought almost daily at the university, the conflicts of the deputies were of equal violence and were battled with a fanatical passion unknown in other countries. If you went only a hundred steps further on from Parliament, you could see every day, and usually more often, a carriage drawn by two horses drive out of the Hofburg. In it sat the old emperor and his equally elderly adjutant, and they would set out for Schönbrunn at an easy trot, always at the same hour and always down the same street. There was no security escort ahead or behind the carriage. No policeman sat in the vehicle itself. Any assassin would have had an easy job. But nobody took the opportunity. The fellow student goes on to observe, The leaders of our modern great empires are driven rapidly in bulletproof cars, protected by countless bodyguards. Aristotle thus defined the difference between a monarch and a tyrant. The monarch protects his people. The tyrant has to protect himself from them. Franz Josef, who had begun his reign as an arch-reactionary and gave his consent to constitutional government only after two lost wars, eventually became the glorified, almost mystic embodiment of a state that few of his subjects really desired. He presided over the radical transformation of Austria that started after the revolution of 1848 and stretched until the very end of his reign in 1916, a transformation that left no sphere of social life untouched. A contemporary witness, himself a Democrat, born around the time Franz Josef ascended the throne, recalls the awe that the emperor inspired in all his subjects. And the Kaiser had lived through, in fact co-sponsored, truly monumental changes. The almost feudal landed lordship, with its peasants subject to the estate, sleepy little towns with their handicrafts organized in guilds, a capital city with concentric walls and bastions, with large ramparts and glaces, a society the ruling intellectual power of which was the church and the materially moving power of which was still the stagecoach and the horse, all this formed the environment of the beginning reign of Francis Josef which was to encounter so many material and intellectual innovations. Almost all laws that created or made possible landed property for citizens, free peasants and country workers, handicrafts and industry, large-scale trade, railroads and steamship transport, and insurance and banking services, were signed with his name. The tremendous development of modern capitalism fell into the period of his reign, and thereby the transformation of the absolutistic patrimonial state into a constitutional monarchy. The rise of the free citizenry 
the flowering of the citizens' parliament, the cultural unfolding of all nations of the Reich, along with the inevitable frictions of the maturing process and, finally, the rise of the working class, the spreading of the social idea and the beginnings of social legislation. Whoever met Francis Joseph at my time felt the breath of a long and grand period of history that he has carried on. Seldom a single human life has encompassed such immensity. But even those who had not inherited sentimental feelings for the emperor could hardly fail to perceive his pivotal role within Austria-Hungary's political system. Ludwig von Mises' contemporary and fellow student, Felix Zomari, recalled his father telling him, This empire is quite different from the rest of the world. Imagine the emperor and his government gone for even one year, and the nationalists would tear each other to pieces. The government is the fence that separates the zoo of wild animals from the outside world, and nowhere else are there so many and such dangerous political beasts as we have. Young lads such as Felix learned early on to appreciate the benefits of the monarchical order in Austria, understanding that the monarchy was not some historical relic, but the sole possible institutional framework for holding eight nationalities together on Europe's most dangerous frontier. It was to no avail. Imitation of the Hungarian strategy mushroomed after 1867, and culminated in the late 1890s when Prime Minister Count Badeni sought to solve national conflicts between Germans and Czechs through legislation that put the two languages on an equal footing within the Bohemian government. Ethnic Germans saw the ordinance as the last straw in an ongoing series of concessions to the Czechs. Badeni was not prepared for the level of animosity the Germans of Bohemia and to the rest of the empire directed at him as a result of his legislation. They began disrupting parliamentary proceedings and instigated violent protests. The emperor, frightened by the mass agitation of some of the most important segments of society, dismissed Badeni in November 1897. Socialism, Austrian style the national conflicts within the empire were compounded by social conflicts resulting directly or indirectly from the liberal reforms of the 1850s and 1860s. The liberalization of trade, transport, banking and industry had completely transformed the Austrian economy, undermining the social and political position of the old elites. The aristocracy and clergy despised the emerging coterie of capitalist upstarts. And in their political rear-guard action against liberalism and capitalism, they allied themselves with the economic losers of the transformational process. The great number of people employed in traditional forms of production, including small-scale farming and those handicrafts that had become obsolete in an era of more efficient factory production. They were not necessarily losers in the sense that their income had been reduced in absolute terms. It was rather that their relative economic and social positions had deteriorated in comparison to those of their relatives, friends and neighbours who had found employment in the new capitalist corporations. Petit bourgeois residents of fin de siècle Vienna especially resented the success of the new Jewish middle and upper classes, which most visibly represented the changes in Austrian society induced by the liberal reforms. There had been virtually no Jewish residents in Vienna before 1848 because Jews were not allowed to own land in the city or to stay longer than three days within its walls. Only about 200 distinguished Jewish families, 
such as the Rothschilds, had obtained an exemption from this policy. All others had to leave the city after three days and re-enter it at another gate to obtain a new visa. As a consequence, Jews were virtually unknown to the general population, and those who had actually met Jews in person remembered them as impoverished Talmud students in Galicia and other rural regions of the empire. Things changed radically in the wake of the revolution of 1848, when the restrictions on Jewish real estate ownership were abolished. By 1857, about 7,000 Jews had settled in Vienna. This was the beginning of a great wave of Jewish middle- and upper-class immigration. Starting in the 1860s, well-to-do Jewish families flocked into the capital. By the turn of the century, there were 145,000 Jews in Vienna. By 1910, it was 175,000. Only Warsaw hosted a larger Jewish population. In a city as small as Vienna, it was now impossible to overlook the Jewish presence. The new wealthy Jewish residents clearly outnumbered the Catholic Nouveau Riche. For traditional city dwellers, liberalism, capitalism and Jews were all alien intruders. These urban masses in Vienna were easy prey to the old elites where they began to organize a political backlash against the capitalist movement. Two parties were particularly effective, the German nationalists and the Christian socialists. As a schoolboy, Ludwig von Mises witnessed firsthand the rise of the Christian Social Party in Vienna. In 1882, the Vienna election law had been modified to extend suffrage to lower income groups. These voters eventually secured the sweeping victory of the Christian Socialists under Karl Luger in the communal elections of 1895. Luger, commonly called Handsome Karl, der schöne Karl, was the incarnation of the modern politician. He knew how to flatter the man on the street. He did not count on winning by argument, but relied entirely on appeals to voters' feelings, fears, and resentments. Although he had risen from lower-class origins in the liberal age, and harbored no personal ill-will toward Jews, he built his election campaign squarely on anti-capitalism and anti-Semitism. The emperor despised Luger's anti-Semitic tactics and refused to appoint him mayor of Vienna. But after three consecutive election victories, Franz Josef eventually gave in, and handsome Karl became mayor on April 20, 1897. Luger immediately proceeded to enlarge his power base by incorporating many suburbs into the city of Vienna. After the incorporation had been completed in 1902, Vienna became a secure dominion of the Christian Social Party. It would remain so until the end of World War I, when the Red Socialists won the majority in the city and started one of the greatest experiments in communal socialism ever, turning the capital of Austria into Red Vienna. Like the Christian Socialists and the German Nationalists, the Socialist movement was ultimately an offshoot of the liberal transformation of Austria-Hungary. But whereas the former groups resisted this transformation, the Socialists were carried along with it, and its leaders were quite conscious of the irony, or as they would say, dialectics, that they were children of the capitalist revolution. They were spoiled brats bound for patricide, praising the economic achievements of liberalism while silently preparing the violent overthrow of this very system. Socialism and capitalism were but two faces of the same radical and rapid transformation of the economy, society, and politics. For this very reason, both of them lent themselves to the integration of Jewish elites into leadership positions. 
just as capitalism enabled a greater number of Jewish entrepreneurs, statesmen and intellectuals such as David Ricardo, Disraeli and Ludwig Bumberger to rise to wealth and influence, so the socialist movement was a predominantly Jewish movement at the leadership level. La Salle and Luxembourg in Germany, as well as Kautsky, Bauer and the Adlers in Austria, were all of Jewish origin. In short, liberalism had paved the way for freely experimenting with new modes of production, and thus led to the emergence of the factory system. With the large factories came many Jewish capitalists, and a proletariat with a Jewish leadership. Georg Franz has argued that the rising Austro-Jewish establishment was instrumental in promoting a homegrown brand of classical liberal doctrine. In contrast, the new urban proletariat was a largely non-Jewish group without traditions. It therefore lacked social and political institutions and quite naturally became fair game for politicians and political movements. All parties tried to mobilize the new urban masses for their causes, and until the 1880s, the German nationalists and the Christian socialists had the upper hand in this endeavor. Things changed only when the socialists triumphed in German elections. Their popularity extended to the Austrian proletariat, winning many over to the socialist cause, but not all of them. When handsome Karl made anti-Semitic slurs at election rallies, he knew what he was doing. It was the one sure way to lure voters away from both the liberals and the socialists. Like all social democratic parties in Central Europe, the Austrian organization was entirely under the sway of Karl Marx's doctrines. Marx had reconstructed the theory of socialism in a way that made it especially appealing to the urban proletarian masses. In his account, the proletariat was the social class that embodied the future of socialism. Liberalism and capitalism, Marx argued, were merely an intermediate phase of social evolution. Their main function was to give birth to the proletariat and then to impoverish it, thus inciting the working masses to the final revolution which would create a classless society and bring about the end of history. By the time twelve-year-old Mises had completed his first year of school in Vienna in 1893, Marxism had already lost much respect and attraction. Twenty-five years had passed since the first publication of Das Kapital, and events had clearly refuted Marx's predictions about capitalism's propensity to create misery among the working classes. The uncomfortable evidence induced a split among socialist intellectual leaders. Edward Bernstein criticized Marxism and proposed a revised theory of socialism. He recognized the ability of capitalism to improve the material lot of the proletariat. Rather than seeking to overhaul capitalism, he argued socialists should strive to correct its flaws through democratically elected governments. Bernsteinian revisionism was part of a more general effort to turn the socialist movement away from its Marxist fixation on a violent overthrow of present social conditions. Under the leadership of the Vienna doctor Viktor Adler, and of the Marxist theoretician Karl Kautsky, the Austrian Social Democrats gave a clear endorsement of the principles of non-violence and legality in political struggle. Kautsky distinguished himself by advocating a determinist brand of Marxism, that is, he believed that Marx had discovered strict laws of social evolution. Capitalism necessarily led to socialism and communism, and it was therefore devoid of sense to try to push things through violent overhaul. 
Norbert Leser argued that Kautsky thereby exercised a nefarious influence on Austrian socialism. Kautsky's determinist views spread fatalism and paralyzed the activities of socialist practitioners. At the Heinfeld Party Congress in 1888-1889, which united the violence-prone ideological radicals and the union-dominated moderates, Adler and Kautsky championed piecemeal social reform through universal suffrage and parliamentary legislation. Marxist radicals in other countries heaped ridicule on this affirmation of the legitimacy of the state and its organs, calling the approach of their moderate Austrian comrades KK Social Democracy. German pronunciation of the letter K renders the epithet identical to international slang for excrement. But the new strategy was undeniably successful. During his school years, Mises followed the progress of the social democratic agitation in favor of universal suffrage. He lived firsthand the conflicts he would later spend so much time analyzing. His contemporary, Felix Omari, recalls, It had been 84 years since the Congress of Vienna and both Europe and America basked in the long peace and looked down on the Austrians as incompetence, immature, patiently enduring a tyrant's yoke. The reality was quite different, for the big issues that were struggling over in Austria had not been dealt with in other countries. On the contrary, they had not even surfaced in those countries and were to do so only decades later. Nationalism, political anti-Semitism, even communism were already fighting issues with us, while in the rest of the world the curious duality of liberalism and imperialism still held sway. While all the rest in their smug peace and quiet looked down at the Austrian turmoil as if at some curiosity, we young people felt ourselves at the very centre of political events, for our world was far more real than the other. We didn't discuss, we fought, and not as outsiders imagined over the questions of the day before yesterday, but about those of the day after tomorrow, when in later decades the new barbarianism came flooding in, it surprised the West. For us... It was a familiar phenomenon. We had seen it churning with wild and uninterrupted turbulence at the heart of a highly developed and refined civilization. I say we, meaning the entire intellectual youth of Vienna at that time. We stood at a decisive turning point in history and felt it in our innermost being. Which career? As the 19th century drew to a close and Ludwig reached the age of legal maturity, he took some time to consider the path that lay ahead. Austria-Hungary offered four career options for well-educated young men. These were, in order of their prestige, the military, public service, the liberal arts, and commerce. In liberal post-1848 Austria, industry and commerce were, with some exceptions, open to anyone, even though they were often subject to countless regulations, remnants of the pre-1848 police state. Activity in these fields attracted the educated young men of the bourgeoisie, and entrepreneurial leadership was exercised by the most daring strata of the population, including Jews, who excelled as merchants, bankers, and insurers. The liberal economy had given these entrepreneurs great opportunities to serve their fellow citizens and thereby earn great fortunes for themselves. They usually started in a province of the empire and then expanded to all of Austria-Hungary, and sometimes to an international scale. Once they reached this size, they transferred company headquarters and moved their families to Vienna. However, the great majority of the sons of provincial engineers and entrepreneurs 
did not aspire to follow in the footsteps of their fathers. Encouraged by their parents, and with the constant personal support of their mothers, they sought to become lawyers, physicians, scientists, artists, public servants, or politicians. Young Ludwig was no exception. His father's example had inspired him with respect for the civil service and with a desire to use his energies to the benefit of the commonwealth. Philosophy, politics, and history were more attractive to him than the old trades of his family. He decided to study at the University of Vienna, get a degree, and seek employment in the civil service. He passed the final written exam at the Akademischen Gymnasium in May 1900 and the Orals in mid-July of that year. In the fall, together with his classmates Hans Kelsen and Eugen Engel, Mises enrolled in the Department of Law and Government Science. He was a handsome young man with blue eyes, five feet, eight and a half inches tall, 171 centimeters. He came with a great education, a razor-sharp mind, and passion for ideas that could be applied for social progress. He was made for the university. Chapter 3 Alma Mater Rudolfina when Mises studied law and government science, the University of Vienna was one of the best institutions of higher learning in the world. It had been founded in 1365 by Emperor Rudolf IV, thus the school's Latin name Alma Mater Rudolfina. For centuries it preserved the three typical features of medieval universities, political and legal autonomy, only four departments, law, medicine, the arts, and theology, and management by the Catholic Church. The medieval autonomy of the continental universities was legendary. It went beyond intellectual affairs, extending to jurisdiction over virtually all the legal relationships between university members. The very expression, academic freedom, is in fact a term translated from the German. When Ludwig von Mises was a student at the University of Vienna, the police had still no authority to enter its premises. By the early 20th century, however, its legal independence was not quite what it had been in ancient times. One of the causes of this reduced autonomy was the imposed change of patrons that, in the age of enlightened despotism, shifted control over the Catholic Church in Austria, and thus over the University of Vienna, to the House of Habsburg. Starting in the mid-18th century, the Austrian monarch successfully initiated a grand campaign to break the influence of international Catholicism, a process that was completed by 1790. The bureaucratization of the clergy, known as Staatskirchentum, also brought the University of Vienna under the control of the Habsburg state. Appointments of professors had to be approved by the emperor, as with other high civil servants. As a consequence of this takeover, Protestants could acquire academic degrees after 1778, and in 1782 Jews were admitted to the departments of law and medicine. A century later, women too were admitted, first to the Department of Philosophy, 1897, then to medicine, 1900, and law, 1919. Another consequence of the government takeover of the University of Vienna was the proliferation of departments and institutes. Among the new departments were philosophy, which at first had only the subservient function of preparing the students for study in other fields, and the department of law and government science. The first full professor's chair in the field of government science had been created in 1763, 
for Maria Therese's counselor Joseph von Sonnenfels, 1732-1817, one of the few Jews the Empress tolerated in her residential city. The exact name of his chair was Lehrstuhl für Polizei und Kameralwissenschaften. A towering personality, Sonnenfels initiated several important traditions. Not only was he the first professor of applied political science, but also the first Jew to influence intellectual life in Vienna, and the first great proponent of the economic point of view, that is, of a strict utilitarian perspective in judging political problems. An engaging teacher and gifted writer, Sonnenfels also started a characteristically Viennese tradition of economist journalists, that in later generations included Karl Menger, Eugen von Böhm-Baderk, Eugen von Philippowitz, and Ludwig von Mises. Because of their academic pedigree and their clear, concise, and unpretentious writing style, these thinkers would exercise considerable influence on political reform processes in Austria. In Mises's day, studies at the Department of Law and Government Science were organized in two phases. The first two years featured lectures and seminars on the history of law and legal institutions, and they ended with the first of three exams, called the Staatsexamen, because the examiners were specially appointed to act as agents of the Austro-Hungarian state. Then the students spent another two years in lectures and seminars to acquaint themselves with the current civil, penal, and legal process laws of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and with government science, which included economics, economic history, and courses on technical and legal aspects of public administration. The Staatsexamen for current law and for government science completed this second phase. The two phases had nothing to do with our present-day distinction between undergraduate studies and graduate studies. As Kuhnert Ledin points out, in Mises's day, continental universities had no undergraduates. They were graduate schools, pure and simple. Passing these exams completed the university requirement for a career in law, but mandatory two-year apprenticeship still stood between the graduate and his career. Some students, in particular those interested in becoming professional scholars, also acquired the degree of Doctor Juris, Doctor of Law, which required them to pass three additional exams, the Examina Rigorosa, after the three Staatsexamen. Mises went through all these stages. In October 1900, he began his two-year study of the history of law, Roman and canon law in particular, and of medieval legal institutions and economic conditions. Today, the study of church and medieval law is reserved for a handful of scholars. But in the Austria-Hungary of Mises's time, a career in law or government required both the familiarity with these traditions and a solid command of Latin. Hungarian politics was built on medieval thought and institutions, and Latin had been the language of instruction in Hungarian middle schools until 1867. Up to the very end of the monarchy in 1918, Hungarian intellectuals and politicians did not yield an inch when it came to the mystical foundations of their nation. While students needed to know Austria-Hungary's legal and institutional traditions, these subjects were not particularly popular among non-Hungarian students. Mises did not deem this period of his studies worth mentioning in his autobiographical recollections. The lectures were infamously bad, resulting in part from a distinctive lack of consumer orientation on the part of the professors. After the government takeover of the Austrian universities, 
the professors had become financially independent of their audience and had little incentive to accommodate the needs of their students. This affected both their behavior and their public status. The government had turned them into civil servant scholars, or, to put it less flatteringly, into court intellectuals. Academic freedom no longer meant political autonomy. When the public spoke of limitless academic liberty, they referred to freedom from responsibility or consequences. In the words of Kunult Ledin, the freedom to teach was limitless. Even a professor who, instead of lecturing, read newspapers could not be dismissed. Every professor had tenure up to the age of 65 or 67 when he had to retire at 82% of his final salary. The quality of the professor as a teacher bore no weight. The professor was expected not to be an educator, but a scholar who gave the students a chance to listen to him. Mises's early university years were a mixed experience. In addition to the poor lectures, there was rampant hostility between students of different nationalities and widespread anti-Semitism. Student life was generally organized through fraternities, which tended to segregate based on place of origin. This provided newcomers to the capital city with a network of their countrymen for mutual support. It also introduced them to established former members who could later be helpful in finding suitable employment. But the fraternities often degenerated into associations dedicated to excessive collective alcohol consumption and tended to glorify violence and a militaristic lifestyle with variants of half-baked nationalistic ideology. There were frequent violent confrontations between members of different fraternities, especially between students of different nationalities. The largest non-German student group in Vienna, the Czechs, clashed with German students on an almost daily basis. At the turn of the century, 700,000 Czechs lived in Vienna. Because the University of Vienna still enjoyed its status of legal autonomy, the police were helpless to prevent these confrontations, and the aggressive students took full advantage of the situation. Students from Vienna were less dependent on the support of compatriots, and therefore had less incentive to join one of the fraternities. More importantly, however, many Viennese students were Jews, and while few of them identified themselves along religious lines, the fraternities despised these identifiable and highly efficient competitors. Mises managed to stay clear of both the ethnic unrest and collegiate debauchery. He threw himself into his work and pursued the opportunities that now opened up. Aside from lectures and seminars, in the first two years he took part in the meetings of the Sozialwissenschaftlicher Bildungsverein, Association for Social Science Education. This association was non-partisan and brought the students in touch with some of the leading intellectuals. It was here that Mises first met the historians Ludo Hartmann and Kurt Kaser, the socialist leader Karl Renner, and Michael Heinisch, who would later become president of the Republic of Austria. Among the student members were Friedrich Otto Herz, Otto Bauer, and Hans Kelsen. The most fascinating and at the same time bewildering personality among the students was Otto Weininger, 1880-1903, who would become famous throughout Austria and Germany almost overnight when he published his 1903 doctoral dissertation, Geschlecht und Charakter, Sex and Character. The book would be republished in more than 30 editions until the 1930s. It had a great impact on how German-speaking intellectuals thought about gender differences and gender relations. 
Weininger undoubtedly presented his ideas first to the smaller circles of friends and admirers with Hans Kelsen first in line. Mises probably took part in some of the meetings of the Weininger Circle, and his 1922 treatise on socialism would reflect this influence. The Grünberg Seminar The university seminars gathered smaller groups of students around a professor who directed their reading and research in his field of expertise. Mises profited in particular from his participation in the seminar of Karl Grünberg, a young and energetic professor who had just received a full professorship at the department. It is likely that in this first phase of his studies, he attended a class of Karl Theodor von Inamar Sternek on medieval economic history. Inamar Sternek was an old rival of Karl Menger's. Already in 1879, then still under the leadership of Lorenz, the Department of Law and Government Science had supported his attempt to gain the chair of political economy that eventually went to Menger. Inamar Sternek was an economic historian through and through. His main field of research was German economic history from the late 9th to the 16th century. Grünberg knew what he could expect of the brilliant members of his seminar, and encouraged even first-year students to do publishable research under his guidance. After only one semester, he assigned Mises a research project on the Galician Peasants' Liberation Movement from 1772 to 1848. Mises started the work shortly after Easter of 1901, and within a year produced a comprehensive study on the subject. He had spent several months in the Vienna Staatsarchiv, researching all available literature on the evolution of the legal status of Galician peasants, on the reforms enacted by Emperor Joseph II, and on the events leading to the Revolution of 1848. His meticulous notes filled several hundred handwritten pages, from which he eventually distilled a manuscript. His work was published immediately under the innocent title The Development of the Relationship Between Lords and Peasants in Galicia, 1772-1848, in the department's prestigious series Vienna Studies in Government Science. The subject of peasant liberation drew much attention due to the widely acclaimed research of Georg F. Knapp into the causes and consequences of the liberation of Prussian peasants, which had resulted from various agrarian reforms starting in the 18th century. This is the same Knapp who today is better known among economists for his staatliche Theorie des Geldes, government approach to the theory of money. We will discuss Knapp's work in our presentation of Mises's theory of money. Knapp's research essentially relied on archival evidence. His approach soon found disciples in the German scholars Ludwig and Wittig, who further extended and reinforced his analysis of German conditions. Knapp's approach was later applied to Austria, most notably in the work of Karl Grünberg, the Bauernbefreiung in Böhmen, Mähren und Schlesien, peasant liberation in Bohemia, Moravia and Silesia. It was this work that brought Grünberg to the University of Vienna, where he set out to train his students in questions of Austrian peasants' liberation and especially encouraged them to research with him the conditions of those parts of the empire which he had not himself covered. Grünberg then produced another volume on agrarian reforms in the Bukovina, which was completed by Mises's work on peasants' liberation in Galicia. Some years later, a young man by the name of Leo Fischmann wrote on peasant liberation in central Austria. In his general exposition, Mises closely followed his teacher, 
He made exhaustive use of the literature in Polish and German that was available in the largest Austrian archive, where he had unearthed hitherto unknown material. He could be proud of the result and congratulate himself on having landed at the age of twenty, a first scholarly publication in a highly respected series. But he later recalled, Karl Grünberg had worked for a while with Professor Knapp in Strasbourg. His work slavishly followed in form. Presentation and method. Knapp's book on the old provinces of Prussia. It was neither economic history nor administrative history. It was merely an extract from government documents. A description of policy is found in government reports. Any able government official could easily have written it. It was Professor Grünberg's ambition to found in Vienna a center for economic history like that created by Knapp in Strasbourg. As far as possible. I endeavoured to free myself from too close an association with Knapp's system, but I succeeded only in part, which made my study, published in 1902, more a history of government measures than economic history. In the introduction of the book, Mises describes the evolution of the condition of Galician peasants from the 15th through the 18th century. In the late Middle Ages, he points out the Galician peasants had a comparatively favourable lot; they paid low taxes to their lords. Could not be coercively removed from their land. Often enjoyed autonomous jurisdiction and even had a limited right to leave the country. The lords were not interested in agriculture and left the management of all farming affairs to the discretion of the peasants and their representatives. Things began to change drastically after two consecutive Polish victories against the German order, which had ruled large parts of the East Baltic in the 15th century. After 1466, the Poles controlled the ports of Danzig, Memel, and Elbing, and as a consequence, export of agricultural products of the Polish hinterland became more profitable. The local aristocracy tried to gain ever more control over agricultural production and, in particular, over the workforce of their peasants. These attempts proved to be very successful. At the beginning of the 18th century, the Polish aristocracy in Galicia controlled all lands. And the Galician peasant was the slave of his lord, destitute of any rights, liable to be sold or traded away. Mises analyzed the state of affairs prevailing in the early 18th century in his first chapter. He explained that the Polish aristocracy was essentially a club of slaveholders with no backing in the wider population. This was a major reason why they were unable to avoid partitioning of the country. 1772 to 1795, and could not re-establish its independence thereafter. Ruthenian slave peasants liable to come under Prussian or Austrian dominion had nothing to lose; they could only expect an improvement in their situation. In eastern Galicia, the area around Lemberg, the Ruthenians represented two thirds of the population, whereas the nobility was almost exclusively Polish. The new rulers in Vienna were keen enough to realize the political opportunity in this state of affairs. The policies of the Austrian government in Galicia, Mises wrote, had the objective of benefiting the peasant class at the expense of the nobility. This tendency was further reinforced by the adherence of Emperor Joseph II to the ideals of Enlightenment liberalism. After Galicia's annexation to Austria, taxes were reduced. Legal protection for peasants established, and the property rights of lords and peasants were now more clearly distinguished. Most importantly, slavery received a fatal blow. The peasants were no longer considered the property of their lords; 
but they were still forced to work a certain number of hours, a duty called robot, originally established by Empress Maria Theresa. But Joseph II died in February 1790, before his vast program of social reform could be brought to completion. The reforms had failed to specify the rights and duties of all parties, in particular that the peasants were no longer forced to complete certain types of tasks, but merely to work a certain number of hours. The result was sloppy work and a sharp decline in productivity. The aristocracy then resorted to stronger punishments, which further poisoned social relations. In the first four decades of the 19th century, democratic agitators believed Galicia to be fertile ground for their activities, because their rural population seemed to be ripe for revolution. Mises argued that the great majority of the peasants did not trust these agitators any more than they trusted the local aristocracy. They did trust the emperor and believed him to have abolished the robot, despite what the Polish aristocrats said. When in February 1846 the aristocrats rebelled against Austria in an attempt to restore their ancient privileges, they confronted a united rural peasantry which smashed this rebellion without any assistance from the Austrian army. Mises gave a detailed account of this failed aristocratic rebellion and of its consequences in his fourth chapter. He had many things to say on the issue. After all, his great-grandfather had been an eyewitness to the event and had welcomed the peasants' success. The victorious peasants believed they had now earned both liberty and imperial recognition. But the government in Vienna was not ready for Galician peasant liberty and feared its repercussions in other parts of the empire where forced labor still existed. When a law was passed in December 1846 that essentially preserved the status quo, the Galician peasants felt betrayed. They were now ready for the revolution of 1848, which eventually succeeded in abolishing the robot, root and branch. Although presented as a work of purely historic interest, Mises's research touched important political sensibilities of the day, for the gist of the Knapp-Grünberg-Mises argument was that slavery was the typical condition of peasants under a Slavic regime, and that serious attempts at their liberation were begun only under Germanic rulers. Mises argued that the various Polish rebellions following the 1772 partition failed because they were not genuine national upheavals but purely aristocratic ventures that antagonized both the imperial central government in Vienna and the local population. Because the democratic movement did not find support within the rural working classes, its leadership allied itself to the higher aristocracy, thus supporting the political status quo. In Mises's words, How the peasants are shown when they heard talk of a better, more beautiful future, one in which there would be no more lords and servants, and all would be brothers. But what they took away from the words of the democratic insurgents fueled yet further their hatred of the aristocracy. They did not wish to hear about the re-establishment of the Polish state. What was Poland to them? Whether it was Polish or German met with their indifference. But they did know that the Austrian civil servants provided their only help against the oppressive landlords. The injustice once suffered by the peasants was still alive in the memory of the older people, and thanks to the intervention of the Kaiser, it no longer had to be endured. But because their oppressors were Polish, they felt only disdain for all Polish things. They now called themselves 
Kaiserlich Imperial, and Austrian. Mises's conclusions were unwelcome among Poles and other Slavic nationals, especially in early 20th century Vienna's heated climate of ethnic sensibilities. How much these questions of apparently mere academic interest were fought over can be gathered from the fact that in the very same year in which Mises' study appeared, a young Polish historian had published a dissertation in which he claimed the exact opposite, that the condition of the 18th century Polish peasants was significantly better than that of peasants living under German rule. Mises's research also had personal resonance for him. It presented his compatriots, who had shrugged off the aristocratic rebellion as freedom fighters and hence as motors of the historic trend toward liberty in Galicia. Mises's work was positively reviewed by one of the main authorities in the field, Knapp's disciple Ludwig from the University of Strasbourg, who called it a model study and praised the clarity of Mises's style, which he seemed to have inherited from his teacher Grünberg. A review in the principal organ of the German socialists of the chair, Schmoller's Jahrbuch, said that the study contained much new material, and that it was an extremely sound and informative work. Another expert, Professor R. F. Kindl, from the University of Chernovitz, praised Grünberg for his brilliant student, mentioning especially Mises's thorough analysis from the generally higher standpoint of the material available in the Vienna Staatsarchiv on the Galician reforms that were implemented during the reign of Joseph II. On July 15, 1902, Mises completed the initial phase of his studies by passing the first Staatsexamen on the history of law. His examiners focused particularly on the history of the Austrian Empire. Mises passed with distinction, and the twenty-year-old seemed headed for a brilliant career in academia. Before entering the second phase of studies, however, he had to fulfill his military obligations. Military Service and Death of His Father On October 1st, 1902, Mises presented himself as a one-year volunteer at the Imperial and Royal Division Artillery Regiment No. 6, later renamed the Imperial and Royal Field Cannon Regiment No. 30. Jews had been subject to military obligations after 1788. They were usually employed in transport and the artillery. Thus Mises was a typical case. He spent exactly one year in this regiment, which was stationed near Vienna, and returned on September 30, 1903, to his studies. In the following years, he was mobilized twice as a reserve officer within the same regiment in 1908 and 1912 during political crises between Austria-Hungary and Russia. He would have to resume his duties in 1914, under even less pleasant circumstances. The Austrian army had not won a war since the defeat of Napoleon in 1815. It had lost the Italian campaign in 1859 with the Battle of Solferino, and had also lost the important battle against the Prussian forces at Königgrätz in 1866. But this lack of success did not prevent it from enjoying an overwhelmingly positive reputation in all parts of the Habsburg Empire. It was the most visible sign of the Empire's unity and security. In those days, army troops and their activities were a highly visible element of everyday life. Where present-day troops are typically stationed away from cities, their activities hidden from the eyes of the average citizen, the Austro-Hungarian troops were stationed inside the towns and cities of the Empire. They exercised within view of the civilian population, and their appearance set a standard for discipline and elegance. 
Of the old institutions of the empire, the army seems to have been the most democratic in character. The career of an officer was open to virtually all strata of the population, and officers paid each other tribute and solidarity, regardless of social background. Most of them addressed one another in private conversation with a familiar duel, insinuating that each bearer of His Majesty's peur et pay was a nobleman and an equal among equals. Yet while recognition and prestige within the officer corps depended mainly on individual performance, admission to the higher ranks required admission to the Kriegsschule, war school, which necessitated personal connections. Here, the old nobility had a net advantage, whereas Jewish origin was a handicap. Things began to change slowly after the Austrian Republic was created in 1918. Quick and thorough changes occurred only under the National Socialist regime. Under Hitler, the Wehrmacht employed tens of thousands of partial Jews, Mischlinge, as regular soldiers, and some of them even as generals, admirals, and field marshals. Unthinkable in the old regime. The bottom line was that the majority of ambitious and talented young men from low nobility or bourgeois circles were effectively deterred from considering a military career. Alumni from a gymnasium could obtain the commission of a reserve officer by volunteering for one year. And virtually all of them did this because of the military prestige it conveyed, which in turn was very helpful for obtaining employment in all other fields. Many of them volunteered directly after leaving the gymnasium and then enrolled in university afterward. Others, like Mises, chose to volunteer after the first two years of university because the service gave them a break from their intense studies. They received the officer's commission after a year of service and an easy-to-pass exam that certified their ability to be an officer. Mises was patriotic and proud to wear the uniform of the Imperial and Royal Army, but he had no militaristic incarnations. He never related details or boasted about his one-year service. All in all, this period seems to have been unexciting for him. It was also a sad period of his life, marked by three tragic deaths. One of the last times Ludwig saw his father alive was at the burial of his uncle Felix. As saddened as he was by his uncle's passing, it could not compare with the death of his father later the same year. Arthur von Mises had suffered from a gallbladder condition for years and regularly sought relief in health resorts. Following his brother's death in the summer of 1903, Arthur and his wife went to Karlsbad. By September his condition had noticeably deteriorated, so they left for Halberstadt, where he underwent surgery on October 1st. He died the same day. He was 49. Ludwig attended his burial four days later. On the day before, October 4th, 23-year-old Otto Weininger had killed himself, to the great consternation of his friends Kelsen and Mises. Suicide was in vogue in those days, especially among young people. Even Prince Rudolf, the Habsburg Dauphin, had killed himself in 1889. Weininger sought a theatrical exit. Only six months after he had made a splash with the first edition of Sex and Character, he rented an apartment in the house where Beethoven had died, and shot himself on the master's piano. In the Filipovich Seminar At the onset of the 20th century, most German economists held the teaching of economic theory in disdain. They thought that political economy, insofar as it was a science at all, was a historical discipline, historicism. 
Mises recalled certainly with his teacher Grünberg in mind, at that time around the 1900, historicism was at the zenith of its career. The historical method was believed to be the only scientific method for the sciences of human action. From the height of its historical clarity, the historical political economist was looking with unspeakable disgust on the orthodox dogmatist. Many members of this school of thought had strong socialist leanings and openly called for more government intervention. Some even advocated the complete abolition of private property. This attitude had earned them the epithet Katheder Sozialisten, Socialists of the Chair. This may sound similar to the English-language epithet armchair socialists, but chair in this case refers to a full professorship in the European university system. Perhaps ivory tower socialists would be more on the mark. The Katheder Sozialisten had risen to dominance at the University of the German Reich in the wake of the creation of a German central state under Prussian leadership. Their political ascension seemed unstoppable and contributed to their reputation as the avant-garde of their discipline. By the turn of the century, they had virtually monopolized the chairs in political economy in the German Reich and were on the verge of becoming dominant in Austria too. Karl Grünberg, Mises' main teacher during the first two years, was one of them. In fact, he had been brought to the University of Vienna precisely in order to bring research and teaching of government science up to date, that is, up to the historicist standards of the other German-language universities. Grünberg's call to the University of Vienna had been a terrible mistake. In the case of new appointments, the other faculty members, or lawyers except for two economists, had to select the new incumbent. These men were unlikely to give the position to an Austrian economist. Mises explained, They had to choose between two opposed schools of thought, the Austrian school on the one hand, and the allegedly modern historical school as taught at the universities of the German Reich on the other hand. Even if no political and nationalistic prepossessions had disturbed their judgment, they could not help becoming somewhat suspicious of a line of thought which the professors of the University of the German Reich dubbed specifically Austrian. Never before had any new mode of thinking originated in Austria. The Austrian universities had been sterile until, after the revolution of 1848, they had been reorganized according to the model of the German universities. For people who were not familiar with economics, the predicate Austrian, as applied to a doctrine, carried strong overtones of the dark days of the Counter-Reformation and of Metternich. To an Austrian intellectual, nothing could appear more disastrous than a relapse of his country into the spiritual inanity of the good old days. The Grünberg seminar had reinforced for Mises the worldview of his adolescence, a vision of glorified government as the prime mover in the enlightened management of the economy and of society. Mises grew up in an atmosphere of almost unlimited confidence in the state's ability to make human society safe for its constant improvement. This faith in the state went along with the distrust of private individuals and associations to match the good deeds of government. He later recalled, By 1900, practically everyone in the German-speaking countries was either a statist, interventionist, or a state socialist. Capitalism was seen as a bad episode, which fortunately had ended forever. The future belonged to the state. All enterprises suitable for expropriation were to be taken over by the state. All others were to be regulated in a way that would prevent businessmen from exploiting workers and consumers. When I entered the university, I too 
was a thorough statist. Mises adds that only in one respect were his views not quite as wrong as those of his fellow students. He was consciously anti-Marxian. Most objections to this statist view were moral objections, defending the individual's right against bureaucratic encroachments. These arguments fell on deaf ears. They could not withstand the appeal of the utilitarian case for government intervention, especially since so many 19th-century liberals had themselves promoted utilitarianism as the basis for social policy. Surely the improvement of the vast majority could not be sacrificed to selfish interests. Thus, when he started his legal studies, Mises was a champion of interventionist statism. He believed that government was able to fix a wide variety of social problems, and he was eager to engage in the scientific discovery of the dangerous consequences of unhampered capitalism. It so happened, however, that the Department of Law and Government Science at the University of Vienna was home to some of the most outspoken opponents of historicism, and thus by implication of the Cateda Socialist program. These scholars denied that economic affairs could only be studied by historical methods, and they made the case for a rational economic theory which they held was indispensable for the understanding of certain economic phenomena, such as value, interest, money, income, and so on. The most important theorist of this group was a man by the name of Karl Menger. In 1871, Menger had published a book with the title Grundsätze der Volkswirtschaftslehre, Principles of Economics, in which he co-pioneered the marginalist approach to the theory of value, the standard analysis still in use today. This book had earned him a chair in political economy at the University of Vienna, where he taught until the spring of 1903. In the 1880s, Menger had become famous throughout the academic world because of a highly polemical dispute with Gustav Schmoller on the respective merits of the historical and theoretical methods. The Methodenstreit, dispute on method, as their debate came to be known, polarized German economists between the historicists and what would come to be known as the Austrian school. At the turn of the century, Menger had about 20 followers among the Austrian professors of political economy, which was a considerable number in those days. The most significant theorists were two brothers-in-law, Eugen von Böhm-Bawerk, Austria's four-time Minister of Finance and holder of a chair of political economy at the University of Innsbruck, and Friedrich von Wieser, who held a chair of political economy at the German University of Prague and would succeed Menger at the University of Vienna in 1903. Another follower, Eugen von Filopowitz, was a full professor at the University of Vienna, and although he was not an important theoretician of the Austrian school, he excelled as a pedagogue. His textbook, which was at that time the most successful German-language textbook on economics, almost single-handedly ensured that the avalanche of historicism would not wipe out the teaching of economic theory in the German-speaking world. Mises's first year at the university overlapped with Menger's last, but during the first phase of his studies, Mises did not attend Menger's last lectures. When he began the second phase, after returning from military service, Menger had retired to live the life of a private scholar. It is likely, however, that Mises attended Friedrich von Wieser's inaugural lecture as Menger's successor on October 26, 1903. In this lecture, Wieser attempted to expand on Menger's monetary writings with an original analysis of the value of money and its changes through time. The lecture was different in style and content from what the students of government science were used to in Grünberg's seminars. Wieser 
was a pure theorist in the sense that his ideas were removed from the hard data studied under Grünberg. But Wieser was an impressive speaker, and his lecture might have been the event that prompted Mises to become acquainted with Menger's principles, which he started reading about two months later. In any case, the lecture was in many ways the basis and starting point for Mises's later work on the theory of money, as we will see in more detail in a later chapter. Mises joined the Government Science Seminar of Filipovitz, where he met and befriended Emil Lederer, who later became Germany's top Marxist economist. The seminar was a rallying ground for the most fervent social reformers, with the possible exception of Filipovitz's assistant, Felix Somari, who already held radical free market views. Somari had first been hired by Karl Menger to assist him in extended sociological studies but Menger did not anticipate publication any time soon and felt he might be wasting his brilliant young assistant's time. He put Zomari in touch with Filipovitz, who was looking for help with a new edition of his textbook. Professor Filipovitz was a very influential public figure, known equally for his Mangerian inclinations in economic science and his interventionist position on politics. Of all academics with cathedral socialist incarnations, his writings had the most thorough grounding in economic theory, and Mises later praised him as the most thorough theorist ever of third-way policies. History, Mises wrote without irony, will see in Filipovitz the most outstanding advocate of the ideology of statism, the characteristic representative of the spirit of social reform. Eugen Filipovitz von Philipsberg 1858 to 1917, was the product of an old Austrian family of military officers. After studies in Graz, Vienna, Berlin, and London, he received his Habilitationsdiploma under Menger, then quickly became a tenured professor at the University of Freiburg in Breisgau. In 1893, he returned to Vienna as a full professor of political economy and public finance. Filipovitz was active in various political associations, and over the years gained great influence at the university and in Austrian politics. As a young man, he had been an enthusiastic champion of the Schmullerite program, advocating historicism in economics and heavy government interventionism in politics. Under the influence of Menger and Böhm-Badak, however, he began to reconsider the case for economic theory and economic liberalism during his years in Freiburg. The results of this research on economic theory became visible in the first of the three volumes of his Grundriss der politischen Ökonomie, which dealt with general economic theory. Here, Filipovic showed great aptitude in putting economic theory in the service of political views that, while less statist than the official line of the Kathedersozialisten, still called for far-reaching government control. When he returned to Vienna, he immediately joined the Vienna Fabians, Wiener Fabiergesellschaft, established 1891. The main protagonists were Heinisch, Pernestorfer, and Filipovitz. The group organized public conferences and discussions to promote the idea of government intervention in the service of a social agenda, which primarily concerned the support of the working-class poor. Filipovitz's personal and intellectual qualities made him the center of the Vienna Fabians and helped spread their influence among academics and businessmen. These activities were so successful that Fabian ideas eventually were incorporated into the programs of all Austrian political parties. Filipovitz also left a deep impression on his seminar students. In the classroom, matters of social policy took center stage. 
while the students usually jumped head-on into championing various practical welfare schemes, Filipovic again and again drew them into discussions of the theoretical foundations of government intervention. He clearly perceived that emotional appeals or references to we-all-know convictions were not enough to justify the use of the public organization of coercion and compulsion. He urged his students to make a scientific case for interventionism and constantly raised problems that they had not considered, problems for which he himself had not found adequate solutions. This seems to have been rather exceptional among economics professors. Mises, who knew well the economics profession of the turn of the century later, said, In the decades between the Prussian constitutional conflict, 1862, and the Weimar Constitution, 1919, only three men sensed the problems of a social reform. Filipovic, Stolzmann, and Max Weber. Among these three, only Filipovic had any knowledge of the nature and content of theoretical economics. It was in these exchanges that he was most impressive, especially in the eyes of his most critical students. Mises recalled the atmosphere in the Filipovic seminar. Here he could utter his doubts without being misunderstood. Here he was not the famous writer who presented his reader with something that was finished, complete, and apparently unshakable. Here he showed himself in his true nature, as the critical thinker and explorer who wrestled laboriously, musam, in his quest for knowledge. Filipovic was in fact only too conscious of the existence of unintended consequences that result from government intervention. In a speech delivered in his capacity as a university president, he warned, May none of you have the painful experience, at times not even spared the man of the best intentions, of having to say of one's activities, I drew pure fire from the altar, but what I ignited is not a pure flame. But such experiences did not shake his conviction that government interventions were necessary. They were needed, despite all the economic achievements of liberalism that Filipovic praised in his seminar and in other public appearances. He stressed that liberalism made it possible for Europe's population to grow during the 19th century from 187 to 393 million, while simultaneously increasing the living standards of the masses a development unprecedented in history. He even claimed that no previous era had done as much for humanity as liberalism, with the possible exception of Christianity's acknowledgement of human dignity. Celebrating the liberating and creative powers of liberalism in political and economic affairs, he argued that the only relevant question was whether one could avoid full-blown individual liberty. The economic forces that the liberal system called forth capitalistic large-scale organization of production and exchange, as well as the personal values and energies that it brought into being, form a component of social life that we can no longer do without. The present and future cannot be based on foregoing the products of economic liberty, the power of fruitful initiative and economic organization. The question that must be asked is whether the acknowledgement of the basic ideas of the liberal system necessarily implies the acceptance of the ultimate consequences of its unrestricted application, that is, whether clinging to the principle of economic liberty is identical with accepting the social system of individualism. Filipovic argued that one could enjoy all the blessings of individual liberty and remedy its shortcomings on an ad hoc basis. Pointing to specific fields where such remedial action was required, he argued that unrestricted individualism leads to the dissolution of communities. 
that the interests of the individual are not always identical with the interests of the social whole, and that unrestricted economic liberty might destroy its own foundations through the formation of monopolies. Government interventions were necessary to counteract these shortcomings. The Filipovic seminar was an important training ground for Vienna's fervent young social reformers, of whom Mises was one. Filipovic did not deny the validity of the traditional case for economic freedom, and he made sure his students were familiar with the theory and history of classic liberalism. This was probably as much liberalism as most of them could take. But for Mises, the seminar proved to be his first step in an unexpected direction, one that would ultimately change his path radically and for his entire life. Birth of an Economist Around Christmas of 1903, Mises had just received his office's commission and had recently returned to his studies when he first read Menger's Principles. It was an intellectual encounter that would forever change his outlook on science and the world. Mises later emphasized that the book made an economist of me. That is, practically speaking, it made him skeptical of the benefits of government action. To be an economist is, in fact, to understand the limitations of government. It is to have grasped that the state is not omnipotent and that it cannot do all it claims it can do. Today, most professional economists would probably reject this definition. But that is because the economics profession underwent such dramatic changes after World War II that present-day economists share only the title with their pre-war predecessors. At any rate, Mises understood the practical essence of economic science to be the insight that free enterprise and the voluntary association of individuals is superior to the coercive schemes of the state. In this understanding, he continued the tradition of the British classical economists and of the great 18th and 19th century French economistes. In 1904 Vienna, Mises was quite alone in his new orientation. Reading Menger's principles alienated him from his fellow students, from his professors, and then later from his colleagues. His discovery made him richer intellectually and spiritually, but it also made him a very lonely man. Twenty-five years later, Franz Weiss remembered vividly how Mises had suddenly turned away from the ideals he had shared with Weiss and other peers. Weiss warned young Friedrich August von Hayek not to follow Mises in his betrayal of social values for the old doctrine of liberalism. Hayek surmised, if Karl Menger had not aged at such relatively early date, and if Böhm Barak had not died so early, Mises probably would have found support in them. But the only survivor of the early Austrian school, my very dear teacher Friedrich von Wieser, was himself rather a Fabian, proud as he thought to have delivered with his development of marginal utility theory a scientific justification of the progressive income tax. Reading Karl Menger did not immediately produce the author of human action. Mises's own statism was too deep-rooted. He had absorbed it from the earliest days of his childhood, and he unconsciously applied it in his research for the Grunberg and Filipovitz seminars. Everyone he knew shared the fundamental conviction that government intervention is inherently beneficial, while the free market is only accidentally so at best. What Menger's principles did was to change fundamentally Mises's outlook on the analysis of social problems. Menger's book showed that individual consumer values are paramount on the market because they not only determine the values of all consumer goods, but also the values of all factors of production. 
It is consumers who steer the entire market system through their spending decisions. Capitalist entrepreneurs merely carry out or anticipate their wishes. The market is not beneficial by accident, but is inherently so. It is eminently just, and it is elegant. All government intervention must therefore be considered carefully before it is allowed to disrupt the order of the market. It took Mises a while to digest a Mingerian message, to analyze its weaknesses and strengths, and to think through its political implications. He could not jump directly from his former statist convictions to embrace complete laissez-faire liberalism. This was the main challenge of Menger's book. Mises did not have to be convinced of the merits of Menger's theory. From his childhood days he had had doubts about the purely historical approach. He had a passionate interest in deriving practical lessons from the study of history, but did not know how to do it. The writings of the historical school that he digested while at the gymnasium did not seem to solve the problem either. In his Erinnerungen, he writes, It was my intense interest in historical knowledge that enabled me to perceive readily the inadequacy of German historicism. It did not deal with scientific problems, but with the glorification and justification of Prussian policies and Prussian authoritarian government. His years in the Grünberg Seminar finally convinced him that the champions of the historical school had indeed failed to solve this problem. He later summarized their failure. Historicism was right in stressing the fact that in order to know something in the field of human affairs, one has to familiarize oneself with the way in which it developed. The historicist's fateful error consisted in the belief that this analysis of the past in itself conveys information about the course future action has to take. What the historical account provides is the description of the situation. The reaction depends on the meaning the actor gives it, on the ends he wants to attain, and on the means he chooses for their attainment. In 1860 there was slavery in many states of the Union. The most careful and faithful record of the history of this institution in general, and in the United States in particular, did not map out the future policies of the nation with regard to slavery. The situation in the manufacturing and marketing of motor cars that Ford found on the eve of his embarking upon mass production did not indicate what had to be done in this field of business. Practical guidance could not be obtained at all through historical inquiry. Only theory of the Mengerian sort could do this. But to go from theory to endorsing the political program that seemed to follow from the Mengerian premises was quite a step. It took Mises years to gradually overcome his prejudices. His ongoing political radicalization shows that the process continued late into his life. He recalled its very beginning. My first doubts about the excellence of interventionism came to me when, in my fifth semester, Professor Filipovic induced me to research housing conditions, and when in the following semester in this seminar on criminal law, Professor Leffler asked me to research the changes in law regarding domestic servants, who at that time were still subject to corporal punishment by their employers. It then dawned on me that all real improvements in the conditions of the working classes were the result of capitalism, and that social laws frequently brought about the very opposite of what the legislation was intended to achieve. It was only after further study of economics that the true nature of interventionism was revealed to me. Two years later, he was already fairly critical of the benefits of organized labor. On November 28, 1905, he watched 250,000 labor union members defy the law that prohibited demonstrations before the Parliament 
while the MPs were in session. That night his friend Otto Bauer rejoiced over the triumph of the proletarian masses. Mises saw it as anarchy. What if another mass organization arose and similarly defied the law? Would that not lead to civil war? Bauer scorned Mises for this question, which he thought betrayed a petty bourgeois mindset. The future belonged to social democracy. Mises's early transition period from statism to liberalism is well documented in a lengthy study he wrote for the Filipovich Seminar on the history of Austrian factory legislation. Mises presented the paper in 1904 or early 1905 and subsequently published it in Böhm Barek's Zeitschrift. In it, Mises pointed out that in Austria, organized child labor was a creation of the state. Under Empress Maria Theresa, coercive child labor had been instituted in an effort to combat laziness, misery, and sin sexual activities. Thus, the state could pursue several goals through a single measure. It got the children off the streets, ostensibly in their own interest, and as a beneficial side effect, it promoted large-scale industry and reduced public welfare expenditures. Not surprisingly, many factory owners abused the situation. In 1785, Emperor Joseph II visited a factory in the town of Treiskirchen, and shocked by what he saw, ordered legislation to remedy the children's misery. Mises proudly noted that the Emperor's order preceded the British Morals and Health Act by 16 years, but he also emphasized that the market was not the cause of the problem. The root of the children's misery lay not in the factory owner's entrepreneurial function, but in the lack of a contractual relationship. Commenting on the eventual suppression of the Kinderhäuser, where the children were kept after work, he said, the children's houses might have offered better room and board to the adolescent worker than his parents' home, but they delivered him entirely into the power of the factory owner. This legal relationship could be interpreted as a wage contract only from a formal point of view. In its essence, it was more similar to slavery. While these facts did not fit the mainstream view of government's role in child labor, Mises was not yet ready to deny the Austrian government a role in improving the children's situation. He ferociously criticized a favorable report on free market child labor as tendentious and exaggerated, though he did not provide a single counter-argument. In his conclusion, he hailed the progressive Emperor Joseph II for instigating the epoch of social policy. He writes, The double insight that we first encounter in this law, Joseph II's bill dated November 20th, 1785, that factory work involves grave disadvantages for children from a hygienic and moral point of view, and that these ills can only be eliminated through the intervention of the state and through continuous control by the state, has become the point of departure of modern social policy. We can see the remnants of unquestioned suppositions in young Mises's thought, but he had learned the first step how to think as an economist. This shift was reflected in his increasingly critical analysis of the limits of government action. Such an attitude did not find approval from the established academia. When Mises presented himself for Staatsexamen numbers two and three, he passed with distinction in law but not in government science enough to slow his ambitions in his main field of academic interest. By February 20th, 1906, he had passed his juridical, political science, and general law exams. This gained him the title of Doctor Juris Utrisque, Doctor of Canon and Secular Law.
His mother was proud, and his friends probably poked fun at Dr. Mises, the pseudonym under which Gustav Theodor Fechner had published satirical pieces attacking early 19th-century German materialism. Years with a master The decisive boost to Mises' intellectual development came when Eugen Ritter von Böhm Bawerk opened his seminar at the University of Vienna in the summer semester of 1905, a great day in the history of the university and the development of economics. Böhm Bawerk was Karl Menger's most important follower, and had gained international fame as an economic theorist with his Kapital und Kapitalzins, Capital and Interest, a two-volume treatise on economics and the history of economic ideas. After a brilliant career as a professor of political economy in Innsbruck and as a four-time minister of finance, 54-year-old Böhm Bawerk returned to his alma mater, where a special position was created for him in the Department of Government Science. For the next nine years, the University of Vienna would host the three best economic theoreticians in the German-speaking world, Böhm-Barbeck, Wieser, and Filipowitz. It remains the high point in the teaching of Austrian economics. Böhm-Barbeck was a towering presence as a teacher and a master of clear thinking and clear speech. His fame attracted outstanding students from all parts of Austria and abroad. But what made these students stay often for years after graduation, was the razor-sharp mind that could cut through the knottiest problems of economics. Many of his students were critical of the Austrian school, and of his writings in particular. But fearless and thorough, Bim Barwerk accepted, examined, and discussed all arguments brought before him, and demonstrated again and again the usefulness of the Austrian approach. The very first summer set the tone. Bim Barmack spent the entire semester discussing the shortcomings of Karl Marx's labor theory of value, engaging in extended debate with the brilliant Austro-Marxist Otto Bauer. Young Bauer was the secretary of the parliamentary delegation of the Socialist Party and was well-versed in both Austrian and Marxist theory. His main duty as secretary was to explain and justify the Socialist Party's current line. He was an experienced and impressive debater who had defended Marx's views in countless discussions in and out of academia. He was also the editor of the socialist journal Der Kampf and was on his way to winning great acclaim with the scholarly work on one of the pressing issues of Austrian politics, the coexistence of national communities within the Danubian state. Bauer was a worthy sparing partner for Böhm Barwerk, but he was no more than that. He found it impossible to raise a point the old master had not thought of, the spectacle of their encounter left the other seminar members with the distinct feeling that they had had the privilege of studying under a true master. Ludwig von Mises was one of those who continued attending the seminar after graduation. Critical though he was in all things, he could not help but feel awe in Böhm Barak's presence. More than half a century later, the celebrated author of Human Action had this to say on the occasion of a new English translation of Böhm Barak's Capital and Interest. There is no doubt that Böhm Barwerk's book is the most eminent contribution to modern economic theory. For every economist, it is a must to study it most carefully and to scrutinize its content with the utmost care. Although Böhm Barwerk's great opus is mere theory and abstains from any practical applications, it is the most powerful intellectual weapon in the great struggle of the Western way of life against the destructionism of Soviet barbarism. Böhm-Barak's seminar decisively reinforced the impact of Menger's principles. 
Under Birnbaumack's guidance, Mises began to delve more systematically into the literature of economic theory. He began the research that led to his first great book, A Treatise on Money and Banking. These were years of apprenticeship. Mises continued to liberate himself step by step from his statist prejudices and to become acquainted with the great tradition of monetary analysis in 19th century British and French thought. He started publishing papers on questions related to money and banking, articles that reveal his changing views on the role of government in this field. Some of these early opinions are likely to surprise the reader who knows Mises only as the author of Human Action or of the Theory of Money and Credit. For example, in a 1907 paper on the motivations of Austrian exchange rate regulations, Mises hailed the policy of suspending cash redemptions so that the central bank could separate the so-called legitimate demand for gold from the illegitimate one, because it thereby became possible to keep Vienna interbank interest rates lower than in Berlin and London. He still had a long way to go to become the famous intransigent opponent of all government interventionism. As his earlier writings show, he did not adopt his later views capriciously or out of ignorance of other perspectives. Ludwig von Mises became the most radical free market economist of his time only by overcoming the part of himself that was still hostage to the dominant worldview. The zeitgeist had a firm grip on his feelings and instincts, but it could not subdue his will to follow reason wherever it led him. In his last months as a student, Mises witnessed a great political earthquake which forebode even more fateful events to come. Far from Vienna, at the easternmost end of the Eurasian landmass, Russia unexpectedly lost a war against Japan. In one stroke, the war smashed Moscow's Far Eastern ambitions, and it was suddenly clear to all of Europe that Russia's energies would be redirected to its western borders. Even more unexpectedly, however, the loss revealed the precarious condition of the Russian monarchy. Insurrection was in the streets of St. Petersburg and Moscow, and on October 31, 1905, the Tsar capitulated. In a spectacular October manifesto, Nicholas II promised Russia a constitution and the election of a parliament. Vienna and the rest of Europe were shocked to see how far socialist agitation had undermined the Russian power structure, which had been considered the greatest bulwark of reactionary politics in the world. On November 1st, Nicholas's October manifesto was read in the Austrian parliament, and the Social Democrats began singing the Marseillaise. Viennese workers took to the streets. On November 2nd, Mises watched thousands march down the Vienna Ringstrasse. There were bloody encounters with the police. One day later, Emperor Franz Josef introduced universal male suffrage in both Austria and Hungary. The turmoil did not subside and was not limited to the capitals of Europe. In the coming years, new revolutions shook old regimes in Turkey, Persia, and China. A contemporary citizen of Vienna later recalled the revolutionary atmosphere. The next generation can hardly imagine the depths to which the general consciousness of European society was, at that time, altered and transformed by these events. Until then, the monarchical, statist, and bourgeois order had not been subject to any doubt. They were indestructible, but with one stroke— Everything had become problematic. One positive effect of the new situation was that it finally compelled the emperor to confront the Hungarian problem head-on. For years, 
the ruling clique of Hungarian landowners had pressed for a revision of the Ausgleich Agreement of 1867. They demanded in particular that the Hungarian army be allowed to give up German as the language of command, that Hungary should obtain its own central bank, and that it should be severed economically from the rest of the empire through an internal tariff line. When Franz Josef allowed equal voting rights in all part of the empire, the Hungarian establishment was doomed. On January 30th, 1907, the Austrian Estates-Based Parliament, Kurian Parliament, which guaranteed a majority of seats to the establishment, was abolished 46 years after its creation. The first general elections under the new law on May 11, 1907, brought 86 socialist deputies out of 516 into the Abgeordnetenhaus, the lower chamber of parliament. Part 2. The Austrian School. Chapter 4. Fin de siècle, Economic Science. The problems and ideas that moved Mises in his early years were addressed by the work of four great economic theorists, Karl Menger, Eugen von Böhm-Bawerk, Friedrich von Wieser, and Josef Schumpeter. Menger, Böhm-Bawerk, and Wieser were the incarnation of the Austrian school. Their books and papers and their physical presence provided the intellectual background of Mises' scholarly works in fin de siècle Austria the period that lasted until 1914. Mises's major contributions were intended to solve problems raised by their writings. His influence on the succeeding generation of students of Austrian economics, or his lack of influence on them, can only be understood against the background provided by the pre-1914 foundational writings of the Austrian school, and by the towering presences of Wieser and Schumpeter on the German and Austrian scene until the late 1920s. Karl Menger, pioneer of empirical theory. Mises knew all four personally, but Menger had retired from teaching a year before Mises discovered Menger's principles. They met for the first time around 1910, when Mises was attending Böhm Barwerk's seminar and preparing his first treatise, The Theory of Money and Credit. It was then customary that young men wishing to pursue an academic career in economics paid Menger a visit. He received them in his house amidst his impressive library, and had them talk about their work and projects. Menger was born in 1840 in the Galician town of Neusandes, today located in Poland. His father was a lawyer from a family of army officers and civil servants. His mother came from a rich bohemian merchant family that had moved to Galicia. His full name was Karl Menger Edler von Wolfesgrün, but he and his brothers, the influential politician Max and the socialist legal scholar Anton, did not use their title of nobility. After Menger successfully discharged his commission to tutor Crown Prince Rudolf in economics, he obtained the right to accede to knighthood. Menger did not apply because he preferred his bourgeois status. Menger was a fascinating and energetic personality. Intellectually vigorous into his old age, he was a true polymath in his youth. He had studied law and government science first in Prague and then in Vienna. One of his teachers at the University of Vienna was Peter Mischler, a champion of marginal value theory, but apparently Menger was not then interested in economics or an academic career. He preferred non-academic writing and in 1863 worked as a journalist for the Lemberger Zeitung. 
Around 1864, he began preparing for a doctorate in law and government science and passed the first exam in March 1865. Even at this point, his new academic commitment was overshadowed by his literary pursuits. When he passed the last of his four doctoral exams in March 1867, he was in the process of writing several comedies. His literary interest was more than academic. Menger founded the journal Wiener Tagblatt, which first appeared on November 26, 1865. In an early issue, he began publishing an anonymous novel, with the scandalous title Der Ewige Jude in Wien, The Eternal Jew in Vienna. This was a fashionable subject of feuilleton novels, a new literary genre at the time. In France, the king of the feuilleton novel, Eugène Sue, had become rich and famous with Le Juif Iran, 1844-1845. The protagonist of his novel symbolized the oppression of the Jewish people throughout the centuries. In March 1866, he joined the economic staff of another Vienna journal, the Wiener Zeitung. This paper was a pure government organ controlled by the Council of Ministers, and in particular by the President's Office of the Ministry of the Interior. The editorial staff was selected by the government, official articles were written in the ministries, and edited and submitted by the Council of Ministers. Thus, Menger became a government employee in a fast-track position that offered prospects to reach the highest strata within the Austrian civil service. Wieser emphasized he entered government service. A government position carried great prestige and was highly coveted by the young elites. Competition was fierce even for lesser positions. To succeed, one needed protection, the friendly ear of someone sufficiently high in the government's pecking order to influence the nomination. In Menger's case, the initial protection might have come through his brother Max, but Karl quickly learned to stand on his own. One of his tasks as an officer of the Wiener Zeitung was to write market surveys. As he later told his disciple Friedrich von Wieser, this was his practical introduction to price theory. He was struck by the discrepancy between the actual pricing process as explained by traders and the standard textbook explanations he had learnt at the university. Upon closer inspection, he came to believe that prices ultimately depended on the value judgments of consumers. It was with this thesis that he eventually earned his habilitation, the traditional Central European University professor's credential in government science. Apparently Menger did not abandon his literary interest. In January 1869 he published another novel, Die Bettlerin von St. Marx, The Beggaress of St. Marx, in another Vienna paper, the Allgemeine Volkszeitung. In 1871, he published his work under the title Grundsätze der Volkswirtschaftslehre, Principles of Economics. In his book, Menger presented a theoretical study of fundamental economic phenomena, such as economic goods, value, exchange, prices, commodities, and money. He explained the properties of these phenomena and the laws to which they are subject at all times and places. This is, of course, what good economics textbooks always did, and still do. What made Menger's book special is the method he used in his explanations. He tried to trace the causes of the properties and laws under scrutiny back to the simplest facts. His purpose was to demonstrate that the properties and laws of economic phenomena result from these empirically ascertainable elements of the human economy, such as individual human needs, individual human knowledge, 
ownership and acquisition of individual quantities of goods, time, and individual error. In the parlance of 20th century analytical philosophy, Menger's elements would have been called primitives of economic theory. Menger's great achievement in principles consisted in identifying these elements for analysis and explaining how they cause more complex market phenomena such as prices. He called this the empirical method, emphasizing that it was the same method that worked so well in the natural sciences. Barry Smith has convincingly argued that Menger applied Aristotelian realism in economic analysis. To the present reader, the label might be confusing, since it is not at all the experimental method of the modern empirical sciences. Menger did not use abstract models to posit falsifiable hypotheses that are then tested by experience. Instead, Menger's was an analytical method that began with the smallest empirical phenomena and proceeded logically from there. This put Menger in a position to consider market exchanges and prices as macro-phenomena, and to explain how they are caused by atomistic but empirically ascertainable elements of the human economy, situated in an economic microcosm of individual needs and the marginal quantities owned and acquired. In Menger's words, prices were by no means the most fundamental feature of the economic phenomenon of exchange, but only incidental manifestations of these activities, symptoms of an economic equilibrium between the economies of individuals. As later works and correspondence revealed, Menger was fully aware that his most important innovation was the consistent application of the new empirical method, which he also called the exact method, the analytical synthetic or the analytical compositive method. In a February 1884 letter to Léon Valras, criticizing Valras's claim that there was a mathematical method of economic research, Menger wrote, it is rather necessary that we go back to the most simple elements of the mostly very complex phenomena that are here in question, that we thus determine in an analytical manner the ultimate factors that constitute the phenomena, the prices, and that we then accord to these elements the importance that corresponds to their nature, and that in keeping with this importance we try to establish the laws according to which the complex phenomena of human interaction result from simple phenomena. William Jaffe emphasizes that Karl Menger avoided the use of mathematics in his economics, not because he did not know any better, but out of principle. When he wrote to Léon Valras on June 28, 1883, that he had been for some time thoroughly acquainted with Valras's writings, he did not disclaim, as did other correspondents, sufficient knowledge of mathematics to follow these writings, which we may be sure he would have done if that had been the case. Instead, Karl Menger declared his objection in principle to the use of mathematics as a method of advancing economic knowledge. Robert Hébert reports that Menger owned the journals where the mid-19th century French econo-engineers published their pioneering studies in mathematical economics. Menger also owned the books of the major representatives of this school of thought. Only in this manner was it possible accurately to describe the essence of economic phenomena and not just the contingent quantitative relationships in which they might stand with other phenomena at certain times and places. Referring to the disagreements between his theory of prices and the price theory of his French correspondent, Menger argued that real-life experience was the only legitimate way to decide the points under contention. The merit of a theory always depends on the extent to which it succeeds 
in determining the true factors, those that correspond to real life, constituting the economic phenomena and the laws according to which the complex phenomena of political economy result from the simple elements. Menger continues, A researcher who arrives by the way of analysis at such elements that do not correspond to reality, or who without any true analysis takes his departure from arbitrary axioms, which is only too often the case with the so-called rational method, falls necessarily into error, even if he makes superior use of mathematics. The empirical foundation of Menger's approach contrasted sharply with the Anglo-Saxon approach of that time, which was inspired by David Ricardo's principles, and relied on fictitious postulates and on such arbitrarily constructed aggregates as price level, capitalists, landowners, and laborers. But Menger's approach also contrasted with the dominant fashions on the continent, and in particular in Germany, where economists, in the matter of historians, treated observed complex phenomena such as market prices as the starting point for their analysis, rather than trying to explain them as resulting from more fundamental factors. In one stroke, principles of economics departed from both paradigms. Menger had found the delicate balance needed to develop economic theory that remained in touch with the real world. The comprehensive architecture of his book also showed that the principle of marginal value, which had played only an obscure role in earlier theories, is of fundamental and all-pervasive importance in economic science. The core of Menger's book is the chapter on value, which consumes a quarter of its pages. While financial analysts of Menger's experience stress subjective factors in price formation, the personal judgment of consumers, entrepreneurs, traders on the stock exchange, etc. Academic economists relegated these subjective factors to a secondary position beneath supposedly objective factors independent of human perceptions. The British classical economists, Adam Smith and David Ricardo most notably, had created a thoroughly objectivist price theory that sought to explain the natural or long-run prices of all goods by reference only to the costs of production, particularly the cost of labor. According to this labor theory of value, subjective factors can cause actual market prices to deviate from correct prices, but only temporarily and never by enough to outweigh the impact of the objective costs of labor. The value of a product was therefore ultimately one of its inherent qualities, just like weight or volume. It was in the good, rather than an accidental feature that stemmed from outside. The writings of Smith and Ricardo were overwhelmingly successful in the Anglo-Saxon countries and had made great inroads on the European continent. The French Revolution had shifted the center of economic research and learning from the continent to Britain. The Napoleonic era was particularly effective in suppressing the classical liberal movement on the continent. Public attention naturally shifted to Adam Smith, the patron saint of the still vigorous British branch of the movement. Smith became the main authority on economic theory, displacing Quenet, reducing Turgot to a footnote, and condemning Condillac to oblivion. But his popularity as the intellectual leader of political liberalism did not help Smith in Germany. German economists were far less receptive to the Smithian message than were their peers in the West. German economists tended to be government employees and abhorred unbecoming political affiliations. Wilhelm Roscher, a great historian of economic thought and one of the leading German economists of the 19th century, 
famously observed that it was a national peculiarity of the Germans to deviate from the rule of free trade, which has been imported from England and France through numerous exceptions made for government interventionism. The German professors read Adam Smith, even read him attentively, but only to dismiss his views as lacking solid foundations. And while they did recognize Smith as an authority in the field, wrong-headed or not, they dismissed Ricardo almost out of hand. Smith's errors were debatable, but in Ricardo they found no scientific merit whatsoever. This preference for Smith over Ricardo grew stronger over the next century, and culminated in the works of the very influential younger historical school, which rejected economic theory altogether. See, for example, Gustav Schmoller, Volkswirtschaft, Volkswirtschaftslehre und Methode, Handwörterbuch der Staatswissenschaften, where Schmoller speaks of a battle of his school against Ricardo's one-sidedness. In his principles, Ricardo had invented what today would be called macroeconomics, stressing the relationships between various aggregates, such as price levels, average wages, average profits, but also between social aggregates, such as laborers, capitalists, and landowners. On the basis of his insights about the relationships between such aggregate variables, he made the case for a far-reaching laissez-faire program. This approach did not meet with enthusiasm among German social scientists. Ever since the French Revolutionary Army had invaded Germany under the bloody banner of abstract human rights, Germans tended to be suspicious of sweeping political programs derived from theory, without basis in observed reality. Under the trauma of the French Revolution, 19th-century German historians, jurists, and government scientists tended to stress the particular conditions of concrete human communities, rather than focus on features of an unobservable humanity en masse. Smith did have an extremely able advocate in Jean-Baptiste Say, who was indefatigable in his efforts to promote British classical economics. Say's Traité d'économique politique is a masterpiece in its own right, in many ways more sophisticated than the books of Smith and Ricardo. Say gave an axiomatic exposition of Smithian and possibly even Ricardian economic science, enhancing enormously the prestige of the Scotsman's unsystematic wealth of nations. Yet by the same token, Say also paved the way to displacing the continental tradition of economic thought that could be traced back to the Spanish late scholastics, a tradition that was still alive and vigorous in the Catholic countries of Europe. He redefined the British economists' focus on whole classes or aggregates of goods, subdividing economic science into a macroeconomic trilogy, production, distribution, and consumption of consumers' goods in general. Most important, he gave classical economics an appealing epistemological justification, showing it to be rooted in common experience. This empirically-oriented methodology made much more sense to continental scholars and convinced them that there was a scientific case to be made for Ricardian economics and the political program it seemed to entail. Sir was the central figure in the promotion of British economics on the European continent, but he clearly owed a far greater intellectual debt to the scientific tradition of his own country. By the mid-nineteenth century, thanks to the efforts of Say, British economics had become the academic orthodoxy of Europe and America. It was against the background of this orthodoxy that Menger worked on a restatement of the explanation of the pricing process. In developing his theory of value and prices, Menger relied on the remnants of an ancient price theory 
from the late scholastic school of Salamanca, which in the 16th and early 17th centuries had stressed precisely those subjective features of the pricing process that were conspicuously absent from the British classical school. But the Spanish late scholastics never produced a treatise on economics, and their discoveries about the nature of values and prices were scattered across thousands of pages. The subjectivist theory of value survived only in this diffused form, with one important exception, Etienne de Condillac's great treatise, Commerce and Government. Published in the same year as Smith's Wealth of Nations, 1776, Condillac's treatment gave the first full axiomatic presentation of political economy on the basis of the subjectivist theory of value. But the impact of his work was minimal, because French economists rejected it. Condillac was already a famous philosopher when he published the book, and did not deem it necessary to follow the conventions of the disciples of Quinet. Rather, he presented his thoughts in an independent and original manner. An offence, it turns out, serious enough to prevent the translation of his work into English for more than two hundred years. Still, commerce and government was one of the main sources of inspiration for Menger, who of course read French, among other languages, when he elaborated his economic value theory. Menger quoted Cognac more than any foreign authority other than Adam Smith, and in contrast to Smith, he quoted him only favorably. Menger pointed out that value can only come into existence once human beings realize that economic goods exist, and that each of them has a personal, or as Menger would say, subjective importance. More importantly, value always concerns the concrete units of a good, that is, the marginal units under consideration, like one cup of water, four loaves of bread, three diamonds, two glasses of milk, etc. It never concerns the total available stock of these goods except when decisions are actually made about the total stock. This insight is the key to solving an apparent paradox of the subjectivist theory of value which had prevented a wider acceptance of the theory. If the price of a good really depends on the subjective importance of the good, then how is it that water, which is essential to human survival, commands a far lower price than diamonds, which are much less important than water? This apparent paradox played in favor of the labor theory of value, virtually the only alternative to the subjectivist approach. Whatever the problems of the labor theory of value, it did not contradict reality as strikingly as its subjectivist competitor. Menger showed that the paradox is only apparent, it vanishes as soon as we stop asking about the value of entire classes of goods, which are economically irrelevant because they are not subject to human decision-making. If we ask instead about the laws that rule the evaluation of individual units of a good, the answer becomes clear. Water is so abundant that it not only serves to satisfy the most important, and thus most highly valued human need for water, but also far less important needs for water such as decorative fountains. It is the value of the least important but still satisfied need that determines the economic value of every unit of water, which therefore commands a low market price. By contrast, diamonds are so rare that the available supply can only satisfy the most important needs for them, and as a consequence they are very expensive. Menger also showed that the value of factors of production is always derived from the value of consumer goods, and not the other way around. Contrary to the assertion of cost of production theorists, a bottle of wine is not valuable because it has been produced with valuable land and valuable labor, 
The land and the labor invested in winemaking are valuable in the first place because consumers value the bottle of wine. Finally, Menger argued that the microphenomenon of value exists independent of any social system of the division of labor. Thus, he starts analyzing the macrophenomena of exchange, prices, and money only after his chapter on value. In the light of Menger's analysis, the market economy appeared as one great organism, geared to it the satisfaction of consumer needs. Not only the market prices, but also the institutions of the market, such as money, are part and parcel of a rational order that can exist and operate without needing the assistance of political authorities. In a way, Menger delivered a compliment to Condillac's thesis, that human needs are the great regulator of all human institutions. Condillac had made his case from an economic and, most famously, from an epistemological point of view, arguing that perceptions are determined by needs. He lacked the important element of marginalism, however, and it was on this that Menger built a complete and thorough revision of economic science. Menger's work in the German context The ancient subjectivist theory of value had survived in fragmentary form in 19th-century German economic writings. In 1806, Gottlieb Hufeland called the subjectivist theory the traditional view and recommended never to deviate from it. In this context, the young economist from Vienna was seen as a reformer rather than a revolutionary, thus avoiding the fate of Condillac. Before Menger, various German economists had criticized the labor theory of value specifically and rejected the doctrine of inherent value in general. Menger's view that value was subjective personal, individual, in nature, was not exceptional among German authors of the first half of the 19th century. Indeed, some of them even knew the principle of marginal subjective value. But their insights were merely disconnected observations. None of Menger's German predecessors recognized the central importance of marginal value, and none had produced a unified subjectivist theory. In the 1860s, two unconnected layers of analysis subsisted in the German textbooks. Their price theories typically featured cost-of-production explanations as a dominant component and allowed for an incoherent coexistence with the traditional subjective value explanations. Erich Streisler points out that Alfred Marshall's Principles of Economics had the exact structure of a typical German textbook. Karl Marx heaped scorn and ridicule on this blatant display of eclecticism. He was right to do so. Menger took what was no more than hinted at in the writings of his predecessors and presented it in a systematic treatise that revolutionized the profession's view on the relations between human needs, value, and prices. Through this systematic attempt to look for the causes of these relations in the simplest facts open to empirical inquiry, the elements of the human economy, Menger put the discussion of needs, goods, economic systems, productions, prices, income, consumption, etc., on completely new ground. The contrast to his eclectic German predecessors could not have been greater. Their eclecticism was reinforced by tendencies Menger avoided. In particular, German economists tended to engage in excessive and often pointless record-keeping and classification of economic phenomena an inclination that reflected the political climate of the time. The restoration of monarchy and the concomitant fight against liberalism between 1815 and 1848 made it imprudent to delve too deeply into theoretical considerations 
which might lead to a critical appraisal of the limits of government. As William Johnson said, at a time when it was forbidden to debate matters of fundamental principle, scholars retreated into collecting data. The record-keeping approach to economic analysis reached its climax by the end of the century with the ascension of the younger historical school, as did many other academic employees of the new German central state. They saw themselves as the intellectual bodyguards of the House of Hohenzollern. This point of view was not limited to intellectuals working in ideological fields, such as history, political economy, or philosophy. In a public lecture given on August 3, 1870, Emile Dubois-Raymond, the rector of the Frederick William University of Berlin and a pioneer of electrophysiology, proclaimed that his university was the intellectual bodyguard of the House of Hohenzollern. A related German shortcoming that Menger scrupulously avoided was historicism the tendency to regard regularities in economic phenomena as historical laws, that is, as conditioned by the particular circumstances of time and place. Though the German economists of those days would have agreed with Menger that all economic phenomena were somehow related to one another, and that one of the purposes of economic science was to find out what the relationship was, Menger's analysis revealed that these relationships were laws that held true at all times and places. Moreover, he showed that they could be studied without reference to the concrete historical context. His book featured many concrete illustrations of the general laws under discussion, but in essence, Menger's principles was an exercise in pure theory. Methodenstreit Meanwhile, in the universities of the German Reich, a vigorous movement had emerged that pursued an agenda diametrically opposed to Menger's view and advocated a radical break with the traditional approach in economic science, as Streisler points out in The Influence of German Economics on the Work of Karl Menger and Marshall. Through this work, Streisler had convincingly corrected the hereto-prevailing notion that the younger historical school was somehow more deeply rooted in the German tradition of economic science than Karl Menger. As Streisler stated, the real revolutionary was Gustav Schmuller, not Menger. While Menger sought to turn economic theory into an analytical science, the young radicals in Berlin pursued a complete overthrow of theoretical research, replacing it instead with historical studies. The leader of this group was Gustav Schmuller, a young professor from the University of Halle. Schmuller was a professor in Halle from 1864 to 1872. Being one of the first beneficiaries of the Prussian-German victory over France in the Franco-Prussian War, he moved to the University of Strasbourg, 1872-1882, before finally receiving a chair at the University of Berlin, 1882-1913. Schmoller's great goal, overriding all his theoretical and methodological concerns, was to combat the growing intellectual and practical influence of laissez-faire liberalism in Germany. His strategy was to promote the discussion of the social question, by which he meant the question of how government could promote the welfare of the working classes. That the government could and should promote working-class welfare was taken for granted. Schmoller put his strategy into practice through an association of like-minded intellectuals and political leaders, most of whom were university professors and civil servants. In October 1872, he convened a first national meeting of men of all parties of whom it can be assumed that they have interest in and moral pathos for the social question, and that they do not believe the absolute laissez-faire et laissez-passer to be the right thing as far as the social question is concerned. 
Schmoller and two others who would become long-time leaders of the group, the Breslau Professor Leo Brentano and the Berlin statistician Ernst Engel, addressed the meeting with lectures on strikes and labor unions, on German factory laws and on the housing question. The distinct anti-market and pro-government orientation of these university professors quickly earned them the sobriquet of Kathedersozialisten, or Socialists of the Chair. The smear term Kathedersozialisten was coined by Heinrich Bernard Oppenheim in his book Der Kathedersozialismus. The only Austrian participant in the initial 1872 meeting was one Dr. Friedmann, probably Otto Bernhard Friedmann, a journalist from Vienna. Significantly, their first meeting took place in the city of Eisenach, which in the same year had hosted the founding convention of the Sozialistische Partei Deutschlands, Socialist Party of Germany. Because the SPD was the very first socialist party in the world, Eisenach had become the symbol of the organized socialist movement. The group now founded the Verein für Sozialpolitik, Association for Social Policy, with the explicit purpose of promoting welfare policies of the new German central state. The first president was Erwin Nasse, a professor from Bonn. Schmoller, who in 1872 had been a young man, became Nasser's successor in 1890 and remained president until his death in 1917. The Verein organized plenary meetings, which took place every other year, and meetings of an elected committee, Ausschuss. These meetings had a deep and often immediate impact on German policies because they provided a neutral territory for the representatives of the most powerful organized groups. University professors, labor union officials, high-ranking civil servants and entrepreneurs met in the Verein, got to know one another, and forged political compromises on the issues of the day. The strong practical orientation was also visible in the Verein's publication series. Each volume addressed a different pressing social problem, analyzed its symptoms, and invariably ended with a call for government action. Ralf Reiko states, Many of the 134 intensively researched volumes that were published until 1914 virtually served as indictments of various flaws and grievances of the existing system, and each of them called for government action. The main goal of the socialists of the chair, namely to change public opinion within the educated bourgeoisie and especially within the bureaucracy, was attained to a large extent. Through these activities, the Verein became one of the most important vehicles for the consolidation and expansion of the new German government civil service. The professors and the other civil servants saw themselves as neutral mediators among the various contesting social groups. Every solution to any perceived social problem invariably involved either their active participation or their intermediation. Many years later, Mises characterized their attitude in the following words. It is the mentality of officialdom, which, according to Brentano, was the only sounding board of the Association for Social Policy that considers as constructive and policy only that ideology which calls for the greatest number of offices and officials. And he who seeks to reduce the number of state agents is decried as a negative thinker or an enemy of the state. As they saw it, they promoted political compromise between the left and right, democracy and monarchy, utilitarianism and justice, laborers and entrepreneurs. They considered themselves neutral arbiters because they considered these conflicts from the higher point of view of the new central government, which represented the entire nation. The era of the Verein für Sozialpolitik coincided 
with the heyday of German political centralization. Starting in the early 1890s, however, the government began to turn its back on the Verein. Its constant agitation for left-wing political reform had been too successful, and it risked losing its reputation for political neutrality. For a while, Schmoller managed to steer against this trend, but the Verein's very success eventually spelled its doom. At the end of the 19th century, it had already attracted a great number of intellectuals and social leaders, such as Max Weber, Ludwig Pohler, and Andreas Voigt, who were in principle opposed to the Verein's blind pro-government prejudices, and had joined only because of its practical importance. In the early years, the most vociferous opposition to the Verein's agenda came from non-members, such as Heinrich Oppenheim and Julius Wolf. Pohler and Voigt published their influential and devastating critiques of the Verein only after they left in 1905. Under the leadership of Max Weber, these men repeatedly clashed with the Verein establishment over the question of scientific proof in political matters. After World War I, Weber's followers would forever change the character of the Verein, turning it into a purely academic institution. But in its glory days of the late 1870s and 1880s, the Verein, and in particular the person of Gustav Schmoller, completely transformed the language of German language economic science. Schmoller also had a lasting influence on German economics through his personal friendship with Friedrich Althoff, a high-ranking civil servant in Prussia's Ministry of Education who, from 1882 to 1907, controlled the nominations to the chairs of political economy in Prussian universities. It soon became obvious that, to obtain a full professorship, one had to subscribe, without qualifications, to the program defined in Schmoller's writings. Although Schmoller's agenda was targeted primarily against the heroes of the free trade movement, classical economists such as Adam Smith, Jean-Baptiste Say, and David Ricardo, it effectively killed the teaching of any type of economic theory in German universities. The so-called younger historical school under Schmoller went far beyond the healthy skepticism of theoretical abstractions that had characterized the works of the previous generation of German economists. The Schmollerites denied outright that there were any universal social laws at all. There were only certain regularities that changed with the changing institutions of society. The job of government science was only incidentally to study these context-dependent regularities. Its essential task was to study the concrete meaning of the idea of justice at a given time and place, because this was the true basis of the principle of social reform, adjusting the existing social institutions to the prevailing feelings of what was right and just. Schmoller thus advocated radical relativism and radical legal positivism, the most suitable doctrines for justifying his belief in and adoration of omnipotent government. Karl Menger had followed the growth of the Schmoller movement for some years. He realized that, under the supervening influence of the younger historical school, Germany and Austria, which was fully in Germany's intellectual orbit, were in the process of destroying the work of a century of economic scholarship. Menger's first treatise fell on deaf ears. It had found followers in Austria, but this was due in part to his personal influence on academic nominations. The German universities were impenetrable. Menger decided to lay the foundation for future works in positive economic analysis through a systematic methodological defense of his new approach. The result of these efforts was another great book, Untersuchungen über die Methode der Sozialwissenschaften und der politischen Ökonomie insbesondere, 
investigations into the method of the social sciences with special reference to economics. Menger insisted that the economic laws he had discussed were exact laws of reality and that the methods of historical research were entirely unable to discover such economic laws. These views could not fail to offend the historicist sensibilities of the academic establishment, which were especially strong among economists of Menger's own generation. In fact, while historicism was already noticeable in the works of the older historical school, Rocher, Knies, Hildebrandt, and others, in the writings of the younger historical school, Schmoller, Lexies, and others, it had become a dogma. Schmoller published a highly critical review of Menger's investigations, claiming that Menger had neglected to substantiate his analysis with fitting historical studies. In today's jargon, Menger had indulged in an exercise in pure theory which lacked empirical evidence in its support. This attack could have led to sober scholarly debate if Schmoller had not tried to stigmatize his opponent by labeling his approach the Mancunian individualistic method, associating Menger with the supposedly discredited Manchester School. The debate between Menger and Schmoller soon drew their disciples into heated exchange, during which even the grand old man of German economics, Wilhelm Roscher, heaped scorn on Menger. This collective exchange involved several more articles and books. Its unusually polemical and emotional character resulted from the fact that for Schmoller, any kind of economic theory strengthened the case for capitalism. The model of opposition between libertarian-minded theorists and statist historians is not a complete reflection of the state of affairs. There were, in fact, market-friendly historicists, such as Luio Brentano, as well as theorists with strong statist inclinations, such as Adolf Wagner or even Wieser. The debate culminated in 1895, when Menger's last great student, Richard Schüller, published his Habilitation thesis in which he refuted point by point the criticism of the classical economists that Bruno Hildebrandt had expressed in his inaugural lecture at the University of Vienna. Hildebrandt had succeeded Lorenz von Stein, but stayed only one year in Vienna. In spite of the heated atmosphere in which it took place, the debate on method between Menger and Schmoller was useful for the clarification of the differences between theoretical and applied economic research. While it did not produce any lasting or definitive results, it did renew interest in the topic and highlighted the importance of certain fundamental distinctions that later economists, philosophers, and historians such as Max Weber, Heinrich Rickert, Ludwig von Mises, and Alfred Schütz would develop. Of particular concern would be the distinction between the fundamentally different natures of natural science, history, and economics. What is less often seen is that the opposition that rallied all theorists behind Menger and all historians behind Schmoller caused some important differences within each group to be neglected. This was bound to promote confusion, especially within the ranks of the theorists who tended to be seen and to see themselves as adhering to the economic theory, where they in fact held significantly different notions of the subject matter and contents of their science. Menger's unique contribution tended to be perceived as only one part of a broad consensus on the main outline of the new economic theory. Menger did not share this perception. The Austrian School and the Gossen School With just two books, Menger had put economic and social thought on completely new foundations. Principles pioneered the application of the empirical method in economic theory and investigations had justified the method and clarified the relationship between the resulting theory and other social sciences. Economic science 
was no longer just the study of visible economic phenomena such as prices, money, production. It had become instead the study of how these phenomena were caused by the interaction between human ideas and an environment offering limited resources for the satisfaction of human needs. It took some time for both his opponents and his fellows to grasp the full impact of the Mangerian Revolution. For his contemporaries, the Mangerian project was attractive for reasons other than the grand new vision it implied. In particular, it was Menger's unique analytical method of developing economic theory as a descriptive science of the real world that attracted young disciples. Menger's empirical method fit the ideal of its day. Schools and universities had thoroughly prepared the young scientific elite to appreciate the virtues of empirical research. More than the universities of other countries at that time, Germany's institutions of higher learning insisted on the necessity of empirical investigations in virtually all fields. Surprisingly, this orientation was the product of the idealist philosophy of Immanuel Kant, which stressed that knowledge about the objects of the exterior world could only be gained through sensory experience, and in particular through observation. German scientists were more willing than others to leave their armchairs and offices for field research to engage in systematic observation of nature. The famous Alexander von Humboldt was a pioneer of this movement, but others soon began to follow. German science excelled in biology, physics, chemistry, medicine, history, and virtually all other fields of knowledge. In the field of political economy, however, which was usually taught under the name of government science, the call for an empirical foundation had led to the idealization of historical research. The historicists claimed that there was no other social science but history, and that economic theory, insofar as it had scientific merit at all, had to be a generalization of historical findings. In this context, Menger's approach appeared as an attractive alternative because it showed that economic theory was an independent discipline that could be studied in its own right, without abandoning the empirical agenda. The power of this message even attracted scholars of historicist background who had no personal contact with Karl Menger. A case in point was young Ludwig von Mises. Steeped as he was in the prejudices of interventionism and in the quest for a truly scientific foundation for economic policy, Mises would not have found Ricardo convincing, but Menger convinced him that there was such a thing as a scientific economic theory, a body of propositions about empirical reality, distinctly different from the propositions derived from historical research. Mises yielded to the evidence and became a Mangerian, and he would remain one the rest of his life. In later works, Mises would modify, generalize, and qualify Menger's views. In particular, he became famous for his interpretation of the epistemological status of the propositions of economic science, that is, for his claim that these propositions are true on an a priori grounds, and therefore cannot be verified or refuted by the evidence of the senses. But these claims were attempts to clarify the position that Mises had inherited from Menger, the difference between Menger's Aristotelian rhetoric and the Kantian phrasing used by Mises is glaring but the difference is mainly rhetorical. The principal thread of continuity between Menger and Mises is an adherence to the same scientific program of developing economic theory as a descriptive discipline, distinct from other descriptive disciplines such as biology or history. Both Menger and Mises believed that their theories described certain general features of human action that exist and operate at all times and places. This is what set them fundamentally apart from Wieser 
and Schumpeter, and this is what still sets Mangerian economists apart from all other economists. Menger's method is also what most sharply distinguished him from Léon Valras and William Stanley Jevons, two authors with whom Menger is often conflated as co-founders of the marginal utility approach in price theory. It is true that these three men published at about the same time systematic expositions of price theory based on the subjective and marginal nature of value. But apart from a broad agreement on these basic ideas, Menger's theory does not have much in common with the other two. According to a widespread view, Valras eclipsed Menger and Jevons because he had pioneered general equilibrium theory and thereby demonstrated the interdependency of all economic phenomena. This view is peculiar because this general interdependency is in fact a presupposition of any sort of economic analysis. It is, in fact, merely another way of saying that there is scarcity. Mark Blau corrected these erroneous views, stressing that Menger too analyzed economic phenomena in their mutual interdependence. Valras and Jevons had to overcome great obstacles in expounding their principles. Neither had the German subjectivist tradition to draw on, and both met with fierce resistance from the academic establishment. As far as originality and scientific merit are concerned, however, they cannot compare with Menger. A French predecessor was Jules Dupuis, who published two articles on marginal value in the late 1840s. Unlike Menger, Jevons and Valras had a specific predecessor, albeit an obscure one, whom they acknowledged and praised. The independent German scholar Hermann Heinrich Gossen had anticipated their central tenets and their approach to price theory. By following Gossen, Jevons and Valras developed a marginal utility theory of prices that was markedly less successful at describing observed reality than was Menger's marginal value approach. The differences between Menger on the one hand and Gossen, Jevons and Valras on the other might seem arcane, but they came to play a major role in the development of Austrian economics, and it is against this background that one must appreciate the significance of Mises' contributions. Gossen had worked for 20 years on a manuscript that he published in 1854 under the title Entwicklung der Gesetze des menschlichen Verkehrs, Deduction of the Laws of Human Interrelationships. In this work, he combined two central ideas into a general treatise on human behavior. First, Gossen thought that economic science concerned laws that rule human psychology as it relates to human action. The most fundamental psychological laws, he claimed, were two laws of want satisfaction that later came to be known as Gossen's first and second law. According to the first law, the satisfaction derived from the consumption of any good will at some point reach a maximum. Neither higher nor lower consumption will produce greater satisfaction. According to the second law of Gossen, all goods should be consumed in such quantities that the contribution to overall satisfaction through the marginal consumption of each good is exactly equal. Second, Gossen sought to describe human action with algebra and graphs, and relied on several implicit and false postulates in order to attain his goal. For example, he postulated that value is measurable, and that the values of different persons can be meaningfully combined. It was this procedure that made his approach especially contestable in the eyes of the academic establishment of German economists, who abhorred speculations disconnected from the observed world. Gossen's book also suffered from grave formal shortcomings, being written in one continuous text without chapter headings or a table of contents. 
This format and his excessive use of algebra and graphs made his work a tedious and distasteful reading experience. It fell into oblivion where it probably would have remained were it not for William Stanley Jevons. When Jevons published the first edition of his Principles of Political Economy, 1871, he considered his theory unprecedented. In 1878, Professor Adamson, Jevons's successor at Owens College in Manchester, came across a reference to Gosson's book in A History of Economic Thought, and informed his friend Jevons, who celebrated Gosson in the preface to the second edition of his Principles, 1879. Malras was even more enthusiastic than Jevons. He compared Gosson to Copernicus and Newton, and translated Gosson's book into French. This is the same Malras who, in his correspondence with Menger, apologized that his German wasn't good enough to digest Grundsätze. When Menger told him in a letter that he believed there were significant differences between his own approach and that of Gossen, Walras waxed indignant and replied that he found it odious to think that Menger would refuse to recognize such an important predecessor. In a January 27, 1887 letter to Leon Walras, Menger had emphasized that there was only a limited analogy between his approach and Gossen's, but that there was no conformity in the decisive questions. Gosson had indeed anticipated Jevons's and Valras's theories. Jaffe stresses that Valras initially did not associate diminishing marginal utility with quantities consumed, but with quantities possessed. It is true that Valras was more cautious than Gosson and Jevons in speculating on the psychological underpinnings of his price theory, even though in his Elements d'économie politique he eventually did bring in Gossen's style psychological analysis, but as we shall see, the decisive consideration for our purposes is that value is for Varras, just as for Gossen and Jevons, a two-sided relationship involving an acting person and one other object, whereas Menger's analysis of value features at least three elements, acting person and two things that are ranked from the point of view of the agent. The three men had developed general theories that were analogous to Menger's general theory of value and prices, but differed from it in their psychological orientation and in the exact type of explanation they offered. In Menger's theory, the term value does not refer to a psychological feeling, but rather to the relative importance for an individual of the marginal unit of good X, that is, to the importance of X in comparison to the marginal units of other goods Y and Z. The market price of a good results from the interplay of sellers and buyers, for whom the goods bought and sold have different relative importance. In contrast, in the theories of the other three authors, the price of a good results from the interplay of sellers and buyers, whose feelings or well-being are differently affected by control of the good. While Menger explained the pricing processes resulting from the importance of a good relative to the importance of other goods, Gossen Jevons and Varras explained the pricing process as the impact of a marginal quantity of a good on the psychology of the actor, an impact they called want satisfaction, Gossen, utility, Jevons, and satisfied needs, Varras. Jevons's marginal utility thus played structurally the same role that marginal value played in Menger's theory. It delivered an explanation of market prices, but where marginal utility explains the price of a good by the good's direct impact on human feelings, Menger's marginal value explains the price of a good by how the good ranks in importance compared to other goods. 
according to the needs of the individuals involved in the pricing process. In the psychological approach of Gossen, Jevons, and Valras, the human psyche was the great common denominator for the economic significance of all goods. In the theory of Menger, there was no such common denominator. In his approach, value cannot be independent of the specific circumstances of time and space. It is inseparable from these circumstances and means different things in different economic settings. According to Goss and Jevons and Valras, the amount of utility derived from a good could be different in different situations, but according to Menger, the entire basis of value is different as soon as the economic context changes, because the good would then be compared to different other goods. Whatever else one might think of the merits of the psychological approach, it had at least one great attraction, namely that it allowed the possibility of a mathematical price theory based on marginal utility. With the human psyche as the common denominator of all economic values, it became conceivable to represent the want, satisfaction or utility derived from the consumption of a good as a mathematical function of the qualities consumed. It became conceivable to scale satisfaction and utility into units with which one could perform economic calculation completely disconnected from market prices. It also became conceivable to combine individual utility functions into something like an aggregate utility function. One person's satisfaction and another person's satisfaction can be added into a single quantity, representing their total satisfaction. And one person's gain added to a different person's loss can be mathematically combined to determine whether there is net gain or net loss. These considerations probably played a role in prompting Gossen, Jeffens and Valras to choose the psychological approach. They did not begin with observation and then adopt algebraic and geometric techniques as the most adequate tools for representing what they observed. Rather, they began with an agenda, the need to apply mathematics and economics to make it more scientific, and were looking for a plausible hypothesis to justify their preferred approach. This fact is crucial to understanding the history of 20th century economic thought. Gossen was already an enthusiastic mathematician and only studied law under the severe pressure of his father. All of his followers featured the same mindset. As Mark Blaug points out, Jevons first studied chemistry and biology and then turned his attention to economics. His inspiration was Bentham's philosophic calculus of pleasure and pain, supplemented by the works of Dionysius Lardner and Fleming Jenkins, two British engineer economists in the 1860s while Rass pursued formal studies in letters, science, and engineering. From his father, the economist Auguste Valras, he adopted the conviction that some concept of utility maximization is the fundamental element of economic science. Valras's great follower, Wilfredo Pareto, was an engineer and turned to economics only at the age of 42. Similarly, Knut Wixel's and Erwin Fischer's first university degrees were in mathematics. Gustav Kassel, who, according to Blaug, had written the most widely read textbook of the interwar period, was a PhD in mathematics, then became a schoolmaster and then turned to economics, becoming the greatest popularizer of general equilibrium economics à la Valras. In contrast, the predominant formative influence on Austrian economists did not come in the form of mathematical training, but through legal studies. Until the interwar period, all Austrian economists had to obtain a first degree in law before they could turn their research to economic problems. 
As a consequence, the Vienna economists distinguished themselves by a great capacity to think conceptually, and, more importantly, by their eagerness to relate all of their concepts to the observed real world. Their training in law effectively counterbalanced the inclination some of them felt for the natural sciences. For example, Bern Barlach had, in his youth, a great interest in theoretical physics. This also explains other fictional stipulations to which they resorted, again in distinct contrast to Menger's method. In their price theories, they avoided one of the great pitfalls of economic theory a la Ricardo, namely reliance on aggregates. But because they were eager to make political economy a mathematical discipline, they fell prey to the other great pitfall, reliance on fictitious ad hoc postulates. In order to allow for graphical and algebraic representations of utility, demand, and prices, Gossen, Jevons, and Valras assumed that all goods were infinitely divisible. And in order to justify their assumption that the market is in equilibrium, they neglected the existence of error. Just as the classical economists had done before them, the Gossen school analyzed prices as they would be if certain special conditions were fulfilled. They analyzed hypothetical equilibrium prices rather than actual market prices. It is here, then, that we find the great divide between the Austrian and the Gossen schools. Menger paved the way for dealing with real-world prices. His work made economics more scientific in the true sense of the word, increasing knowledge about real things, while the writings of Gossen, Jevons, and Varras dealt not with matters of fact, but only conjectures. William Jaffe was entirely right when he wrote, Karl Menger clearly stands apart from the other two reputed founders of the modern marginal utility theory. No one familiar with the primary literature can doubt for a moment that Menger's treatment of the structure of wants in relation to evaluation was more profound and more penetrating, not only than that of Varras, who evinced no particular interest in such questions, but also than that of Jevons. Jaffe went on to identify the root of the greater profundity in Megger's quest for realism, which prevented him from developing theory in the sense of a mental construct that is out of touch with concrete experience. Menger kept too close to the real world for either the verbal or symbolic formulation of the theory, and in the real world he saw no sharply defined points of equilibrium, but rather bounded indeterminacies, not only in isolated bilateral barter, but also in competitive market trading. With his attention unswervingly fixed on reality, Menger could not and did not abstract from the difficulties traders face in any attempt to obtain all the information required for anything like a pinpoint equilibrium determination of market prices to emerge. Nor did his approach permit him to abstract from the uncertainties that veil the future, even the near future, in the conscious anticipation of which most present transactions take place. Neither did he exclude the existence of non-competing groups or the omnipresence of monopolistic or monopoloid traders in the market. At the end of his career, Menger enlarged his approach to deal with social problems. In this respect, too, he was a pioneer. The very term sociology had recently been invented by the French positivist Auguste Comte, and there were not yet any recognized professional sociologists around. Karl Menger became one of the first economists turned sociologist. Many other Austrian economists, such as Schumpeter and Mises, would follow in his footsteps. Mises later explained that this extension of interest is merely a natural consequence of the new viewpoint that Menger had developed in his principles, for the gist of the new approach was an analysis that focused on individual human action.
and explained all social phenomena as resulting from the interaction of individuals. The Breakthrough of the Austrian School At the University of Vienna, Menger faced the determined opposition of Lorenz von Stein, the great champion of French socialism in Germany and Austria. Stein rejected Menger's first petition for the Habilitation degree, accepting his application only after Menger had his principles printed by the Vienna publisher Wilhelm Braumüller at his own expense and sent a proof of the first two chapters to Stein. Having accepted his application, Stein still failed Menger for the degree. After several favorable reviews of his book appeared in German professional journals, Menger applied again, and this time he passed. He immediately received offers to teach outside Vienna, but declined because of the heavy financial losses he would sustain if he abandoned his position at the Wiener Zeitung. Instead, he stayed as a private lecturer at the University of Vienna. A year later, the University of Basel made him a very attractive offer. To keep the gifted young professor, the University of Vienna offered Menger a position as Professor Extraordinarius of Political Economy and allowed him to keep his position with the Wiener Zeitung. Roughly speaking, this rank corresponded to a present-day associate professor in the United States. He accepted and stayed in Vienna for the rest of his career, teaching courses on banking, credit, general economics, and public finance. There must have been some protection involved. Here it should be remembered that Menger's journalistic activities had early on brought him in touch with established political forces. These connections probably played in his favor when he applied for the chair at the University of Vienna. In the fall of 1874, he abandoned his position with the Wiener Zeitung to have more time to devote to the research that would lead to the publication of Investigations. In all his academic endeavors, Menger met with the continued resistance of the department, which was run by a group under Stein's leadership. Menger decided to form a new coalition and to wrestle down the old oligarchs. And in 1876, he succeeded because a decisive change had occurred in his career. The previous fall, he had been approached to become the private tutor of Rudolf von Habsburg, the 22-year-old heir to the throne of Austria-Hungary. This commission was to be the apex of Menger's pedagogic activities, but it also brought to light his political views, which he had always been careful not to reveal in any of his published writings. After a careful analysis of Prince Rudolf's notebooks, Erich concludes that these books show Menger to have been a classical, economic liberal of the purest water, with a much smaller agenda for the state in mind than even Adam Smith. Streisler goes on, Menger's Rudolf lectures are, in fact, probably one of the most extreme statements of the principles of laissez-faire ever put to paper in the academic literature of economics. There is just cause for economic action only in abnormal circumstances, only when disaster is impending, only where government support becomes indispensable should the state step in. Otherwise, government interference is always harmful. Menger was smart enough not to present these views on government as his personal opinion. Rather, he worked from carefully selected readings to drive his message home. He even chose as his main textbook Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. Still, Menger's political views seem to have been familiar enough within the Austrian establishment to cause conflict over the question of his nomination as Rudolf's tutor. In fact, it came to a confrontation between the conservative councillors of Rudolf's father, Franz Josef, and the more liberal-minded councillors of his mother, Elizabeth. The empress eventually had the last word. Menger took an extended leave of absence from the university for his work with Rudolf, 
which started in January 1876 and lasted for two years. He became one of the most trusted teachers of the crown prince, trusted by Rudolf himself and by his elders. Menger had made his career. His new monarchical protection quickly lifted him to the rank of full professor at the University of Vienna, the most prestigious position for an economist in the entire empire. He was now in a position of virtually unrivaled influence on the academic social sciences in Austria-Hungary. Other honors followed almost as a matter of course. He became a lifetime member of the Herrenhaus, the upper chamber of the Austrian parliament, member of the academies of sciences in Vienna and Rome, of the Institut de France, and of the Royal Society in Edinburgh. He used this power to settle conflicts within his department at the University of Vienna, and he also seems to have used it to fill Austria's other chairs of political economy with his followers, including Böhm-Bawerk and Wieser. Mises' characterization of Menger's and Böhm-Bawerk's attitude gives a somewhat misleading picture of the times. In Erinnerungen, Mises stresses that these men were not interested in promoting their cause through their personal power, but that does not mean that they did not have considerable power, nor that they never made any use of it. Menger saw himself as the founder and leader of a new school of social research, and he strove to raise disciples and to spread them over the land. In a confidential March 1902 letter to the Austrian Ministry of Culture in which he petitioned for early retirement, he claimed that his teaching activities have generated results that surpass the common results of teaching. This concerns in particular the foundation of the Austrian School of Economics. He also points out that many excellent young scholars received their university professor's diploma, the habilitation, under his auspices, and that these scholars had obtained the majority of the chairs of political economy at the Austrian universities. Besides his main followers, Bembarwerk and Wieser, he referred to Emil Sachs, Johann von Kormosinski, Robert Meyer, Gustav Gross, Eugen von Filipowitz, Viktor Mataya, Robert Zuckerkandel, Hermann von Schulern Schattenhofen, Richard Reich, and Richard Schüller. The list of those of his students who had not chosen an academic career is no less impressive. Among them were Moritz Dupp, Viktor Gretz, Wilhelm Rosenberg, Rudolf Siegart, and Ernst Seidler. These men would play an important role in Ludwig von Mises' life and career. Menger was successful not only in developing the continental tradition of economic science, but also in establishing a network of like-minded young thinkers within the confines of Austria-Hungary. It appears that the main reason why Menger retired at the comparatively young age of 62 was that he had caused a scandal through an affair with his housemaid. The affair became public because of the birth of Karl, whom Karl Menger acknowledged as his son. Karl cost Menger his career, and he thereby also changed the history of the Austrian School of Economics, which under Karl's guidance certainly would have taken a different course than it did under his successor Friedrich von Wieser. But Karl's birth also led to rapprochement between the Austrian school and the mainstream, through a more direct route. Karl Menger himself would eventually become a famous mathematical economist. He only failed to get Bern Bayerk a chair at the University of Vienna. His favorite disciple applied twice in 1887 and 1889, but each time the Ministry of Education chose a different candidate. They argued that Böhm-Bawerk represented the same abstract and purely theoretical school as the other chairholder, Menger, and that it was necessary to also have a representative of the new historical school from Germany. 
Even this did not prove to be a decisive obstacle. In the fall of 1889, Birnbarek went to Vienna to join the Ministry of Finance and became an adjunct professor at the University of Vienna. In 1905, he obtained a full chair. Hence, in distinct contrast to all modern, marginalist schools of economic thought, the Austrian school quickly reached a position of power, protected by intellectual tradition and political patronage. Under the leadership of the next generation, it would obtain a position of unparalleled influence. Eugen von Böhm-Barwerk At the time of Menger's petition for early retirement, Eugen von Böhm-Barwerk was his most prominent disciple, serving a fourth term as the head of the Austrian KK Ministry of Finance. Böhm-Barwerk had risen to the highest positions in the Austrian state bureaucracy. He would not have done so under normal circumstances. He was a brilliant scholar and an excellent and efficient technocrat, but he was no politician. He abhorred demagogic trickery and despised socialism. He only became a government minister because ethnic conflicts within Austria, especially between Germans and Czechs, made political leadership of the whole country increasingly impossible. During such crises, Austria was ruled by technocratic caretaker governments, and in all of them Böhm-Barwerk served as finance minister. His impeccable scientific credentials commanded respect from all parties, and made him the ideal candidate for these emergency situations. Born in Moravia on February 12, 1851, into a family of high-state bureaucrats, Eugen Böhm Ritter von Barwerk was raised in Vienna, where he received a thorough education at the Schotten Gymnasium. His father had been entrusted with various delicate negotiations in the revolutionary period leading up to 1848, a term he discharged to the great satisfaction of the emperor. He was knighted in 1854, but died an early death shortly after. His wife then moved to Vienna to assure an adequate upbringing of Eugen, the youngest of her three sons. In the Schotten Gymnasium, Böhm-Barwerk met his alter ego and Friedrich von Wieser. The two of them would study law and government science at the University of Vienna, discover a common interest in economics, and become followers of Karl Menger. Both of them entered the financial administration of Lower Austria in 1872, passed their doctoral exams with Menger as one of the examiners in 1875, and then chose a scholarly career, benefiting from a prestigious government scholarship program that enabled them to study for two years with the greatest German political economists of the time. In 1875, they spent a year in Heidelberg to study in the seminar of Karl Knies and then spent another year together in the seminars of Wilhelm Roscher in Leipzig and of Bruno Hildebrandt in Jena. Later they would both become professors of political economy and see to international fame as representatives of the new Austrian school of economics. Both would also become cabinet members in emergency situations. Böhm-Barwerk for the Ministry of Finance in 1889-1890, 1895, 1896-1897, and from 1900 to 1904. Visa in 1917 to 1918 as trade minister of the last imperial government. Böhm-Barwerk became Visa's brother-in-law when he married Friedrich's sister, Paula. During their year together in Heidelberg, they presented papers that foreshadowed their later achievements. Both used Menger's principles as their starting point and took his project in new directions. Wieser's paper, pioneering the analysis of opportunity costs, and Böhm-Barwerk presenting the first version of his theory of interest. Thanks to Menger's unwavering support, 
Bernbavec obtained his habilitation degree before he was 30. Menger was aware of an opening for a professor of political economy at the University of Innsbruck, one of the few chairs of its kind in all of Austria-Hungary, and seized the opportunity to place his most gifted follower. The 1880s were the most productive phase of Bernbavec's life. He published two massive volumes on the history and positive theory of capital, a work that earned him an international reputation and made him the best-known Austrian economist. He was, in fact, the first economist of the Austrian school to enjoy immediate English translations of his work. From 1889 to 1904, however, his government activities as finance minister and in other high functions of the civil service absorbed virtually all of his energies, and his scholarly output shrank considerably. Bernbavec's major accomplishment as a minister of finance was the reform of the Austrian system of direct taxation. He started working on this project in 1889, and his proposals made it in essentially unaltered form into a law, voted in 1896. Among other things, Bernbavec's law introduced a personal income tax, top marginal rate 5%, as well as the principle of progressive tax rates into the Austrian code. An exception was his activity as an honorary professor at the University of Vienna and his involvement in the Zeitschrift für Volkswirtschaft, Sozialpolitik und Verwaltung, which he co-founded and managed starting in the early 1890s and which would become a major outlet for theoretical research in Germany and Austria. After Bimbabwe completed his last term as a finance minister, he had more time for scholarly pursuits and was granted a new chair of political economy at the University of Vienna. Schumpeter reports that as a minister, Bernbavec followed the maxim, a finance minister must always be ready to give his demission and always act as if he never intended to quit his job. Bernbavec quit when another increase in the army budget was no longer covered by corresponding savings or increased taxation. Bernbavec was not opposed to additional government expenditure as a matter of principle. It was in fact the great strategy of the Kerber cabinet, from 1900 to 1904, to renew and increase the attachment of the various nations of Austria-Hungary to the central government in Vienna through an ambitious spending program. The strategy succeeded. Conflicts related to national culture suddenly shifted into the background as the economic and financial establishment of the various nations sensed that business with the central government was more important than continuing the policy of obstruction. Visa had by then succeeded Menger, and thus the University of Vienna enjoyed for a decade an all-star team of Austrian economists. From 1905 until his death in 1914, Bernbavec led the life of an elder statesman. His scholarly endeavors were constantly interrupted by his obligations as a lifetime member of the Herrenhaus, the upper chamber of the Austrian parliament which he joined in 1899, and after 1911 as president of the Austrian Academy of the Sciences, which was the highest scientific honor that Austria had to offer. Schuller und Schattenhofen observes that this election was all the more remarkable because economics had not been considered a prestigious science. His main academic activity was, of course, on advanced economic theory, which he gave in the winter semesters, and the direction of a weekly graduate seminar in the summer semesters. Both Schumpeter and Mises state that Bernbavec declined an offer to become executive director of a major Vienna bank. The seminar took most of his energy, leaving him completely exhausted at the end of the sessions. But this was not just any seminar. The group, 
that flocked around Birnbavak might well have been among the most brilliant crowd of young intellectuals ever gathered in a regular university function. Their names could be taken from any 20th century who's who of social scientists. Ludwig von Mises, Josef Schumpeter, Richard von Striegel, Franz Weiss, Felix Somary, Emil Lederer, Rudolf Hilferding, Nikolai Bukharin, Otto Neurath and Otto Bauer. The members of the seminar would come to be known as either great economists or great Marxists. For better or worse, they would leave their mark on the decades to come. The young disciples of the Austrian school considered Böhm-Bawerk to be their undisputed master, and under his auspices set out to develop and revolutionize economic science. The young Austro-Marxist, as they were later called, had joined the seminar to confront the man in person who had authored the most devastating attack against Marx das Kapital. But they came to admire their teacher for his comprehensive knowledge, for his fairness, and relentless quest for objectivity, and especially for his willingness and ability to debate them, which he did with great success. Mises attended the seminar until 1913. Then Bavec left a deep impression on him as a scholar and teacher, setting lifelong standards of scholarship. He only admonished that Böhm-Bawerk was too soft on Otto Neurath. Mises considered Neurath a fanatic and found him insufferable because he criticized economics without knowing what he was talking about. On occasion, the seminar focused intensely on the scientific contributions of individual members. For example, Böhm-Bawerk spent two entire semesters discussing Mises' 1912 book on the theory of money. Many of the seminar members already had a scholarly reputation when they entered the seminar, or soon earned one. The main themes of the sessions, however, developed from Böhm-Bawerk's own work, Price Theory, the raison d'être of economic theory vis-à-vis the claims of materialistic Marxism, and of the German historical school, the Austrian versus the Marxist theories of value, and the meaning and importance of economic laws. Böhm-Bawerk had made important contributions in all these fields. In his Habilitation manuscript, he had developed a Mangerian economic theory of rights and of legal and commercial relationships. The manuscript was published as a book the following year, 1881, in a substantially abridged form. During the decade or so that he spent in Innsbruck, he concentrated on the development of Austrian price theory. Karl Menger had explained the price of consumers' goods, but had not gone in depth into the pricing of producers' goods. He claimed the latter would not differ fundamentally from the former, except that the price of a producer's good was derivative. It was imputed from the value of the consumer's good it produced. Menger's critics had seized on this as a weakness in his system, and argued that imputation was impossible because any consumer's good results from the joint cooperation of several producer's goods. How would imputation distribute the value of the final product among the many factors of production? Moreover, was it not obvious that costs of production did have a major impact on the prices of products? Bimbavec tackled these problems in a book-length article on the theory of value, 1886. He developed in particular what he called the law of costs. Bimbavec explained that in the case of consumer goods that could be reproduced at libitum in any quantity, costs of production were in fact the immediate cause of the price of the final product but he showed that even in this special case, the costs of production were themselves ultimately determined by the value of the other consumer goods for the production of which they could also be used. 
His demonstration was so successful that it brought many economists in Austria and Germany into the Austrian school. Three years later, Bimbarek incorporated the essence of this article into his magnum opus, a two-volume treatise on economic theory and the history of economic thought, with special emphasis on the theory of capital and interest. The first volume had been published in 1884 and gave a systematic exposition and critique of past theories of interest. The second volume of his treatise, entitled Positive Theorie des Capitals, presented his own views on the subject and made him the best-known Austrian economist outside the German-speaking countries. Here, he gave a presentation of the theory of value, prices, and interest that Schumpeter later praised in these terms. The positive theory of capital gives a theory of the entire socio-economic process, even though the title indicates a more narrow content. It is certain that here the highest goal is aimed at that can be desired within theoretical economics and that this goal is achieved to an extent that few can equal. Hence, wages, rents, capital, length of the period of production and the physical productivity of the methods of production are variables that mutually determine one another, and thus the entire economic process suddenly appears in an unheard of simplicity, clarity and completeness. In particular, Bembavec presented his time-preference theory of interest that revolutionized economic thinking in this field. Where his predecessors usually considered interest to be the remuneration of a specific factor of production, Bembavec defended the thesis that interest has nothing to do with production per se, but springs from an entirely different source, the unequal valuation of present goods and future goods of the same kind. Production and capital are only indirectly related to interest, related only insofar as capital goods are essentially future goods that, through the time-consuming production process, mature into consumers' goods. These seemingly subtle distinctions had a momentous political significance at the time Böhm-Barwerk was writing, a time that was characterized by the rise of various socialist movements, most notably the movement led by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. The socialists contested mainstream economic theory, the theory of Jean-Baptiste Serre, according to which interest was the specific income of capital. They asserted that labor alone creates value and income, and therefore labor alone creates interest. The fact that interest payments went to the capitalists could only mean that capitalists exploited laborers. The working classes did not receive the full value they had produced. But according to Bembavec's theory, Interest was not produced by anybody. It was a value spread existing independent of production per se that manifested itself only incidentally in the relationship between factors of production and products. As a consequence, and here we come to the far-reaching political implications, interest is not peculiar to capitalism. It would exist under any conceivable system of social organization. No redistribution scheme or any other social policy could abolish interest, not even a fully communist society. Bimbavec addressed highly politicized questions on two other famous occasions. After the posthumous publication of the third volume of Marx das Kapital, which had been edited by Engels, Bimbavec wrote a 120-page review titled Zum Abschluss des Marxischen Systems that was published in an 1895 Festschrift for Karl Knies. Here, Böhm-Bavec presented a devastating critique of Marx economics, arguing that while Marx's thought was internally consistent, 
It was based on assumptions, without foundation in observed facts, and led to conclusions that were at odds with the real world. Nineteen years later, shortly before his death, Ben Barak once again addressed the theoretical foundation of social policies when he published a 65-page essay dealing with the question of whether labor union pressure can improve living conditions for all members of the working classes. More fundamentally, Macht oder ökonomisches Gesetz, power or economic law, concerned the question of whether there is such a thing as economic law independent of human will. If such laws exist, then they cannot be broken or circumvented by labor union leadership or determined policymakers. In a painstaking case-by-case analysis, Böhm-Barmerk showed that the illusions of labor union leaders and politicians were just that, illusions. This essay was a critical response to Rudolf Stoltzmann. Possibly Böhm-Barmerk also wished to preempt a fallacious opinion accepted by some of his most gifted students. A case in point was Ludwig von Mises, who shortly before had argued that labor unions could raise wage rates for all workers, at least in the short run. A distinctive feature of Bernbarek's legacy is his readiness to focus pioneering theoretical research on highly contested questions. This was, in a way, the legacy of the entire second generation of Austrian economists. Whereas Karl Menger had concentrated virtually all of his energies on questions of pure theory and could afford the luxury of ignoring Marx and his disciples, Menger's colleagues and followers, men like Sachs, Zuckerkandl, Wieser, and Böhm-Barwerk, sought to apply the new theory to the new social movements surrounding them. In this endeavor, Böhm-Barwerk stood out in originality and intellectual vigor, and this was his greatest impact on Mises. Böhm-Barwerk was the very model of a political economist, a man who combined comprehensive historical and theoretical knowledge to take a clear stance on important policy issues, and in at least this one respect Mises would prove to be a worthy disciple of the master. Friedrich von Wieser Mises never studied under Wieser, though it is likely that Wieser, having come to occupy Karl Menger's chair at the University of Vienna in 1903, was one of Mises's examiners in government science. Wieser was born in 1851 in Vienna, the son of a high civil servant, He was a tall and handsome man, aristocratic in manners, with clear blue eyes, and, in later years, with an impressive long beard. His thorough acquaintance with art and literature was legendary, and he was himself an accomplished piano player. A gentleman of the old world, his personal presence made him the undisputed leader of the Austrian school after Böhm-Barwerk's death in 1914. His admirers forgave him certain character traits that are unusual in a great scholar and teacher. He never debated or discussed views other than his own, and was an extremely slow reader and slow thinker. He rarely quoted anyone, preferring instead to acknowledge his intellectual debt to Menger and Jevons only broadly in the prefaces of his early works. While the combined presence of these traits would exclude any lesser man from the ranks of great intellectuals, in Wieser's case they further aroused the admiration of his followers. Schumpeter praised Wieser's deficiencies in the following words, with sovereign quietness, which we others soon learn to understand as his right, he puts aside the professional literature. He is not even able to read quickly or much, and almost never has he thoroughly dealt with the details of the systems of thought of other people. He has never engaged in polemics, never on a professional level, and certainly not on a personal one.
Hayek added, in his work he never dealt with the present state of the science. He has never tried to reconcile existing theorems with one another, or to deduce new theorems from them through mere logical operations. Rarely has a theoretician been more different from the usual image of a theoretician than Weiser. His theoretical contemplations entirely monopolized him, and did not leave him any time to delve into or systematically analyze the systems of thoughts of others. He felt the necessity to do this hampered his own work on the conceptualization of reality, and thus he avoided even oral discussions if they risked ending up in something other than the more perfect exposition of his own ideas. Clearly, Wieser differed markedly from Böhmbarek, both in his persona and his scholarship. While his brother-in-law was widely read in economics and displayed exhaustive and detailed knowledge of the literature concerning the theory of capital and interest, Wieser was exclusively concerned with refining his own purely contemplative activities. In contrast to Bernbarek, whose style was often tedious, Wieser knew how to turn a phrase. For example, he invented the term marginal utility, which is still used in mainstream economics. And where Bernbarek would always delve into the technical details of an issue, Wieser cherished the more general features of the theory of value and prices and preferred to keep his arguments on that level of abstraction. For Wieser's admirers, there were definitive advantages to his approach. As a coherent body of thought, Bernbarek's system might seem to be the greater one in the eyes of those who appreciate his system's logical coherence above everything else. Wieser's work, however, presents far more starting points for further development, often precisely in those passages that have often been criticized as inconsistent. While Bimbarek enjoyed the immediate support of Menger, Wieser ranked lower on Menger's list of gifted followers and had to wait longer to be placed in one of the empire's few full professorships. Menger had known Wieser's unpublished manuscripts on the theory of value for some years, but had great reservations about them and did not recommend them for publication. Eventually, however, a chair at the University of Prague became vacant, and he urged Wiese to submit his work to the University of Vienna to obtain his habilitation, which he received in 1883, after Menger had written a highly favorable review of his work. Menger recommended him for the position in Prague, where Wiese became a professor extraordinarius in 1884. He became a full professor in 1889, and in 1903 he succeeded Menger at the University of Vienna. Unlike Böhm-Bawerk and the bulk of contemporary German-language theorists, Wieser was inspired by the Gossen school of marginalist price theory, particularly Jevons's theory of political economy. He acknowledges his intellectual debt to Jevons in the preface of his Habilitation thesis, where he mentions the Englishman as one of his two main sources of inspiration. The other one was Menger. He was the first German academic economist to place his stamp of approval on Gossen's work. In fact, in his Der Natürliche Wert, Natural Value, 1889, Wieser presents the very core of the new marginalist price theory, what he calls the elementary theory of value, as based on Gossen's law of want satiation. Hayek noticed that Wieser had supplemented the elementary theory of prices in regard to its psychological foundations through Gossen's law of want satiation. As we have pointed out above, there was in Menger's value theory no such emphasis on diminishing satisfactions of the same type. 
These explicit references bear special weight, because Wieser's habit was never to cite anyone. Through his eloquent prose, Wieser rescued Gossen's indigestible book from the oblivion into which it had fallen. In his introduction to Menger's collected works, Hayek points out that Gossen's work had been favorably mentioned in an 1870 book by F. A. Langer, but this had no impact. Wieser was not the only Viennese theorist who developed marginal utility analysis along Gevonsian lines. There were in particular two non-academic economists, Rudolf Auschwitz and Richard Lieben, who a few years after Wieser published two books that focused entirely on the graphical and, to a lesser extent, algebraic exposition of price theory. Despite the non-academic background of the authors, these works were very well researched and based on a thorough knowledge of the existing literature in the field, in particular the works of Bernoulli, Laplace, Thunen, Dupuis, Gossen, Mangold, Menger, Jevons, Valras, Wieser, Böhm-Barwerk and Launhardt. Just as their contemporary fellow Javonsians in Vienna, Auschwitz and Lieben emphasized the fictional nature of their style of economic analysis, thus noticing that an economic theorist cannot use experiments to isolate causes and their effects. They assert that the economist is forced to take refuge with his ideas into an abstract world that can be grasped more easily, but then he must try to approximate the real world through gradual changes of his assumptions. In other words, unrealistic assumptions were absolutely essential for economic analysis. Realism of economic science was at best a matter of approximating the real world, but not a matter of describing it. Auschwitz and Lieben were, however, quite perceptive in regard to the internal logic of mathematical equilibrium economics. They pointed out, for example, that equilibrium obtains only if each individual seeks to maximize his personal satisfaction, and if each individual knows how to choose the combination of factors of production most suitable to this end. Javonjan German-language writers outside of Vienna were Knut Wichsel and Georg Sulzer. Yet this distinct orientation went largely unnoticed, or, to the extent that it was noticed, was considered unimportant. In the homogenizing wake of the Methodenstreit, Mainstream economists in Germany and Austria thought in much broader categories. To them, Wieser was an extreme case of Mangerian theorist, where he was in fact as far removed from Mangerian theory as he was from German historicism. For example, Wieser's theory featured a strong focus on quantitative relationships, where Menger focused on the qualitative relationships between quantities. Wieser's work also had a strong psychological orientation inspired by both the then-fashionable works of the Vienna philosopher Franz Brentano and John Stuart Mill's equally popular attempt to interpret epistemology and logic as psychological disciplines. Wieser also distinguished himself from Menger by his reliance on fictional postulates, such as the assumption that value is psychological and measurable. These views were obvious from his first book, über den Ursprung und die Hauptgesetze des wirtschaftlichen Wertes, which was his Habilitation manuscript, published at the beginning of the Methodenstreit in 1884. The literal translation of the title is On the Cause and the Principal Laws of Economic Value. No English translation of the work exists. Although he used few mathematical expressions, he made frequent reference to units of value, and to calculations in terms of these units, which could be aggregated and otherwise modified through arithmetic operations. 
In a 1911 essay, he defended the fictions contained in these, as he would call them, idealizing assumptions. We will present Wieser's argument below when dealing with Schumpeter. In an entry on marginal utility that he wrote for the standard German-language economic dictionary of the time, Wieser purported to develop the rules according to which one scales and computes, rechnen, economic utility, or in other words, to develop the economic calculation of utility. In Wieser's view, value was a cardinal measure of utility. If an economic good X is not reproducible, then the value of X measures the marginal utility of X itself. But if X is a reproducible good, then the value of X measures the foregone utility of another good Y that cannot be enjoyed if the factors of production are used to make X rather than Y. In other words, the value of a reproducible good is a measure of the opportunity costs of producing it. These fictions about value and the speculations that he based on them in Ursprung und Hauptgesetze gained Wieser a reputation as a pure theorist in precisely the sense that German mainstream economists disdained someone who constructs theories without foundation in human experience. The historicist Hotspurs must have loved Wieser, for he was living proof that they were not guilty of battling straw men. It had been very difficult to make a case against Menger, who rigorously tied theory to experience, but there could be no doubt that the work of this follower lacked empirical foundation, and thus scientific integrity. Young Werner Zombart, to whom Schmoller had entrusted the job of reviewing Wieser's natural value, concluded that this work was entirely unsound. Ironically, the heated atmosphere of the Methodenstreit considerably enhanced the significance of Wieser's work. His elegant prose and his highly developed sense for coining catchphrases like marginal utility and imputation gained him a widespread reputation as one of the leading representatives of the Austrian school, which meant, in the mind of contemporary German mainstream economists, an advocate of theoretical studies dissociated from historical research. Wieser coined the term Grenznutzen in order to convey the meaning of Jevons's final utility. Through Philip Wicksteed, one of Jevons's students, the new term then made it into English. Because of this publicity, Wieser was largely successful in promoting among German economists the notion that the new economic theory advocated by Menger and his disciples was a form of applied psychology. For example, Wieser alleged that Menger held that the law of decreasing marginal value was a Gossen-style law of satiation. Bimbavec also shares some of the responsibility for this confusion. His first exposition on the theory of value and prices in 1886 was strongly influenced by Wieser's Ursprung und Hauptgesetze 1884, and thus indirectly by Gossen and Jevons. He at least implicitly endorsed the view that value was a psychological phenomenon pertaining to the sphere of human feelings, and he also believed in the measurability of value and in inter-individual comparisons of value. While these assumptions played a relatively insignificant role in his work compared to Wieser, the fact that he held them at all promoted the gradual departure from Menger's realist economics toward the emerging neoclassical paradigm. It was symptomatic that Valras complained to Menger, who had shown reluctance to recognize a predecessor in Gossen, that, after all, Bimbavec shared exactly the same view. 
Malras believed it was impossible to deny that he, Gossen, had been the first to conceive clearly and mathematically that what I call utilité and rarité, and which is nothing but the subjektiver Wert, or the Grenzwert, of Mr. von Böhm-Bavek. Wieser's views also proved to be fateful in another important respect. As mentioned earlier, he was one of Menger's several followers who addressed the claims of Marxists and other socialist scholars. But while Böhm-Bavek tried to refine Menger's theory of prices, thus clarifying and confirming Menger's insights about the operation of a capitalist economy, Wieser argued that Menger's theory had no specific political implications whatsoever. It was not a grand apology for the bourgeois class, as critics claimed, but neither could it serve as the basis for objections to socialism. Wieser's view is rooted in his theory of the relationship between value and prices. Recall that Wieser believed that economic value is subject to arithmetic operations, just as money prices are used in the calculations of businessmen. Thus, there is in this respect no fundamental difference between value and price. Prices are merely objective exchange value. They are subjective exchange value made visible. Businessmen could theoretically do without money prices and perform their calculations directly in terms of value, and so could a socialist planning board. This is still a widely held view among economic laymen. Wieser's achievement was to give a sophisticated presentation of this view and to develop it through the doctrine of his second book, with the telling title Der Natürliche Wert, Natural Value. A student of Karl Menger's in the late 19th century, Robert Zuckerkandl, argued along the same popular lines. In his eyes, too, price was but an expression of value, and he rejected Böhm-Barbeck's statement that price and value shared virtually no features that would permit them to be lumped together in the same analytical framework. According to this doctrine, there can be situations in which entrepreneurs produce certain goods in unnecessary quantities merely because they command the highest market prices. In these cases, when market prices do not indicate the rationally established or natural value, there is a conflict between objective exchange value, market price, and social utility. The question then is how social utility is to be understood. Here Visa refers to the concept of natural value. He asserts that the natural value of economic goods is the value that these goods have only in light of their available quantities and their utility. As soon as any other factors come into play, market prices can deviate from their natural values. Thus, the conflict between market prices and social utility can be made intelligible by comparing the real world to a fictional state of affairs, of ownerless quantities and of homogeneous psychological utilities dissociated from the specific biological and economic characteristics of the individual human being. According to Wieser, this fictional state of affairs obtained in a communist state, which he understood to be a totally unified and utterly rational commonwealth. It follows that real-world market prices give only an imperfect representation of natural value. Not only are they subject to the impact of abuses, individual egotism, error, and other frictions, but they are also subject to the distribution of resources. Thus only in a pure Viserian communist state does the actual value of goods coincide with their natural value. Visa offered no proof for these assertions, apparently taking their plausibility for granted. Neither did he encounter any objections on these grounds. It hardly needs to be stressed that his views were quite removed from Menger's views, both on the conception of value and prices 
and on the nature of economic science. Menger believed the task of economic theory was to describe certain exact laws of the human economy. It did not deal with all aspects of human action, but it did treat the economy as it actually exists and is therefore subject to empirical analysis. From Wieser's point of view, economic science addressed only the laws of natural value which cannot possibly exist in the real world. Mises did not find Wieser's views appealing. Mises says that despite all his great personal qualities, Wieser was not original in his research and was more harmful than useful for the development of the Austrian school. When Mises explains the meaning of his own contributions, he makes it clear that his work was based on Menger and Böhm-Bawerk, not on Wieser. Mises' historicist training had predisposed him to the notion that the essence of science was the discovery of relevant facts, not speculations without empirical foundation. Because of Wiese's central position in the teaching of economic theory and the general confusion in post-Methodenstreit Germany about the various competing approaches to economic theory, he was able to redefine Austrian economics in a departure from the original Nigerian project as part of an emerging neoclassical synthesis built on the works of Gossen, Valras and Jevons. It is in this light that one has to see Wieser's personal impact on the education of the rising generations of Austrian economists. He held Menger's former position from 1903 to 1920 and continued to teach as an emeritus until his death in 1926. During this entire period, it was Wieser who taught the introductory courses in economic science at the University of Vienna. Until 1914, Böhm-Bawerk's presence provided some counterbalance, but after his death, Wieser's position was that of an unquestioned authority in all matters of general economic theory, a position reinforced by the publication that same year of his general treatise, Theorie der Gesellschaftlichen Wirtschaft. In foreign countries, too, Wieser was therefore perceived as the main interwar authority on Austrian economics. This goes a long way toward explaining the rise of Keynesianism in the mid-1930s. The entire fourth generation of Austrian economists, brilliant young men like Hayek, Machlup, Haberler, Morgenstern, and Rosenstein-Rodan, were thus shaped by the Wieserian mold before they set off on their own intellectual paths. Largely ignorant of Menger's principles, out of print since the 1880s, they were trained in the spirit of the neoclassical synthesis. As a result of these circumstances, there was, strictly speaking, no fourth generation of Austrian economists in the Mengerian sense. All the young men who are commonly held to be fourth-generation members were in fact lost to the neoclassical school, with the possible exception of Hayek, who decades later rediscovered some Mengerian themes in his work on the Counter-Revolution of Science, 1954. Yet significantly, while Hayek's book dealt with virtually all the fundamental errors in the social sciences, in particular with the errors inherent in scientism, positivism, historicism, and holism, he did not talk about psychologism in economic theory. Third-generation Ludwig von Mises' personal and intellectual influence on these men was limited. He had virtually no impact on their basic training, admitting them to his private seminar only after they had obtained their doctoral degrees, and they probably did not see in him anything more than a reputed expert on monetary theory and a highly controversial political economist. Mises was known for his treatises on the theory of money and on socialism, but none of his students and few of his colleagues grasped the far-reaching implications of these works. He became a recognized authority on general economic theory only many years later, 
when he spelled out these implications in his general treatise on economic science, Nationalökonomie, 1940, and it was only in its English-language translation and expansion, Human Action, 1949, that he eventually had a lasting impact on the theoretical outlook of subsequent generations of students. Josef A. Schumpeter With his notable 1902 study on the pre-1848 relationship between Galician lords and peasants, Mises had started off as a star student in the camp of mainstream historicist economics. When he turned to economic theory a la Karl Menger, he lost the support of his very influential network. After the death of Bernbarek, academia had little use for the Mengerian tradition that Mises maintained and developed. He would remain outside both the waning tradition of historicism and the emerging influence of neoclassical economists. His work was respected, and he enjoyed an excellent reputation, but he was and would remain for the rest of his life an intellectual outsider. His work did not fit into the general development of the science. The rising star among the young Vienna economists was another member of Böhmbarek's seminar. Two years younger than Mises, Josef Alvar Schumpeter immediately rose to international fame when, barely twenty-five years old, he published a six-hundred-page treatise on economic methodology with the title Wesen und Hauptinhalt der Theoretischen Nationalökonomie, The Nature and Essence of Theoretical Economics. In October 1908, he submitted this work to the University of Vienna to obtain a Habilitation degree, which he received under Bim Bavak and Wiese's enthusiastic endorsement in March 1909. Six months later, the 26-year-old Schumpeter became Austria's youngest professor of political economy in the provincial capital of Chernovit. Two years later, after publishing his second, even more influential book, Theorie der Wirtschaftlichen Entwicklung, Theory of Economic Development, he received a full professorship at the prestigious University of Graz. From there, Schumpeter began a long and productive academic career that would lead him via Bonn to Harvard. He was also a visiting professor at Columbia University in 1913 to 1914, and at Harvard University in 1927 to 1928 and in 1930. He held several prestigious positions in more practical fields, but each time his involvement was short-lived, and ended in a debacle. As Austrian Minister of Finance of the Second Renner government, he was unable to stop the hyperinflation in 1919, and as president of the Biedermann Bank, he went bankrupt in 1924. Schumpeter's careers in politics and banking were the products of his personal connections. Due to the influence of his stepfather, General Sigismund von Kehler, he was admitted to the prestigious Theresianum Gymnasium, the Eton of pre-1914 Austria. There he befriended Rudolf Hilferding, who later became one of the most brilliant Austro-Marxist and a minister of finance of the German Reich. Family money also allowed Schumpeter to stay for a year at the newly founded London School of Economics from 1906 to 1907 and to meet Keynes, Marshall and other British economists. In late 1913 he was a visiting professor at Columbia University and built up a network of contacts in the United States. In the chaotic first months after World War I, Hilferding called Schumpeter, who by then had an excellent international reputation as an economic expert, to join the Commission for the Socialization of German Industry. Schumpeter used the opportunity to prove his political reliability, signing a recommendation to nationalize the German coal mining industry. Shortly thereafter, he became Austrian finance minister. 
Even though he remained in power for only a short time and could realize none of his projects, he at least profited from this engagement on a personal level. He had used his ministerial powers to grant a charter to the Biedermann Bank, which eventually appointed him its president on very comfortable terms. Schumpeter never got involved in managing the bank's daily affairs, but when it went bankrupt in 1924, he felt a deep responsibility toward the stockholders and worked the next eleven years to pay back his debts. He started publishing many paid articles, and, when this income proved to be insufficient, accepted a position at Harvard University on very good financial terms. The most important factor in Schumpeter's career, however, was his intellectual excellence. He had a brilliant mind, and was a highly gifted writer. His ambitions as a young man were virtually boundless. He sought to become the greatest economist in the world, the greatest horse rider in Austria, and the greatest lover in Vienna. He was sensitive to fine distinctions and the subtle problems of economic analysis which he presented in appealing prose. Although Mises was sceptical of Schumpeter's work on the fundamental issues of economic theory, as were Ben Barwerk and many other Austrian economists, he did not hesitate to acknowledge Schumpeter's more penetrating insights and to advance them through his own writings. Examples of minor importance are Mises's endorsement of the doctrine that later came to be called demonstrated preference. Similarly, Mises agreed with Schumpeter and the sociologist Georg Simmel that choice, or, as Simmel and Schumpeter put it, exchange, was the fundamental phenomenon of economic science. Most notably, Mises was among the many admirers of Schumpeter's colorful portrayal of the role of innovative entrepreneurs in driving social and economic evolution. Although Mises and Schumpeter were in fundamental disagreement on questions of epistemology and the nature of economic science, they were in essential accord on one subtle but important question, the relationship between economics and psychology. In the mid-nineteenth century, the influential British economist philosopher John Stuart Mill had popularized an empiricist epistemology according to which all sciences were based on some form of experience. In the case of mathematics and economics, this empirical basis was psychological experience. Mill's epistemology was at first very successful in Austria, where it shaped, for example, the epistemological views of Friedrich von Wieser. But soon a reaction set in that successfully expelled the Millian approach from Central Europe. Around the turn of the century, two philosophers, Gottlob Frege and Edmund Husserl, published devastating attacks on psychologism in logic as advocated by J.S. Mill. Their writings had a considerable impact on the rising generation of Viennese intellectuals in all fields, and Schumpeter spearheaded the movement to drive psychology out of economic theory. He argued that it was futile to inquire after the psychological or biological causes of human valuations. Economic analysis could be based entirely on a formal characteristic of valuation, namely that the utility of any given unit of a homogeneous good decreased as its quantity increased. This purely formal law of want satiation had nothing to do with psychology. It was not even a part of economic science proper, but only a convenient hypothesis that explained market prices better than any other. Economists had to take this formal characteristic of valuation as an ultimate given of their deductions, and then compared the result of their deductions to the observed real world. Mises later argued among very similar lines that the laws of economics had nothing to do with the acting person's psychological disposition, but he disagreed with Schumpeter about the nature of economic laws. 
For Schumpeter, the only basis for scientific propositions was observation of the exterior world, and the only suitable method of economic inquiry was to follow the approach that had proven successful in the natural sciences. In short, he was a positivist who believed that the only method that could yield facts was observation of the exterior world. Mises, on the other hand, followed the program of Menger's very different empirical theory, and gathered relevant facts wherever he could find them. Unfortunately, however, Mises had written nothing on epistemology until the late 1920s, and Schumpeter's views had a strong impact on the rising generation. Around 1900, Schumpeter's epistemological views were much more fashionable than those of Menger and Wieser, and they reinforced the general intellectual and aesthetic appeal of his work. His positivism allowed Schumpeter to adopt a lofty attitude of standing above the issues of the fierce Methodenstreit. Schumpeter took a completely agnostic stance on the issue of price theory, arguing that from a scientific point of view it was irrelevant whether prices really arose from subjective value or from the costs of production. The subjective value theory was, as he saw it, only a hypothesis, and it was to be preferred over cost of production theories, not because the latter were false and the former true, but because the subjective value hypothesis served to explain a larger realm of price phenomena than did the cost of production hypothesis. Schumpeter was the first real positivist among economic theoreticians, probably inspired by the works of the Vienna physicist-philosopher Ernst Mach, who was an extremely influential thinker at the time and in the decades to come. Mach paved the way for the Vienna circle of the logical positivists in the 1930s. In the nature and essence of theoretical economics, Schumpeter fundamentally argued that modern economic science à la Wieser and Valras was a science in the precise sense of Mach's philosophy. He had anticipated this thesis in a 1906 article on what he called the mathematical method of theoretical economics. He advocated the same views that Milton Friedman presented more than 40 years later in his famous essay on economic methodology. But while Friedman's presentation was sketchy and detached from the presentation of the actual doctrine, Schumpeter's nature and essence made a 600-page case for positivism in economics. Wieser honored Schumpeter's book with the only review he ever wrote, praising Schumpeter for his achievement in presenting the main contents of economic science. Wieser's only admonition was a point that he himself actually considered to be of comparatively minor importance, methodology. He severely criticized Schumpeter's positivist methodology and his rejection of psychological introspection as the foundation of economic knowledge. Wieser claimed that as a consequence of this methodological stance, Schumpeter failed to adequately present the Wesen, the nature of economic science, contradicting Schumpeter's claim that he had adopted his method because it best fitted the subject matter of economic research. Wieser stated, The truth is that, without knowing it, he brings in his ready-made methodology from outside. Blinded by the success of the exact natural science, he adopts its way of thinking even where it does not at all fit our subject matter, and thus construes an artificial method with which he would never have been able to arrive at the results that he wants to take over from his predecessors. Wieser then brilliantly addresses Schumpeter's claim that the fundamental economic theorems have the character of hypotheses. He states that the hypotheses of the natural sciences are assumptions about unknowns, whereas the assumptions of economic science always have known real-world correlates, even though they may not always reflect them faithfully. 
he distinguishes two types of assumptions made by economists, isolating assumptions and idealizing assumptions. The former are needed to engage in Gedanken experimenten, or thought experiments. Wieser did not use this expression in his essay, but it had already been introduced by the physicist-philosopher Ernst Mach. They serve to describe the state of affairs that is the subject of theoretical analysis. Just like the natural scientist in an experiment, we must make isolations in our mental observations. Complex experiences cannot be interpreted as a whole. We must decompose them into their elements to understand their meaning. Only then are we in a position to deduce the total effect through a composition of separate particularities. These isolations must, however, be strictly realistic, because their usefulness depends entirely on their truthfulness. In contrast, the idealizing assumptions do not truthfully reflect a real correlate, but deliberately transform it into an ideal form, such as Homo economicus. Thus, even in this contestable and, as Wiese admits, highly contested form, the fundamental assumptions of economics always have a known real-world correlate in human consciousness. Refusing to make use of them, as Schumpeter suggests, would result in incomplete and ultimately unconvincing economic arguments. Wiese warned that Schumpeter-style presentations could hamper the understanding of the meaning of economic relations. Schumpeter himself still knows the meaning because he has been introduced to it by his predecessors but the pupils that he introduces will not know it any longer, because he deprives them of the presentation of those most subtle connections which only reveal themselves to the inner observation. Despite these objections to Schumpeter's misdirected methodology, Wieser praised nature and essence. While Schumpeter quickly passes over all those subjects that he thinks others have sufficiently presented, he lingers on the more difficult problems, Having begun his studies of economics only a few years ago, he may say with just pride that his book is not written for beginners, but presupposes quite an exact knowledge of the state of our science. Schumpeter's appearance and his promotion through both Wieser and Böhm-Bawerk was an important development in the emergence and consolidation of an international network of economic theorists following in Gossen's footsteps. Schumpeter built on the foundations laid by Wieser, making the German-speaking economic scene safe for what today is known as neoclassical economics. Whereas Wieser had further developed the theory of Jevons, Schumpeter brought Walras to Vienna. Having thought through the implications of the doctrine of natural value, he discovered important and far-reaching affinities between Wieser's system and the general equilibrium framework developed by Léon Walras in Lausanne. Both Jevons and Walras had developed a theory of price determination under fictional ideal conditions, disregarding various essential features of the human economy that Menger, and to a lesser degree Bernbarbeck, had carefully sought to integrate in the new price theory. For instance, both Walras and Wieser considered human error to be a mere friction preventing the real world from following the course it should take, and they both implicitly denied that all quantities of economic goods were essentially related as private property, to human beings, and that the utility or value of a good was essentially related to the specific situation of the person evaluating the good. Both Valras and Wieser conceived of price determination as the mechanistic interplay of freely floating quantities of an equally freely floating and measurable utilities. This explanation of economic phenomena is general equilibrium theory, implicit in Wieser and explicit in Valras.
In Nature and Essence, Schumpeter gave a refined and largely verbal restatement of general equilibrium theory. He remedied certain shortcomings of Alras and Wiese, for example, by accounting for the fact that all quantities of goods are owned quantities. And he came very close to presenting economic science as the science of human choices when he argued that the nature of economic action is exchange. Ludwig von Mises, Richard von Striegel, and Lionel Robbins would develop this insight and argue that the fundamental economic phenomenon was the act of preferring one thing over another thing, and that virtually all economic laws in one way or another relate to this phenomenon. Schumpeter spent most of his book discussing methodological and epistemological questions, in the course of which he gave the first succinct descriptions of methodological individualism and the method of variations, comparative statics, terms that he coined. He dealt with economic laws only incidentally, using them as illustrations for his methodological and epistemological claims. His most fateful contribution was to recast the entire general equilibrium theory in terms of a distinction he borrowed from classical mechanics between statics and dynamics. According to Schumpeter, the static economy and the dynamic economy are entirely different states of affairs. They present different problems and require different methods of analysis. Schumpeter was not the first economist to stress the usefulness of analyzing static and dynamic economic conditions separately. The American economist John Bates Clark had pioneered this approach a few years earlier in his book The Distribution of Wealth, which proved to be very influential among Vienna economists. But Schumpeter produced a mechanistic interpretation of the static-dynamic scheme, holding that in a truly static economy, all events of a given day are only repetitions of whatever happened the previous day. He claimed, moreover, that past economists had dealt exclusively with static conditions, which are the proper subject matter of general equilibrium theory. Dynamic conditions remained virtually unexplored, and economists had yet to even recognize the related problems. Schumpeter attempted to fill the gap with his theory of economic development, which he published in 1911, a year before Mises published his first major work. The book was the dynamic complement, so to speak, to nature and essence, which had focused exclusively on static conditions. The second book contained three major theses. First, Schumpeter argued that economic development was exclusively the result of pioneering entrepreneurs, a special breed as different from the rest of mankind as greyhounds are from poodles. Innovative entrepreneurs are the true driving force of social evolution. They impose unheard of products and methods of production on a reluctant society of mere adjusters. It was this thesis in particular that roused the admiration of Schumpeter's friends and colleagues. Twenty years later, Mises listed the book as one of the top four German-language contributions to economics. He emphasized that he took no account of his own writing. It has continued to fascinate some of the best Austrian economists to the present day. Second, Schumpeter portrayed entrepreneurs as essentially resourceless market participants. They needed new fiduciary bank credit, credit out of thin air, to finance their projects because all other investment capital was already tied up in other projects. For Schumpeter, capital was essentially purchasing power, rather than a quantity of real goods that could sustain workers in the production process. Bankers could therefore create capital out of nothing, 
by simply printing additional banknotes. Third, and most importantly, he asserted that under static conditions the phenomenon of interest would not exist. Interest paid on capital invested could only come into being under dynamic conditions, that is, as a result of change. Its primary form was entrepreneurial profit. By contrast, the interest paid on bonds or on bank credits was just a share of profits that entrepreneurs were forced to pay to bankers to secure their cooperation. Schumpeter contested in particular Bernbavac's theory, according to which time preference creates interest even under static conditions. Arguing along the lines of John Bates Clark, Schumpeter insisted that the passage of time is irrelevant to production under static conditions because consumption and investment are always synchronized. Schumpeter's first thesis, that entrepreneurship drives progress, has proven to be the least controversial, but with the other two contentions he opened a Pandora's box of old errors that six preceding generations of brilliant economists, among them his own teachers, had spent their lifetimes fighting. Bimbavec immediately recognized the dangerous impact that these skillfully presented views were to have in the future. He wrote a long review of theory of economic development in an attempt to offset the damage being done by one of his most gifted students. Bimbavec made it clear that Schumpeter's dynamic theory of interest was completely wrong. Moreover, Schumpeter's economic analysis suffered from a sloppiness that belied the author's great intellectual gifts. One of the review's opening paragraphs came close to charging Schumpeter with a lack of professional integrity. Schumpeter has taken pleasure in contemplating an ingenious idea, but unfortunately he has not had the self-discipline, Selbstüberwindung, to subject himself and his idea to a sober and encompassing cross-examination an examination that very soon would have shown problems on all sides. After dissecting some of the most important shortcomings of the theory of economic development in detail, Bimbavec went on to identify the spirit of Schumpeter's work. I do not intend to give a running critique of all of Schumpeter's ideas. I am content with briefly expressing my conviction that Schumpeter commits a fateful mistake, which, despite all the qualifications that he makes, is a truly mercantilistic mistake of superficial reasoning. When it comes to determining the possible scope of productive credit, he accords the essential role to money and means of payment, rather than to the economy supplies of real goods. Schumpeter is much closer than he thinks, and maybe than he wishes, to the laws and MacLeods, and regrettably he is quite removed from Hume despite all the praise that he has for the latter. Bimbavec went to great lengths in refuting the doctrines of his former disciple. He knew that ideas have consequences, and that fallacious ideas can ruin a country or an entire civilization if they are presented with the grace and vigor of Schumpeter's works. Unfortunately, Bimbavec died a year later, and the mantle passed to Wieser and Schumpeter. Both would make sure that the next generation of Viennese economists would be part of the emerging neoclassical synthesis. Early Professions From childhood, Mises had been driven by a progressive outlook and a strong personal urge to contribute to the improvement of the world. Scion of an elevated Jewish family successfully established in post-1867 Vienna, product of a liberal education, he believed that artists and men of science formed the avant-garde of social progress. Karl Ischorkse 
is famous for his claims that this interest in science and art was a substitute for the political career that the existing monarchical regimes made impossible. Schalke's claim relies on the implicit hypothesis that politics is inherently more satisfying than science or art, a hypothesis that tells us more about Schalke's own value judgments than about those prevalent among young Germans and Austrians at the time. Enlightenment through scientific discoveries was paramount for the further development of humanity. Mises maintained an unconditional affirmation of truth and intellectual integrity as supreme values, even though this uncompromising stance hurt his career and other material interests. As a consequence, he faced the problems of his time in a series of isolated one-man struggles. Eric von Kuhnert leading rights, he never fully belonged to a specific camp. He was always a square peg in a round hole. To make matters worse, Mises was consciously a nobleman, a true gentleman, who rejected all compromise and never concealed his thoughts or his convictions. If someone or something was plainly stupid, he said so, nor could he tolerate cowardice or ignorance. This aristocratic Jewish intellectual was an odd man out, and fit into no established pattern. These qualities made a career difficult in Vienna. The inhabitants of the Austrian capital were famous for their sophisticated taste, humour, and fondness of the pleasures their city could offer, but they were not known for candour or courage, and they openly despised those who displayed the qualities they lacked, especially upstarts from the provinces. A keen connoisseur of the Austrian mind recalls the mentality in the city on the Danube. People who had their own views, and horribly dictu even championed these views, were not well received. One had to be popular to be welcome, and appreciation was given not to effort, but only to success. Not to a man himself, but only to his position. Clearly, Vienna did not provide a favorable climate for Mises' talents, but he made good use of them anyway, thanks to immense willpower and his unconditional devotion to truth, which earned him the admiration even of those who resented his brazenness. It was this fundamental attitude, to stick to his convictions at all costs, that had made him receptive to the message of Menger and Böhm-Bawerk. These thinkers had developed economic theory on fact rather than fancy. And as Mises' own work in the historicist tradition had shown him, the methodology of the German mainstream economists was sterile. Ludwig Pohle, the famous critic of the historicists, quoted a satirical magazine that described economic research as the activity of measuring workers' apartments and stating that they were too small. When Mises completed his graduate studies in February of 1906, he had likely made plans to continue scientific research in some form. At that point, he was thoroughly conversant with the Austrian school and with some of the more serious problems left unsolved in the existing literature. He had realized, in particular, that no follower of Karl Menger's had offered a satisfactory integration of the theory of money into the general framework of Menger's theory. This had exposed the Austrian theory to some vigorous criticism, most notably from the German economist Karl Helferich, who claimed that the theory of money could not be reconciled with Menger's theory of value. Mises dedicated the next five years of his life to filling the gap with a systematic treatise on money that he planned to submit to the University of Vienna as his Habilitation thesis. The Habilitation degree was granted on the basis of a comprehensive scholarly work that not only covered a large field of knowledge and demonstrated the author's ability to shed light on the phenomena under consideration, but also made significant contributions to present knowledge. 
The idea was that the authorities of the science recognized the candidates as one of their peers. This recognition was far from perfunctory. The Habilitation laureates were entitled to apply for full professorships within the university system on a par with more senior candidates. But first a book had to be written, and the necessary research to be done. In those days, such an enterprise required unusual private financial means or unusual energy. There were no university positions for these young scholars to earn a living while they pursued a long-term research project. They were private scholars with only loose university affiliations. They could hope for academic employment only after the successful completion of a habilitation thesis. Meanwhile, they had to survive a prolonged period of professional and material insecurity. If they could not rely on their family, or did not wish to do so, they had to earn their living in some other occupation while pursuing scholarship at night. This was science the hard way, and it was Mises' way from March 1906 until December 1911, when he finally sent his completed manuscript to the publisher. He took the hard times lightly. He was a young man full of energy and enthusiasm for his science. Would he have despaired if he had known that this was how his life would be for almost thirty years. He had later admitted that it was hopeless for him to obtain one of the few positions at a German or Austrian university. At one point he observed sarcastically, I was ill-suited to teach the Royal Prussian Police Science. But even in his youth, he had to realize that he would have to make his way without public support. Austria had produced many geniuses only to confine them to the lives of independent scholars. Pioneers like Mendel and Kumplowitz never held university positions. The Austrian government dismissed from teaching Bolzano and Brentano it isolated Mach, and did not at all care for Husserl, Breuer, and Freud. It appreciated Bernbarwerk as a capable official, not as an economist. However, these failed careers did not deter Mises or thousands of like-minded young men from following their examples. Posterity would honor them, they were sure, just as the present society honored the heroes of the past. Books, monuments, and street names were dedicated to scientists and artists who were ignored in their day. The result of their sacrifices was an explosion of creative energies in virtually all fields of human endeavor that made Vienna's glory in the decades before the National Socialists rose to power. The intellectual explosion in Vienna was already visible when young Mises prepared for the life of a private scholar, ready to earn his living in some liberal profession. Scholarly pursuits would be his real life, the one that would give significance to all other activities. His professional life would be secondary, a day job to pay the bills, and thus he began, on March 15, 1906, a paid internship with the fiscal administration of Lower Austria in its Vienna district headquarters. The most important source of data on Mises' early professional development is a letter of application and curriculum vitae that he wrote to the Chamber of Commerce in 1909. This letter is today kept in the files containing the Machlup Mises correspondence at the Hoover Institution. Difficult start in professional life This was the traditional choice of the sons of civil servant families. It had been the first station in Birnbarek's career, and thus it was a promising start for Mises, too. A career within the civil service was a highly coveted outlet for law graduates, opening prestigious opportunities within the executive branch of government. 
The civil service was considered to be the nobilium officium par excellence, while top executive positions with private firms were valued far less highly. The office was then under the direction of Alexander Freiherr von Spitzmüller, who later moved to a top executive position at the Credit Anstalt and eventually became the last president of the Austro-Hungarian Bank, the Empire Central Bank. His 1909 curriculum vitae describes his position as that of a Konzeptspraktikant at the KK Finanzbezirksdirektion in Vienna. Mises' congratulatory letter on Spitzmüller's 70th birthday in 1932 speaks of a Finanzlandesdirektion, head financial office of the regional government. It is ironic that Mises would become the most outspoken and influential critic of the policies of the Austro-Hungarian Bank under Spitzmüller's governorship. Patience and loyal service combined with a dose of clever networking would have put Mises in a position to follow in this great man's footsteps and, given his interest in the theory of money and banking, gain a high position within the central bank. But Mises soon discovered that this was a mistake. The paralyzing formal procedures, the mental pettiness, and the personal dependence on one's superiors came to him as a shock. He might have been thinking back on this experience when he later wrote on the nature and significance of bureaucracy. Government jobs offer no opportunity for the display of personal talents and gifts. Regimentation spells the doom for initiative. The young man has no illusions about his future. He knows what is in store for him. He will get a job with one of the innumerable bureaus. He will be a cog in a huge machine, the working of which is more or less mechanical. The routine of a bureaucratic technique will cripple his mind and tie his hands. He will enjoy security, but this security will be rather of the kind that the convict enjoys within the prison walls. He will never be free to make decisions and to shape his own fate. He will forever be a man taken care of by other people. He will never be a real man, relying on his own strength. He shudders at the sight of the huge office buildings in which he will bury himself. Mises was not going to shudder and bury himself. By the fall of the same year, he asked to be honorably released, and his request was granted. This decision must have caused great consternation among his family and friends. How could he give up one of the most coveted positions for young men of his background? How can someone enjoying the privilege of serving His Majesty quit this service voluntary? asked Heinrich Treichel in fast ein Jahrhundert. The question was addressed to Treichel's father, Alfred, a friend of Mises's, who had made exactly the same decision a few years earlier. Mises's choice was indeed remarkable, and a vivid testimony of the personality of the young man. Ludwig was not the nice guy who went along with prevailing notions of a good career. He had his own mind, and found the civil service utterly dreadful. He was full of ambition and independent judgment. He had far more confidence in his own abilities than in the protection and prestige accorded to his majesty's faithful servant. After his resignation, he decided to prepare for a career as a private lawyer. Admission to the bar required that the candidate familiarize himself with the Austrian court system through a two-year internship at the main courts. From October 1906 to September 1908, Mises interned at the Court for Civil Affairs, the Trade Court, the Penal Court, the Executive Court, and the District Court of the City of Vienna. 
the atmosphere in these institutions was not much different from what he had experienced in fiscal administration. But at least there was the prospect of leaving the system one day to become his own man. In those years, Ludwig must have been the black sheep of the family. Was he unfit for the real world? Did he not know how to compromise? His brother Richard was the white sheep. He had graduated in the same year as Ludwig, then moved as an assistant professor to the University of Brunn, today Brno, and in 1909, at the age of 26, he would land a professorship at the University of Strasbourg. This was a career path Ludwig would have welcomed, but the real world imposed different choices on him. In the fall of 1908, with the end of his two-year internship approaching, Mises looked for suitable employment in Vienna. He was hired by the prestigious law firm of Robert Pelzer and started working in its office in the Krugerstrasse right in the center of Vienna in October 1908. Second floor, Krugerstrasse 13. The new position was a vast improvement on the suffocating mental narrowness of courtroom routine. Still, the firm was not a real escape from the bureaucratic atmosphere of the courts. Mises kept looking for other options. The Parallel Life during these years, Mises' scholarly enterprises compensated for the dismal courtroom routine. The first result of his research on monetary theory and policy was a published paper on the motives underlying Austrian foreign exchange controls. The article appeared in Böhm-Bawek's Zeitschrift für Volkswirtschaft, Sozialpolitik und Verwaltung, and dealt with the ways in which interest groups promoted price and production controls. He followed up in 1908 with a survey of recent literature on money and banking. It was a welcome addition to his intellectual life when, in October 1907, he was offered a position teaching economics to the senior class of the Trade Academy for Girls. While the traditionally male gymnasium offered a broad classical education to prepare a young elite for university studies and the assumption of high responsibilities within the civil service, girls' schools had a stronger orientation to concrete professional concerns. Only recently had girls been admitted to the Matura exams and the ensuing university studies. These exams were organized exclusively by the gymnasium. However, so the girls prepared for them in special senior classes, Abiturientenklassen, at their own schools, and on the day of the exam went to the nearest gymnasium to take the tests. Mises taught economics and public finance and Austrian government. New to teaching, he must have applied the classic pedagogy he had inherited from Menger and Böhm-Bawek. He would begin with a brief preview of the tenets to be explained, then turn to an elaboration of his subject and eventually conclude by repeating some of the more important tenets. Erich Streisler states that Menger applied exactly this technique in his lectures to Crown Prince Rudolf. As early as 1907, he would have taught educated young ladies under the vibrant inspiration of Böhm-Bawek's example whose seminar he continued to attend. Böhm-Bawek inspired Mises throughout his life of teaching. All of Mises' students would praise him for his earnest and engaged style, for the respect he displayed toward his students, and for the unfailing encouragement he provided at the slightest signs of interest and productivity on their part. The first students to profit from these extraordinary qualities were girls from Vienna's better families, students of whose names no record has been recovered. In 1908, Mises became a member of the Zentralstelle für Wohnungsreform, Center for Housing Reform, an association of politicians and intellectuals, striving for an improvement in Vienna's housing conditions. 
He greatly enjoyed his activity within the center where he met excellent economists such as the brothers Karl and Ewald Pribram, Emil Pierels, Rudolf Marisch, Paul Schwartz, Emil von Fürth, and Robert Meyer. When Meyer became Minister of Finance, Mises was asked to write a policy paper on housing taxes, which was high on the agenda of the Austrian Parliament. In his memorandum, Mises argued that the taxes levied on existing buildings were less of a problem than the heavy taxation of joint stock companies, which deterred big capital from investment in real estate. To his great satisfaction, the Centre for Housing Reform fully endorsed his report. At about the same time, Mises was involved in setting up a group for the discussion of problems of economic theory and the fundamental questions of other social sciences. The other leaders of this group, the brothers Karl and Ewald Pribram, Emil Perels and Else Kronbach, were also members of the Mbavec seminar. The weekly sessions with their great teacher were far too brief to allow thorough debate of the problems that came up, so they decided to create an additional forum. The first formal meeting took place on March 12, 1908, and from then on, the group met at regular intervals and soon attracted more members. Filipovic, who headed the Center for Housing Reform, allowed the group to use the center's beautiful premises for its meetings. After World War I, this group would become the Nationalökonomische Gesellschaft, the most important German-language forum for the discussion of economic theory. It is likely that the group was already hosting foreign scholars, such as the young Dr. William Rappard, who stayed in Vienna for the 1908-1909 academic year, and who some 25 years later would hire Mises to teach international economic relations in Geneva. Meanwhile, Mises continued to make progress in his study of money and banking. He was working on two papers that he probably presented in Böhm-Bawek's seminar, and which he submitted to foreign journals. The first one, which was published in the British Economic Journal, gave a sympathetic presentation of the foreign exchange policy of the Austro-Hungarian Bank, the Central Bank. Edgeworth, the editor of the journal, had asked Filipovich to write this paper, but Filipovich had no time and proposed Mises. The other paper elaborated on the same subject, dealing more critically with legal aspects of the bank's policy to redeem its notes in gold. Legally, Austria-Hungary was on a paper-money standard, but Mises argued that a de facto gold standard had been established through the bank's redemption policy, which by that time it had followed for some years. He concluded that a legal obligation of the bank to redeem its notes would not represent a new burden or danger, but would be a mere formality. Before he even published the paper, he received an unexpected invitation from a high-ranking officer of the central bank. Mr. Waldmeier offered material that could be useful for the study, but asked that in exchange... Mises submit the paper to the bank for approval before publication. Mises declined. After its publication in Schmoller's Jahrbuch, the paper prompted a polemical exchange between Mises and two critics, Otto Neurath, another member of Böhm-Bawek's seminar, and Walter Federn, editor of the journal Der Österreichische Volkswirt. The issue was of minor importance, and Mises could not understand the heat of the debate. How could there be so much fuss about what seemed to be a clear question of fact? He learned the answer only two or three years later when Böhm-Bawek briefed him on the background of the affair. The legal obligation to redeem its notes would have curtailed a secret fund out of which the bank paid bribes and other illicit salaries. The beneficiaries were therefore interested in maintaining the notion that legal note redemption was inadvisable for monetary policy. How was Mises to take this revelation? Should he unmask his opponents and uncover their corrupt scheme? 
After much thought, he decided to do nothing of the sort. His mission as an economist was to unmask fallacious economic arguments. If he also discussed the corruption of his opponents, the mission would lose focus. He later summarized his new personal maxim as follows. An economist must face his opponents with the fictitious assumption that they are guided by objective considerations only. It is irrelevant whether the advocate of a fallacious opinion acts in good or bad faith. It matters only whether the stated opinion is correct or fallacious. It is the task of other people to reveal corruption and inform the public about it. He added, Throughout my life I have held to these principles. I knew a great deal, if not all, about the corruption of interventionists and socialists with which I had to cope. But I never made use of this knowledge, which was not always properly understood by others. It was often held against me that I politely rejected offers to supply me with proof admissible in courts of law, of embezzlement and frauds by my opponents. Comma. Daily work for the Pelzer law firm was somewhat less rewarding than his early scholarship. Mises kept an eye out for more convenient career opportunities, and one came sooner than expected. His friend, Victor Gretz, who was employed as an economic counsellor at the local Chamber of Commerce, proposed Mises as his successor. Gretz had worked a few years for the executive office of the Niederösterreichische Handels- und Gewerbekammer, Lower Austrian Chamber of Commerce and Industry, hereafter Kammer. Along with some other young economists, such as Alfred Treichel, he had been hired when the Kammer made the strategic decision to strengthen its executive office to increase its leverage on Austrian economic policy. This decision of the Vienna Chamber of Commerce seems to have been paralleled at many other places in Germany and Austria-Hungary since the late 1890s. The new strategy of the Kammer was a reaction both to the expansion of government interventionism in the first decade of the 20th century and to the simultaneous elimination of the Kammer from the Austrian Parliament. Until 1907, the 60 Austrian Chambers of Commerce had been directly represented in the Austrian Parliaments, according to the older parliamentary model, where representation referred to predefined interest groups, such as the nobility, the clergy, the city dwellers, but also commerce and industry. Then, the introduction of universal suffrage supplanted the old system, and the Vienna Kammer, which had traditionally been the hub of the whole network of chambers of commerce throughout the country, suddenly found itself without any direct political influence. Fortunately for the Kammer, however, the hyperactive new parliamentarians were completely ignorant of economic and legislative matters, incapable of anticipating the impact of the new laws on the market process. They also lacked the ability to formulate laws in such a way as to ensure their proper enforcement through the bureaucracy. The Parliament's incompetence was obvious and embarrassing, but to the Kammer executives it was an opportunity. They started offering technical assistance to the various committees and bureaus involved in the preparation of new economic legislation. The services of the Kammer, coming from the official representatives of the Austrian business world, were readily accepted and quite influential. The Kammer's executive office was once again a major player on Austria's economic policy scene. This had positive personal consequences for the members of the executive office. In early 1909, most of them had been offered attractive positions within the higher strata of the government bureaucracy and in major corporations. Teichel had left the Kammer in March of 1909 for one such. Shortly thereafter, he moved on to become vice-chairman of one of the major banks. After the war, he ran the Biedermann Bank with Schumpeter, its brief tenured president. 
Teichel's friend Gretz had accepted a position as chairman of a large printing company and recommended Mises for the now vacant post at the Kammer. Mises applied in February 1909, mentioning his scholarly publications and stressing practical skills, such as the command of English and French, as well as Polish and some Italian, and of stenography according to the Gabelsberger system. It is unlikely that the Kammer received many applications of this caliber. In fact, most candidates with Mises's qualifications sought careers in the more prestigious civil service. He was hired on the spot and began work on the 1st of April. One author claims that he was hired on October 15, 1909, as a provisional concipient, an aspiring lawyer who has only recently passed his exams. This seems to be wrong. In a May 1909 newspaper report, Mises is mentioned as a representative of the Kammer Bureau. After three years of wandering, Mises had finally found an agreeable occupation that would support his after-hours scholarship. He remained in this position for the next twenty-five years. At this point, Mises was still living in the Friedrichstrasse No. 4. Ludwig and his mother moved to another apartment in 1911. The new address was Wolzeile 24, also in the 1st District. Housing regulations prevented Ludwig from keeping the apartment when his mother died in 1937. By October 31st of that year, he found new tenants who sublet him one room, where he stored his library and personal documents. He writes, The Kammer offered me the only field in which I could work in Austria. I have created a position for myself. Officially, I was never more than an officer, Beamter, in the Kammer's executive office. I always had a nominal superior and colleagues, but my position was incomparably greater than that of any other Kammer official or of any Austrian who did not preside over one of the big political parties. I was the economist of the country. The Chambers of Commerce fulfilled three main functions. They provided the political establishment with a certain level of control over any emerging commercial power. They provided the commercial establishment with representation in the state apparatus. They helped protect established commercial interests from new competition. Accordingly, the Vienna Kammer had gained its greatest impact on Austrian politics in the years from 1884 to 1901, when it most visibly acted as the cartelizing agent of Austrian industry and opposed free trade in industrial products. Their opponents were agrarian circles that championed free trade, but only in industrial products. Still, the Kammer's demeanor had to be moderate and reasonable. Some Austrian industrialist hardliners therefore created a number of other institutions of a more combative character. In particular, the Industriellengruppe, founded 1875. After the First World War, it merged with other similar organizations into the Hauptverband der Industrie Österreichs. One of Mises' best friends, Weiss von Wellenstein, led that organization. In the wake of this campaign, the Kammer acquired so much regulatory power that it was increasingly perceived as an arm of the central state administration. It would be a mistake to think that Mises had quit a bureaucratic life to join a business organization. His job did include some of the benefits of private institutions, but it also maintained some of the characteristics of the civil service, both the prestige and the constraints. The main benefit of his new job was something no government agency could offer, latitude for the creative employment of individual energies and a personal impact on public debate. Mises made ample use of these opportunities to reanimate the spirit of capitalism in an institution where it had become a dead letter.
Mies is joined to the first section of the Kammer as an analyst. The official name of his position was Concipist. At the very moment the Austrian tax law was undergoing its first major revision, since Bermbarek and his team of economists had reformed direct taxation in 1896. The Bermbarekian reforms had established a plan for government finance up to 1909. In 1908, the Ministry of Finance had presented a reform plan that did not change anything in the structure of taxation, but increased personal and corporate taxes. Mises' main role within the Kammer in the pre-war years was to lead an extended campaign against the official proposal. Even though he was a newcomer, he soon surpassed all expectations. Early on, he was entrusted with leading the negotiations with the representatives of the Ministry of Finance, which obtained a compromise that reconciled the government's endeavor to increase tax revenue with the interest of the commercial and industrial circles organized in the Kammer. His first mission was to study the impact of the proposed taxation of beer and other alcoholic beverages. He took part in a mid-May 1909 Kammer conference on the consequences of the increase of the beer tax. The participants criticized the increase with standard economic arguments, pointing out that it would annihilate marginal business. But when another Kammer meeting was held two months later on the taxation of alcoholic beverages, the Kammer's attitude had undergone a seismic shift. Mises had taken the bull by the horns and, in the first of many reports he would write in the coming years, raised not only the familiar issue of marginal business, but also the politically delicate issue of the agricultural interests underlying the proposed legislation. Mises pointed out in great detail the existence of inequitable sales quotas for commercial and agricultural producers, and of special subsidies for the agricultural production of alcohol. The meeting denounced these practices, basing all its resolutions on Mises's report. In a post-war book, he would point out that the conflict between commercial and agricultural producers had an ethnic aspect, the former being predominantly German, and the latter non-German. Mises then turned to propose legislation concerning private inheritance and donations, as well as corporate taxation and corporate law. He reported on the former topic to a plenary Kammer meeting in early December 1909. Mises pointed out that the higher taxation and the complicated procedures of the planned law would hurt business life, and he emphasized again that the stipulations of the new law would treat the agrarian population better than urban circles in commerce and industry. But he also brought more far-reaching considerations into play, noticing that the legislation would subject Austria's courts to the control of the financial administration. Other young economists also gave reports at the meeting, but theirs did not have as great an impact on the public or the press. Mises's report set new standards both for analytical scope and rigor, and for their political audacity. The wind of change blew through the Kammer. Even though Kammer executives did not always share the views expressed in the reports of their new employee, they benefited politically from the fact that his seemingly extreme positions were always backed up with such thorough research that the Kammer was able to reach more favorable compromises in the political process. Storm Clouds Meanwhile, Austrian foreign policy had taken a fateful turn in 1908. A revolution in Turkey had smashed a theocratic establishment that had been unable to enact real reforms for decades and swept into power a group of ambitious young men who came to be known as the Young Turks. All over the world there were various young movements, among the Czechs, the Chinese, in literature, painting, politics, etc., 
these young Turks pursued a radical reform program designed to make Turkey more like the secular democracies of the West. European leaders were amazed to see the young Turks putting their ideas into practice so quickly. Many of them believed that Turkey would soon regain formidable strength, with drastic consequences for the political map of southeastern Europe. The hawks in Vienna immediately began agitating for the annexation of Bosnia and Herzegovina. The Austro-Hungarian army had occupied these territories since 1878, but they had not been formally incorporated into the empire. The advocates of war insisted that Austria-Hungary could not afford to wait until the Turks were strong enough to reclaim their former colonies. When it became obvious that the hawks would have their way in Vienna, war nearly broke out with Russian-backed Serbia. In the so-called annexation crisis, a great number of troops, Ludwig von Mises among them, were mobilized and dispatched to the southern and northern borders of the empire. The war was averted, however, when the Russians withdrew their support for the Serbs. After a year of negotiations, Bosnia was constituted as a part of Austria-Hungary, but the event had a lasting negative impact on foreign relations. Austria-Hungary's hawkish Minister of Foreign Affairs, Ehrenthal, successfully lobbied the governments of Russia, France, Italy, and Great Britain to approve the annexation, but the old trust that Austrian statesmen had enjoyed abroad had been destroyed. Rudolf Sieghardt, a high government official at the time, said in retrospect that the annexation was the overture to the World War. An increasing number of crises entangled the major European powers over the next several years. Austria-Hungary mobilized its troops again in 1912 against another Russian-Serb coalition. Once again, the Russians withdrew at the last minute, but two years later they would stand fast. The annexation campaign had a profound impact on domestic policy as well. The liberal Prime Minister Beck had resigned in November of 1908 to protest the annexation. The last phase of bourgeois liberal rule in Austria ended with his administration. Beginning with Kerber's administration in 1900, which included Böhm Bawerk as finance minister, Austria had been ruled for eight years by governments that found their main support in the liberal press and in business and finance. Every prime minister since 1900 had risen to his position through a career in the Austrian bureaucracy, and each ruled on the basis of emergency laws that allowed the emperor to appoint governments without parliamentary approval. But Kerber had pioneered the method of governing through the press, and his successors Gauch and Beck skillfully continued this approach. They were not mere administrators for the emperor, but could initiate political change through direct communication with the citizenry, thus bypassing political party organizations. The succeeding governments could no longer rely on the support of the liberal establishment, especially the press, and for this reason alone were unable to address any pressing political problem before the outbreak of war. National conflicts and suppressed democratic longings continued to alienate the citizenry from the empire. Under relentless centrifugal forces, the country was ready to break apart. Vienna meeting of the Verein für Sozialpolitik these developments would surface over the next several years and would include two Balkan wars and the Morocco crisis that preceded World War I. But in 1909 the world had not yet fallen apart. Mises enjoyed his new work at the Kammer and continued to pursue his other intellectual interests, including Böhm-Bawerk's seminar and the discussion group he had founded with his friend Peels and others. 
In September 1909, the plenary meeting of the Verein für Sozialpolitik took place in Vienna. It turned out to be one of the most significant intellectual events before World War I. The conference took place at the end of September and featured sessions on the problems of municipally owned companies and on the concept of productivity. Mises probably joined the Verein at this point. He certainly attended the sessions that were organized and directed by his teacher Filipovic. Filipovic, one of the vice presidents of the Verein, had successfully promoted the subject of the productivity of national economies and the empirical measurement thereof. Other topics dealt with were problems of enterprise owned by local government and a memorial lecture on the German economist Hansen, which was delivered by Georg F. Knapp. It was the first time ever that the Verein dealt with a problem of pure economic theory. Moreover, it was a problem of fundamental importance for the cause of the social policy movements so dear to Filipovic. The productivity debate at the Vienna meeting would become a high point in the history of the Verein and of German economics, featuring the confrontation between the historicist majority and the vociferous group of brilliant younger scholars such as Werner Zombart, Bernd Harms, the Weber brothers, and Pastor Friedrich Naumann. Over the years, Max Weber had become the leader of those who contested both premises of the Verein, the utility of government interventionism and the historicist methodology. Leadership accrued to him not only because of his imposing personality, but also, and especially, because he had started his career within the Verein as both an interventionist and historicist. Other dissenting voices, Dietzel, Wolf, Ehrenberg, Pohle, Passau, and Adolf Weber, Adolf Weber had no family ties with the brothers Alfred Weber and Max Weber, had never been Schmollerites in the first place. But Max Weber was elected into the committee in 1893 as a young star in the Cateder socialist tradition. According to Mises, he was appointed professor of economics without having dealt with this science before, which was a customary procedure at that time. It reflected the historical school's opinion on the nature of social sciences and on the scientific expertise of legal historians. When he accepted the position, the jurist and historian in him rebelled against the manner in which the school treated legal and historical problems. This is why he began his pioneering methodological and epistemological investigations. It led him to the problems of materialistic philosophy of history, from which he then approached the religious sociological tasks. He proceeded finally to a grandiose attempt at a system of social sciences. But all these studies, step by step, led Max Weber away from the political and social ideals of his youth. He moved for the first time toward liberalism, rationalism, utilitarianism. In contrast to the still-dominant Schmollerites, Max Weber and his brother Alfred thought that normative propositions of the type the government should do this or that had no scientific basis and reflected only the personal value judgments of their author. Heino Heinrich Nau points out that Max Weber merely elaborated Karl Menger's methodological position. His main contribution was to synthesize Menger's methodology with Heinrich Rickert's theory of value relations. The debate on value freedom itself was therefore a continuation of Methodenstreit between Menger and Schmoller. After World War II, there was another round of essentially the same debate in the so-called Positivismusstreit, which at the beginning of the 1960s opposed the Marxist Frankfurt School and Karl Popper and his followers. 
These views had been reinforced just a year before the Vienna meeting through Schumpeter's Nature and Essence, which championed the claim that economic research could mimic the natural sciences. The Webers also thought that the mainstream systematically overlooked the problems that arose from government intervention. In 1905, the plenary meeting in Mannheim featured the first open clash between the young radicals and the establishment over the question of cartels and antitrust policies. In the 1870s and 1880s, the majority of the Verein had welcomed the formation of cartels as an anti-immigration device. The cartels reduced foreign competition, and thus they diminished, for a while at least, the downward pressure on wage rates in the least competitive industries. Workers employed in these industries had less incentive to emigrate than they otherwise would have had. In the 1890s, the dominant view was reversed, mainly because the civil servants were jealous of fast-growing corporate power. The Mannheim meeting was meant to be an important milestone of this new orientation. The invited lecturers by Brentano, Leidig, Schmoller, and Kierdorf made the case for various policies designed to reinforce the position of labor unions within large firms, to curb corporate power, and to make large firms socially responsible. Schmoller proposed, for example, that 25% of the seats of the corporate boards be reserved for government representatives. In the ensuing debate, Friedrich Naumann, Werner Zombart, and Max Weber heavily criticized these analyses and conclusions. Weber accused Schmoller of cultivating old illusory notions about the nature of the state, but the greatest blow against the establishment position came through a speech by Pastor Naumann, who seems to have been in his Marxist phase. He argued that the formation of cartels had resulted from great secular forces that could not possibly be prevailed against by some minor state and its middle-class policies in support of the handicrafts. Moreover, anticipating an argument that Mises would carefully develop many years later, Naumann pointed out that the proposed government interventions could not attain the end they were meant to achieve. These interventions were, from a technical and economic point of view, nonsense. Naumann's speech roused the audience to unusually enthusiastic applause, applause that lasted much too long for the embarrassed Schmoller, who later scoffed that the response had been frenetic. By tradition, Schmoller wrapped up the meeting. He called Naumann a demagogue, and said that if he were not allowed to distance himself from Naumann, he would have to step down as president of the Verein. Many thought Schmoller's reaction was excessive, and long-time critics such as Ludwig Pohler and Andreas Voigt cancelled their membership. The controversy eventually died down, especially because the next meeting in Magdeburg, 1907, dealt with less controversial subjects, such as the training of young economists and problems of city administration. But the stage was set for the Vienna meeting, where core issues of the social policy movement were on the agenda. The first two sessions dealt with problems of municipal firms. As usual, the lectures and the discussion concerned technical problems relating in particular to the administration of those firms, their means of finance, and the remuneration of their employees. This cozy exchange of municipal socialists was shaken up, however, when the Weber brothers brought some rather fundamental considerations into play. An eminent historian of the Verein, who, siding with the mainstream, attended the Vienna meeting, recalled the sensation that the Weber brothers stirred with their remarks. Whereas, as many speakers stressed, the entire debate had relied on the opinion shared by all that municipalization, 
the transfer of certain suitable industries from private hands into the hands of the municipality always means social progress. Alfred Weber contested this opinion. He pointed out that municipalization turned ever greater parts of the population into bureaucrats and presented this without any ambiguity as a great defect. Alfred Weber had dared to suggest that there might be something wrong with becoming a civil servant and something even worse about turning large segments of the population into employees of the state. In doing so, he denounced the very mission of the Verein, which was to provide scientific underpinnings for ever more government intervention and a larger, more powerful bureaucracy. After his speech, there was too little time for discussion, but the confrontation between the Webers and the Schmollerites would be continued the next day, which dealt with the central concept of national productivity. The prevailing justification for government intervention stressed the distinction between profitability and productivity. The typical Schmollerite professor would argue that the profit of an investment was primarily an indicator of the investment's importance from an individual point of view. Only under very specific and rare conditions was it also indicative of the social value of an investment. From a larger social point of view, it was therefore crucial to judge any decision about the use of society's scarce resources in terms of its productivity. But is there anything at all like an objective criterion to distinguish more from less productive uses of resources? On this decisive point, the Cateda socialist professors were silent. Filipovitz felt that scientific integrity required a clarification of this theoretical issue, and he set up an Austrian session on productivity theory, featuring plenary lectures by himself and by his distinguished colleague Friedrich von Wieser. Filipovich delivered the first of the two lectures. He gave a brilliant overview of the history of the concept of national productivity, but then evaded the true subject of his lecture, which was supposed to deal with the nature of national economic productivity and the possibility of measuring it. Filipovich focused entirely on the narrower question of the impact of technological progress on productivity. This evasion derived in part from the difficulty of the subject, but was also due to the fierce opposition that was to be expected from the Weber brothers and their allies. The second lecture also avoided the crucial question of the concrete meaning of national productivity. Wieser's subject was the measurement of the value of money and of the changes of its value, with special consideration to the problem of productivity. The general idea was that money prices could be used as a yardstick to measure the economy's productivity or at least changes in productivity. This in turn presupposes that it is possible to analyze and quantify alterations in the yardstick itself, changes in the value of money. Now, Visa had his own views on what precisely was to be understood by the value of money, and he stated his position in a long essay that appeared in advance of the conference in the Verein's publication series. Based on this essay, he delivered his lecture focusing more narrowly on the technical problems of money value measurement. Wieser's discussion highlighted once again that he believed that the natural value of an economic good was not tied to individuals. The natural value of a good was rather its general economic significance within a social context. The difference in value between two goods indicated that the more highly valued good was generally more important than the less valued good, not just for the individual, but for all subjects of the Commonwealth. In short, the differences between the various values reflected a hierarchy of values. What was better or worse from an economic point of view 
could therefore be determined by reference to differences in value. And despite all problems relating to technical procedure, the value of all things could be ascertained by the inquiring mind. In principle, at least, it was possible to measure economic productivity and economic progress just as it was possible to measure the changing value of money. These views enabled Visa to bridge some of the differences that he, the highly prominent theorist, otherwise had with the predominantly historicist members of the Verein. In fact, the traditional purpose of the Verein was to provide theoretical guidelines for public policy, and on the most fundamental level this required that one be able to distinguish between better and worse economic states of affairs. Wieserian economics promised such a distinction based on the theory of value, even though Wieser himself was reluctant to commit to any policy position. After Wieser had finished his lecture, the first comments came from Herkner and Knapp, champions of the traditional view, which considered the notion of national productivity to be generally coherent, though it was difficult to give it operational meaning. But then came, as Mises later recalled, that memorable exchange of arguments in which, for the first time, within the Verein, the amalgamation of the economic, theoretical, and ethical-political viewpoints was fervently attacked. Werner Zombart led the attack, denying that the concept of national productivity was useful for scientific research. Then Gottel or Lilienfeld argued in the same vein that the notion of national productivity had no correlate in the real world. It was finally Max Weber's turn to address the question. He had long awaited this opportunity to corner his opponents on the question of the nature of scientific research. He was already known for his ideal of value-free scientific research, that is, research with the strict orientation toward the ascertainment of matters of fact. He was himself a passionate man, and he did not believe that value-freedom required emotional detachment from the object of one's study. But it did imply that the scientist, and especially the social scientist, strictly distinguish between what is and what should be. It implied that he must not conflate his personal preferences with the factual results of his research. In a frontal attack against Filipovitz, Weber argued that there was no objective way to speak about the productivity of an aggregate of human beings. The very notion of national productivity had a normative rather than descriptive function. It therefore had no place in economic science and should be cast into the economist's dustbin where it belonged. Significantly, the main target of Weber's attacks was Filipovich and Schmoller. Weber was implicitly acknowledging Filipovich as the true intellectual leader of the interventionist movement. In his replies to Weber, the latter demonstrated the qualities that had won him this position. As Mises recalled many years later, the cause that Filipovich advocated has been defeated. Today it is generally recognized that it is not the task of science to establish value judgments. But in that encounter, in which Filipovich was on the wrong side, he was greater than his opponents, who turned out to be right. And these opponents were led by Max Weber. Never has Filipovich's intellectual persona revealed itself in a brighter light. Never have his oratorical skills made a deeper impact on the audience than in the final comment of that now famous debate. The Cateda Socialist establishment had spent all its energies justifying the introduction of ethical considerations into economic analysis, and insisting that this was science too. In Vienna they had won the day, to the great frustration of Max Weber, who no longer believed the Verein could be a suitable forum for genuinely scientific questions. The Vienna debate had a follow-up in a meeting of the Verein's committee, 
which took place on January 5, 1914, in Berlin, and was dedicated exclusively to the discussion of the role of value judgments in economic science. In order to avoid unsuitable publicity, the 15 papers on which the meeting was based were not published, and there are no records of the debate. The meeting was the culmination of the value judgment debate which, in modified form, was continued in the 1960s, in the so-called Positivismusstreit. Meanwhile, those 15 papers have fortunately been published. After the Vienna meeting, Max Weber founded the German Sociological Association, which met for the first time a year later in Frankfurt am Main. By early January 1909, Weber had taken part in a meeting in Berlin to prepare the establishment of the Sociological Association. Among the 39 other participants were Ferdinand Tönnies, Georg Simmel, Werner Sombart, Friedrich Herkner, Paul Barth, Ludwig Goldscheid, Hermann Kantorowitz, Franz Oppenheimer, Ernst Trölsch, and his brother Alfred. Max Weber was also among the signers of the open letter of invitation to the first meeting of the association in Frankfurt in 1910, where Tönnies was elected president and Weber himself treasurer. This retreat turned out to be unnecessary. After the Vienna meeting, the cause of Schmoller and Filipovic was doomed. They had failed to capture the hearts of the rising generation. After Schmoller's death in 1917, new men would begin to take over the Verein für Sozialpolitik and set German social research on an entirely different path. Among these men was Mises, who fully endorsed Max Weber's view of science as a purely fact-oriented discipline a view that was emphasized in the bylaws of the new sociological association. For the rest of his life, most notably after the death of Böhm-Barbeck, Mises would fight for truly empirical research. During the 1920s, he even upheld Max Weber's use of the expression sociology, shorthand for empirical social science, as opposed to the value-laden rumblings of the German early government scientists to describe his own works. He abandoned this practice when he realized that most other writers used the same word to establish a parallel social science based on foundations completely different from economics, but this is a topic for a later chapter. Breakthrough at the Kammer At the end of January 1910, Mises finished a long report that had consumed his energies in the preceding months. He presented the report to a plenary Kammer meeting. In it, he took issue with proposed legislation to increase corporate income tax rates to subject corporate managers to additional taxes and to give the financial administration access to corporate bookkeeping. Mises criticized the bias of this new legislation, which sought to increase government revenue at the expense of Austrian industry, the Kammer clientele, while favoring agricultural producers. Mises suggested that a more reasonable policy would be to apply existing tax laws equitably. His position with the Kammer left him even less time than usual for his academic endeavors, but he seems to have continued his studies with iron discipline. In 1910 he came out with two new publications, an article in a new French journal on the reform of government finance in Austria and a survey of new literature on money and banking for Böhm-Bawerk's Zeitschrift. But he was far better known for his Kammer reports, which were followed attentively by friends and foes and praised in the Vienna Daily Press's very thorough exhaustive, very well-researched, and richly documented with statistical material. The thoroughness of his work and the intellectual leadership that he exercised in Kammer circles gained Mises a level of public recognition that allowed him to comment on government policy in the central organ of Austria's ruling elites. Thus, 
In a Neue Freie Presse piece from October 1911, he criticized Finance Minister Belinsky for his proposed increase of income taxes. And about a year later, he criticized the tax proposals of MP Steinbender, observing that they would reintroduce the bad old pre-Birnbarbeck habits of making tax laws based only on immediate concerns, such as the present balance of power in the Austrian Parliament. The government's constant drive to increase old taxes and to create new ones was a permanent issue on the public agenda. At the end of October 1911, the Kammer hosted a meeting of various automobile associations to discuss the government's plan to tax cars. Mises was unhappy with the Assembly's toothless resolution to appeal to the government not to exceed German automobile taxes and to tax foreigners only after a stay of more than three months in Austria. He was similarly disappointed in a November 1911 meeting in which the Kammer took up the problem of rising meat prices. Mises' report stressed the common-sense point that the easiest solution would be to open the borders for foreign meat imports, but this solution was not politically viable. The reduction of meat taxes, another simple and effective solution, was equally unfeasible because of the government's chronic financial difficulties. Despite such setbacks, Mises tenaciously pursued his strategy of changing the structure of Austrian taxation, and in March 1912 he was promoted to the rank of consulent, counsellor. The bottom line of his many reports was that the prevailing tax code enshrined the privileges of various vested interests, particularly Austrian agriculture and hampered industrial progress. This line of argument seems to have been especially pronounced at the end of his campaign. A case in point is a report that he probably submitted in May 1913 on the proposed taxation of insurance contracts. Mises here criticized the differential treatment of agrarian and urban segments of the population and the excessive orientation of the proposal toward the interests of the financial administration. He sought a compromise that would guarantee the government higher revenue while preventing the burden from falling entirely on his clientele. His tenacity eventually paid off. In early 1914, Parliament voted a new tax law that granted most Kammer demands. The new law stipulated a tax-exempt income of 1,600 shillings, up from 1,200, and also regulated government access to corporate bookkeeping. On the negative side, were new taxes on liquor and champagne, as well as an increase of the income tax, which now reached up to 6.7%. Yes, a progressive tax topping out at less than 7%. The good old days. Theory of Money Despite his workday immersion in the details and intricacies of the Austrian tax policies, Mises had somehow managed to write a treatise on money and banking. He had written no articles for a year, focusing instead on the completion of his book. In mid-December 1911, he put the finishing touches to a manuscript with the title Theorie des Geldes und der Umlaufsmittel, Theory of Money and Fiduciary Media, misleadingly published in English as Theory of Money and Credit. Excited to see the work of more than five years come to completion, he had already approached several prestigious publishers and now decided to accept the offer of Dunker und Humblot in Leipzig. Mises received 50 complimentary copies and had to pay 1,372.50 marks, or 26.6 ounces of gold, as his share of the total production costs, 2,264.18 marks. The first edition comprised a thousand copies plus one hundred complimentary copies for reviews and gifts. 
They had produced the beautiful edition of Schumpeter's spectacular first book, and were one of the most prestigious names in economic publishing. Mises worked feverishly, revising the proof pages, making last-minute changes, and constantly inquiring about the production process. Under his pressure to speed up production, Dunker und Humlot even hired additional staff. On June 14, 1912, the book was delivered to the book dealers who sold it for the cover price of ten marks. The long-term impact of Mises' first treatise can only be called spectacular, and we therefore take a deeper look at its main ideas in the next chapter. After ninety years, it is still in print and remains a source of inspiration for monetary theorists. Despite initial rejection by the majority of German economists, the value of Mises' work was recognized immediately by the profession's greatest mind. Max Weber called it the most acceptable theory dealing with the substantive monetary problems. Schumpeter praised its power and originality, noticing that, as usual, the critics had overlooked these qualities in their discussion of unsubstantial side issues. After the war, Albert Hahn would stress the Mangerian qualities of Mises' work, saying that its author, the master of economic theory, never falls for the temptation to pursue fictitious abstractions, but stands on the firm ground of the facts. The principal advantages of the work are found in that the author, in all mastery of the theory, never allows himself to fall into unrealistic abstractions, but remains fully grounded in fact. On the other side of the Atlantic, a young pioneer of economic theory praised the book for essentially the same reasons. In von Mises, there seems to me to be very noteworthy clarity and power. His Theorie des Geldes und der Umlaufsmittel is an exceptionally excellent book. Von Mises has a very wide knowledge of the literature of the theory of money. He has a keen insight into the difficulties involved. The greatest sign of recognition, however, was the fact that Böhm-Bawerk devoted two entire semesters of his seminar to the discussion of Mises' book, an honor shared by no one else, not even Schumpeter. Böhm-Bawerk acknowledged Schumpeter's brilliance, but wrote that he wished to see Schumpeter turn to serious work. Apparently Mises' book was serious theoretical work of the sort Böhm-Bawerk had in mind, and its enduring success proved the old master to be right once again. Mises submitted the book to the University of Vienna to obtain the Habilitation, the Treatise on Money. Mises's greatest lifetime achievement was to build an all-encompassing systematic theory of human action, which he first presented in Nationalökonomie, 1940, and Human Action, 1949. His system was the result of two large research projects overlapping in time, the first one concerning economic science as such, while the second dealt with epistemological and methodological foundations of this science. He published his Reflections on Epistemology and Methodology in the period from 1929 to 1962. His great economic research project extended from 1912 to 1940. It started with a treatise on money, in which Mises unfolds an original theme that he later expands, systemizes, and eventually brings full circle in Nationalökonomie. The great original theme of his economic writings concerned the integration of the theory of money and banking into the framework of the Mangerian theory of value and prices. Mises dealt with it in his first treatise, Theory of Money and Credit, which had earned him the coveted license to teach at Austrian universities. Karl Menger, too, had obtained a habilitation for an original theory of money, which he had published as Chapter 8 of Principles. 
Mises thus continued a Mengerian tradition by grounding his academic reputation on monetary analysis. He did not submit only one chapter, though, but a complete treatise. In his theory of money, Karl Menger had been mainly concerned with explaining the origin of money as a social institution. He stressed that money did not come into being like Athena from the brow of Zeus, but developed step by step out of a non-monetary commodity. However, Menger had not applied his marginal value theory to money itself. The reader of principles could get the distinct impression that value theory only applied to consumers' goods and factors of production, and that money was not subject to the same rules. What, then, is the relationship between marginal value and money? This was the question at the heart of the theory of money and credit. Mises answered it in the second, the central part of the book, and thereby brought the Austrian theory of value and prices full circle. Money was no longer a special case, but could be fully accounted for by the new marginal value theory. In his treatise, Mises went as far as he could to integrate the theory of money and banking into the general theory of value and prices. From the outset, he was aware that his exposition would be inadequate. He later explained, The greatest difficulty I faced in the preparation of the book was the fact that I meant to give special attention to merely a limited part of the total scope of economic problems. But economics necessarily must be a complete and united whole. In economics there can be no specialization. To deal with a part, one must do so on the foundation of a theory that comprises all the problems. But I could not use any of the existing theories. The systems of Menger and Bumbavec were no longer wholly satisfactory to me. I was ready to proceed further on the road these old masters had discovered, but I could not use their treatment of those problems with which monetary theory must begin. According to prevailing opinion at the time, the theory of money could be clearly separated from the total structure of economic problems. It did not, in fact, even belong with economics. In a certain respect, it was an independent discipline. In accordance with this opinion, the universities in Anglo-Saxon countries had created special professorships for currency and banking. It was my intention to reveal this position as erroneous and restore the theory of money to its appropriate position as an integral part of the science of economics. If I could have worked quietly and taken my time, I would have begun with a theory of direct exchange in the first volume, and then I could proceed to the theory of indirect exchange. But I actually began with indirect exchange because I believed that I did not have much time. I knew that we were on the eve of a great war, and I wanted to complete my book before the war's outbreak. I thus decided that, in a few points only, I would go beyond the narrow field of strictly monetary theory and would postpone my preparation of a more complete work. Unfortunately, his forecast proved to be right, and for many years the war and its aftermath prevented him from systematically elaborating his more general ideas in print. But these ideas, nurtured through the war experience, came to light more powerfully in an essay on the problems of economic calculation in socialist regimes, which Mises published in 1920 in Max Weber's Archiv für Sozialwissenschaft und Sozialpolitik, arguably the most avant-garde German social science journal of the day. Here he expanded on the difference between valuation and money-based economic calculations, a difference he had stressed but not elaborated upon in theory of money and credit. Mises observed that economic calculation consists of the computation of market prices, prices that can only emerge in the interaction of private property owners. 
since an extended division of labor is possible only because decisions can be based on economic calculus, it follows that socialist societies, which by definition have no private property in the means of production and thus no market prices for them, could not possibly enjoy an extended division of labor. Socialism, in so far as it was considered to be a system of rational division of labor, did not and could not ever exist. In the manner of Bohm-Bawerk, Mises had derived crucial political insights from seemingly arcane theoretical distinctions. He followed his calculation piece with a comprehensive treatise on socialism, 1922. Again, thoughts he had kept to himself and developed over many years burst forth in the span of a few months. In Nationale Economie, 1940, and Human Action, 1949, he finally gave a presentation of the whole body of economic science in light of the difference between valuation and calculation. My Nationale Economie finally afforded me the opportunity to present the problems of economic calculation in their full significance. Thus, I accomplished the project that had presented itself to me 35 years earlier. The Nature of Money As a true disciple of Karl Menger, Ludwig von Mises began the presentation of his theory of money with an analysis of the nature of money itself. He then went on to deal with the determination of money's purchasing power and with the impact of what he called Umlaufsmittel, fiduciary media, on the monetary system. In dealing with the nature of money, Mises relied heavily on the work of Karl Menger. The founder of the Austrian school had shown that money is not to be defined by the physical characteristics of whatever good is used as money. Rather, money is characterized by the fact that the good under consideration is one, a commodity that is, two, used in indirect exchanges, and three, bought and sold primarily for the purpose of such indirect exchanges. Menger also stressed that money emerges spontaneously on the market as a response to the lack of the double coincidence of wants. Indirect exchanges are resorted to, for example, by the chairmaker, seeking to buy a dozen eggs from the farmer who already has enough chairs, or by the painter trying to purchase a glass of beer from the brewer who does not care for art. They first exchange their products into highly marketable commodities such as salt, wheat, or silver coins in order to exchange these media of exchange against eggs and beer in a subsequent deal. The significance of this fact was that a monetary system could come into being without a prior social contract and without government fired. Although Menger delivered a painstaking analysis of the process of the emergence of money, a process that was, in his view, the best illustration of the emergence of social institutions, he was not the first economist to point out that money does not come into being by social contract. Among Menger's predecessors were John Law, 1705, Ferdinando Galliani, 1751, Etienne de Condillac, 1776, Adam Smith, 1776, Antonio Genovese, 1788, Jean-Baptiste Say, 1802, and Richard Watley, 1832. Mises added to and refined this analysis of the nature of money in four ways. First, he took issue with the idea that the functions of money being a means of exchange, a store of value, a means of payment, a means of deferred payments, a numeraire, measure of value, were of equal importance. Mises argued that a commodity could play the role of numeraire only because it was used as a means of exchange, and similarly, a commodity was held as a store of value precisely because it was marketable. Thus, there was a hierarchical order of the functions of money. The means of exchange was primordial, being a necessary condition for the others. Second, 
Mises developed a comprehensive typology of monetary objects, that is, in Mangerian language, of all the things generally accepted as media of exchange. On the most fundamental level, he distinguished several types of money in the narrower sense from several types of money surrogates or substitutes. Money in the narrower sense is a good in its own right. In contrast, money substitutes were legal titles to money in the narrower sense. They were typically issued by banks and were redeemable in real money at the counters of the issuing bank. In establishing this fundamental distinction between money and money titles, he applied crucial insights of Birnbaumwerk's pioneering work on the economics of legal entities. He stressed claims are not goods. They are means of obtaining disposal over goods. This determines their whole nature and economic significance. As his exposition in later parts of the book would show, these distinctions have great importance for both the integration of money theory within the framework of Menger's theory of value and prices and for the analysis of the role of banking within the monetary system. At the heart of his theory of banking is a comparative analysis of the economic significance of two very different types of money substitutes. Mises observed that money substitutes could be either covered by a corresponding amount of money, in which case they were money certificates, or they could lack such coverage, in which case they were fiduciary media, umlaufsmittel. Mises devoted the entire last third of his book to an analysis of the economic consequences of the use of umlaufsmittel. Regrettably, this comparative focus of his analysis was lost in the English translation of the title of the book, Theory of Money and Credit. The term Umlaufsmittel, which literally translates into means of circulation, was rendered in the English text as fiduciary media. Consequently, the title of the book should have been Theory of Money and Fiduciary Media, but the publisher decided that the unusual terminology would irritate readers and thus opted for the smoother but toothless theory of money and credit failing to honor the fact that even in the original German version the expression was unusual. Mises was hostile to innovations in language that were not justified by the analysis of hitherto neglected phenomena, but the difference between money certificates on one hand and Umlaufsmittel on the other hand was such a neglected phenomenon to the point that established scientific terminology even lacked the means for expressing this difference. Mises thus introduced the expression Umlaufsmittel for this purpose, and even used it in the title of his book to highlight its importance. Third, Mises refuted the idea that money prices are a measure of value. Here he relied on the work of the Czech economist Franz Kuhl, who some years earlier, in his Zur Lehre von den Bedürfnissen, on the theory of needs, had clarified several fundamental issues of the new Mangerian price theory. Kuhl was a champion of the psychological theory of marginal utility. Gossen, Jevons, Visa, but several of his contributions to the theory of value and utility proved useful despite that fact. Kuhl refuted Birnbaumwerk and Visa's quantitative claims about marginal utility, which refer to homogeneous units of a supply of goods, where each individual unit provides the same utility. According to Birnbaumwerk, the utilities derived from the use of several units could be added to the point that the utility, say, of consuming 15 plums equals exactly 15 times the utility of consuming one plum. But Kuhl objected that this contradicted the basic idea of the law of diminishing marginal utility, namely, that the satisfaction derived from the consumption of each additional unit of the good is lower than the utility derived from the consumption of the previous unit. 
Bernd Bauwerk had made this claim in a long essay on the theory of value, his first statement on value theory. It was this passage that met with criticism in Kuhl and Mises. Mises said many years later that, in distinct contrast to corresponding passages in Bernd Bauwerk's positive theory of capital, the statement in Grundzüge was incompatible with the whole tenor of Bohm's theory. This letter raises a certain problem because Mises here said that Bohm Bavak eventually realized his error and expressed the correct formulation in a later edition of Capital and Interest. But in the second edition of Theorie des Geldes und der Umlaufmittel, Mises said Bohm Bavak had not said anything new on this matter. Kuhl also made a devastating case against interpersonal comparisons of satisfactions. The benefits derived from the consumption of two different goods could be compared only indirectly, and only in one narrow case, namely in the case of individual decision-making at one point of time. From the fact that an individual chooses to enjoy satisfaction A rather than B, one can infer that A yields more satisfaction to this person than B does, because at the time of the choice both A and B were present and competed directly with one another. Hence the observed choices of individuals provide evidence about the relative size of enjoyment. But this is the only type of evidence available, because it is fundamentally impossible to perceive the comparative satisfactions of other people. Kuhl called subjective utilities by the unusual name of Egensen. In an analogous case, Wilfredo Pareto called subjective utility Ophelimité. One can only have direct knowledge of the utilities that the satisfaction of various needs has for oneself. Other people's utilities have to be inferred indirectly from their actual decision-making. It follows that there is no such thing as value calculation or even value measurement. Even money does not have a constant value and is therefore unable to provide the basis for a value calculus. Moreover, since money prices are the result of individual valuation processes, they are individual historical events, always determined by the particular circumstances in which they emerge. Contrary to what Balras's system of equations suggest, there are no constant relationships between money prices of different times and places. It was therefore out of the question to follow Irvin Fisher in his attempt to establish a quantitative law, such as in physics, of the relationship between the quantity of money and money prices, the price level. Mises placed great emphasis on this crucial implication of value theory for the methodology of economics. Because there are no constant relations in the field of human action, the equations of mathematical catalactics cannot be made to serve practical problems in the same way the equations of mechanics solve problems through the use of data and constants that have been ascertained empirically. In my book on money I did not say one controversial word against the mathematical school. I presented the correct doctrine and refrained from attacking the method of mathematicians. In fact, I even resisted the temptation to dissect the empty term velocity. I refuted mathematical economics by proving that the quantity of money and the purchasing power of the monetary unit are not inversely proportional. This proof demonstrated that the only constant relationship which was believed to exist between economic quantities is a variable determined by the data of each individual case. It thus exploded the equations of exchange of Irving Fisher and Gustav Kassel. Mises' criticism of the mechanical version of the quantity theory had an impact well beyond the theory of money. For this version of the quantity theory represented a large agenda, a quantitative view of social science in general. Mises showed 
that there are no quantitative constants linking human actions to repercussions in the social realm. An increased demand for apples would in all cases lead to higher apple prices than would otherwise have existed. But there is no law that tells us that a 10% increase of the apple demand will cause, say, an 8% or a 14% increase of apple prices. Actual quantities will always depend on the particular circumstances of each individual case. Fourth, and finally, Mises dealt more explicitly than Menger with the claims of the monetary statists, or charterists. Whereas Menger had argued that money could emerge spontaneously on the market, the statist scholars asserted that money was a creation of the state. Debate on this topic can be traced back to the times of Plato and Aristotle. It ran all through the Middle Ages and was only settled for a short while by classical economists who had argued along Mengerian lines. But at the time of the 19th century, the statists struck back. Cernusci in France, Neupapper in Austria, and Lexis in Germany reasserted the view that money is what the state declares to be such. But the most famous champion of this view was Georg Knapp, the same Knapp who had pioneered the studies on Germanic rule as a liberating force for East European peasants. In his Staatliche Theorie des Geldes, State Theory of Money, Knapp argued that money was a creation of the legal order, and that the theory of money therefore had to be studied as a branch of legal history. According to Knapp, money came into being through government proclamation. The state says that this or that is money and it suddenly becomes a token for some corresponding amount of real goods. The essence of money was therefore to be a government-proclaimed token, charter, in Latin, that could be used as a legally valid means of payment. Knapp thought he had to create an entirely new vocabulary to adequately deal with the theory of money, and among many other innovations, he came up with the expression chartal. Knapp's views were not well received at first, in particular Andreas Voigt, one of the leaders of the small but growing cadre of anti-Schmoller economists, gave Knapp an unfavorable review, but did find early support from prominent bankers, and eventually won many converts to the state theory of money. His charterlist theory did, after all, perfectly complement the statist convictions already prevalent among German economic professors, as Mises later observed. The statist school of German economics has probably reached its high point in Georg Friedrich Knapp's state theory of money. It is not per se remarkable that this theory has been formulated. After all, its tenets have been championed for centuries in the writings of canonists, jurists, romantics, and certain socialists. What was remarkable was rather the success of the book. Mises referred to Anderson's verdict that Knapp's book has had wide influence on German thinking on money. It is typical of the tendency in German thought to make the state the center of everything. He also quoted Karl Menger's exasperated comment on the success of the state theory of money. It is the logical development of Prussian police science. What are we to think of a nation whose elite, after two hundred years of economics, admire such nonsense, which is not even new, as highest revelation? Knapp's fundamental error was in failing to see that government orders can only be relevant in the context of presently existing contracts involving deferred payments. Exposed governments can determine what should be counted as money and hence what should be counted as payment. But it does not have the power to impose on market participants the future use of any means of exchange. Business usage alone can transform a commodity into a common medium of exchange. It is not the state but the common practice of all those who have dealings in the market that creates money. 
integration of value theory and the theory of money. Although the new marginalist approach to the theory of value and prices had thoroughly transformed economic science, the theory of money had been left virtually untouched. Here Menger, Jevons and Walras championed the same view as the classical economists, stressing that money is merely instrumental in acquiring real goods, goods which have some beneficial impact on human life without itself being such a good. From an individual perspective, they argued the ultimate purpose of market exchanges is never to exchange real goods against money, but to exchange real goods against other real goods. And taking the perspective of the national economy, they emphasized that the quantity of money did not affect the overall available quantity of goods. From these insights, they concluded that money was irrelevant to the wealth of the nation, and that political economy, which dealt with the economic interests of the whole nation, could afford to ignore money when analyzing the nation's welfare. This particular standpoint for evaluating social problems is also reflected in the standard German names for the disciplines of economics, Nationalökonomie, National Economics, and Volkswirtschaftslehre, Theory of the Economy of the Nation. The most famous metaphor for this view was the veil of money, the notion that money is merely an intermediate layer between the human person and the real economy. John Stuart Mill had given clear expression to this perspective. Things which by barter would exchange for one another will, if sold for money, sell for an equal amount of it, and so will exchange for one another still, though the process of exchanging them will consist of two operations instead of only one. The relations of commodities to one another remain unaltered by money. The only new relation introduced is their relation to money itself. How much or how little money they will exchange for, in other words, how the exchange value of money itself is determined. Money, according to Mill, did not influence the wealth of nations whatsoever. It just reflected, or corresponded to, the underlying non-monetary reality. Menger, Jevons, and Walras also endorsed this view, and consequently they accorded all their attention to the supposedly real factors of the economy, to the neglect of the monetary theory. Neither champions nor opponents of the new economic theory failed to notice this neglect. The Swedish economist Knut Wicksell observed that the new discoveries in value theory had not been applied to money, and the brilliant German economist Karl Helferich even thought the new marginalist approach could not be applied to money. In his book Das Geld, the future director of Deutsche Bank and German Minister of Finance argued that in the marginal utility approach, which in his understanding explained the market prices of goods as a consequence of the psychological utility of the various services of these goods, the price-determining utility of a good depended exclusively on the available quantity of the good. But in the case of money, this exclusive dependency could never be given. While the services derived from any other good were independent of its market price, the services derived from the use of money depended directly on its market prices, that is, its purchasing power. In other words, the marginal utility of money depends not only on its quantity, but also on its market prices. Therefore, any attempt to explain the value of money on the basis of the marginalist approach involved an inescapable circle. The market price for money could not be inferred from its marginal utility, because its utility itself depended on its market price. It is noteworthy that in his exposition Helferich conflates physical and value terms. Wiese's Theory of Money 
The first reaction from the Austrian camp came from Friedrich von Wiese, when he chose the value of money as the topic for his inaugural lecture at the University of Vienna on October 26, 1903. The lecture was published under the title Der Geldwert und seine geschichtlichen Veränderungen, The Value of Money and Its Historical Changes. It was the first statement of Wiese's ideas on how the theory of money related to the Austrian theory of value. Monetary theory remained at the center of Wiese's economic research until his death in 1926. He wrote two more lengthy papers for the 1909 Vienna meeting of the Verein für Sozialpolitik and also the lengthy entry on money for the post-war edition of the standard German social science dictionary, the Handwerterbuch der Staatswissenschaften. He worked on this last piece until he was virtually on his deathbed. These publications, which presented the first attempt to integrate marginal value theory and monetary theory, reserved for Wiese a place of great authority among German-language monetary economists. His impact on German monetary thought was reinforced, of course, by his authority as one of the founding fathers of the Austrian school. But the main reason he rose to preeminence in monetary economics was that his ideas on money fit well with the established notions of the great majority of his colleagues. Far better than the theory of money that Mises was about to present in 1912. Wiese was a representative of the banking school, whose ideas reigned supreme in turn-of-the-century Germany. Mises developed the theory of the currency school. Mises later explained that the tenets of the currency school were unacceptable to the Cateter socialist mindset, because it seemed to leave no scope for government intervention. The German professors favoured the banking school, the victory of the historical school practically brought excommunication of the currency school. Karl Marx, Adolf Wagner, Helferich, Hilferding, Havenstein, and Ben Dixon held to the doctrines of the banking school. Even after the First World War, the mainstream opinion among German monetary economists was that the banking school had won the debate with the currency school on virtually all substantive issues. The fact that John Stuart Mill, arch-advocate of the veil of money theory, endorsed the banking theory with only slight modifications, played a crucial role in its sweeping success. Mill's view was probably strongly influenced by the crisis that erupted in 1846, despite the Bank Charter Act of 1844, which sought to put the principles of the currency school into legislation. In Geltzins und Güterpreise, Knut Wichsel had already delivered a scathing critique of the main tenets of the banking school. His book was pointedly ignored at the time, as was Mises' theory of money and credit. Only after the First World War did both books enjoy a renaissance. All essential elements of Wiese's monetary thought were present in his initial 1903 lecture. According to his fundamental assumption, there was no such thing as a demand for money per se. To the extent that a good was used in indirect exchanges, it was not demanded as such, but only as an intermediary to obtain a real good. Money did not have value per se, but only represented the value of those other goods that could be exchanged for it. Visa did not deny that historical media of exchange, such as gold and silver, were commodity monies, but in his view they were commodities only insofar as they were demanded for non-monetary purposes. Modern media of exchange, such as paper money and money surrogates, legal claims on money that can be used in place of corresponding amounts of real money, which were used exclusively as exchange intermediaries, were not commodities at all. There was no demand for the paper notes themselves, 
only for the commodities for which they were exchanged. The value of the former was entirely derived from the demand for the latter. But if modern money is not a commodity, what is it? And how can it be used in market exchanges if it cannot itself be the object of an exchange? Visa insisted that while money does enable the transfer of commodities from one owner to another, it more importantly measures the value of the commodities it helps to transfer. This was also Knut Wichsel's in Geldsins und Güterpreise, where he elaborates on the distinction between relative prices and money prices. Wichsel's book had virtually no impact on the German scene at the time it first appeared, but his monetary views seemed to have influenced his countryman Gustav Kassel, and through Kassel they eventually reached a broad academic audience after the First World War, when Kassel's textbook became the main work of reference on theoretical economics at German universities. In short, money is essentially a standard of value, a measuring rod, or numéraire, and it is used in market exchanges to measure the value of the commodities against which it is exchanged. For Wieser, this measuring process is essentially a ranking of the exchanged commodity against the total array of the other commodities from which money derives its value. For similar reasons, Wichsel believed that a cashless payment system or a pure credit economy was possible. It is modern money's elasticity, according to Wieser, that makes it such an ideal standard of value. Praising Thomas Tuck, the great champion of the banking school, Wieser argued that increases in the quantity of commodities induce a corresponding rise in the quantity of money surrogates and of the so-called velocity of money. These increases do not exercise an independent influence on money prices. Rather, their elasticity ensures that monetary equilibrium is automatically preserved at the existing purchasing power of money. What about Helferich's critique? Is it not circular to assert that money measures the value of commodities if its own value is entirely derived from commodities? Wieser, who did not bother to mention Helferich's book, probably thought that he had disposed of the circularity problem by stressing that money is not a commodity. There is no circularity because money is a mere placeholder for those other goods that can be bought with its help. The goods measure themselves, so to speak, through money. Of course, market prices are not necessarily proportional to values, but as he had already argued in Natural Value, 1889, this problem vanishes to the extent that the national economy approaches the ideal of a perfect communist society. Wieser also analyzed the determination of the value of money from a completely different angle, by introducing the diachronic perspective, how the value of money is based in changes over time. Again, he did not explicitly mention the Helferich critique, but his diachronic determination of the value of money implicitly refutes the charge of circular reasoning. The Helferich critique applies only to attempts at a synchronic determination of the purchasing power of money. One cannot derive market prices for today's money from today's value of money, but this criticism does not apply if the value of today's money depends on yesterday's prices. Visa showed that this was in fact the case. The apparent circularity vanishes, and a pure causal chain appears. Money prices from two days ago determine the value of money yesterday, which determines money prices today, etc. Visa argued that the value of money had a historical source in the needs that are satisfied by those commodities that were first used as money. This original use value of the original money commodity was the base from which further changes to the purchasing power of money occurred. At each point, 
the past value of money served as a basis to evaluate the commodities that were now being exchanged. Insofar as these exchanges modified already existing prices or added new prices to the total array of commodity prices, the value of money was itself modified, thus changing the basis for future measurements. Wieses stressed that his theory implied that 1. Money could come into existence only as commodity money, but 2. Once it had come into existence and a historical basis for future modifications of its value had been created, it no longer had to remain commodity money. A pure paper money was therefore possible at some later stage. Visa placed great emphasis on this point because it alone seemed to explain recent events in the development of the Austro-Hungarian monetary system. Before 1892, Austria-Hungary had officially been on a silver standard, but in order to finance its wars of 1848 to 1849, 1859 to 1860, and 1866, the monarchy had issued great quantities of paper notes. These notes were irredeemable at the time of issue, but there were hopes of future redeemability, and thus they were used as money. Their circulation was further bolstered through legal tender laws. Because redemption was uncertain, the bills circulated at a discount, but in early 1879 something completely unusual occurred. Silver sold at a discount, and the government bills began circulating at a premium. What had happened? During the previous years, silver production had increased considerably, and in many countries silver had been replaced by gold as a currency. With diminished demand and increased supply, it was only natural that the price of silver fell drastically. Or was it? Visa believed that the event was actually a refutation of what he called the metallistic theory of money. According to this theory, the value of money did not come from demand, but from the inherent value of the metal that was used as money. The champions of metallism could therefore easily explain why paper circulated at a discount. After all, it was not real money. But they were at a loss to explain how the paper money could ever become more valuable than the supposedly real money. For 13 years, the Austro-Hungarian monetary system seemed to be real-world proof of the possibility of a pure fiat money, and Visa's diachronic theory of the value of money delivered the only available explanation of this phenomenon. But this did not exhaust the explanatory power of Visa's approach to monetary analysis. Making use of his measuring rod theory of money, Visa also gave an original account of the secular rise of money prices. He argued that this phenomenon resulted from a great transformation observable in all developed nations, namely the abandonment of barter and the adoption of monetary exchanges. In short, the purchasing power of money decreased because the monetary economy became even more widespread. He admitted that the increased production of commodity money was another factor explaining the secular decline of the purchasing power of money. Another factor was government expenditures, which were shifted forward in the form of taxation and thus added to prices, implying a lower purchasing power of money. Visa argued as follows, because more and more commodities were exchanged against money, the marginal value of these additional commodities constantly decreased. The lower marginal value led in turn to a corresponding decrease of the marginal value of money, that is, to a lower purchasing power of money. Six years later, he presented important clarifications of his theory in Der Geldwert und seine Veränderungen, The Value of Money and Its Changes, a lengthy paper he wrote for the 1909 Vienna meeting of the Verein. In this paper, he made his case for the full integration of monetary theory and general value theory, spelling out how this theory of the value of money related to the subjectivist theory of value. 
The central argument of what later came to be called the income theory of the value of money runs as follows. As an individual's income increases, the value of the marginal money unit decreases. Consider an individual agent who, in a given period, spends his entire disposable monetary income at given prices on consumers' goods. Visa argued that the subjective marginal value of money was derived from equal to the utility of the least important consumer's good that he could buy with his income. Equipped with the knowledge of his subjective marginal value of money, which henceforth serves him as a personal measuring rod, the agent then sets out to buy and sell goods on the market, always measuring them in comparison to the utility of the least important consumer's good he can afford to buy. Visa stressed that the value of money was determined in monetary exchanges of consumers' goods only. This precluded taking into consideration, for example, idle cash holdings not used in market exchanges or monetary exchanges on the market for producers' goods. The values of producers' goods were, in fact, merely derived from the values of consumers' goods. In his 1903 lecture, Visa had emphasized that because the value of money is merely derivative, It is not really money that is exchanged on the market. Real goods are exchanged against one another. Visa here argued that money was an object of exchange only in the case it was bought and sold as monetary capital. Money subdivides the original exchange into two separate parts. First commodity A is exchanged for a sum of money. Then this sum is exchanged against some other commodity B. In 1909, Visa further clarified this view stating that demand and supply on the market were manifest only in A and B, whereas money was merely interposed. According to Visa, this was the only difference between direct and indirect exchange. The benefit of this interposition is that money makes a great social bookkeeping possible. Visa uses language borrowed from the warehouse business to describe economic processes within the national economy. In his metaphor, Each quantity of money functions as a deposit receipt that can be easily transferred from one member of the community to another, thereby giving them both access to a common pool where each deposits the fruit of his labor. Between all those who throw commodities into the national economic process in order to take out commodities in turn, there is some great national bookkeeping, the meaning of which is that everyone has to throw in a real value that is as large as the value that he wants to take out. Josef Schumpeter adopted the same point of view. Mises later called this characterization of the nature of money assignment theory, Anweisungstheorie, because its essence is to conceive of money as a token. In the English edition of Mises' book, Anweisungstheorie is translated as claim theory. The translation is, however, somewhat inappropriate. The term claim involves an underlying legalistic interpretation of what the assignment theorists hold the nature of money to be. But compared to a legal interpretation of money as a claim, the flaws of the assignment theory look minor. It is obvious that market exchanges are categorically different from the redemption of claims. But assignment theorists never subscribe to such clearly stated and clearly wrong interpretations of money. Their doctrine survives precisely because it is ambiguous. The theory goes back to the 18th century, to John Law, the greatest champion of inflation before Keynes. Blurring the difference between money and credit, Law wrote, Domestic trade depends on the money. A greater quantity employs more people than a lesser quantity. They may be brought to work on credit, 
and that is not practicable unless the credit have a circulation so as to supply the workman with necessaries. If that's supposed, then that credit is money and will have the same effects on home and foreign trade. While Mises rejected this view, he accepted as fundamental the distinction that law had made between the monetary and non-monetary demand for money. It is reasonable to think silver was bartered as it was valued for its uses as a metal, and was given as money according to its value in barter. The additional use of money silver was applied to would add to its value, because as money it remedied the disadvantages and inconveniences of barter, and consequently the demand for silver increasing, it received an additional value equal to the greater demand its use as money occasioned. In the mid-nineteenth century, the assignment theory came to be fully developed in the writings of the champions of the banking school. See in particular Henry D. MacLeod's Theory of Practice of Banking. In the first chapter, the author characterizes money as an evidence of debt being made transferable. Again, although Mises rejected this option, he learned an important lesson from MacLeod, namely that bank deposits are substitutes for money in essentially the same way as banknotes. However, while MacLeod inferred that there was no point in limiting the issuance of new notes, Mises concluded that deposit creation had to be limited, just as note issues had been limited through Peel's Bank Charter Act. From there, it made its way into the Germanys. Early German proponents of the Anweisungstheorie were Otto Michaelis and Adolf Wagner. The latter wrote, The idea of money is the one of a transferable IOU for the services that the money owner has provided to civil society. It empowers this money owner to withdraw the value equivalent of his services in terms of goods he desires from any owner of the latter. In the age of the historical school, which despised economic theorizing, Wagner's writings on money became the primary source of information on these topics. He converted the next few generations of German-language economists to the principles of the banking school. In Austria, his ideas were developed by Wieser, Schumpeter and Hilferding. The very first German-language economist who contested this new orthodoxy was Mises. He sought to vindicate the principles of the currency school, which he blended with Menger's analysis of money. At the heart of his theory is the insight that money is an economic good in its own right, not just a representation of other goods. Nothing precise is known about how Mises came to hold these views, but Menger's influence was certainly compounded by Böhm-Bawerk's analogous perspectives on the subject. He had emphasized the crucial points in his university lectures. Money is by its nature a good like any other good. It is merely in greater demand and can circulate more widely than all other commodities. Money is no symbol or pledge. It is not the sign of a good, but bears its value in itself. It is itself really a good. This from his Innsbruck lectures in the early 1880s. One must assume that Böhm-Bawerk stressed the same point in his lectures in Vienna. It is not surprising that Böhm-Bawerk and Mises came to radically different policy conclusions from Wieser and Schumpeter. Whereas Mises held that the stock of money was ultimately irrelevant, Wieser stressed that money's function as a measuring rod must not be interfered with. Its value should be as stable as possible, and all destabilizing influences should be eliminated. Wieser suggested that one could optimize the national currency by abolishing commodity money and putting a pure paper money in its place. In fact, paper would be more stable 
because its value is not subject to the influence of the non-monetary demand for the monetary commodity. Visa also clarified his theory that the secular increase of money prices was a consequence of the substitution of monetary exchanges for barter. He argued that the development of the monetary economy brings ever more factors of production within the network of monetary exchanges. The money prices that have to be paid for these factors, which before were paid in natura, represent an increase of the monetary costs of production, and these increased costs have to be added to the selling prices. It is obvious that in this process aggregate monetary income increases, while aggregate real income does not change. Thus, the value of money decreases. Quod erat demonstrandum. Mises' theory of the value of money. Visa had not gotten everything wrong. Explaining the present value of money by reference to its past value was a crucial breakthrough in monetary theory. Visa's work inspired two young Vienna economists, Franz X. Weiss and Ludwig von Mises, to refine the raw idea and hammer out a new doctrine of the value of money. The regression theorem, as Mises later called it, would become one of the pillars of his monetary thought. But first, let us consider two related problems of Visa's version. First, Visa could not integrate the regression with the pricing process of the market. He had developed a pure value theory of the purchasing power of money. His general assumption was that the exchange ratios established between the various goods on the market were only a different expression of their value ratios. Vixel relied on the same assumption. But Mises thought this assumption entirely untenable. There was no such correspondence between value and price, even in a perfect Visarian communism. Menger and Bernbabak had convincingly argued that while market prices did result from individual valuations, they were quantitatively unrelated to the value from which they emerged. The second fundamental flaw in Visa's argument was that he did not think of money as a good in its own right. Money was but a token of underlying real goods, a veil or assignment, unvisal, and thus had no independent impact on the pricing process. This assumption contradicted one of the main tenets of marginal value theory. While all other market exchanges result from inverse valuations with each trading partner preferring the commodity that he bought to the price that he paid, market exchanges in money were, in Visa's theory, acts that acknowledged equality of value. Again, Vixer's monetary thought suffered from the same flaw. By paying a certain amount of money to take some commodity out of the social warehouse, one acknowledged it to be of equal value to the good one had sold before, deposited in the social warehouse, to obtain that sum of money. Mises's great achievement in this theory of money and credit was in liberating us from the veil of money myth. Money is a commodity by its very nature, not just by historical accident. By realizing this, Mises was in a position to integrate the theory of money into the general framework of marginal value theory. His integration would combine the commodity nature of money with Menger's theory of value and prices, as refined by Bernbarwerk and also Wieser's insight that the present value of money required a diachronic explanation. Mises could even rely on Menger's theory of cash holdings, which already contained in noose the insight that money is itself an economic good and not just representative of other goods. But to combine these elements into one coherent theory, 
required a radical break with the time-honored pillars of monetary economics, in particular with the classical tradition of presenting money as a mere veil. Mises was fully conscious that this was the key to his theory, which is why, in an introductory chapter of his book, he engaged in the somewhat tedious exercise of distinguishing various types of money proper, money in the narrow sense, from money substitutes. It was these substitutes, in fact, that were the sort of tokens or placeholders that Visa and the other champions of the assignment theory tacitly had in mind when they spoke of money. Mises's painstaking analysis demonstrated that mainstream theory had unduly generalized the features of money substitutes to money itself. While it is true that the value of a money substitute corresponds exactly to the value of the underlying good, for example one ounce of gold, the value of the gold money itself does not correspond to anything. Rather, it is determined by the same general law of diminishing marginal value that determines the values of all goods. Mises almost succeeded in dumping the veil of money myth. At one place, he still reverted to this fallacious doctrine. He claimed that the value of a marginal unit of money is equal to the value of the commodity that the unit is destined to buy. Here is the relevant passage. The subjective value of money always depends on the subjective value of the other economic goods that can be obtained in exchange for it. Its subjective value is in fact a derived concept. If we wish to estimate the significance that a given sum of money has, in view of the known dependence upon it of a certain satisfaction, we can do this only on the assumption that the money possesses a given objective exchange value. The exchange value of money is the anticipated use value of the things that can be obtained with it. Whenever money is valued by anybody, it is because he supposes it to have a certain purchasing power. His error is precisely the anticipated use value sentence he quotes from Visa. It is irreconcilable with his latest statements in National Economy and Human Action, where he explains that the subjective value of a sum of money is the value of holding this quantity in one's cash balance. The same error seems to be behind his claim that the increase of money substitutes in the previous 20 years or so, up to 1911, had allowed for higher economic growth than would have been possible with the quantity of gold, which grew at a slower pace. Similarly, in his first publication on monetary problems, he had asserted at the beginning of his exposition that the media of circulation need to be adjusted to the demand for money. And in the same vein, he talks about conditions for a possible lack of fiduciary media. Such a condition holds when the quantity of the means of payment lags behind the economic development. This would certainly lead to credit restrictions and, as a consequence, symptoms of economic crises. Discussing a somewhat different issue, Mises later admitted that at the time he wrote The Theory of Money and Credit, he was still too much under the influence of Mill. This prevented him from decisively arguing against Bernbarek's ideas about money-induced frictions, but Mill's influence seems to have reached further than that. By the time he published his treatise, Nationale Economie, 1940, he had removed these errors from his thinking but his earlier monograph on the theory of money was still being taken as his final word on the subject. Don Patinkin, the most influential monetary theorist of the post-1945 era, criticized Mises by referring precisely to the passage quoted above. 
in which the old veil-of-money notion shows through. But Tinkin said that these views implied a circular explanation of the value of money. He was correct in his criticism, but his overall point that his predecessors had not come up with a coherent explanation of the value of money ignored Mises' later work, National Economy and Human Action. Money is not neutral. Cantillon effects. The insight that money is a good in its own right, and not just a placeholder for other goods, led Mises to place special emphasis on the impact of money on the real economy. It was customary to highlight the impact of inflation and deflation on deferred payments. Inflation would entail higher money prices, that is, a lower purchasing power of money in the future, which in turn benefited debtors at the expense of creditors. Inversely, deflation would benefit creditors at the expense of debtors. So far, so good. Following classical economists such as David Ricardo, Mises stressed that inflation and deflation of the money supply could not possibly enhance the productive potential of the nation as a whole. But such changes did have other social consequences, in particular for the composition of society and the allocation of resources. Although inflation and deflation could not make society as a whole better off, they modified the distribution of resources among the individual members of society, and this necessarily affected the marginal value of the various uses of these resources. For example, inflation put more money in the hands of individual A, a debtor, and less money in the hands of individual B, a creditor, since these two individuals have different subjective values and different entrepreneurial visions and talents. They will use the money differently, investing it at different times and places, paying different wages to different persons at different rates, etc. These simple considerations illustrate the pervasive impact of changes in the money supply on the real world, a fact that did not sit well with many of Mises' contemporaries, imbued as they were with the veil of money doctrine. Bernbabek, for instance, was reluctant to admit the real impact of money because he was used to thinking of money in aggregate terms, not on the basis of the intra-social distribution and allocation. He tried to minimize the significance of Mises' findings, he thought that the income effect creates some occasional frictions, but did not alter the long-term state of the economy and the society. In his lectures, Bernbabek had stressed the Cantillon effects, but believed that they would mainly entail a higher price level. Besides, they would merely affect the relationship between debtors and creditors. Mises' analysis of the social consequences of inflation and deflation was not limited to the consideration of deferred payments. He also analyzed the redistributive impact of inflation and deflation on spot exchanges. In the case of inflation, for example, he observed that if it affected all members of society at the same time and to the same proportional extent, no redistributive effects would result. But in the real world, this condition never holds true. Inflation first affects only some members of society, and through their interaction with others, it eventually affects the rest of society. Let us, for instance, suppose that a new gold mine is opened in an isolated state. The supplementary quantity of gold that streams from it into commerce goes at first to the owners of the mine, and then by turns to those who have dealings with them. If we schematically divide the whole community into four groups, the mine owners, the producers of luxury goods, the remaining producers, and the agriculturalists, 
the first two groups will be able to enjoy the benefits resulting from the reduction in the value of money, the former of them to a greater extent than the latter. But even as soon as we reach the third group, the situation is altered. The profit obtained by this group as a result of the increased demands of the first two will already be offset to some extent by the rise in the prices of luxury goods, which will have experienced the full effect of the depreciation by the time it begins to affect other goods. Finally, for the fourth group, the whole process will result in nothing but loss. The farmers will have to pay dearer for all industrial products before they are compensated by the increased prices of agricultural products. It is true that when at last the prices of agricultural products do rise, the period of economic hardship for the farmers is over, but it will no longer be possible for them to secure profits that will compensate them for the losses they have suffered. That is to say, they will not be able to use their increased receipts to purchase commodities at prices corresponding to the old level of the value of money, for the increase of prices will already have gone through the whole community. Thus, the losses suffered by the farmers at the time when they still sold their products at the old low prices, but had to pay for the products of others at the new and higher prices, remain uncompensated. It is these losses of the groups that are the last to be reached by the variation in the value of money which ultimately constitute the source of the profits made by the mine owners and the groups most closely connected with them. Thus, inflation and, by implication, deflation, are essentially redistributive phenomena. They cannot enrich society as a whole, but do affect distribution, allocation, and incomes within society. Mises's analysis of effects of money on the real economy was based on his study of the great inflations of the past and on his study of classical economics. His teacher, Grunberg, had analyzed the redistributive impact of inflation during the Napoleonic Wars in Grunberg. Mises had dealt with these cases in the first edition of Theorie des Geldes und der Umlaufsmittel, 1912. He eliminated these passages from further editions because he believed historical illustrations of the harmful effects of inflation were no longer necessary in light of recent first-hand experiences in Germany and Austria. He quotes David Hume and David Ricardo. Among his contemporaries, he merely refers to Rudolf Auschwitz and Richard Lieben. Mises quotes them in his Theory of Money and Credit. Other forerunners whom Mises did not mention were Mill, Principles of Political Economy, Hermann Heinrich Gossen, Entwicklung der Gesetze des menschlichen Verkehrs und der Tausfließenden Regeln für menschliches Handeln, and John E. Cairns. Essay towards the Solution of the Gold Question, The Course of the Depreciation, Essays in Political Economy, Theoretical and Applied. Today, these effects are sometimes called the Cantillon effects. The expression is Marc Blaug's, named for the early 18th-century Irish-French banker and economist Richard Cantillon, who, in his essay on the nature of commerce in general, had first described the redistribution and reallocation effects of inflation. Similarly, Mises also revived the analysis of local price differences, which had been neglected since Richard Cantillon. The theory of money and credit was one of the last treatises on the subject to highlight their importance. At the time of Mises's writing, Irvin Fisher, Gustav Kassel, and other economists began to neglect them and concentrate only on the aggregate consequences of changes in the money supply. Their approach won the day and thus one of inflation's most pernicious effects came to fall beneath the purview of the new macroeconomic radar. In contrast, Mises's analysis might have influenced John Maynard Keynes, 
who recognized the great importance of Cantillon effects and advocated monetary stabilization as a strategy for social conservation. Keynes had dismissively reviewed Mises's book in the Economic Journal in fairly vague and evasive terms. Later he confessed that, in German I can only clearly understand what I know already. Exchange Rate Determination Purchasing Power Theory Mises also took a position at odds with the mainstream view on another important issue, the factors determining the exchange rate between two monies. To do so, he revived an older doctrine that had been displaced by the prevailing veil of money myth. Because mainstream economists conceived of the value of money as a mere reflection of the value of underlying real commodities, it was only natural for them to stipulate that exchange rates too were merely a reflection of some real state of affairs. Thus, the balance of payments theory enjoyed a virtual monopoly in higher economic education and guided the policies of the German and Austro-Hungarian central banks. According to this theory, international monetary movements, and thus the exchange rate between different national currencies, tended to equal whatever rate equilibrated the relative weight of imports and exports of commodities and services, and of foreign credit and foreign debts. These real factors were the independent variables whereas international monetary payments and the exchange rate were dependent variables. The political implication was that, when faced with an undesired depreciation in the exchange rate, governments had to act on those real factors to prevent their expression in monetary flows. They had to curtail imports through tariffs, import quotas, and other measures. Mises had already rebelled against this orthodoxy in his first publication on monetary policy, his 1907 article on the motives behind the Austro-Hungarian Bank's regulation of exchange rates. There he asserted that the theory of the value of money was not yet sufficiently developed, and the relationship between the quantity of money and the exchange rate was unknown. Five years later, the theory of the value of money was sufficiently well developed in his mind. He demonstrated that the balance of payments theorists had turned to the real chain of causation on its head. The volume of imports and exports, and of foreign liabilities and credits, was not independent of the exchange rate, but entirely dependent on it. The balance of payments theory forgets that the volume of foreign trade is completely dependent upon prices, that neither exportation nor importation can occur if there are no differences in prices to make trade profitable he went on to explain the root of the error. It cannot be doubted that if we simply look at the daily or hourly fluctuations on the exchanges, we shall only be able to discover that the state of the balance of payments at any moment does determine the supply and the demand in the foreign exchange market. But this is a mere beginning of a proper investigation into the determinants of the rate of exchange. The next question is, what determines the state of the balance of payments at any moment? And there is no other possible answer to this than that it is the price level and the purchases and sales induced by the price margins that determine the balance of payments. Foreign commodities can be imported at a time when the rate of exchange is rising, only if they are able to find purchases despite their high prices. Mises points out that it was Ricardo who had first developed the correct view of exchange rate determination. The exchange rate between two monies depended exclusively on the relative purchasing power of each. In a free market, 
exchange rates would tend to make it irrelevant which money is used to buy a non-monetary commodity. The different kinds of money are exchanged in a ratio corresponding to the exchange ratios existing between each of them and the other economic goods. If one kilogram of gold is exchanged for the monetary aggregate kilogram of a particular sort of commodity and one kilogram of silver for the monetary aggregate of 15.5 kilograms of the same sort of commodity, then the exchange ratio between gold and silver will be established at 15.5. If some disturbance tends to alter this ratio between the two sorts of money, which we shall call the static or natural ratio, then automatic forces will be set in motion that will tend to re-establish it. The political implications of this analysis are diametrically opposed to the one suggested by the balance of payments doctrine. There is in fact no need to prevent a depreciation of the exchange rate through government intervention, because sooner or later the falling exchange rate would equilibrate the purchasing powers of the two monies, preventing a further fall. As Mises later acknowledged, this idea was essentially contained already in the classical quantity theory of money, as well as Gresham's law and the doctrine of the British currency school. His analysis, which was based on the modern theory of subjective value, had refined these older views and restated them in a more nuanced manner. But the practical conclusion had remained the same. Mises said in retrospect, Governmental interventions that seek to regulate international monetary flows to provide the necessary quantities of money for the economy are superfluous. In all cases, the undesired outflow of money can only be the result of a governmental intervention that endows differently valued monies with the same legal purchasing power. All that the government must do not to destroy the monetary order and all that it can do is to avoid any such interventions. That is the nub of the monetary theory of classical economics and of its immediate successors, the theoreticians of the currency school. Here Mises referred to his treatment of these predecessors in the first edition of Theorie des Geldes und der Umlaufsmittel. It was possible to refine and develop this doctrine with the modern subjective theory, but it was impossible to overhaul it and put something else at its place. His exposition would eventually have an impact on central bank policy, but at first it was dismissed and its application prevented. One of the most vituperative dismissals came from a certain Kurt Zinger, a follower of Knapp, who had attacked Mises for lack of logic. Years later, Mises commented on Zinger in a letter to Emil Lederer. I myself regretted very much today that history has proved me right rather than the champions of inflation. My income would be substantially higher if Knapp and his disciples had turned out to be right. Mises felt it was necessary to return to the subject of exchange rate determination after the First World War, because the continued prevalence of the balance of payment doctrine had Austria well on its way to hyperinflation. In the feverish days of 1919, he wrote a paper on Zahlungsbilanz und Wechselkurse, balance of payments and exchange rates which proved to be influential in turning Austrian monetary policy away from the path of hyperinflation before it was too late. Some years after Mises's book had come out, the Swedish economist Gustav Kasser, who would play an important role in interwar economic science in Germany, developed a variant of the same theory without referring to his contemporary Austrian predecessor. Kassel's exposition had a great deal more success, 
which was probably due to the fact that he had coined the popular new phrase purchasing power parity to describe the equilibrium exchange rate and also because he was less vitriolic than Mises, who had denounced the champions of the balance of payments doctrine as dilettantes and called their analysis superficial, which in fact it was. During the 1920s, then, Ricardo's theory was called Cassel's theory if one agreed, and Mises's theory if one disagreed. Fractional Reserve Banking and Business Cycles Mises's careful distinction between money proper and money substitutes naturally led to the question of the role of money substitutes. In the second part of his book, Mises showed that bank-issued money substitutes could not affect the value and purchasing power of money, as well as the distribution and allocation of resources, as long as they were true representatives of a corresponding amount of money deposited with the bank. That is, in Mises's terminology, as long as they were money certificates. Only if they were issued without being backed 100% by a money deposit could they have an influence on prices, distribution, and allocation. These issuances of uncovered or partially covered money substitutes, fiduciary media, added to the quantity of money in the larger sense, increasing money prices and redistributing resources in favor of their first recipients, and at the expense of their last recipients. It was therefore necessary to single them out for separate analysis, inquiring after the particular consequences of an expansion of fiduciary media rather than of money proper. The last third of theory of money and credit deals with this issue. First Mises showed why fiduciary media had an impact on money prices. Although they are only legal documents, they are dealt with, bought and sold, as if they were real money, whether or not they are backed by real money. As a consequence, an increase in the quantity of fiduciary media leads to an increase of the price level in the same way and for the same reasons that an increase of real money has this effect. Moreover, there is a tendency in a fractional reserve banking system steadily to increase the issuance of fiduciary media. No bank can afford drastically to exaggerate its note issues because it would have faced too many redemption claims at once. But if its increases of fiduciary media are small enough, allowing other banks to follow suit, it can steadily increase the issuances. This analysis led Mises to one of the central contributions of his book, an entirely new business cycle theory. Here Mises created a synthesis of Bernbavec's capital theory and the business cycle theory of the currency school. At about the same time, to other members of Bernbavec's seminar presented original business cycle theories in elaboration of the principles of the banking school. Mises argued that the issuance of uncovered money substitutes could depress the interest rate below its equilibrium level, thus inciting entrepreneurs to launch investment projects that consume too many resources. Production takes time, and thus requires the support of the human beings engaged in production during the entire production period. For a new project to be successful, one needs a sufficient provision of all the goods that the consumers consider to be more important than the goods that will result from this project. Consequently, the realization of additional production projects requires that additional consumers' goods be put at the disposal of the entrepreneurs. These additional consumers' goods can only come from net savings. Without sufficient savings, therefore, no extension of the structure of production is possible. 
it follows that if new projects are started not because of net savings, but only because fractional reserve banks have depressed the interest rate below its equilibrium level, then the resulting structure of production is unsustainable. It is now physically impossible for all production processes to be carried to completion. There are simply not enough savings to sustain the more extensive structure of production. The existence of such an unsustainable situation is not immediately evident, because the additional investments are made in higher production stages, which are removed in time from their final products, the consumer's goods. But as time goes on, it becomes increasingly evident that something has gone deeply wrong in the entire economy. The day of reckoning is reached in what is commonly called an economic crisis. Entrepreneurs then discover that not all projects can be carried out as planned for lack of originary capital. Some projects can only be continued in a reduced form, and others have to be stopped altogether. Hence, the material resources and human energies invested in these projects are now seen to have been wasted. Society is impoverished, individuals are out of work, firms go bankrupt, etc. How can fiduciary media bring about a situation of malinvestment in the first place? Mises argued that this happens when they are brought into circulation through the credit market. In this case, the additional supply of credit reduces the rate of interest, thus pushing it below its equilibrium or natural level. Entrepreneurs are able to obtain more credit on better terms and invest these additional funds in new projects in the stages of production most removed from final consumers' goods. Deluded by the increased activities and apparent blossoming of new opportunities, everyone believes at first that the economy is growing faster than before. This is the so-called boom. But sooner or later the market participants will become conscious of the fact that this boom is unsustainable, at which point the economy goes bust. An economic crisis. In developing his theory, Mises could rely on two important discoveries of previous thinkers. The first was the business cycle theory of the British Currency School. According to this school of thought, fractional reserve banking led to a constant increase of fiduciary media, until the banks, in particular the central bank, proved to be unable to satisfy redemption demands. Then the monetary circulation collapsed because the fiduciary media immediately lost all their value, and this in turn ushered in a crisis. A group of French economists had developed similar ideas in the mid-1800s. Victor Bonnet argued that excessive investments in fixed capital, excessive meaning disproportionate in comparison to the investments in circulating capital, were responsible for economic crises. And Charles Coquelin had anticipated Knut Wichser in elaborating the hypothesis that business cycles were caused by credit expansions. The second was Knut Wichser's discovery that monetary expansion could result from discrepancies between the money rate of interest and the equilibrium rate of interest. Yet none of these predecessors had developed the main theme of Mises's business cycle theory, namely the causation and propagation of economy-wide error, as well as the notion that the error-ridden process necessarily has to come to an end because it involves an intertemporal misallocation of resources. In 1903, Werner Zombart had presented a disproportionality theory of the business cycle at a meeting of the Verein für Sozialpolitik in Hamburg. Zombart argued that increased gold production had provoked a reallocation of resources that was unsustainable after the gold production ceased. 
The ensuing crisis, which hit Germany in 1900-1902, was therefore a structural crisis that reflected the unsuitable use that had been made of the capital goods. Zombard's theory does not take into account the problem of intertemporal misallocation. In Wichsel's famous book Geldsinns und Güterpreise, Money Interest and Commodity Prices, he elaborated on David Ricardo's observation that an inflationary monetary policy could reduce the rate of interest only temporarily, because sooner or later commodity prices catch up. It followed that any attempt to reduce the interest rate on a permanent basis required constant increases of the money supply. Now, the question was whether any such policy of permanent inflation could be sustainable. Wichsel answered this question by first pointing out that the notion of reduced interest rate did not concern any absolute level of the interest rate, but rather a relative comparison of the market rate of money interest to what he called the natural rate of interest. In Wieserian fashion, Wichsel defined the natural rate of interest as the rate that would come into existence under the sole influence of real, non-monetary factors. He also defined it as the rate at which the price level would remain constant. Both distinctions led to great confusion among later theorists, but Mises's business cycle theory seemed to show that it was useful to make some such distinction. In human action, he would eventually show that the relevant distinction is between the equilibrium rate of interest and the market rate. Both rates are monetary rates and can therefore coincide. He then claimed that indefinite deviations of the money rate from the natural rate were not possible, because the constant influx of new money would sooner or later entail an overproportional increase of commodity prices, which would induce the banks to adjust the money rate to the natural rate. Wichsel noticed that Frédéric Bastia had made a similar point in his polemic against Proudhon. Only Bastia had not insisted that a concomitant price increase would be overproportional. But, as Mises pointed out, Wichsel did not substantiate this claim by showing which mechanism forced the banks to perform such an adjustment. Strictly speaking, Wichsel had no explanation of the business cycle at all, and despite his fundamental distinction between the natural and the money rates of interest, he did not see that deviations between these two rates entail an intertemporal misallocation of resources. Wichsel comes closest to Mises' discovery when he points out that a low money rate, relative to the natural rate, will incite businessmen to launch additional investment projects, and even observes that the low money rate disrupts general equilibrium. But he does not see the implication that the structure of production is set on a path that is physically impossible to complete. Mises would later develop and refine the business cycle theory he had presented in his Habilitation work. As far as the exposition of Mises's business cycle theory is concerned, there are no differences between the first edition and later editions. But for a few exceptions, the text is exactly the same. The same is true for the entire chapter 5, except for paragraph 5. Thus, from the first edition, Mises' business cycle theory contains the same discussion of forced savings, the reverse movement of prices, the natural rate of interest and deviations from it induced through fiduciary media, the importance of the subsistence fund, etc., as did all later editions. The difference between the first and the second edition relates to the concluding paragraph 5 of chapter 5, where Mises discusses the significance of his own contribution to business cycle theory. In 1912 he thought he had found merely one out of a number of conceivably complementary explanations of the business cycle. Thus, 
he qualified his findings right in the opening sentence of the concluding paragraph 5. It is not the task of this work to develop a theory of economic crises. We take account of crisis phenomena only insofar as they can spring from the mechanism of money and fiduciary media. He goes on in a somewhat lengthy manner to assert that there might be other sources for business cycles, and in particular that they might also exist in a barter economy. It could well be that these qualifications of the significance of his discoveries were meant to shield him against criticism from his elders. After all, the book was the basis on which he sought to be granted his habilitation. Be this as it may, Mises eventually made up his mind and came to adopt more definite views on behalf of business cycle research. Starting from the second edition of Theory of Money and Credit, the qualifications in paragraph 5 are left out, and the first sentence now reads, Our theory of banking leads ultimately to a theory of business cycles. Part 3. Officer, Gentleman, Scholar. Chapter 7. The Great War. Like many others, Mises anticipated the outbreak of the First World War years in advance. Unlike many others, he dreaded it. He was a lieutenant of the Austro-Hungarian army, and dearly loved his country. But he was no chauvinist, and despised militarism and statism, that were about to drag an entire continent into catastrophe. A number of eminent men and women in all countries, most notably Bertha von Zutner in Austria and Bertrand Russell in England, felt the same way and dedicated themselves to making the case for peaceful cooperation among nations and to fighting the frenzy of nationalism. These private initiatives proved insufficient to tame the war party the ruling philosophy of government glorification under the guise of patriotism had made its cause irresistible. After the war, Mises would write on these subjects in detail. He explained how the war had resulted from state worship, in this case, from worship of the nation-state. But for now he thought that he, the agnostic Jew, cultural German, political individualist, scientific cosmopolitan, and Austrian patriot, had to fight the nationalists' war. The Austro-Hungarian state was the sole bulwark against the Russian hordes standing ready to invade the land and destroy its western liberties. Maybe this attitude toward politics was contradictory and anachronistic, but Mises believed he had no choice in the matter, and he continued to believe that all his life. As a contemporary friend and admirer would observe, a champion of individualism, you cherish strikingly collectivistic orientations. In fact, even under severe duress for your body and total lack of individual comfort, you never lose sight of the whole picture. First Year in Battle Early on a Saturday morning, Mises stood ready for departure at Vienna's crowded Nordbahnhof station. He took the eight o'clock express to the city of Prashumishlu, in his native Galicia, where he would join his unit, the Field Cannon Regiment No. 30. The train had special compartments for officers, which made the long journey more comfortable, and thus he spent the day in the company of Ewald Pribram and Count Odono, who were both cavalry officers, and the physician Erwan Stransky, a fellow private lecturer at the University of Vienna. 
none of the young men would ever forget this journey. Shransky later recalled that Mises spoke about his native Galicia, its history, its peculiarities of its church architecture, etc. The time passed somehow, and in the evening around seven o'clock, Mises left the train in Prashumishu, wishing his fellow travellers farewell. It was August 1st, 1914. The fighting did not start immediately. Austria-Hungary did not declare war until August 5th, after the war between Russia and Germany had broken out. Even then, there was no significant fighting for another two weeks. Both camps needed time to mobilize their forces. This should have been easier for Austro-Hungarian and German troops, because of the shorter distances, but the Russians had apparently begun preparations much earlier, shortly after the assassination of Austrian Archduke Ferdinand on June 28th. The fundamental military problem for the Austro-Hungarian and German alliance was a three-front war with numerically superior enemies on all sides, in particular the sheer overwhelming numbers of the Russian army. In 1914, Russia counted a population of roughly 173 million, as opposed to 68 million Germans and 50 million inhabitants of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Because of the immensity of the Russian Empire, its 250 potential divisions could not be mobilized quickly. Still, the Russian generals managed to throw 80 divisions into battle in the first few months. These troops confronted only 10 German divisions and 38 Austrian divisions, 90 out of 100 German divisions being bound up on the Western Front and 11 out of 49 Austro-Hungarian divisions stuck on the Southern Front in Serbia. The mission of the Austro-Hungarian troops on the Northern Front was to block the Russians in order to avoid the Russian invasion of the German plains, which lay almost defenseless. They could not retreat into the Carpathian Mountains, which were easier to defend because the Russians could trap them there with only a small number of their troops and throw their main force into Germany. Hence, in spite of their numerical inferiority, the Kauka armies had not merely to resist, but to attack the Russians in an attempt to keep them in the Galician plains. The Kauka strategy was to wear the Russians down in a long series of battles. This strategy counted on the Austro-Hungarian Empire's comparative advantages of morale, training, education, and fighting spirit. After the war, Mises said of these relentless Austrian offensives that the flower of the Austrian army was uselessly sacrificed. He considered them goalless and purposeless. And yet they did have a goal, to keep the Russians in Galicia as long as possible. In this they succeeded. The human cost included many of Mises' relatives, friends, colleagues, and students. The battles that followed brought death and destruction on an unheard-of scale. Modern science and technology had profoundly changed all aspects of war, from coordination to equipment to tactics and strategy, giving a central place to the use of high-powered and highly mobile artillery. Although the Kauka army was better equipped than its enemy, it was numerically inferior and in almost constant retreat. By the end of September, more than 10,000 civilian refugees from Galicia had poured into Vienna, and the Kauka army had been thrown far back behind Prushmishlu and now stood with its back 
to the Carpathian Mountains. In the first few weeks and months of the war, almost no day went by that did not see entire Ka-U-Ka batteries, about one hundred men each, and even regiments, about five hundred, being wiped out. Artillery was not only the main agent of destruction, but also one of the prime targets. Mises's battery constantly had to change position, often under fire. Heavy rainfall set in, hampered their movements, and proved that Ka'u-Ka uniforms were not waterproof. There was no hope of relief any time soon from the military bureaucracy, so Mises resorted to private initiative. He had his mother send clothes for his men. Mises later denounced the bad treatment of the common soldiers as a serious impediment to the war effort. From the political point of view, it was a grave mistake to follow completely different principles in the compensation of the officer and the enlisted man, and to pay the soldier at the front worse than the worker behind the lines. That contributed much to demoralizing the army. He was himself the special object of motherly care through the army postal system. Adele von Mises sent her son furred leather gloves, several electric lamps, matches, shoelaces, woolen clothes, camel hair pants and camel hair undergloves, aspirin, cigarettes, glasses and journals, Ludwig's favorite brand of suspenders, eau de toilette, soap, cognac, and tuna cans. Like an accountant, she kept lists of the things she sent, and thus controlled both the punctual delivery and the consumption of her son, with a keen eye on his cigarette consumption. She also kept him informed about various events in Vienna, although she could not be too frank or go into too much detail because of the censor. Mises himself probably had access only to official or semi-official journals and newspapers. At the end of August 1914, he read that his beloved teacher Eugen von Birnbarweck had died in Tyrol on a journey to Switzerland. Mail could take weeks to reach the soldiers, especially when troop movements were quick and fervent. In September 1914, correspondence was interrupted for three entire weeks, and, most unusually, the press no longer ran any reports on Mises's regiment. When, to the great relief of his family and friends, his name was eventually mentioned in the Neue Freie Presse, Martin Nierenstein wrote him immediately, This time, too, victory will be on the side of liberty. Meanwhile, his brother Richard was stationed in Baden, near Vienna. He was experimenting with aircraft motors, commanding a research unit comprised of several soldiers and a lieutenant. A professor of applied mathematics at the Prussian University of Strasbourg since 1909, his interests had centered on aviation. He had become a pilot himself and taught a university course on powered flight in 1913. With his army research unit, he constructed a 600-horsepower plane, which was put to use in 1915. The military research led to the publication of Fluglehre, which established Richard as one of the world's foremost aviation pioneers. The book was first published in 1918 in Berlin, and then remained for decades a standard monograph of aviation theory, being reprinted in a posthumous sixth edition in 1957 in Berlin. Before the war, Richard von Mises had already gained an expert reputation based on his Elemente der Technischen Hydromechanik. But the young professor was impatient to get to the front, where the battles continued to be fierce and numerous. In the first half of October, the United German and Austro-Hungarian armies had driven the Russians back 
gaining about sixty miles, only to be driven back again after two weeks of Russian counterattacks. But time was running out for the Russians. The Austrian economy had retained a comparatively large degree of liberty that now increasingly weighed in on the side of the Austro-Hungarian army. The huge profits deriving from the production of war materials were not initially subject to excessive taxation, and thus could quickly be reinvested to convert the structure of production to war needs. Mises emphasized that wartime public opinion strongly favored a confiscatory taxation of the great profits made in the armament industries. Initially, the Austrian leadership did not give in to these demands because it was aware of the military importance of having an efficient private production of war materials. Many businessmen and industrialists had already started adjusting their plans and their investments to the new situation, and as usual, these private ventures reacted quickly and efficiently to subsequent developments on the front. For example, in October 1914, some Austrian businessmen set up a factory to produce ammunition for captured cannons. But long-standing pre-war government control of war-related industries did cause problems. Mises later explained, Austrian industry not only had to deliver what the war required beyond peacetime provisions, it also had to catch up on what had been neglected in peacetime. The guns with which the Austro-Hungarian field artillery went to war were far inferior. The heavy and light field howitzers and the mounted cannons were already out of date at the time of their introduction and scarcely satisfied the most modest demands. These guns came from state factories, and now private industry, which in peacetime had been excluded from supplying field and mountain guns, and could supply such material only to China and Turkey, not only had to produce the material for expanding the artillery, in addition, it also still had to replace the unusable models of the old batteries with better ones. Things were not much different with the clothing and shoeing of the Austro-Hungarian troops. The higher productivity of private enterprise increasingly came into play and helped bring about an important Austrian victory that ended a month-long battle near the Polish city of Lodz on December 6, 1914. A few days later, the Austro-Hungarian army won another significant victory at limanova Lapanov, about 15 miles from Karl Minger's birthplace in Neusandek. On December 12th, the Russians were driven back more than 30 miles, in the course of which 30,000 Russian prisoners were taken. These events marked a decisive turning point on the Eastern War Theatre. After almost four months of intense fighting, the German and Kauka troops had balanced the initial numerical superiority of the Russians, and in the coming months would drive them further back east. Richard wrote to Ludwig in characteristic Mises' family understatement that he was happy that it goes better with the Russians, in the German, es mit dem Russen besser geht. Apparently, Ludwig even found time now to study the Ruthenian language, possibly to prepare for the establishment of a new local administration. At least this was the guess of Mises' uncle Alfred Landau. In a letter to Mises dated December 3, 1914, he surmises that Mises' studies of the Ruthenian language will be helpful for the administration of the new gouvernement d'Arnopol. Ruthenian was the language of the Ukrainians living under Austrian rule in the eastern part of Galicia. He also wrote frequently to Richard, inquiring about the health of their mother, who had been suffering for some months from a foot injury. Richard reported that all cures had failed so far, 
and that he had also tried in vain to engage the world-famous physician Professor Adler, with whom the Mises family had personal contact. This must have been Alfred Adler, 1870-1937. Up to the 1930s, Adler was the most famous Vienna psychologist. He had first worked with Sigmund Freud, but early on went his own way in placing great emphasis on the particular conditions of each individual patient, individual psychologie. The better news came from the front. Three days before Christmas, Richard and his old friends, Martin and Hugo Nierenstein, read in the Vienna press that Ludwig had been promoted to the rank of a K.U.K. Oberleutnant, first lieutenant. Only two months later, Ludwig was again mentioned as the beneficiary of an allerhöchste Belobigung. The emperor had praised his achievements in battle. There followed a brief period of stasis on the battlefield, and public attention turned to the decay the war was causing in the social fabric of the empire. In Vienna, the food supply shrank noticeably, and the lines in front of the shops grew longer every day. Ludwig received desperate letters from his mother, describing her struggles with Therese, the family cook, who had difficulties with the concept of wartime economizing. And on the front, treason showed its ugly face, when on April 3rd and 4th, 1915, the Infantry Regiment No. 28 from Prague was captured without resistance. He later observed that only the Austrian Germans and the Hungarians fought for the monarchy with full conviction, whereas the service of the Slavs and Romanians was half-hearted at best. Many of them actually fought on the other side. Starting early May 1915, however, the German and Austro-Hungarian troops finally began their long march east. Not even Italy's May 23rd entry into the war on the side of the Triple Entente, Britain, France, and Russia, could slow down the Central Power's irresistible drive on the Northern Front. Within a month, they regained Prussia and continued on fighting the enemy forces far back into Russia. Mises kept some news clippings about these successes which were reported on daily. He later remarked that the success was due to the by then inferior armament of the Russian troops. The causes of this complete reversal of the balance of power in the East were mainly economic in nature. Mises later explained, The great technical superiority that the armies of the Central Powers had achieved in the spring and summer of 1915 in the eastern theatre of the war, and that formed the chief basis of the victorious campaign from Tarnov and Gorlice to deep into Volnia, was the work of free industry, as were the astonishing achievements of German and also of Austrian labour in the delivery of war material of all kinds. The army administrations of Germany and Austria-Hungary knew very well why they did not give in to the pressure for state ownership of the war-supplying enterprises. They put aside their outspoken preference for state enterprises, which would have better suited their worldview, oriented toward power policy and state omnipotence, because they knew quite well that the great industrial tasks to be accomplished in this area could be accomplished only by entrepreneurs operating on their own responsibility and with their own resources. War socialism knew very well why it had not been entrusted with the armaments enterprises right in the first years of the war. In early August, Lemberg was retaken, much to Mises's relief, and he was finally granted a two-week leave. On August 16th, he went from the front to Krakow and took the next train to Vienna. 
he had spent more than a year on the front, survived against the odds, but looked as fresh and vigorous as ever, though a hip injury had plagued him for months. He helped himself with considerable quantities of salicyl, the fever and pain reliever his mother sent him. The main substance was willow bark. Sanex is willow. When he started asking for higher doses, she refused to send more, demanding that he return home and stay in bed. The family had already lost his cousin, the physician Max Landau, who died from infection from examining so many typhus cadavers. Mises did not yet know that he had finished the hardest and most dangerous phase of his military service. After the leave, he would return to the front for about six weeks, and then again from December 1916 to December 1917. But none of these expeditions brought him even close to the chaos he had known in the first months on the Northern Front. Sometime late in 1915, Mises was relieved from active duty and sent to the city of Sopron in Hungary, where he stayed for about two months, trying unsuccessfully to recover from his hip injury, but happy to be alive. He had survived the worst, and finally enjoyed the gratitude and admiration of the civilian population who celebrated the returning troops as heroes. When he received another medal for outstanding performance before the enemy, the Signum Laudis in silver, the imperial praise for the unpretentious reserve lieutenant whom everybody knows and loves was enthusiastically reported in the press. Newsflash Erdenburger Zeitung, Sopron, November 28, 1915 our heroes. The well-known and beloved Reserve Lieutenant Dr. Ludwig Edler von Mises, in civilian life an unsalaried lecturer at the University of Vienna, and currently stationed with our 30th, was honoured anew with the signum laudis in silver for his outstanding efforts before the enemy. The reason for his popularity was his reputation as an officer, who cared for and took care of his comrades-in-arms." he would stay in touch with them for the rest of his life. The Home Front If Mises could have gotten away earlier, in any honourable manner, he would have welcomed the opportunity. He tried, in the fall of 1914, to use his Kama affiliation to be transferred to some other duty. The Kama had had to give up 45 men for military service, but some others were allowed to remain in their pre-war functions or were transferred to the War Ministry, which cooperated very closely with the Kama. Mises was not among the lucky few who never had to expose themselves to harm. He had many talents, but he never mastered the art of manoeuvring the hallways and offices of the various war administrations, making oneself indispensable to the bureaucrats, and thus unavailable for dangerous missions. The great transformation of all forms of modern leadership toward bureaucratic management, which Max Weber so brilliantly described, was epitomized in many of Mises' former colleagues and fellow students, most notably in the cases of Schumpeter, Lederer, and Karl Pribom. After the Northern Front had calmed down, Mises was finally considered suitable for bureaucratic employment, and the Kammer connections now proved to be effective. During his Christmas holidays in Vienna on December 22, 1915, he received orders from the War Ministry to join its Department No. 13 in Vienna. The most immediate benefit of being stationed in Vienna was the availability of superior medical attention but curing his hip pain proved slower and more wearying than anticipated. At the end of December, Mises was examined in the Ka-U-Ka Army Hospital of the town of Baden, a base near Vienna. Dr. Hackmüller, 
found that Mises had typhus and ordered a sulphur-based treatment. This did not bring the hoped-for results. In the following months, Mises was sent to two Vienna experts for special hip treatments, which involved massages, hot air applications, and walking exercises under supervision. During this period, he officially resided at a Villa Keller in Baden, but probably spent most nights at the family apartment in downtown Vienna. Thus, he came to experience the profound transformations of daily life that his friends in the state bureaucracies had orchestrated to meet the challenges of the war economy. Following the intellectual fashion of the day, in early 1916, these experts had set out to introduce central planning of production and consumption on an increasing scale, because the existing government apparatus was unable to handle such a task. They turned to the already existing cartel organizations, made them compulsory, and subordinated them to the different Kauka ministries. These Kriegszentralen, or war centrals, controlled the distribution of industrial products and the allocation of raw materials to the firms. Mises later pointed out that wartime central planning started with Devisenzentralen, or foreign exchange centrals. Their large-scale activities were financed through the Kauka banking establishment in Vienna and Budapest, Kurt's briefs later described the step-by-step process, which led wartime Austria-Hungary on the road to the Big Brother State. Commercial advice to the civil administration, import business first in competition with private importers, and then on a monopolistic basis, economization and distribution of the stocks, this was the increasing extension of their tasks, which made them assume ever more control functions within their organizations. These efforts... At top-down management of all society did not reach the proportions or intensity attained in the German Reich. Austrians were famous for schlamperei, a jovial carelessness, even sloppiness, that effectively prevented a full-blown German-style command economy. But they were effective enough, at least in Mises' eyes, to demonstrate what applied socialism is all about, mass misery, and to confirm every single prejudice he might by then have acquired about the idiocy of government meddling with the free market. In nation, state, and economy, Nation, Staat und Wirtschaft, Wieses writes, it will be the task of economic history to describe in detail the stupidities of the economic policy of the central powers during the war. At one time, for example, the word was given to reduce the livestock by increased slaughtering because of a shortage of fodder. Then prohibitions of slaughtering were issued and measures taken to promote the raising of livestock. Similar planlessness reigned in all sectors. Measures and countermeasures crossed each other until the whole structure of economic activity was in ruins. They organized and did not notice that what they were doing was organizing defeat. With retail markets all but eradicated, huge crowds of people lined up in front of a few select food shops that had benefited from official allocations. Butterstein, Eierstein, Milchstein, standing in line for butter, eggs, milk, and virtually everything else, often for hours. This was one of the new sad realities of daily life. Around August 20th, Mises arrived in Vienna. Terlin, her relative, welcomed him after a week of Butterstein, Eierstein, Milchstein. How to cope with all this without losing one's mind? Mises commended the example of his uncle Marcus who somehow managed savings under these conditions, truly a model for living at the existential minimum. But he also offered more substantial support, buying additional food on the black market to supply his mother and other needy ladies. 
His basic salary in 1916 was 183 kronen. That would be about 200 gold francs, or 1.867 ounces of gold, enough to buy some additional potatoes or flour. When he had to leave again for the Eastern Front in December 1916, he asked Emil Piros, a kammer colleague and friend from Birnbarek Seminar, to take care of these women. The Mises and Piros circle included one Valerie Adler, who worked as advisor in the Ernährungsamt, Bureau of Nutrition, the brothers Karl and Ewald Pribram, one Olli Schwarz, and one Emil Schur. Ewald Pribram worked for the Zentralstelle für Wohnungsreform and, as of August 1917, was the fiancé of Marianne Fürth. They would often attend opera or theatre performances or just meet at cafés to discuss politics, economics, and literature. Occasionally, these meetings would also take place in a more extended and official setting. For example, on November 16, 1916, Mises took part in a function of the Österreichische Politische Gesellschaft, Austrian Society for Politics, on current monetary problems. Schumpeter, who had come from Graz to chair the discussion, had urged Mises to debate his old opponent Walter Federn. Schumpeter opened the session, stating the currency problem was manifest as a high price level and low krona exchange rates. He argued that the high prices were the cause of the low krona and that prices were high because of a shortage of commodities and because of banknote inflation. Normalcy could only be restored through a reduction of the quantity of money. This was the crucial point. The krona had to be restored to its former purchasing power. Mises had a few things to add, and limited himself to discussing the inefficiency of foreign exchange control through the Devisen Centrale, whereas Federn gave a balance of payments explanation of the present situation, blaming import surpluses for the weak kroner. Significantly, most speakers, not only Herr von Landesberger, the head of the Devisenzentrale, followed in the same vein. Mises also resumed his activities as a private lecturer at the University of Vienna, where he discussed in detail the differences between his own theory of money and the various competing views that dominated the scene in German-language universities in particular the theories of Knapp, Schumpeter, Wieser, and Filipovitz. He published these considerations shortly thereafter in an article for Weber's Archiv, and later incorporated the piece as a chapter of the second edition of his Theorie des Geldes und der Umlaufsmittel. His experience on the front lines had changed his conduct and appearance, adding a war veteran's personal weight to his exposition. Young Heinrich Treicher, who met him in those years at the dinner table of his parents, was especially impressed by his dark red moustache. So must have been his army comrades. Mises occasionally had the nickname Rotwild. The Rotwild is a German red deer. The word Rotwild literally translates to red game animal. One of the greatest admirers of the straight and sharp young lecturer was a certain Louise Sommer, who read all of his writings and would soon want to know all his views on everything. Apparently they even met for extended evening discussions, in the course of which Fräulein Sommer became a friend, perhaps more. The otherwise unapproachable Mises shared his thoughts and feelings with her, including depressive moods. When he had returned to the front, he mailed her the first flowers of spring. After the war, Louise Sommer became an ardent proponent of Mises' views on liberalism and politics. On May 5, 1916, Mises received orders to join the Scientific Committee for War Economics, a new committee of the War Ministry. It seems as if shortly before, in April 1916, 
He had briefly visited his old regiment in Vasarhely in Hungary. Like many such wartime institutions, the committee provided privileged employment for the upper class of the intelligentsia. It brought together established senior scholars and bright young students, including Mises, Broda, Karl Pribram, Brockhausen, Adler, Peros, and Bartsch, and possibly also Schumpeter and Alfred Amon. The whole idea was to establish a forum for in-depth analysis of the economic problems of the war and its strategic economic goals. It was clear from the outset, at least for anyone even faintly acquainted with Mises's views, that he would disagree with some very influential people within the Kauka political and military leadership, and also with many committee members on the prospective economic benefits of military victory. He definitely did not believe that conquests in the East would convey any economic advantages for the future Austro-Hungarian economy. And in distinct contrast to other committee members who also knew the rationale for this classic liberal position, Mises was ready to speak up even to those who were higher in the wartime pecking order and could make his life very unpleasant. Montesquieu once said that although one had to die for one's country, one was not obliged to lie for it. Et au vrai partout, même pour sa patrie. Tout citoyen est obligé de mourir pour sa patrie. Personne n'est obligé de mentir pour elle. This seems to have been Mises' maxim too. He had already demonstrated his readiness to give his life for his country. Now he showed his will to honor the truth, even if it brought him in conflict with powerful opponents. Committee meetings and presentations featured Mises arguing for the economic irrelevance of political borders. He also worked on an article restating the scientific case for this view. His article was published in December 1916, under the innocent title Vom Ziel der Handelspolitik, on the goal of trade policy in Max Weber's archive. After Mises's sudden departure from Vienna, Lederer would eventually read the proof pages. More publishers sent a statement of honorarium of 93.75 marks at the end of December, but Mises probably answered this letter only in May 1917. In June, Moore wired the money to Mises's Post-Sparkassen account, 142 kronen and 4 heller. Mises argued that, from a purely economic standpoint, the case for free trade and against protectionism was unassailable. It was true that classical free trade theory, the theory refined and perfected by Ricardo, had been developed under the assumption that capital and labor were mobile only within national borders. But Mises proceeded to show that the case for free trade stood firm even if these conditions were no longer applicable. In a Ricardian world of free trade, there would be rich and poor countries, and tariffs and import quotas could not change this. In a Misesian world of free international migration, there would be more densely populated countries and less densely populated countries, in all of which the wage rates and interest rates would tend to be equal, and, again, protectionism could not do anything to improve this state of affairs. Mises also pioneered a comparative criterion for relative overpopulation and underpopulation. We consider a country to be overpopulated if it is more densely inhabited than it would be if a system of freedom of migration covered the entire surface of the earth. His interest in the theoretical and political implications of modern migration might have been stirred as early as the Filipovitz seminar. 
Since the 1890s, Filipovic had promoted migration research among German economists, even though he never succeeded in getting the subject discussed at any of the meetings of the Verein für Sozialpolitik. Mises pointed out that no economic case could be made against cross-border movements of people and capital, and then spent most of his paper discussing the paramount non-economic rationale, which was nationalism. He stated that international migrations conflict with the principle of nationality, that is, with the policy goal of promoting the numerical number and the welfare of co-nationals. Emigration leads to the assimilation of the emigrants to the foreign nation. They are then lost to their original nation, and this loss presents a prima facie, non-economic case against free trade. But Mises showed that this anti-free trade conclusion is unwarranted. It is true that emigration to foreign countries weakens the nation, but protectionism cannot correct the problem. At least Mises contended it cannot reach this goal in a manner beneficial to the nation. He observed that even the champions of protectionism had to notice that their proposed policies could not accomplish those goals that they had set themselves. By contrast, the anti-German immigration laws of other countries were rational responses to the threat of national alienation resulting from mass immigration. He pointed out that industrial workers in the typically Anglo-Saxon immigration countries could successfully call for anti-immigration laws because the mass immigration from Europe threatened national unity. There can be no doubt that all countries will effectively close themselves off against immigration that threatens their national composition, just as the countries settled by white men have long since closed themselves off against yellow immigration. In short, Germany could not change its calamities through protectionism and was helpless in the face of other countries' policies that further aggravated its problems. Mises soberly summarized this state of affairs, despairing from the point of view of German nationalism. The foundations of a global empire, Weltreich, are a population that multiplies approximately at the same rate as the population of the other global empires, and a settlement area that offers this population space for its development. Trade policy cannot contribute anything to establish a global empire for a nation if these conditions are not given. The isolation of Germany in international politics, Mises surmised, was a result of the fact that it lacked sufficient territories to host its rapidly increasing population. The other nations which controlled territories suitable to satisfy German expansionism were united through common interests in defending their possessions and rightly sensed that Germany must be their natural enemy. Mises then criticized the plans of the social democratic leader, Karl Renner, to establish an all-encompassing system of protective tariffs as the foundation of the future relations between Austro-Germans and the other nations of Austria-Hungary. Renner argued that political unity between the various nations was based on common economic interests, and he thought to create this common basis artificially through protectionism. But Mises objected that, in the present age of nationalism, protectionism actually reinforces the antagonisms between the various nations, because it privileges the already industrialized nations. He illustrated this point with the pre-war antagonism between Austria's ethnic Germans and the Hungarians, which had made Austria-Hungary's political order so tenuous. The power of the argument and the place of publication made it impossible for the war party to ignore Mises. Trouble lay ahead. Back to the Front at the end of August 1916, Romania entered the war on the side of the Entente powers, 
With new vigor, the united Russian and Romanian forces pushed forward into Transylvania and started making their way into the Hungarian plains. But their success was short-lived. Within two months, the German armies of Falkenhayn and Mackensen halted the enemy, regained the lost territory, drove the Entente forces back into the Transylvanian Alps, and from there into the Romanian heartland around Bucharest. When the Entente abandoned its positions in the mountains, it was clear that they would not be able to hold the Romanian plains either. Within another month, all of Romania had been conquered, and the Russian and Romanian troops were driven back into Ukraine. The entire campaign took place in the midst of a deep crisis in Austrian politics. On October 21, 1916, Friedrich Adler, the radical son of social democratic leader Viktor Adler, gunned down Prime Minister Count Karl Sturck in a Vienna restaurant, ostensibly in protest against the government's long-standing refusal to convene the parliament. Exactly one month later, 86-year-old Emperor Franz Josef died. The only man who had successfully held the reluctant nations of the empire together had gone the way of all flesh. His grandnephew, 29-year-old Karl, ascended the throne and appointed a new government under Count Klam Martinik. In the wake of this regime change, Mises was ordered to leave Department 13. The order came on very short notice. He might have expected a transfer from one part of the war ministry to another, but it became clear that he had been picked out for another mission on the front lines. As details came forward, the picture darkened. Initially he thought he would lead a battery of regular field cannon regiment, as he had done before, but the last-minute order made it clear that he would be sent on a mountain mission, which implied even greater physical duress. To top it all, his new mountain artillery battery was in terrible shape. It had been created during the February 1916 Italian campaign, and had been involved in the bloodiest encounters ever since. They had suffered many losses of men, horses, and material. Just before Mises took over, Romanian forces had destroyed their supply line for ammunition. It looked as if someone in Vienna was bent on getting rid of Mises forever. And as things stood, the chances looked good that this someone would succeed. On December 5th he joined his new unit, the Cannon Battery No. 1 of the Mountain Artillery Regiment No. 22, in the Romanian town of Ramkul Valsiri, today Ramnikov Valcha. There he obtained a motor vehicle from the German army and moved on to Bucharest. He arrived in the Romanian capital on December 11th, received his orders at the headquarters of the Prussian army, and continued with his regiment to a summit position in the Carpathian Mountains between Transylvania and the Bukovina. They did not reach their position before December 19th, probably because of bad roads and enemy action hampering their moves. It took three weeks to receive the first mail from Vienna. He wrote back to his friends in Vienna for the first time on January 11th, 1917, sending New Year's greetings. His mother's parcels did not reach him at all, and she eventually had Franz Weiss, who held a position with the war administration, send them for her. Meanwhile, Mises discovered that the human body can endure amazingly low temperatures without fainting, and he renewed the painful acquaintance with his hip. The news from Vienna did not help his morale. In mid-February, his uncle Marcus had had a complete mental and physical breakdown. 
proving that Ludwig had grossly underestimated minimum living standards. He also received a letter from Karl Pribram, who had taken Mises's place at the scientific committee. Worried what Mises would think, Pribram wrote to give assurances that he had not pushed for his own nomination. Pribram later on proved that he had great talents for self-promotion. Mises did not suffer from envy, and was ready for continued sacrifice even in the face of such injustice. He was a good sport throughout his life, yet one wonders what he must have felt in March of 1917 when, freezing behind a cannon in the Carpathian Mountains, he received news from Pirols that Karl Pribram had received the Ritterkreuz, Knight's Cross, and had moved on to a position as ministerial secretary in the Trade Ministry's Department for Social Policies. While the climatic conditions in the Carpathian Mountains were severe, the new mission was actually less dangerous and certainly less exciting than the first months of war on the northern front. The enemy troops were tired and hardly posed a threat, while there was increasing political resistance within Russia against the Tsar and against continuing the war in particular. The eastern front was relatively quiet, and Mises had time to spend with his fellow officers discussing literature and economics. On March 14, 1917, the Russian monarchy was overthrown, soon followed by a provisional government under Alexander Kerensky. Three weeks later, Woodrow Wilson, who had been reluctant to ally the United States to the ostensibly autocratic Russian Tsar, led his country into war on the side of the Entente. The old balances on the fronts were disrupted, and the troops were repositioned. In early April, Mises's battery moved to a new strategic position further north. It was also higher in altitude. They set up cannons at 6,000 feet. The front remained quiet, however, and the men on both sides were increasingly difficult to motivate. Peace resolutions of the powerful Social Democratic parties in Russia, Germany and Austria had reinforced the general mood of increasing scepticism about the continuation of hostilities. There were also other distractions, such as handling their new German neighbours. The problem was that the German army was at least as arrogant as it was efficient. Even its regular soldiers had the tendency to treat foreign allies as incompetent junior partners. On at least one occasion, Mises himself had to confront pretentious German officers claiming jurisdiction over Ka-U-Ka troops. And after the war, when in a high-profile paper he analysed the problems of the proposed Austro-German monetary unification, he mentioned the tendency of the North Germans to consider anything South German, and in particular anything Austrian, to be inferior and alien. At the end of May and in early June 1917, Mises was in Vienna, probably on a two-week leave. Here he could see firsthand the changes introduced under the new emperor. Karl was about to place his cronies in positions of military and political leadership. Displacing the old elite would have a political cost, but he tried to compensate by attempting to win greater popularity among the general public. Under Franz Josef, Nobody could get in touch with the emperor to discuss political matters except through his majesty's ministers, but Karl opened his antechamber to anyone who wished to offer advice. It turned out that many of his subjects felt such a calling. Just among Mises' friends, Hans Kelsen and Joseph Schumpeter each wrote several memoranda in which they made detailed policy recommendations. Another witness of the event, Rudolf Sieghardt, recalls, There was a plethora of memoranda and audiences— Everybody gave counsel, 
archduchesses and priests, lower skirts and soutans, profiteers and chats. The new government also convened the upper and lower chamber of the Austrian parliament for the first time in more than three years, on May 30th. This too was part of the emperor's strategy to strengthen his bonds with the population, a necessity given the dramatic deterioration of living conditions in the past few months. Mises was shocked to see how the food supply had collapsed during his six months' absence. He predicted that very soon no more food would be found at the markets, even after hours of standing in line. At one point his grandfather's cook stood three hours in line for meat. His mother had to dismiss her cook, Therese, because she could barely afford to feed her. Sadder news was the loss of his old teacher Eugen von Filipowitz, who died on June 4th from a long illness. With these impressions he left Vienna on June 9th to return to his battery. He was back in time to prepare the last great action on the Eastern Front. Starting July 1st, 1917, the United German and Kauka troops completed the reconquest of the Bukovina in the wake of the so-called Kerensky Offensive. At the end of July, Mises and his regiment reached their new permanent field of operations, about 60 miles east of their initial position, in the area of Brusturi and Czarnaki. The documents also refer to the following places, Kozmach and Prokhorov, Prevarskij Roch, Kutin Tomnatek, and others. Mises's code name is Rotwild. One of their last engagements in battle seems to have taken place on August 8th, confronting Romanian troops. One month later, the war on the Eastern Front was virtually over, and his regiment would receive recognition for its performance at the attack on Czardaki. The recognition was pronounced on September 3rd. Meanwhile, his colleague from the Scientific Committee experienced the war under safer conditions. Mises knew it was the fate of political opponents to become marginalized within the state apparatus, and the ruling war party had an especially successful means of marginalization. It could send its opponents to the front. Still, it was exasperating to see how much the threat of combat intimidated the would-be intellectual leaders of the country. With the opposition to its expansionary plan silenced, and a technocratic elite composed of corrupt cowards, the Austrian war party had carte blanche within the government. Mises did not capitulate. In the midst of the July battles, with biting pains in his hip, apparently the hip problem deteriorated considerably during the battle, he somehow found the time to write for the Neue Freie Presse on public policy. The pieces were published around August 20th and before. His friends back in Vienna were grateful and amazed. Louis Sommer wrote him, How I envy your proficiency in using the method of isolation to suppress disturbing personal problems. I almost envy you your life of narrowly circumscribed activities. Surely you have time to work. You find time, even in a shower of bullets. The envious feelings might have originated from the fact that she had taken care of a foster child, but was not up to the task. She seems to have been convinced, however, that Mises himself was inexhaustible. She urged him to publish, at last, the typology of monetary theories that he had presented in his course on monetary economics of the year before. Fortunately, Mises was not showered by bullets in the next two months. The regiment's July and early August battles were the last in the Bukovina, but this did not mean that Mises' frontline mission was over. His battery had orders to join the first corps of the Austrian army, 
on the southern front. With additional troops newly available from the now quiet eastern front, the Kauka army prepared a new offensive against the Italians. The 12th Isonzo battle in October and November 1917 would be Mises's last engagement in this war, and the last battle he would ever fight with guns. He spent six exhausting weeks on the southern front, under fire, and during cold weather in the Alps, and still suffering a biting pain in his hip. On one of those days, his regiment was stationed on Hoch-Romborn, a major peak in the area. Mises reported in a report dated October 21, 1917, Thick fog and snowstorm, fifty centimetres new snow, all ways are stuck, many electric cables are damaged and can be repaired only under life danger. He also mentioned that his men had no more wood to burn and suffered from colds and rheumatisms. Fortunately for him and his troops, this was just three days before the decisive breakthrough of the united German and Austro-Hungarian forces in a frontal attack against the better-equipped Italians, pushing them far back into the plains of Friul and the Veneto. In Mises' judgment, the success was due to the inferiority of the Italian soldiers. Mises points out that the Austrian army had never been defeated in battle by Italian forces. One historian speculates that the attackers would have moved even faster had they not paused to gorge their rumbling stomachs with the undreamt-of quantities of good Italian food and wine. What a way to escape once more the jaws of death! New Life By mid-November, Mises had left both the front and the scientific committee. The details of his departure from the latter are unknown, but it appears to have been part of a general improvement in his situation. From this point on, in fact, his life would continue to improve for quite a while. A few days after quitting the committee, he was promoted to the rank of captain, and on December 3rd, 1917, he had just started an 18-day leave in Vienna, he was ordered to join Department 10 of the War Ministry, the Department for War Economy. Usual abbreviation, Zeten KW Abteilung des KUK Kriegsministerium. The department was located in the Hotel National in the 2nd Viennese district, the so-called Leopoldstadt, at Taborstraße 18. The head of the department was one Colonel Linoch, with whom Mises enjoyed very good relations. Linoch left him at liberty to engage in academic pursuits. He also seems to have been involved in Kammer activities. Mises devoted as much time as possible to a new book with the working title of Imperialismus. This book would later be published as Nation, Staat und Wirtschaft, Nation, State and Economy, which would summarize his reflections on the war. He also resumed his teaching activities. The winter semester had already started, so it was too late to set up a seminar, but Mises probably held Sunday lectures at the Volksbildungsverein. If so, the experience dealt a heavy blow to his views about educating the masses. He said in his Notes and Recollections, 1940, he now realized that the classical liberals had overestimated the ability of the common people to form independent judgments. In the spring and summer of 1918, he directed a university course on banking theory and advised several students on what to read and which subjects to study. Women would not be admitted to the Department of Law and Government Science for another year, but most participants on Mises's course were young ladies. Because of the war, there were few male students left in Vienna. His female students were probably from the Department of Philosophy, which had admitted women since 1897. 
Among the few male students was Dr. Richard von Striegel, who had been a fellow student in Bohm Bawerk's seminar. Striegel would become one of the most important and influential Austrian economists in the interwar period. The presence of Striegel and of Helene Dub, wife of the economics editor of the Neue Freie Presse, highlighted a particular feature of university seminars in those days. The seminars were not mere schooling functions, but also provided a forum for discussions among senior members who were often on par with the lecturer. Each session began with a presentation on the subject of the day, usually delivered by one of the students. Then Mises commented on both the presentation and the subject itself, and answered questions from other participants. On May 18th, Mises was promoted from an unpaid private lecturer's position to the rank of Professor Extraordinarius, also Ordentlicher Universitätsprofessor. The promotion followed an imperial decision of May 7th. This position does not have an equivalent in the American university system. An extraordinarius position is not a titled full professorship and is unpaid, but it does include tenure and enjoys greater social prestige than does an associate professorship. Another welcome event for Mises was his new personal acquaintance with Max Weber on November 1919. Weber lived at Jaffe's place since his own apartment had to be repaired. Some years after Weber's death, Mises contributed to Rickert's sculpture of Weber, which can still be admired in Heidelberg University. The German scholar was already a living legend, but he had not lectured for more than ten years pursuing his studies in private at the University of Heidelberg. Weber now celebrated an unexpected and spectacular comeback in Vienna, and attracted huge crowds of students and professors. His encounters with Mises produced mutual admiration. Much of what Mises wrote in the late 1920s on the logical and epistemological problems of economic science was in reaction to Weber's position. And in his university courses and private seminars, Mises relentlessly encouraged the study of Weber's work. Weber, in turn, praised Mises's theory of money as the most acceptable in print, and he seemed to have learned a few things from his young colleague in Vienna. During Weber's 1918 stay in Vienna, Mises convinced him that there was in the social sciences a discipline separate and distinct from history. Economic theory was a truly scientific discipline. Its subject matter was the analysis of the relationships between means and ends, an analysis that could be performed without making value judgments. Moreover, Mises persuaded Weber that economic rationality, that is, economic calculation, would be absent in a socialist commonwealth. We will deal with this influence in more detail in a subsequent chapter. As the wartime welfare state continued to grow, Mises continued to prefer private alternatives, not just in theory, but in the actions he took in his own life, from the improvement of his family's food supply, even the black market was deteriorating, to the professional placement of friends and colleagues eager to get away from the front. An August 29, 1918 letter by a certain Irene Schmerling is revealing. She wrote, Frau Singer recently told me that you had asked for me. I suppose you were interested in food? I have only ersatz, honey. Frau Singer erzählte to me kürzlich, dass sie nach mir gefragt hätten, wohl um Lebensmittel? This is nur Kunsthonig da. Mises's annual salary in November-December 1918 was 1,120.51 kronen. This corresponded to 71 U.S. dollars and 5 cents, according to the data given in Mises, Austrian Empire, Finance and Banking. 
in the Encyclopedia Britannica. Mises was known to be responsive to calls for getting people out of the death zone and into an administrative position in Vienna or elsewhere. Mises helped, among others, the following persons. The brother of his fellow 122 officer Greifs, one Pechek, one Steiner, one Schiem, one Zattler, one Zussmann, and possibly also Richard von Striegel. Other friends of Mises had a very different reputation. Greifs, who had also approached Kelsen to help place his brother Karl, wrote to Mises, If you see Kelsen, please tell him that I am not astonished about his silence, but embarrassed I am. But even complete strangers approached him. Leo Fischmann many years later recalled his visit with Mises. He was often helped in these missions of mercy by his friends Victor Gretz and Ludwig Bettelheim Gabilon. Mises's success in placing others was at least in part due to his increased notoriety. His courageous public opposition to the war party and its claims for the economic benefit of military expansion had not changed policy, but it had attracted interest to him and his work. He had become a public figure when he was invited to lecture on Austrian public finance to the plenary meeting of the Advokatenwählerverein, an electoral association of lawyers. The invitation came from Wilhelm Weiseltier and Julius Löw. It is likely that Mises addressed the same themes he had two months earlier in an article for the Neues Wiener Tagblatt. In this piece, he characterized Austrian tax law as the patchwork product of one hundred years of tax reforms, errors, and competing special interests. And he vigorously criticized the government's plan to introduce a one-time emergency tax, Sonderabgabe warning that the new tax would become permanent, and arguing that sound financial policies must consider both government revenue and government expenditures. His lecture was a great success. On Monday, March 11, 1918, Mises started a 15-year career as the economist of Austria. In May 1918, the Office for the Defense Against Enemy Propaganda invited him to lecture on the significance of the war bond. The lecture took place in the context of an information course for officers who were to offer patriotic instructions to the troops. The main purpose of the office was to promote K.U.K. war bonds. But Mises was unwilling to be an instrument of propaganda and made instead a compelling case for free market war finance. He especially emphasized the perils of financing the war through inflation. The speech was published from stenographic lecture notes without giving Mises the opportunity to review the transcript. Mises commented, In the summer of 1918, the Army Supreme Command organized a course for officers who were to offer patriotic instructions for the troops. My lecture was published from stenographic notes without giving me the opportunity to read the proofs. A last mission. After their overthrow of the Kerensky government in November 1917, the Bolsheviks called for an immediate end of the war on the Eastern Front, on a status quo anti-basis, and without reparations for either side. Moreover, they began to make public highly secret pre-war Entente plans for punishing Germany in case of victory. These revelations increased the political pressure on the Allies to seek an early peace, as their reasons for going to war now appeared in a decisively less saintly light. The stark contrast between the evil Germanic autocrats and the humane democracies of the West faded away and was slowly replaced by a more realistic picture of the situation. But most of all, the Bolshevik push for peace changed the military situation, 
since it brought the prospect of relieving Austria and Germany from their awkward two-front struggle. These prospects materialized very slowly, though, because the German side insisted on war reparations that the Bolsheviks would not accept. The peace negotiations started in Breslitovsk shortly before Christmas 1917 and were brought to an end only after an Austro-German ultimatum forced the Russian side to sign a treaty by which it ceded military control of the entire Ukraine to its enemies. Thus, what initially promised to be a great military and political success for the Austro-German side had turned into a disaster. Precious time had been lost to move troops to the Western Front, and the imposed agreement failed to pacify the Russians, so precious Mittelmächte forces were diverted to defend against a possible Russian backlash. In short, all political advantages had vanished. Lloyd George, Wilson, and the Western press immediately presented the Treaty of Brestotovsk as evidence of the imperial expansionism of their enemies. The official rationale for a military occupation of the Ukraine was the exploitation of its rich natural resources. Few people in Germany and Austria knew that this idea was flawed. Mises knew it. In his Archive article on the goal of trade policy, he had pointed out that economic control over resources can be enjoyed even in the absence of political control. Access to Ukrainian resources would have been possible through regular trade channels and did not require military occupation of the entire country. Mises relentlessly insisted on this point with an intransigence that had almost cost him his life. The real economic rationale for the occupation of the Ukraine was the usual one. It brought unearned riches to a select few. In the present case, the economic exploitation of the occupied zone was to be confided to an Ostsyndikat, a cartel of big industrialists and big bankers with good government connections. Each of them would have monopoly rights to certain Ukrainian products. A May 1918 meeting in Berlin brought all interested men together and determined the broad division of the loot, in particular each party's trade contingent, its exclusive trade domain. The economic exploitation of occupied territories to finance the war effort has a long tradition. However, the First World War added the instrument of all-around planning. One of the unsettled questions after the Berlin meeting was the future monetary constitution of the Ukraine. The Austrian side had a special interest in the question because Austrian war inflation had swept large quantities of Kronen into the occupied zone. Decisions about Ukrainian money and currency would most certainly affect the demand for Kronen notes, and thus could possibly break up the Kronen's fiat exchange rate. The fundamental problem was that Austria-Hungary, like all other warring states, had vastly inflated its currency which consistently lowered its exchange rate with other, less inflated currencies. The only thorough way to stop both the inflation and its symptoms, higher prices and depreciating exchange rates, was, of course, to stop producing additional krona notes. But many statists and money cranks sought schemes to get around this appalling measure. One of these tricks was to make payments in money titles issued on behalf of banks other than the Austro-Hungarian Central Bank in Vienna. The Austrians applied this measure in their occupied territories in Italy. They made payments to their Italian suppliers in Dali and Kassenscheinen. Loan bureau notes, denoted in lira, 
to bolster the krona exchange rate against the lira. Similar measures were taken on the Eastern Front. In August 1918, when the Germans had for some time already made ruble payments in the territories they controlled, the Bankstelle, bank office, of the East Army Command submitted a memorandum dated August 25, 1918, proposing similar measures for the territories occupied by Austrian forces. According to the economists of the Bankstelle, the corona surplus on the market resulted from large military payments that were not sufficiently compensated by Kronen flowing out as payments for import from Germany. The German authorities, selfishly concerned with the strength of the mark, were unwilling to cooperate to achieve stable exchange rates. Therefore, the Austrian army should also change its policies by a. suppressing contraband imports from Austria and exports to Russia and b. making payments in rubles. These policies would give the Bankstelle time to absorb krona surpluses in the Ukraine by offering interest-paying 2% demand deposits with the local exchequer of the East Army, which would assume the function of a branch office of the Austro-Hungarian Central Bank. This would supposedly bring the millions of krona now being hoarded in private wallets and strong boxes back into circulation where they could be used in the interest of the national economy and of the currency itself. The Bankstelle clearly had no idea that these measures were entirely unfit to attain the end that it sought. Few in Austria-Hungary could even comprehend, let alone solve, such problems. In June 1918, Otto Katz, director of the Union Bank in Vienna, approached Mises on behalf of a financial policy mission to solve the currency problems in the Ukraine. Mises would be charged with monetary policy in this important occupied territory. The head of the group would be Excellenz Kaus, under whose leadership Mises had already fought the last battles of the Bukovina and the 12th Isonzo battle. Interestingly, it was the bank director Katz who approached Mises on behalf of a political mission. Apparently, Katz was known to have close ties to top political circles in Vienna, for Mises took his proposals seriously and answered in a letter dated June 20, 1918. Presumably, Katz had been asked to look out for a suitable currency expert, because as a bank director, he was supposed to be knowledgeable in monetary matters. The mission represented a great opportunity for Mises. A 36-year-old captain, he still had one of the lower ranks, and his position in civilian life was not especially elevated either. His main capital was the solid reputation he had gained as an expert on money and banking. Katz's offer was therefore a unique career opportunity. At the very least, it promised exceptional exposure to high-profile policymaking. There was nothing to do but to thank God, fate, and Katz for the offer, and to accept it immediately and wholeheartedly. Characteristically, however, Mises spelled out his conditions. He would offer his services for this venture only if he had full decision-making power, being the officer with exclusive responsibility for the financial and monetary policy of the Ukraine. This required in turn that he be transferred into the civil service and obtain a position corresponding to that of Bosnian Secretary of State. But such a position cannot be accepted by a captain of the artillery, a charge I hold neither outwardly nor within the context of the inner workings of the administration. In my view, the position in question ought to be comparable to that of the Bosnian Secretary of State. Most importantly, he demanded that his bureaucratic authority be completely clarified to avoid later frictions that could turn out to be harmful to the cause. He combined this demand 
with a hard-hitting attack on the bad habits of Austrian bureaucracy. Unlike their German cousins, he argued, the Austrians lacked the ability for detached commitment to a cause. The usual words of appeasement, offered in response to claims made about us, they will get ahead based on character alone, or things will sort themselves out in time, are completely false. I am convinced that I could assert myself and secure a comfortable position. But what matters is objectivity, for such personal advantages are gained through a yielding of resolve when it comes to things in which one should have remained firm, and through needless cabaling, which leaves no time for solid work. One must be capable of pure objectivity. That the Germans are objective is the basis of their success. Mises had no illusions about the acceptability of his proposals. Setting clear terms of cooperation in the interest of the cause was simply not the style of the Austrian administration, and he therefore thought the negotiations at an end. But some days later, Lieutenant Colonel Maximilian Edler von Becher, a high officer from the Imperial General Staff in Vienna, asked him to name the concrete conditions under which he would be willing to join the Second Army Command as a financial and monetary consultant. He answered in a letter dated June 26, 1918. Mises suggested dividing the civil service of the Second Army Command into three departments, one for political affairs, one for financial and monetary affairs, and one for public finance. He would become director of the Department for Financial and Monetary Affairs. He had to be made a civil servant to have authority in dealing with the other representatives of the state, and he had to be an imperial Kauka employee to reduce conflicts with Austrian, Hungarian, and local state agents. For the same reason, it would not be advisable for him to remain an officer of the Kammer. For in his capacity as monetary officer, he would have to revise agreements between the Ukraine and the Austrian Trade Bureau an appendix organization of the Kammer, which had monopoly privilege in Ukrainian imports and exports. His negotiations with the Bureau would lack credibility because of the Bureau's executives within the Kammer, and they risked inciting nationalist resentments since they could be depicted as an inner Austrian deal to the detriment of the other nations. Becher seemed to endorse Mises' arguments and restated them almost word for word in an official recommendation to his superiors. In this public paper, of which Mises received a copy, Becher suggested that Mises be invited to go to Odessa for an oral presentation and also to study conditions in Kiev and other large Ukrainian towns. Behind the curtains of the general staff, however, plans were made to induce the cooperation of the recalcitrant captain without giving in to his demands. In mid-July, the head of Department 10, Colonel Linoch, received an order to further reduce his staff. The order came from very high up, and it was specific about the staff members to be dismissed. Mises was among them. When he received the news from Lenoch, he knew the only choice left to him was between the front and a Ukrainian mission without conditions. Lenoch managed to extend Mises's leave in Bad Gastein. His leave was extended through August 25th. Mises stayed in the Hotel Badeschloss. Then the commander of the East Army... General Alfred Kraus sent Mises on a two-week mission to Odessa and Kiev and ordered him to report about Ukrainian currency and finance. Mises arrived in Odessa on September 7th and quickly learned that the Germans were pushing to establish a Ukrainian fractional reserve central bank, whereas the Austrians, 
in particular Herr Pollack from the KUK Ministry of Finance and the Vienna Association of Bankers, resisted this plan. As things stood, it was politically inevitable that any monetary constitution for the Ukraine would have to involve a central bank with a monopoly on the issuance of banknotes. The question was whether the new establishment could be limited to providing currency, or if it would also be drawn into attempts to solve the pressing financial problems of the country. Such attempts would jeopardize the stability of the new currency, but how else could the financial burdens be shouldered? At a meeting with the local Austrian commander, Mises convinced the Austrian bankers to promote sales of Vienna stocks and bonds to the Ukrainian public. To avoid the monetary inflation the Germans advocated, the Misesian strategy was to seek a private business solution through an increase of foreign holdings of Austrian stock and debt. In a later report to General Krauss, he made comments and suggestions to improve the proposed institution as much as possible. In particular, he recommended that the future central bank be built on the model of the Bank of the Russian Empire. The report was printed without indication of authorship. However, style and content reveal it to be a pure product of Mises's pen. The Ukrainian central bank should be a pure government institution, as distinct, for example, from the formal setup of the Bank of England or the German Reichsbank, and half of its endowments should be held as cash reserves. In its investment policies, the new bank should follow private banking principles, no risky investments and no long-term engagements. Mises also stressed that reserve ratios were of crucial importance to create trust and credit for the banknotes. The reserves had to be in cash. Anything else would not offer any tangible security for the note owner or in any way prevent an unlimited note issue that eventually results in the note's complete devaluation. The history of the French assignat, which had been covered through liabilities on all of the state's territories, serves here as a warning example. Mises thus proposed a form of fractional reserve central banking system, better known as the gold exchange standard. He recommended keeping reserves for one-third of all circulating banknotes, and these reserves should be either in cash, gold and silver, in foreign currency, or in bills of exchange on foreign currency. Moreover, the management of the bank should, of course, be subordinate to the government, preferably to the trade minister, since the finance minister would be tempted to abuse it for fiscal purposes. Mises' proposals were never put into practice. A week after his return to Vienna, the Bulgarian front crumbled, and after another month, both Austria-Hungary and Germany were in a state of political and military disillusion. The war ended in sudden chaos, and the empire, a centuries-old order, vanished almost overnight. Chapter 8 Nation, State, and Economy Like many intellectuals of the time, Ludwig von Mises felt the need to come to grips with the causes and consequences of the war that had destroyed the old world. For quite some time, he had anticipated a dreadful end to the war, and as soon as he had returned from his last mission on the front lines, he began to put his thoughts on paper. Despite his time-consuming involvement in the new Republican government, his kammer activities, and his duties as a professor— he continued working on a new manuscript, which would contain an in-depth analysis of the causes of the war, his personal experience of it, and the political challenges facing post-war Austria. 
As usual, he worked on the book in the evening and late-night hours, after long work days spent with other tasks. He finished the manuscript in early July 1919, just before leaving Vienna for a few weeks of vacation in his beloved Bad Kastein. He had written the book as Imperialismus, but he published it under the title Nation, Staat und Wirtschaft, Nation, State and Economy. Although it is now one of his less-known works, it made a great impression on many readers at the time and established him as the most important intellectual champion of classical liberalism in post-war Austria, and eventually in all of Europe. The first impressed reader was the young commerce secretary who typed the manuscript Therese Tiberger. She would remain his assistant until 1934, when he left for Geneva, and they would remain good friends for the rest of their lives. The book contains three essays on the theory of imperialism, with applications to the history of Germany and Austria-Hungary. In the first chapter, which comprises almost two-thirds of the book, Mises pioneers what could be called the analysis of the political economy of nations, to explain German imperialism, which in his view was the main cause of the war. The second chapter contains a thorough critique of the alleged blessings of German war socialism, and the third dissects the history and politics of the German Social Democrats. The book contains most of the political arguments that Mises would develop in more detail during the 1920s. Despite the rather specific nature of the events he was dealing with, none of his observations have lost relevance. As he himself points out in the book, it would be a mistake to think of pre-1914 German imperialism as a specific problem of the Teutonic race. It was rather the necessary result of certain historical conditions, which are likely to produce the same result wherever they come about, and which by 1919 had already resulted in imperialist policies in several other nations. Rudolf Sieghardt made this point with great emphasis. The peace diktats of the year 1919 have wiped the Austro-Hungarian monarchy off the map, and for the future world history, this empire is likely to be a dead letter. Of all its struggles and sufferings, nothing but some names will remain in history, or so it appears, as in the case of Carthage. But the problems which this empire has made such painful efforts to solve are not solved in most of its successor states. They reappear everywhere in the world, and will for a long time occupy the minds wherever national minorities struggle for the continued existence of their proper culture. Migrations, Mixed Populations, and Modern Imperialism In 1914, the predominant political mentality in Germany was authoritarian. Most Germans believed that sheer physical might was the necessary and sufficient condition for successful politics. Because nothing was impossible to a powerful government, the essence of politics was to make the state irresistible. Mises believed this view to be short-sighted. But why did the Germans, of all nations, succumb to imperialism? Why did they not share with so much of the West the classical liberal enthusiasm for individual liberty, private property, and national self-determination? Mises gave two answers, one relating to Germany's interior conditions, the other concerning its foreign relations. In both cases, he showed that German imperialism resulted from a clash between the principle of national self-determination and the principle of democratic government. 
After a brief honeymoon with liberal ideas prior to 1848, the Germans embraced the tenets of statism because of certain particular conditions prevailing in the eastern provinces of Germany and Austria-Hungary. In these areas, the Germans were a small minority among other nations. The introduction of democratic government would have transferred political power from the hands of the German central states to local majorities of Poles, Ukrainians, Romanians, Hungarians, and Slovaks. This, in turn, would have prevented any political participation of the hitherto dominating Germans, because, in a democratic system, the command of the language of the majority is an absolute necessity. Mises admits that great political ideas like liberalism, socialism, etc., are not language-dependent. But he points out that the concrete application of such general ideas is conditioned by language and language-dependent culture. As long as the liberal parties were in the opposition, the conflict between German self-determination and majority rule did not become apparent. In the wake of the Revolution of 1848, however, popular democracy in the Eastern Territories threatened the new liberal establishment, and German liberals have been anti-democratic ever since. Significantly, the very first and hotly debated problem of the Constitutive Assembly, Konstituierende Reichstag, was to select the language for its deliberations starting on July 22, 1848. The second great problem of the Germans was their relative overpopulation. Classical liberalism had abolished more and more impediments, not only to trade, but also to the free movement of persons. As a result, people migrated to places offering better work conditions, which made their labor more productive. Many Germans had moved to colonies that were predominantly populated by English settlers. Surrounded by an English majority, the German emigres quickly assimilated and thus were lost to the German nation. In a desperate attempt to counter this development, the German government established a system of protective tariffs to reduce the incentives of German workers to emigrate under the pressure of more productive foreign competition. When the failure of this policy became apparent, the government changed its strategy and decided instead to conquer British colonies. It began to build a mighty fleet to combat the Royal Navy, guardian of the British Overseas Empire. This in turn prompted the British entry into the First World War. Mises identifies population mixes with a German minority as the prime cause of German hostility to government by popular majority. The Germans prefer to rule as a minority over a majority of other nationalities rather than be ruled by them. Mises was not moralizing. His purpose was to explain what had happened. He would leave it to others to address what should have happened. The German case was unprecedented. For the first time in the history of liberalism, the principle of national self-determination was incompatible with majority rule. But imperialism was only partly a product of specific German conditions. It was also nourished through migrations that produced unfavorable population mixes elsewhere, and in this respect, the German case had a universal significance. In fact, in all countries where great migrations had significantly modified the national balance, imperialism had made an unexpected and powerful return. Mises argued that the Czechs, Russians, Poles and Hungarians had already followed in the footsteps of the Germans. The United States and Australia too treaded on imperialist paths with their immigration policies, 
mixed population-induced imperialism had become a world problem. This modern imperialism was more powerful and destructive than its predecessors, because it could rely on the economic achievements of the brief but very productive era of liberty. Modern tyrants have things much easier than their predecessors. He who rules the means of exchange of ideas and of goods in the economy based on the division of labor has his rule more firmly grounded than ever an imperator before. The rotary press is easy to put into fetters, and whoever controls it need not fear the competition of the merely spoken or written word. Things were much more difficult for the Inquisition. The limits of tyranny and in the industrial age were by no means narrow. If it contended itself with mind control and thought control, the crucial elements of political domination, tyranny could last a long time indeed. But the destruction of private property would doom the central authority, because it would destroy the economic foundations of its power. Liberty would eventually be restored, but at least for a while it would be liberty in misery. Only one external limit is posed to this rage for the destruction. The apparatus of the economy based on the vision of labor cannot be reproduced, let alone extended, if freedom and property have disappeared. It will die out, and the economy will sink back into primitive forms. Only then will mankind be able to breathe more freely. A truly ironic and sad aspect of the war was that the German imperialist spirit had won over those who had set out to defeat it. Imperialism pressed weapons into the hands of all who do not want to be subjugated. To fight imperialism, the peaceful must employ all its means. If they then triumph in the struggle, they may indeed have crushed their opponent, yet themselves have been conquered by its methods and his way of thinking. They then do not lay down their weapons again. They themselves remain imperialist. In Nation, Staat und Wirtschaft, Nation-State and Economy, Mises expresses essentially the same idea as William Graham Sumner in his famous essay on the conquest of the United States by Spain, in which he argued that although the democratic United States had won the 1898 war with the imperialist Spain, the Spanish spirit had conquered the United States. The League of Nations, brainchild of Woodrow Wilson, was designed in a spirit of preserving the post-war power positions of the Anglo-Saxon and French nations, just as a hundred years earlier the Holy Alliance had been designed to conserve the new balance of power after the defeat of Napoleon. In the League, the imperialist ideas of 1914 are in triumph over those of 1789. While this ironic outcome of the struggle between liberalism and imperialism was tragic for the Germans, it is less decisive from the standpoint of world history. The chief point remains that nations are being punished and that the forfeiture theory comes to life again. If one admits exceptions to the right of self-determination of nations to the disadvantage of evil nations, one has overturned the first principle of the free community of nations. Moreover, the League pursued a blind, one-size-fits-all agenda of making the world safe for democracy, overlooking the inconvenient fact that democratic government in areas with mixed populations does not mean national liberation, but national oppression. The League of Nations of Versailles adopts this nationality principle only for the nations of Europe, yet in doing so it overlooks the fact that applying this principle wherever the members of different peoples live mingled together only ignites conflict among peoples all the more. 
It is still more serious that the League of Nations does not recognize the freedom of movement of the person, that the United States and Australia are still allowed to block themselves off from unwanted immigrants. Such a League of Nations endures so long as it has the power to hold down its adversaries, its authority, and the effectiveness of its principles are built on force to which the disadvantaged must yield, but which they will never recognize as right. Never can Germans, Italians, Czechs, Japanese, Chinese, and others regard it as just that the immeasurable landed wealth of North America, Australia, and East India should remain the exclusive property of the Anglo-Saxon nation, and that the French be allowed to hedge in millions of square kilometers of the best land, like a private park. Injustice had been perpetrated on the German nation, but Mises prophetically warned that it would be the most terrible misfortune for Germany and for all humanity if the idea of revenge should dominate the German policy of the future. He recommended that the Germans turn their backs on imperialism once and for all, and seek instead national self-determination and peaceful relations with all other nations. This was not an ethical imperative, but a policy in the best interest of the Germans. To retaliate for wrongs suffered, to take revenge and to punish, does satisfy lower instincts. But in politics the avenger harms himself no less than the enemy. The world community of labor is based on the reciprocal advantage of all participants. Whoever wants to maintain and extend it must renounce all resentment in advance. What would he gain from quenching his thirst for revenge? at the cost of his own welfare. The Utilitarian Method of Social Analysis In a highly developed civilization operating under an international division of labor, it was in no one's interest to wage war or pursue empire. Neither was it in Germany's interest to cultivate resentments against its present oppressors, nor later to seek revenge. And it was against the considered self-interests of the victorious Western allies that they themselves pursued imperialism. Mises believed that such purely utilitarian considerations make a much stronger case for pacifism than any ethical appeal to the powerful to refrain from exercising power. Mises's rationalist utilitarianism must not be confused with the utilitarianism of Jeremy Bentham, a British philosopher of the late 18th and early 19th century. Bentham had given political utilitarianism its most famous expression, claiming that the purpose of politics should be to promote the greatest happiness of the greatest number of citizens, a normative claim. Although Mises was inspired by Bentham's work, he was not primarily interested in justifying the application of utilitarianism in politics. He would later comment on the crucial flaw of Bentham's political thought, which celebrated the democratic majority principle as the foundation for liberty. Max Weber's work had alerted him to the necessity of discarding normative questions from scientific analysis. Science had to deal with the world as it is, not as it should be. Mises was therefore not interested in whether utilitarianism should guide politics, but in its application. Is the policy under consideration suitable to attain the proposed end? This, he saw, was the kind of question that could be answered objectively. Any other approach risked entanglement in normative questions. Therefore, the value of utilitarianism for the social sciences did not consist in any ready-made political programs advertised under its banner, but in the practical perspective it offered on social problems. Utilitarianism, as Mises understood it, was not a doctrine, but a point of view.
It was the perspective of rational suitability analyses. Its categories were means and ends. These questions had a venerable tradition in economic thought. John Locke, in his analysis of the debasement of coinage, monetary inflation, had stressed that the crucial question was whether this policy would at all serve to those ends for which it is proposed, and went on to show that this was not the case. Similarly, Adam Smith stressed that colonial trade monopolies reduced national income in all nations, even in those that were meant to benefit from them. At the end of a thorough review of the interventionist trade policies of his time, he concluded, It is thus that every system which endeavors either by extraordinary encouragements to draw to it a particular species of industry a greater share of the capital of the society than would naturally go to it, or by extraordinary restraints to force from a particular species of industry some share of the capital which would otherwise be employed in it, is in reality subversive of the great purpose which it means to promote. It retards, instead of accelerating, the progress of the society toward real wealth and greatness, and diminishes, instead of increasing, the real value of the annual produce of its land and labor. Other contemporary economists also argued along these lines. For example, Etienne de Condillac pointed out that virtually all forms of economic interventionism were, in fact, blows against commerce. The same approach characterized the policy analysis of subsequent generations of economists up to Kalmenger, who had also been a utilitarian in the Misesian sense. In his investigations and several other writings, Menger had argued that economic science deals with exact economic laws and that these laws in turn concern the optimal use of available means to attain a given end. Menger noticed with great satisfaction that his colleague Heinrich Dietzel championed the same view in two papers he published at the same time that investigations appeared. Dietzel argued that economists need not postulate that human behavior is prompted by primordial economic motivations. Economic science is not about motives. It is about finding the optimal means to attain a given end. In short, Dietzel saw economic science as a sort of social technology, and he eventually proposed to rename the science socio-economics. Menger's and Dietzel's writings had influenced those younger German-language economists, who were outside of the ambit of the historical school, most notably Ludwig Pohler, who criticized the socialists of the chair for assuming that good intentions would make for sound policy. Pohler stressed that it was necessary to analyze whether a proposed policy really had the beneficial consequences that its advocates intended. Hence, in his utilitarian stance, Mises continued a tradition that reached back well beyond Menger. In nation-state and economy, as well as many subsequent works, he showed that suitability analysis was extremely useful for the rational assessment of all the major political questions. In fact, the utilitarian method provided the only possible common ground for a rational comparison of liberalism, socialism, and government interventionism. Mises repeatedly argued that these political systems are merely different strategies for the realization of a common goal, the greatest happiness of the greatest number. Therefore, only the utilitarian method of social analysis makes possible a rational choice between these different means. It may be that socialism represents a better form of organization of human labor. Let whoever asserts this try to prove it rationally. If the proof should succeed, then the world, democratically united by liberalism, will not hesitate to implement the communist community. 
In a democratic state, who could oppose a reform that would be bound to bring the greatest gain to by far the overwhelming majority? Political rationalism does not reject socialism on principle. The fallacies of German socialism in war and peace. Nation, state and economy is a rationalist utilitarian analysis of the three manifestations of German imperialism. One, past German imperialism for the sake of national greatness. Two, economic central planning in the First World War, war socialism, which accelerated the introduction of full-blown socialism. And three, the blossoming imperialism of the Social Democrats under the banner of syndicalism and the dictatorship of the proletariat. Although Mises does not define imperialism explicitly, he understands it to be the exact opposite of self-determination, self-administration, self-rule. Liberal democracy was historically embodied in the ideas of 1789, which demanded the most exact and complete application of the principles of full freedom of movement of persons and goods, the most comprehensive protection of the property and freedom of each individual, and removal of all state compulsion in the school system. In contrast, the majority principle was in his eyes merely a means, rather than a constituent part of democracy. He explained that war socialism, far from supporting the German war effort, was one of five disastrous errors that had led the central powers to such a crushing defeat. The other errors were military and political. The military errors were, one, to expect the war to be short, and two, to expect miracles from unceasing offensives. The political errors were, three, not to anticipate a war on all fronts, and four, to make the interests of the East Elbian Junkers supreme in German politics. To its advocates, the emergency situation that confronted the German economy at the outset of the war, or the great tasks that it now confronted, was sufficient justification for compulsory central planning on all levels. But such a justification is based in logical fallacy. It was true, Mises granted, that there was an emergency and that the structure of production had to be adjusted as quickly as possible from peacetime to wartime conditions. But it does not follow that the government should then run the economy. The correct question was whether central planning would be better than the free market at achieving the necessary adjustments. Mises proceeded to demonstrate that this was not the case. His views on war finance had an impact on young free market-oriented economists of the interwar period, such as Stefan Pozzoni, Die Wehrwirtschaft des totalen Krieges, and Georg Holzbauer, Barzahlung und Zahlungsmittelversorgung in militärisch besetzten Gebieten but also on interventionists like Adolf Lampe, Allgemeine Wehrwirtschaft. Lampe had a preference for playing markets, though. He suggested that entrepreneurial activities be centrally guided. He also showed that the apparent blessings of wartime socialism were a dangerous illusion, created by the accompanying inflation. The increase of all prices had falsified the economic calculations of the entrepreneurs. The higher entries in their books falsified their profit and loss accounting, to the point that they believed they were making profits when in fact they were consuming their capital. Similarly, he debunked the widespread myth that war finance through government debts was a way of making future generations pay for the war effort. This view, he said, was completely wrong. War can be waged only with present goods. One can fight only with weapons that are already on hand. One can take everything needed for war only from wealth already on hand. From the economic point of view, the present generation wages war, 
and it must also bear all material costs of war. He went on to explain that war finance through debts, rather than through taxation or inflation, merely modifies the future distribution of resources. General misunderstanding of the economic nature and consequences of wartime central planning was instrumental in reducing resistance to the accelerated introduction of full socialism. The socialists themselves denounced the wartime economic regime partly because they did not welcome an association in the minds of the general public between socialism and war, but also in part from their own intellectual confusion. Mises objected, Socialism means the transfer of the means of production out of the private ownership of individuals into the ownership of society. That alone and nothing else is socialism. All the rest is unimportant. It is a matter of complete indifference. For deciding our question, for example, who holds power in a socialized community, whether a hereditary emperor, a Caesar, or the democratically organized whole of the people. In the third chapter of Nation, State, and Economy, Mises explained that the confusion about the nature of socialism resulted from the fact that the program of the socialist parties in Germany and Austria integrated three distinct elements, Marxist central socialism, syndicalism, radical labor unionism, and democratic government. The socialists have championed democracy because Karl Marx's theory predicted that socialism would be the rule of the proletarian majority. Mises observed that the German socialists had stuck to the tenet of democracy only because until 1914 they had always been in the opposition and therefore bore no responsibility for their co-nationals in the eastern territories. With the onset of the First World War, when they came to power in Germany and Austria, they slowly changed their minds and would have followed in the footsteps of the German liberals, but with the loss of the eastern provinces the problem of mixed nations disappeared as well. This part of their program in which they continued, the old classical liberal agenda that German liberals themselves had abandoned, had created widespread sympathy for the socialist cause even in bourgeois circles. But majority rule was not a central tenet of socialism. The only essential element was central control of all means of production through a dictatorship of the proletariat. And it was this precept of the socialist creed that would have to stand up to rational scrutiny, or else socialism would have to be discarded. Is the compulsory central control of production more efficient than private ownership of the means of production? All other considerations were secondary. For example, Mises observed that there was no necessity in 1919 to wait for the proletarians to become a majority in Germany and Austria, because the majority of the general population was already socialist. But if the socialist case for central planning was invalid, then no power on earth could maintain a socialist order. The dictatorship of the proletariat wants to use terror to nip any stirring up of opposition in the bud. Socialism is believed established for all eternity once its property has been taken away from the bourgeoisie, and all possibility of public criticism has been abolished. It cannot be denied, of course, that much can be done in this way, that above all, all European civilization can thus be destroyed but one does not thereby build a socialist order of society. If the communist social order is less suited than one resting on private ownership of the means of production to bring about the greatest happiness of the greatest number, then the ideas of liberalism cannot be killed even by terrorist measures. Mises pointed out that the socialist case crucially relied on the conviction that once this socialized society is realized, 
its members would be guided by entirely different motivations than from those of their former lives. Rather than pursuing their own interest, they would now think only of serving their community. But if one is sceptical of the feasibility of such new socialist man, if one seeks instead a system that will reconcile the private interests of real-world human beings with those of the larger community, then liberalism had already found such a system. Private property. In his later work based on the socialist calculation argument, he would show that the problem is the impossibility of identifying what the interests of the commonwealth are. In their daily politics, the socialists had long since turned away from Marxist orthodoxy to become the political branch of the labor unions, which Marx had despised as petty bourgeois. They espoused the down-to-earth agenda of their constituency and trumpeted their Marxist heritage only in election speeches. But from both a theoretical and practical point of view, the labor unionist program was even worse than Marxist socialism. It destroyed the division of labor and the spirit of cooperation. Syndicalism deliberately places the producer interest of the workers in the foreground. In making worker groups owners of the means of production, not in so many words, but in substance, it does not abolish private property. It also does not assure equality. It does remove the existing inequality of distribution, but introduces a new one, for the value of the capital invested in individual enterprises or sectors of production does not correspond at all to the number of workers employed in them. The income of each single worker will be all the greater the smaller the number of fellow workers employed in his enterprise or sector of production, and the greater the value of the material means of production employed in it. This syndicalistically organized state would be no socialist state, but a state of worker capitalism, since the individual worker groups would be owners of the capital. Syndicalism would make all repatterning of production impossible. It leaves no room for free economic progress. In its entire intellectual character, it suits the age of peasants and craftsmen, in which economic relations are rather stationary. Labor unionism is therefore purely destructive. It is locally organized robbery, elevated to a general principle. Mises' criticism did not focus on its moral reprehensibility, however, but on its inability to sustain the large-scale division of labor characteristic of modern civilization. Labor unionism was an utterly unsuitable means to pursue the greatest happiness of the greatest number. Political Economy of Language Communities In his criticism of imperialist policies in the service of socialism, labor unionism, and the socialist war economy, Mises could restate many conventional arguments. He faced an unprecedented task in confronting the claim that imperialism can enhance the welfare of a nation. His pioneering analysis brilliantly confirmed Karl Menger's insight that methodological individualism is able to analyze even large collective phenomena. The main thesis in the first chapter of Nation, State and Economy is that governments are incapable of improving the condition of the nations they rule. The reason is that the origin, emergence, growth, flower, and decline of nations are subject to natural laws. The operation of these laws can be modified by government power, but not abrogated, and any alteration will play out to the detriment of the nation. Mises proved this case by first analyzing nations in a free society and then turning to examine the impact of government power on their evolution. His practical conclusions called 
for the denationalization of the nation, or more precisely, for keeping government intervention as far as possible out of the life of language communities. Following Shearer, Grimm, and Otto Bauer, Mises defined nations as language communities. He stressed that as far as democratic regimes are concerned, this definition is more than a mere convention. In democracies, communication, and thus language, is the primary political means. Language communities are therefore of critical political importance. He stated that a nation's specific language generated specific political constructions, and in particular specific foundational ideas determining the operation of their governments, Staatsgedanken. Mises did not argue that language communities are the only factor, or the most important one, in modern politics. He speculated that racial communities were far more important. The problem was that the sociology of race and of race relations was not sufficiently developed to warrant scientific statements. He acknowledged, however, that it had become a principle of modern political world law that it is no longer acceptable to use force on peoples of the white race, that is. The use of force against dark-skinned people in the European colonies was considered legitimate, but not the use of force against fellow whites. German imperialism made enemies in all quarters by violating this distinction. What were the natural laws determining the rise and fall of language communities? Mises considered various objective factors determining their evolution. For example, he examined the role of written language and stated that it had played a crucial role in the competition between dialects. The first written dialect became the standard language. But his decisive considerations start from the fact that the membership in a language community is not something unalterable. Each human person can decide to leave his former nation and join another. In a free society, Mises stressed, nations would be purely voluntary associations. No people and no part of a people shall be held against its will in a political association that it does not want. The totality of freedom-minded persons who are intent on forming a state appears as the political nation, patrie, fatherland, becomes the designation of the country they inhabit. Patriot becomes a synonym of free-minded. Liberalism knows no conquests, no annexations, just as it is indifferent to its the state itself. So the problem of the size of the state is unimportant to it. It forces no one against his will into the structure of the state. Whoever wants to emigrate is not held back. When a part of the people of the state wants to drop out of the Union, liberalism does not hinder it from doing so. Colonies that want to become independent need only do so. The nation, as an organic entity, can be neither increased nor reduced by changes in states. The world as a whole can neither win nor lose from them. What, then, determines individual membership in a language community? Neglecting objective factors such as the familial, historical, cultural, and political environments of the individual, Mises focused on the voluntary factor of assimilation. He asserted that for practical reasons language minorities tend to assimilate to the language majorities with whom they are affiliated through trade and other forms of social intercourse. Therefore, local minority nations, ceteris paribus, tend to disappear in the course of time. Mises stressed that this assimilation process was dependent on individual membership in certain social classes because social contacts were class-dependent. Minorities could preserve a separate existence for as long as spatial and social mobility were heavily controlled through custom and laws. Things changed radically 
when classical liberalism abolished such laws. The result was a dramatic migration, both physical and social, that disrupted the established balances between nations. Mises gave special attention to the impact of the increased spatial mobility, which by the late 19th century had already reached a massive scale. These migrations constantly produced areas of mixed cultures, threatening the established groups with their disappearance through assimilation, thus prompting political rivalry and conflict. Mises did not believe these movements could be stopped because they reflected the self-interest of the migrants. En passant, he mentioned his contribution to the economics of migration by highlighting the importance of relative overpopulation, in distinction to already known absolute overpopulation. He had developed the concept of relative overpopulation in his Vom Ziel der Handelspolitik. What could be done then to alleviate the national conflicts that were the necessary consequence of those migrations? The only viable solution, Mises argued, was to reduce the role of the state within society because the political conflicts between nationalities primarily concerned control of the state apparatus. Of course, the struggle of nationalities over the state and government cannot disappear completely from polyglot territories, but it will lose sharpness to the extent that the functions of the state are restricted and the freedom of the individual is extended. Whoever wishes peace among peoples must fight statism. The way to eternal peace does not lead through strengthening state and central power, as socialism strives for. The greater the scope the state claims in the life of the individual, and the more important politics becomes for him, the more areas of friction are thereby created in territories with mixed population. Limiting state power to a minimum, as liberalism sought, would considerably soften the antagonisms between different nations that live side by side in the same territory. The only true national autonomy is the freedom of the individual against the state and society. The statification of life and of the economy leads with necessity to the struggle of nations. Mises offered here a radical alternative to the prevalent models for solving national conflicts. Austria had the longest experience with national struggles within a common state, and its intellectual, political, and institutional history was therefore richer than that of any other country in analyzing and solving this problem. For example, the constitution of the Austrian Great Dukedom of Siebenbürgen, which existed until 1848, provided for separate parliaments and administrations for Saxons, Germans, Hungarians, and Seclers. Affairs of general interest were dealt with in a common parliament, which debated in Latin. The ugly side of this otherwise charming arrangement was that the Romanians, who were in the numerical majority in Siebenbürgen, had no representation. During the revolution of 1848, a promising approach was developed to overcome this and similar problems. On March 4, 1849, the deputies of the Constitutive Assembly, which had by then moved on to the city of Kremsia, voted on the proposed Kremsia constitution, the point of which was to abolish the old territorial units composing the empire, the kingdoms and lands, and to replace them with administrative counties, the boundaries of which would be drawn according to the national affiliations of the inhabitants. The German nationalists reacted on the very same day with a counter-proposal presented by Prince Schwarzenberg. From then on, the principle of equal legal treatment of the different languages was on the defensive, and finally defeated. The failure of the revolution prevented the practical application of the Kremsia constitution, but the idea lived on, especially in the various programs of the Social Democratic Party. At their 1899 convention in Brünn, the Social Democrats decided to tackle the problem of national conflicts by creating parallel state organizations along national lines. This approach, they believed, 
would ensure national autonomy to each nation and thus prevent struggles between the nations once and for all. To serve as a model for the rest of Austria, they transformed their own party, creating parallel national organizations. The Social Democratic Faction in the Central Parliament thereafter called itself Union of Social Democratic Deputies. In the following years, its intellectual leaders, Karl Renner and young Otto Bauer, revived and refined and popularized the idea of replacing the old territorial units with new national counties. Before the First World War, Karl Renner published his ideas on the nationality question under the pseudonym Synopticus and Rudolf Springer. At the end of the First World War, he published under his true name, Das Selbstbestimmungsrecht der Nationen, in besonderer Anwendung auf Österreich. It turned out, however, that nationalistic passions were too strong to be tamed even by the spirit of socialist solidarity. After the introduction of universal suffrage in 1907, the party quickly dissolved into national organizations and lost all impact on Austrian politics. With hindsight, and with the help of Mises's theory, we can identify the root cause of these failures. All of his predecessors had tried to use government to solve the problem of national struggles. None of them recognized or admitted that coercive association, the sine qua non of the state, was the very source of national conflicts. A different government scheme cannot possibly be a solution for a conflict caused by the nature of government itself. But how far could one go in keeping the state out of society? How far should one go? Mises argued, that the only limits are of a technical administrative nature. The size of a state's territory does not matter. It is another question whether a state is viable when its population is small. Now, it is to be noted that the costs of many state activities are greater in small states than in large ones. The dwarf states, of which we still have a number in Europe, like Liechtenstein, Andorra, and Monaco, can organize their court systems by levels of jurisdiction, for example, only if they link up with a neighboring state. It is clear that it would be financially quite impossible for such a state to set up as comprehensive a court system as that which a larger state makes available to its citizens, for example, by establishing courts of appeal. Hence Mises advocated a complete liberalization of society. There should be no political limits to this process, and it would in practice be limited only by banal technical considerations. In other words, Mises welcomed the unhampered competition among national territories, which in a free, international society would be a peaceful competition between language-based cultures in which each individual, through his assimilation choices, would determine the fate of the various language communities. Mises sensed that the only dignified attitude toward the reality of cultural competition was national self-confidence. A nation that believes in itself and its future a nation that means to stress the sure feeling that its members are bound to one another not merely by accident of birth, but also by the common possession of a culture that is valuable above all to each of them, would necessarily be able to remain unperturbed when it saw individual persons shift to other nations. A people conscious of its own worth would refrain from forcibly detaining those who wanted to move away and from forcibly incorporating into the national community those who were not joining it of their free will. To let the attractive force of its own culture prove itself in free competition with other peoples, that alone is worthy of a proud nation, that alone would be true national and cultural policy. The means of power and of political rule were in no way necessary for that. Mises argued not only that political rule is unnecessary to improve the condition of a nation, but also that it is incapable of doing so, 
In a free society, people constantly migrate to those locations offering the most favorable conditions for production. Every individual has an incentive to migrate from a relatively poor area to a relatively rich area. These migrations would continue until wage rates and interest rates are equal in all locations. With this consideration, Mises complemented the Ricardian analysis of free trade, which was based on the assumption that capital and labor were mobile only within the borders of the state. In a liberalized world, therefore, there would be a tendency away from differences in income. There would eventually be no rich or poor countries in the world. There would only be countries that are more densely populated and other countries that are less so. Mises pointed out that government intervention does not change anything about people's motives to migrate from relatively poor areas into relatively rich ones. On the contrary, if government tries to keep its people in the land through a system of protective tariffs, it only exacerbates the problem. Protective tariffs might prevent the emigration of those who would be most affected by foreign competition, but they reduce the per capita income of all the other members of society, further multiplying the incentives for emigration. Again, a dispassionate suitability analysis comes out against government intervention. Mises concluded that the only rational approach in matters of political nationalism was to follow classical liberal precepts, shrink the state, open borders, and face the cultural competition of international migrations. Chapter 9, 1919 the war had seemed like it would never end. Then suddenly, it was over. The Balkan Front crumbled in the wake of the armistice in Bulgaria at the end of September 1918. This time it was clear that it would not be possible to liberate enough additional forces from elsewhere to stem the tides in the southeast. The Central Powers had lost. Faced with defeat, the pre-war nationalistic tensions within the Empire began to reappear even more forcefully. Now Czechs, Croats, Slovenians, Hungarians, and Serbs all sought political independence. Yuri Krijek argues that these tensions were amplified during the war because of the compulsory centralization of the KUK economy, which unilaterally benefited the industrial and financial establishment in Vienna and Budapest. The young emperor attempted to save what he could of the centuries-old order by making a peace offer to President Wilson on October 4th. Twelve days later, in a last Desperate effort to reconcile his recalcitrant nations, Karl abandoned the traditional policy of his family and now tried to spearhead the opposition. He issued a manifesto announcing the reconstruction of Austria-Hungary as a federal state with autonomy for the lands of Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia. The attempt failed miserably. In fact, his manifesto only compounded the crisis. It had been widely interpreted as proclaiming the dissolution of the empire and legalizing the secession of its nations. Rudolf Siegert later stated, World history knows no similar case in which the dissolution of an empire has been organized in all forms from above. And in his last speech to the upper chamber of the Austrian parliament, the same writer summed up the ironic essence of the manifesto. Even before the Austrian nations gave up their state, the state gives them up. Two days after Karl's proclamation, the Entente replied, that mere autonomy for Habsburg lands was not enough. The emperor had to give carte blanche to the secessionists and to the enemies of the monarchy. On October 21st, the revolution broke out in the streets of Vienna and in the following weeks spread to Hungary, Bavaria, and Berlin. 
the South Front collapsed, when the Hungarian leader Mikhail Karoli called back the Hungarian troops, thus preparing a last-minute Italian victory on the battlefield. When Ludendorff's army surrendered on November 11, 1918, Germany was no longer a monarchy and in a process of rapid political dissolution. Even worse was the fate of its southern ally. Austria-Hungary had been entirely wiped off the political map. The former Habsburg dominions, so rich in territories, individuals and nations, had shrunk back to, well, to what? It was even difficult to pick a name for the territory that remained after national secessions had amputated most of the old empire. The leftover land hosted a population of 6.3 million of predominantly German ethnicity. Obviously, it could no longer be called Austria-Hungary. Hungary was gone. Neither did it make sense to call it only Austria, because historically this name did not refer to national borders, but circumscribed the limits of the Habsburg possessions, Österreich, the Eastern Empire. The remaining citizens spontaneously baptized their land Deutsch-Österreich, or German-Austria. The name speaks to their uneasiness and lack of identity. The Emperor's Manifesto had proposed that all nations of the Empire establish national councils. The German members of the Reichsrat had immediately accepted the idea and formally met on October 21st in Vienna, calling their gathering Provisional National Convention of German-Austria. In their second meeting on October 30th, then the provisional parliamentarians had claimed for themselves the supreme control over the German-Austrian state. Even though they did not try to determine the form of the new state, Emperor Karl had not yet formally abdicated. They appointed a government composed of social democrats, Christian socialists, and German nationalists. Leadership fell to the socialist Karl Renner, who became state chancellor in Austria's darkest hour. Twelve days after the appointment of the provisional government, the emperor abdicated and left the country. The socialist parliamentarians pushed for both the immediate proclamation of a new republic and its unification with the German Reich, where the socialists were the leading political power. The leaders of the new state had no more urgent business than to dissolve that state. One day after the German armistice, the new German-Austrian Republic, in the very act of a birth, declared an Anschluss annexation, joining the new German Republic. It was November 12, 1918. New Battlefields In the years preceding the war, the Social Democratic Party had sunk into political insignificance. By 1911 it had splintered into various national organizations and suffered a terrible setback at the Reichstag elections. But the war and eventual defeat had discredited the political establishment to such an extent that the Social Democrats, by virtue of their outsider status, now seemed to be the most important political force in the country, though elections could not yet be held to confirm the fact. Their hour of glory came at the very moment when they lost their eminent leader. Victor Adler died on November 11th, and Otto Bauer, the Austro-Marxist, who had debated Bohm Barbeck as a student in his seminar, became the number one party official. But while Bauer had the strongest backing within the party, he lacked support in the general population because of his youth and his radicalism. Leadership of the government therefore remained in the hands of the moderate Karl Renner until June 1920. The radicals under Bauer tried to push Renner to turn the political revolution into a social and economic revolution as well. 
they sought fully to nationalize the Austrian economy and to incorporate Austria into the German Reich, which was already under firm social democratic rule. When the attempts failed, largely because of Ludwig von Mises' personal impact on Bauer, as we shall see, the political climate in German Austria slowly reversed. Elections in February 1919 gave rise to a constitutional convention and showed the Social Democrats to be far less powerful than so many had believed. Renner was forced to admit the Christian Social Party's charismatic leader, Monsignor Ignaz Zeipel, into his government, and Zeipel's party would come to rule German Austria for most of the 1920s. In the dramatic winter before the elections, nobody saw those changes coming. People had more immediate concerns. The economic situation in the new Austrian Republic was even worse than in Germany. The average citizen lacked access to basic goods, especially potatoes, sugar, and coal. Traditionally, the Austrians bought these supplies from other parts of the former empire, from their Czech neighbors in the north, from the Hungarian and Galician plains in the east. But now these regions had gained political independence, and their new leadership brought international trade to a standstill. The war was lost, stomachs were empty, people were freezing to death, and there was no relief in sight. From a purely financial point of view, the German Austrians were the great losers of the war among all nations. In the winter of 1918-1919, most Austrians were optimistic that the new government, composed as it was of an enlightened elite, would eventually overcome the political and economic chaos that was the aftermath of the war. Yet the new men in charge set out to continue and complete the policies of the previous imperial governments, which had already put in place a system of war socialism. A contemporary observer and political acquaintance of many of the country's new leaders, Mises explained, From the beginning the intention prevailed in all socialist groups of dropping none of the measures adopted during the war after the war but rather of advancing on the way toward the completion of socialism. If one heard differently in public, this had only the purpose of dissipating possible doubts about the rapid tempo of socialization and about individual measures and of stifling opposition to them. The slogan had already been found, however, under which further socializing measures should sail. It was called Transitional Economy. During the first year of its existence, the National Parliament dedicated its sessions to deliberation on social legislation and voted the latest socialist wisdom into law. Within a few months, the new government imposed eight-hour workdays, compulsory vacation for workers, compulsory co-management of firms through worker representatives, coercively financed unemployment insurance, and many other such schemes. The educated public looked on Austria as Americans of 1950 would have looked on a U.S. government run by Milton Friedman, Alvin Hansen, and Paul Samuelson, power and intellect finally united, Felix Austria. But the socialists failed, despite their undeniably personal brilliance and economic training. The cornerstone of the new economic system was the printing press of the Austro-Hungarian Bank. Tax revenue was far too low to pay for the various government handouts and increasing the tax rate was both politically impossible and likely to be inadequate to increase their revenue sufficiently in any case. New debts could not be incurred, 
because there was not enough money left over to lend, and the government's credit was terrible. No one expected it to pay back the pile of debts it had amassed during the war. There was therefore only one way for the new government to establish a large-scale welfare state. Print more money. 1919 was a year of crisis. Serious economic and political problems were compounded through a catastrophic policy of inflation-financed socialism. It was a crisis that brought the young republic to the verge of collapse. Civilization prevailed, and the spectre of anarchy faded only because a few men stood ready to confront all difficulties to make their country safe for liberty and entrepreneurship. Post-war socialism and the spectre of anarchy Official positions in the new government did not always reflect actual power. For instance, because of the support of the most militant groups within Austrian social democracy, Otto Bauer, who headed the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, was even more influential than Karl Renner, the Chancellor. The situation changed only in 1927, when a social democratic insurrection was defeated with unexpected ease. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs had a trade policy department that was responsible for the preparation of the trade-related aspects of the forthcoming peace negotiations. The department hired several external consultants strongly affiliated with the Austrian School of Economics. Schiller, Mises, Zomari, and Steiner. Virtually all of the higher officials in Bauer's ministry, including Bauer himself, were Jews or of Jewish origin. On November 22, 1918, and again on January 11, 1919, the Vienna Paper Reichspost insinuated that the ministry's takeover by Bauer, the Jew Dr. Richard von Schiller, a close relative of the recently deceased industrialist Tausig, and Schiller's subordinate Jews Dr. von Mises, Dr. Broda, and Dr. Steiner, was somehow unacceptable. Yet the fact was, as the Wiener Morgenzeitung, a Jewish national newspaper, pointed out, that Mises and Zomari were Austria's most important currency theoreticians. Mises's long-standing personal acquaintance with Bauer, Lederer, and Schumpeter, former fellow students and colleagues from the War Economics Department of the War Ministry, was certainly one of the motives behind the decision to involve him in the new government. Another was that Bauer knew Mises was loyal to the Austrian state. Yet a third motive was the time-honored strategy of containing the most knowledgeable opponent of socialist schemes. But Mises's involvement was a double-edged sword. Had the war not taken place, or the empire not disintegrated, the government and the wider Austrian public would certainly have noticed his views on monetary affairs. After all, he had acquired a solid reputation as an expert on money and banking, and was also the spokesman for the comer on these questions. But now his views bore the stamp of political authority. While he could not say everything that he knew and believed, what he did say gained immediate and widespread attention. Still, his impact on actual government policy remained moderate. Mises's main mission was to lead tedious negotiations on pre-war and wartime financial obligations with foreign businessmen, bankers, and government representatives. Within the government, his colleagues sought his advice, but usually did not heed it. Mises often met with Bauer, Lederer, director of the Staatskommission für Sozialisierung, and Schumpeter, who became finance minister in the spring of 1919. In the case of Bauer, Mises's influence proved to be short-lived. It was limited to one decision, but it was a critical decision of overarching importance. 
It was solely due to my efforts that Bolshevism did not then prevail in Vienna. Only a few people had supported me in my efforts, and their help was rather ineffective. I alone managed to turn Bauer away from seeking union with Moscow. The radical young men who rejected Bauer's authority and were eager to proceed alone and against the will of the party leadership were so inexperienced, incapable, and torn by mutual rivalry that they could not even form a halfway viable communist party organization. The events lay in the hands of the leaders of the old Social Democratic Party, where Bauer had the final word. Until that fateful winter of 1918-1919, when Mises persuaded Bauer to stop Bolshevism in Vienna, the relationship between the two men was based on mutual esteem. Mises knew personally almost all Marxian theorists of Western and Central Europe, but in his eyes only Bauer surpassed modest mediocrity. He recognized that Bauer had great knowledge of philosophy, classical economics, history, and the natural sciences, and that he was an excellent speaker who could quickly master the most difficult problems. He could have been a statesman if he had not been a Marxist. The problem, then, which eventually corrupted Bauer's intellectual, moral, and personal integrity was that all his learning and all his activities were based on an a priori commitment to Marxism. Otto Bauer arrived at the University of Vienna as a devout Marxist. He had made up his mind never to betray his Marxian conviction, never to yield to reformism or socialist revisionism, never to become a Muron. Alexandre Muron, born 1859, French socialist, was originally radical. When in power, he limited his activities to moderate programs. Or Miquel. Jean von Miquel, 1821-1901, German statesman, originally was an extreme revolutionary. Later he was described as one who had entirely surrendered his radicalism and aimed only at practical measures for improving the condition of the people irrespective of the party programs. No one was to surpass him in Marxian zeal. His wife, Hélène Komplowitz, later strengthened him in this resolve to which he remained faithful until the winter of 1918-1919. At that time I succeeded in convincing the couple that the Bolshevist experiment in Austria would have to collapse in short order perhaps in a few days. Austria depended on the importation of food from abroad, which was made possible only through relief assistance from former enemies. At no time during the first nine months after the armistice did Vienna have a supply of food for more than eight or nine days. Without lifting a finger, the Allies could have forced a surrender of a Bolshevist regime in Vienna. Few people clearly recognized this state of affairs, Everyone was so convinced of the inevitability of the coming of Bolshevism that they were intent merely on securing for themselves a favorable position in the new order. The Catholic Church and its followers, that is, the Christian Social Party, were ready to welcome Bolshevism with the same ardor archbishops and bishops twenty years later welcomed Nazism. Bank directors and big industrialists hoped to earn a good living as managers under Bolshevism. I knew what was at stake. In a few days, Bolshevism in Vienna would have created starvation and terror. Blundering hordes would soon have roamed the streets of Vienna, and in a second bloodbath would have destroyed the remnants of Viennese culture and civilization. Throughout many nights I discussed these problems with the Bauers, until I finally succeeded in convincing them. The resulting restraint of Bauer determined the course of events in Vienna. He went on, Bauer could never forgive me for having made him take the position of a Milan. The attacks of his fellow Bolsheviks especially hurt him. However, he directed his passionate hatred not against his opponents, but against me. 
he endeavoured to destroy me by inciting chauvinist professors and students against me, but his scheme failed. From that time on I never again spoke with the Bowers. This passage is the only direct source from which we know about Mises's role in preventing Otto Bauer and his wife, Hélène Gumplowitz, from putting their Bolshevist plans into practice. Some collateral evidence is provided in a February 1919 letter to Mises from a certain Dr. Johanna Wallner. She sent him her telephone number and asked him to give Dr. Bauer her greetings. Under present circumstances, she writes, she does not want to bother the Heligan Bauer with her affairs. Thus she knew that Bauer was very busy in his government activities and that Mises was likely to see Bauer precisely in these busy times. Bauer and his consorts were subsequently confined to indirect means for achieving their beloved communist state. Rather than copying the Russian model of political revolution, they now sought to bring about communism in a piecemeal fashion. Before he changed his views on the question of socialization, Bauer had been the leader of the left wing of the Austrian socialists. Thereafter, he increasingly shifted to the middle ground and reinforced his position within the party apparatus. This involved three major strategies. 1. Partial expropriations. 2. Supplanting the free market with a system of artificial prices for labor and consumers' goods. And 3. Eradication of any remnants of old authority. On this last front, the Viennese socialists achieved at least one lasting victory. On April 3, 1919, a law was enacted prohibiting the use of all titles of nobility and honors. The imposing von, concise designation of nobility, was verboten in any printed document, and the same order was given in respect to the honorific Edler, the noble predicates erlaucht, durchlaucht, and hoheit, and the noble class designations of Ritter, Freiherr, Graf, Fürst, and Herzog. As far as business cards, books, and other printed documents were concerned, the prohibition has remained effective to the present day. In interwar Austria, however, the old ways were maintained in personal encounters and oral communications. Mises's name was rendered as Ludwig Mises on his book, Publications and Correspondence. But in daily business, he would still be addressed as Professor von Mises. The major benefit of this unparalleled legislation was to spur Austrian wit. One gentleman of venerable descent circulated his business card with the imprint Geadelt von Karl dem Großen, entadelt von Karl Renner, ennobled by Karl the Great, denobled by Karl Renner. As for the expropriation of private property, the government's policies had a far less lasting impact, but they did do considerable damage for the few months they were in effect. A major agent of this destruction was a new government office headed by Emil Lederer, called the Staatskommission für Sozialisierung, State Commission for Socialization, which worked closely with its sister organization in Germany. The German agency had convened a group of experts to examine the question of whether the socialization of coal mining was possible. The Socialization Commission in Germany first met on December 5, 1918, and also included the Austrian professors Lederer, Hilferding and Schumpeter, as well as Theodor Vogelstein, a former chief executive in the war socialist economy of Germany, the influential publisher Heinrich Kuno, Labour Union leader Otto Uwe, and the German professors Karl Ballot, Robert Wilbrandt, and Eduard Heimann, 
who acted as Secretary-General of the Commission. By March 1919, similar committees had been established not only in Vienna, but also in Dresden, Munich, and Stuttgart. On February 15, 1919, these experts, with the cooperation of Josef Schumpeter, published a report in which they argued that socialization was not only possible, but necessary to avoid a mere governmentization for Staatlichung. They made no attempt to explain the distinction. The Staatskommission epitomized the embarrassment of a government that was supposed to instigate a socialist revolution but had no idea how to do so. The members of the Commission knew they had to come up with a justification for its existence. Leder presented it at the first post-war plenary meeting of the Verein für Sozialpolitik, which took place in September 1919 in Regensburg. He criticized the present state of socialization in Russia, ridiculing it as a mere consumer's socialism. The great goal of the German-Austrian government must be to complete socialist transformation of the economy, for which later I discussed two strategies. One was to put control of each individual firm in the hands of its workers. This, Lederer claimed, was liable to establish economic democracy and was therefore a first step toward democratic socialism in the whole society. The second strategy was to levy a huge one-time capital tax to pay back the war debts. Such plans had already been discussed during the war at a meeting of the Verein für Sozialpolitik on October 14, 1916 in Berlin. Heinrich Herkner had championed the idea of solving the problem posed by the huge war debts through a one-time confiscatory tax. Alfred Weber, who at the time worked for the German Treasury, fiercely opposed any discussion of the issue because it would jeopardize the government's attempt to sell war bonds. This by itself would immediately put the state in control of industrial capital. The only remaining problem would be to make sure that this governmentization would be followed by a true socialization. But again, this distinction was not explained. The only concrete proposal on the table seemed to be the one-time capital levy, a measure that had the backing of ostensibly reasonable good people such as Schumpeter. Mises tried to lead the comer into steadfast opposition to this measure. Some evidence for his involvement is in correspondence with Frau Fischer, his secretary at the Kammer. Mrs. Fischer wrote to Mises after his departure to Bad Gastein, where he would spend his summer vacation. He argued that the imposition of the capital levy would force Austrian entrepreneurs into debt, making them dependent on financial capitalists. Mises also revealed what he perceived to be the long-term political goals behind the innocuous one-time measure. He pointed out that the socialists talked only of sharing the profits, but that this left out the actual structure of enterprise. If, however, the state owns shares in all enterprises, it will also share in losses. Moreover, it will even be forced to concern itself with the administration of individual businesses. Just that, however, is what the socialists want. The Austrian experience prepared him well for the American discussion of capital levies of the early 1940s. The socialist government's impact was most devastating, however, in its perpetuation and extension of the wartime system of price controls. The previous imperial governments had started supplanting the free market by a system of administered prices for labor and consumers' goods. Right or wrong, the purpose of this approach was to concentrate all economic energies on the war efforts. When the socialists came to power, they made the system even more encompassing. In their hands, they believed it would become a means of transforming bourgeois and capitalist Austria into a paradise of the proletariat. Thus, government agencies administered higher than world market prices for labor services, 
and lower than world market prices for agricultural products. The socialist beggar thy neighbor model had set an example for the entire country in ways that had not been anticipated by the rulers in Vienna. The provinces were not willing to comply with Vienna-style socialism. They had their own homegrown schemes in mind. Each province now sought to loot their local rich, rather than shed booty with Vienna. These conflicts of interest, a natural consequence of the government's socialist agenda, had already made themselves felt under wartime socialism. Now they had broken out full scale, and precipitated town and country into economic warfare. This left Vienna without any resources but the monetary printing press. Rapid political and economic disintegration was accompanied by deterioration of the krone. Mises wrote to Ledra, Here the condition of the currency is hopeless, a hopelessness that results from the pitiable state of public finance. Only the farmers can still pay taxes, and they openly declare that they will not pay anything. On the other hand, the government deems it necessary to spend millions per month to feed an urban population that does not work. Unlike the Russian Bolsheviks, Vienna socialists were unwilling to coerce the provinces into obedience. They perceived the crisis as constitutional and hoped to remedy it by legal means. They failed to see that the real issue was a profound conflict between Vienna and the provinces that was sparked by their own economic policies. Mises analyzed the situation in a December 2, 1919 lecture to the Association of Austrian Economists on the political relations between Vienna and the provinces from the overall economic standpoint. Gesellschaft der österreichischen Volkswirte Die politischen Beziehungen Wiens zu den Ländern im Lichte der Volkswirtschaft The speech was subsequently published in Neues Wiener Tagblatt and Wirtschaftspolitisches Archiv and struck a nerve with the general public. Herr Roth Seefried, a businessman and lawyer who knew Austria as well as he knew the back of his own hand, wrote to Mises, I would hope that the essay was circulated widely in Germany, where, I must unfortunately admit, a frightingly unclear impression of the Anschluss and the like reigns. Roth Seefried lived in Berechtesgaden. Mises might have met him there on vacation, for example, in August 1927. He argued that Vienna could only thrive by continued participation in the international division of labor. Austria's harvest could never suffice to feed Vienna's workers. Only foreign food supplies could, and these had to be bought in exchange for industrial exports. Even the proposed annexation to Germany could not change this state of affairs. The present policy of funding government by printing new money was a typical short-run device that survived only by depleting the capital accumulated in pre-socialist decades. It was bound to wreak havoc on the currency and the economy. These public comments understated his real perceptions. He was, after all, a public figure and therefore obliged by law not to harm the nation. Only after the Second World War, when he no longer held appointed public office, did he become blunt in commenting on public policy. However, one can infer his real views on the state of Austria in late 1919 from a confidential memorandum that he wrote for Vienna's leading bankers and industrialists. We are approaching the collapse of our currency. Our monetary policy presently knows only one means, printing banknotes, printing ever more new banknotes. 
there is hardly a prospect of change. One cannot legitimately ask the Social Democratic Party suddenly to acknowledge that the socialist idea has imploded and that all that it has proclaimed for decades has turned out to be wrong. One cannot expect that the Christian Social Party, whose ideal is a stationary economy of autarkic farmers and small craftsmen longing for subsistence, which for decades has championed professional licenses and high tariffs, which along with the Prince of Liechtenstein has advocated a program of an Austria without factories, and has fought with Luger and Schlesinger for the Gilde of the Fathers, and for people's money, one cannot expect this party suddenly to become free trade and liberal. Neither can one hope that experience will teach any economic and financial insights to the German nationalists, who have always sought to top the social reform radicalism of the other parties who today have especially become the advocates of those broad layers of public employees whose syndicalism has knocked out our public finance, and who have learned nothing about foreign policy and have not forgotten anything, despite their terrible defeat in the World War. It is the misfortune of this country which can only exist on the basis of industrial exports, that the spirit of modern economic policy has remained alien to its population. Our policy moves entirely within the intellectual orbit of imperialism, of mercantilism, of socialism, and of fantasies about a national economy. Mises pointed out that influential circles within the government believed inflation to be of secondary importance and of no direct pertinence to the political problems of the day. These men thought they could suppress the domestic consequences of inflation, price increases, through price controls, and that the international consequences, plummeting exchange rates, could be neglected because they did not directly affect the nation. As Mises explained, however, this benign neglect for the Kroner's plummeting exchange rate was extremely short-sighted. Most of the working class's food supply came from abroad through contraband channels, in fact, these black markets were all that was keeping the Viennese population alive. If no end was expected for the decline of the krona exchange rate, the contraband merchants would eventually refuse to be paid in krona banknotes. The consequence would be immediate and impose dire hardship on the urban masses. Mises went on, Given the mentality of our population, this will infallibly lead to excesses. People will first plunder retail businesses, and then public buildings, bank palaces, and private apartments. The last feeble remnants of government authority will dwindle. Armed bands will attempt to rob the country, an attempt that will everywhere but in the immediate surroundings of industrial centres end in their bloody defeat, because today the rural population is armed and is supported by well-armed and disciplined local police forces. This anarchy within the country is the more dangerous because there are also great dangers threatening from abroad. Excesses perpetrated by the popular masses can easily lead to hurting foreign citizens, from which many a pretext may be derived, for an invasion by foreign troops. It is true that the Entente does not care much for the state of our country, and also that her present military weakness prevents her from intervening. But things are different in the cases of Hungary and Czechoslovakia. Both states control powerful and well-trained armies. In both countries, chauvinistic, prestige considerations make for an eagerness to occupy parts of German Austria and Vienna in particular. The Czechs are embarrassed by the fact that they did not gain their independence through glorious military achievements. 
not without reason, the Czech militarists considered a Czech army's cowardly running away from Hungary's Bolshevist troops a dishonor that they want to make good for. The Magyar troops, too, are eager for national glory. Both Czechs and Magyars will seize any opportunity to retaliate for the alleged injustice that Vienna has perpetrated on them. In truth, the Czechs seek revenge for the heavy disappointments occasioned by their young Czech state, and the Magyars seek revenge for the plunders that the Romanians have carried out in Hungary. Mises knew what he was talking about when he mentioned Hungarian appetites for invading Vienna. In the early summer of 1919, he let negotiations with representatives of the new and, as it turned out, short-lived communist government of Hungary concerning the property rights of Austrian citizens in Hungary. The official leader of the Hungarian delegation was the ambassador to Austria, but this man rarely took part in the meetings, and thus the real leaders on the Hungarian side were one Dr. Gorug and one Dr. Polanyi. Gorug was a colorless bureaucrat without any strong political feelings, but Polanyi had a brilliant mind and was a convinced communist who clashed at many meetings with Mises, often in long discussions of fundamental questions of social philosophy. Much later, in February 1924, Karl Polanyi sent Mises his paper Sozialistische Rechnungslegung, which had been published in the Archiv 49 in 1922, and asked Mises for an off-print of his critique of this article. Polanyi by then lived in the 7th district in Vienna. His letter did not sound very clear. One can guess that these clashes concerned not only socialism and capitalism, but also the injustices that Vienna had perpetrated on Hungary. Mises therefore knew that the slightest military weakness in truncated Austria was likely to culminate in a Hungarian invasion. The present Austrian army was too weak to prevent it. The German army could be relied on, but the Entente probably would not allow its intervention. At any rate, precious time would be lost with diplomatic negotiations, enough for a plundering expedition to Vienna to escape unpunished. Vienna was in fact invaded before the Treaty of Saint-Germain-en-Laye was signed in September 1919, but the invaders were not Czechs or Hungarians, they were Italian troops who forced their way to Vienna to plunder its art collections and libraries. The Hungarian communists certainly would have followed suit, but they were ousted by a counter-revolution. The treaty then put some constraints on Czechoslovakia and Hungary. A foreign occupation had thus been ruled out, but the internal dangers could not be stopped. Continued funding of the government's socialist experiments by rampant inflation was likely to lead to complete social breakdown within the country, and possibly to a communist-Bolshevist insurrection. Pro-government emergencies Mises was one of the few men who understood that the inflation itself and the inflationary mentality it had produced were the greatest political burdens the war economy had bequeathed to the new republic. But in the socialists' eyes, he was merely a competent technician who knew the money machine well. And during the first months of his involvement with the new administration, Mises did in fact play this role faithfully, preventing on several occasions Austria's fall into lawlessness. Mises knew that funding the government by printing money contradicted all established principles of public finance. As he had explained in Theory of Money and Credit, it was a risky and temporary expedient. If kept up, 
it had to lead to hyperinflation. Still, as things stood, he believed it was the only way to maintain law and order in Vienna. Government expenditure is today considerably higher than government revenue, and all effort to limit expenditure and to increase revenue until the budget is equilibrated encounter almost irresistible political difficulties. Under such conditions, there is hardly any other solution but to put the printing press directly or indirectly to the financial service of the state, and to provide, by the issue of banknotes, those means that cannot otherwise be provided. It was not the only time Mises would justify and implement emergency monetary policies that are difficult to reconcile with classical liberal principles. In accord with F. A. Hayek, one could call such positions desperado policy. It is essentially the policy of the desperado who has nothing to lose and everything to gain from a short breathing space. But keep in mind that Mises approached policy matters from a utilitarian point of view. Strictly speaking, there is no such thing as scientific, classical, liberal principle from his perspective. There are only effective and ineffective policies. Using the monetary printing press in the winter of 1918-1919 was the only suitable way to keep the government going, he thought. There was also a different sort of emergency that seemed to require a greater use of the printing press. A few months after the political disintegration of the Habsburg Empire, the monetary and financial disintegration followed suit. The war bonds had in fact been underwritten mainly by ethnic Germans, who tended to represent the wealthier urban population of the country. At the end of the war, cash holdings were largely concentrated in predominantly non-German rural areas. The black market had moved food into the cities and cash out into the agricultural countryside. It is not surprising that one of the first measures of the new national governments was to deny responsibility for the war debts incurred by the empire. It was a simple political decision that seemed to entail only advantages for their main constituencies, which were the anti-German movements of the seceded territories. The burden of the repayment would fall exclusively on the Germans. As things stood, this was easy enough to justify to both the new nations and the Western powers. Mises believed, and continued to believe for some time, that these popular anti-German laws would prove to be short-lived. On May 9, 1919, he took part in a conference sponsored by the Währungsschutz Association dealing with the Austrian position in the forthcoming peace negotiation. In his comment, which was widely publicized, he stated that the Allies had rejected Russia's refusal to pay the government debts of the old Tsarist regime. On the same grounds, therefore, they would have to reject the demands of the new Czechoslovakian, Polish and Yugoslavian governments which sought to repudiate debts incurred under the Habsburg monarchy. This would be in accordance with the time-honored principle of international law. Any other stance on this issue would jeopardize international trade, thus harming the Allies' own interest. However, this impeccable argument did not prevent the Allies from siding with the Slavic successor states. Hatred is often stronger than self-interest. The bondholders soon realized that the small Republic of Austria could not bear the burden of all the war debt on its own. They turned to redeeming their bonds at a discount for cash at the Austro-Hungarian Bank. 
and the bank granted these requests without fail, printing any quantity of additional banknotes to accommodate the wishes of the bondholders. Thus, the urban bondholders had saved at least some fraction of their investment, whereas the rural cash owners saw the purchasing power of their money holdings shrinking under the relentless influx of new money. Whether or not the Yugoslav, Czechoslovak, and Hungarian leaders had considered the possibility that the central bank could use its control of the production of krona banknotes to counteract their scheme, there was now only one way out for them. They had to abandon the Austro-Hungarian bank's currency and establish their own. Technically, this involved stamping the krona notes circulating in their territories, thus making them identifiably separate currencies. Yugoslavia was the first country to put this into practice in early January 1919, and Mises at once commented on the event in an anonymous piece for Neue Freie Presse. Such anonymous pieces were often signed by a leading monetary politician. Mises' authorship is evident from the writing style and vocabulary, as well as from the fact that these pieces are kept in common files. The custodians of the archive in Moscow worked diligently in preserving the natural order of the files that they had received from their owner. He anticipated what the next move would be. Yugoslavia, for example, would use a part of its cash surplus to buy financial and other assets in the countries that still used Austrian kronen. This would, number one, increase Yugoslavian wealth, trading bad paper for real goods, and number two, provoke a price increase in Austria from which the Yugoslav economy would be protected because of its separate currency. Such a post-war inflationary reflux of kroner notes had been a constant fear during the wartime expansion of the kroner currency area. Now it was a reality. Mises started campaigning for immediate countermeasures. The only effective strategy for Austria was to do the same thing, stamping the kroner notes circulating in its territory, and thus creating a separate Austrian currency. In a truly grotesque episode, from mid-January 1919, the champion of sound money provided hands-on support for banknote production. He wrote that the money problem at the moment of the dissolution of the Austrian-Hungarian monarchy was merely a technical problem of printing, and the question how to obtain printing plates, banknote paper, and printing ink appeared for the moment the most important points of currency policy. Mises unofficially approached his friend Victor Gretz, who ran a large printing company. His inquiry concerned additional printing facilities for the Austro-Hungarian bank, whose printing press was unable to handle a rapid replacement of the krona circulation. Gretz responded, Coming back to the discussion we had on Tuesday, I venture to inform you that I have made inquiries about the question of banknote production and that very probably it is possible to assure the production in private printing houses within the necessary short delay. The Steiermühl, Gretz's company, would be in the position to provide ten flat-pressing machines which, considering the urgency of the case, could be operated twenty-four hours in three work shifts so that the performance would be equal to that of thirty fast-pressing machines. Because quick action was an imperative, the first step was to stamp the Austrian krona notes. In early February, Mises made the case for this measure in an anonymous piece for Neue Freie Presse, urging quick action. The article was signed von einem hervorragenden Währungspolitiker. 
from the pen of a leading monetary politician in Neue Freie Presse, February 11, 1919. The next day, the government issued a decree ordering the stamping of the corona notes circulating in Austria, a process that was completed by June. When the Czechoslovak government started stamping its notes in late February, it was clear that the Austrians had not acted precipitously. Mises probably commented on this event too in a piece for Neue Freie Presse. Mises explained the matter in detail in an article he prepared for the Verein für Sozialpolitik on the question of currency union between Germany and Austria. This is the paper already quoted as Der Wiedereintritt Deutsch-Österreichs in das Deutsche Reich und die Währungsfrage. Austria's re-entering into the German Empire refers to the years before 1867, when its Kronländer were part of the Deutsche Bund, German Federation. The Bund had been established under the leadership of the House of Habsburg as a post-Napoleonic War successor organization of the Holy Roman Empire of German nations, which had disappeared in 1806. The Bund ended in 1867 when Prussia defeated it in a short war, Battle of Königgrätz. Mises finished this work in early July 1919, but he circulated a previous version in the wake of his activities in early 1919. In the final version of this piece, which he completed in early July, we read, Now German Austria had to act too. She could not wait until all other states had shifted from the Austro-Hungarian krona to a national krona. She had to separate herself from the Austro-Hungarian krona to prevent those banknotes, which for whatever reason would not be stamped in the other state territories, from flying back to German Austria, and increasing inflation here. She had to prevent the Czechoslovakian Ministry of Finance, which after the stamping had held back half of the banknotes of its citizens, from using this half to buy stocks and bonds in German Austria. She had to prevent those krona banknotes circulating in the billions in the Ukraine, and in neutral foreign countries from being considered money of German Austria alone. He did not mention, of course, that he himself had already taken the steps he advocated. The government only ratified the status quo Mises had already brought into being. On March 15, 1919, Schumpeter was appointed Minister of Finance in Karl Renner's second government, a coalition between Renner's Social Democrats and the Christian Social Party. Schumpeter immediately put the reform of the currency on his agenda. The matter was apparently settled in a single day of intense discussions with representatives of the Austro-Hungarian Bank and external experts, such as Landesberger, Hammerschlag, Wilhelm König, Walter Federn, and Mises. An executive order of March 25, 1919 conferred this status of legal tender on the stamped krona note and denied this status to unstamped ones. This seems to have been one of Schumpeter's few successes as finance minister. He had no power base within either party of the new government. The Social Democrats trusted him because he had used his academic authority to support the socialization of big industry. The Christian Socialists liked him because of his long-standing opposition to union with Germany. But his only real political asset was the international reputation he enjoyed. He was a recognized authority in economics, and his chancellor correctly anticipated that this could be helpful in negotiations with international creditors. This reputation was no help, however, in his efforts to put government finance back on track. Not a single major point of his program was put into practice. 
He could not impose a one-time capital levy to pay off the war debt. He could not stabilize the currency, and he failed to create an independent central bank. After the other cabinet members denied support for his financial program, the luckless Schumpeter threw in the towel and quit the government on October 17, 1919. To its sound money, the stamping of the Corona banknotes had prevented a catastrophe. But the great remaining question was, of course, how Austrian monetary policy and public finance could be restored to sanity. This had to happen quickly, but the average intellectual saw no way out of this mess. Stopping the printing press seemed to imply the destruction of firms and laborers. From a theoretical point of view, it is correct to put the principle of economic freedom into practice. But this principle cannot be realized because of the destruction of great masses of entrepreneurs and laborers that would result from it, without revolutionary changes. Thus, the political consequences of putting this principle into practice would prevent it from having its effect. This is Emil Lederer, commenting in correspondence on Mises's paper Zahlungsbilanz und Wechselkurse, Balance of Payments and Exchange Rates. In reality, this destruction would not have been harmful for the workers, Stopping the inflation would have left intact the physical production facilities and thus the source of the labourer's income. The production sites, factories and other producers' goods would merely have changed owners. What the inflation did was to prevent such a sweeping redistribution of capital goods from the economic establishment to private entrepreneurs. In a profound sense, the socialist status quo was not pro-working class but pro-establishment. From this point of view, the argument that Mises's anti-inflationist endeavours were politically unfeasible was clearly about what was, and was not palatable to the powers that be. He began an anti-inflation campaign in the winter and spring of 1919. His greatest asset was the readership of the liberal Vienna Press, a well-positioned audience. His status as a recognized authority on financial matters put the stamp of officialdom on his pronouncements, and he was therefore a carefully read commentator on current events. So carefully read that he preferred to publish some of his pieces anonymously. Mises gladly accepted an offer from his friend Victor Gretz, who ran a major printing company and published the daily newspaper Neues Wiener Tagblatt. Gretz had no competent journalists to cover economic policy and monetary policy in particular, and thus wanted Mises to write for his paper. The prolific Mises already wrote on monetary policy for the Neue Freie Presse. In those days of heated activity, Mises was often asked to deliver on the same day, and seems to have complied, but Gretz offered attractive terms. Mises would dictate his articles to a stenographer who would come every morning between eight and nine o'clock to his apartment. Moreover, Mises would not have to sign the articles, and there would be no indication that they were written by a non-staff author. In the same vein, Mises was also invited to contribute monetary analysis to Dorn's Volkswirtschaftliche Wochenschrift, a weekly economics journal edited by a former colleague from the Wissenschaftlichen Komitee für Kriegswirtschaft. The editor also invited him to lecture before the Frauenklub on socialization and economic planning. Two weeks before, Otto Neurath had given a talk on this subject, and Mises would provide the antidote. He also gave public lectures on these problems, 
almost exclusively to educated audiences, lawyers and businessmen, not politicians, who were taken with his personality and lecture style. For example, in the lecture he gave on May 2nd, 1919 on means and ends of currency policy, he addressed the members of a commercial association. The talk was apparently very successful and dealt a heavy blow to the inflationist party. Mises gave many more talks of this nature during the year, for example at a common meeting of Austria's Chambers of Commerce in October 1919. One of the obstacles he had to overcome was that the inflation's effects were not yet visible. In Germany and Austria, price control suppressed domestic price increases, thus limiting the most noticeable and painful consequence of inflation to the decreasing number of unregulated markets and to black markets. The public is thus deceived, and fallacious doctrines take hold. These fallacies in turn lead to bad policies, in particular to foreign exchange controls. The only official evidence that something was wrong with the krona was the constant decline of exchange rates, in particular with the currencies of neutral countries. Yet the champions of inflation successfully prevented this fact from alarming the public. They argued that the declining exchange rate resulted from the mechanics of the balance of payments, and that there was no necessary relationship between increases of the money supply and the exchange rate. In two papers, Mises gave a concise refutation of this balance of payments theory, and made the case for the quantity theory of money. He pointed out that all shortcomings of the quantity theory could not affect its main tenet, that there is a positive relationship between variations of the quantity of money and variations of the price level. These articles, The Quantity Theory of Money and Balance of Payments and Exchange Rate, appeared in a low-circulation professional journal, and Mises had had to be very cautious in wording his critique to protect these papers from the government censor. Nevertheless, his frontal attack on the monetary status quo encountered fierce resistance from several practitioners of economic policy, including Siegfried Rosenbaum, the director of the Anglo-Austrian Bank and main sponsor of Walter Fedon's journal. But the spell was broken. Mises's papers were widely read and discussed in the following years. Their circulation could have been even larger if Mises had not prevented new printings of Balance of Trade and Exchange Rates, which he intended to integrate into the second edition of the Theory of Money and Credit. In a parallel effort to a sound money campaign, Mises worked out two plans for monetary reform, an official one proposing action for normal times, and a secret contingency plan in case of a sudden emergency. The monetary problem that virtually monopolized the attention of the Austrian government and public in the first few months of the Republic was a proposed currency union with Germany, pervading wisdom and the angst Austrians felt from a lack of political or national identity after the collapse of the empire had it that Austria was incapable of solving problems without assistance from her big brother to the north. Mises was charged with defining the Austrian position for the upcoming negotiations with the Germans, and was invited to contribute an expert report on the question to a special Verein für Sozialpolitik volume that analysed the Austrian economy. The volume was meant to give a summary of the situation in Austria, and thus served to inform a larger German public about the specific conditions of their neighbours to the south. The technical details of Mises's report are still relevant to the modern world of paper money. 
He pointed out that all problems of Austria's proposed monetary unions with the German Reich arose from the fact that both countries presently used paper monies. A currency community of two states on the basis of a paper currency is hardly feasible if there is not from the very outset the intention to abstain from any further inflation, and if this intention is not strictly put into practice. As soon as inflationary measures are resorted to, to add to the state treasury, there must arise differences of opinion about the distribution of the new quantities of money that are to enter circulation. The only example of such a currency community based on paper money was the Austro-Hungarian dual monarchy, which had been established in 1867 and featured two states using the same currency, namely the currency of their common predecessor, the Kaisertum Österreich. Yet this currency community could be successful because it was based on the principle that the total quantity of banknotes in circulation could not be increased. Thus, distributive conflicts were avoided from the outset. But if the proposed currency union involved any inflationary measures, the only way to avoid such distributive conflicts was to establish a common financial administration, he thought. It is therefore clear from the outset that German Austria's adoption of the German Reich's currency can begin only once the political unification has been, if not achieved, then at least unchangeably decided. It was Mises' position that Austria should be granted a special subsidy during the first years of the unification, because Austrians had made greater contributions to the war effort and had suffered more from defeat. Also, the financial agreement between the two states had to allow Austrian entrepreneurs to redeem discounted war bonds at the central bank. This was absolutely essential because they had invested much more of their capital in war bonds than had the German entrepreneurs. Mises insisted on these two points, mentioning each of them twice in his 25-page report. As for the ratio for the conversion of Kronen into marks, Mises argued that it should be based on the prevailing market exchange rate between the two currencies. The ratio would also have to account for the future redemption rate of marks into gold. He recommended that this rate be based on the prevailing mark price of gold. Attempts to re-establish the pre-war rate would hurt exports, which would be devastating under the present circumstances, especially for the Austrians. The transition from the present state of two independent paper monies to the desired currency union could most suitably be achieved through the intermediate creation of a mark exchange standard. In this scheme, the Austrian central bank would start redeeming its notes for marks, thus making Kronen de facto money substitutes for marks. By this very fact, German-Austria's adoption of the German currency is put into practice. The krone is nothing but a name for a part of the mark. The final step would be the replacement of krone notes by mark notes. This was a simple and elegant solution, but it was already moot by the time Mises finished the revision of his paper. In early May 1919, the Entente powers issued a decree containing the peace conditions for Germany, and one of them was that Germany could not unite with Austria. The Western Allies would not budge from this position, and on June 28, the German delegation signed the Diktat of Versailles. Political union had become impossible, and so had Austria's monetary and financial annexation to the German Reich. But Mises pointed out in his report that his plan for currency unification could still work, even under the conditions of the Versailles Treaty. In fact, the proposed mark exchange standard had great legal advantages. 
German Austria's adoption of the mark exchange standard does not require any action of the German Reich's government. It therefore does not affect the obligation that the German Reich incurred in the peace treaty on behalf of Austria's independence. His government colleagues preferred other options. They did not see sound money as a priority. They still sought ways to get around the repayment of wartime debts and to expropriate private savings. Misesian reform, stopping inflation, abolishing price controls and moving to a laissez-faire was out of the question. Apart from all other considerations, these policies would have exposed the enormous redistributive effects of the wartime policies. Renner and Bauer looked for an alternative. One way to deal with the effects of surplus money was to seize cash holdings. Expropriation from German Austria's former creditors was planned and propagated under the insidious term of Vermögensabgabe, which can be translated as sharing the wealth. This rhetorically philanthropic measure was an all-out attack on the country's capitalists who had heavily invested in war bonds and then redeemed them at a loss from the Austro-Hungarian bank after the dissolution of the old krona currency area. The proposal encountered the fierce opposition of the Kammer, of course, and the socialists were forced to consider other alternatives. After the peace agreement had been signed on September 10th, Austria received loans from the West, giving the government new financial flexibility. Characteristically, the foreign credits were used to buy food for Vienna's now inactive proletarian masses, and many Austrians were already counting on more Western help in the future. Mises spoke out against the childish notion that foreign capitalists and governments could have any long-term interest in financing a ruinous socialist experiment in Vienna. A conference on Austria's currency problems organized by the Vienna Association of Commerce and Industry gives a good sense of his alternative program. The conference took place on November 11, 1919. Mises and his friend Wilhelm Rosenberg were the main speakers. Wilhelm Rosenberg was already known as a writer on currency problems. Rosenberg explained that foreign exchange controls and banking regulations had stopped the inflow of badly needed foreign credit and encouraged costly barter and black market exchanges. The present relief was only temporary. He proposed attracting foreign credit by granting special privileges to foreign companies in such fields as mining, road construction and tourism. Then Mises observed that strikes and work stoppages were pandemic in Austria. The only exception was the printing press of Austria's central bank, which worked day and night. If this state of affairs continued, the krona notes would soon become worthless, their circulation would break down, and chaos would ensue. Mises then explained the origins of the present mess. The government itself had created the inflation. It then took the ensuing price rises as a pretext for imposing price controls and many more interventions. As in ancient Rome, the Austrian government was now at the point of providing the means of sustenance for a majority of the metropolitan population. Hoping for more allied financial support was futile. The only way out was for the government to spend no more than it took in. But Mises was completely disillusioned concerning the government's capacity to solve the problems that threatened to bring chaos and violence throughout the country. It had taken him time to learn this lesson, and he learned it the hard way. 
He had had his own ideas about how an enlightened government could enact a thorough monetary reform, but he now knew that it would never happen. He developed instead a revolutionary private enterprise strategy for the establishment of sound money, and was resolved to pursue it without delay. The fundamental paradigm shift at the heart of the Mises plan was simply to ignore the government and to make the reform of the monetary system an affair of the country's principal bankers, merchants, and industrialists. In the fall of 1919, Mises distributed a confidential memorandum. He argued that there was an imminent danger that the inflation and the plummeting krona exchange rate would incite people to give up on using krona banknotes altogether, and that it was necessary to prepare for this day. One can hardly expect the government to make such preparations. It cannot be assumed that the financial administration that for five years has not only followed, but also repeatedly sought to defend the disastrous inflation policy, and which in complete ignorance of the sole source of the decreasing value of money has accelerated the decline of the krona, would suddenly change its mind. Leaders responsible for its policies, who correctly saw the economic connections, have up to now been unable to overcome prevailing in-house traditions. Citizens must seek to achieve, through their own powers, that which the government fails to bring about. All one can hope for, on the part of the government, is that it not hamper the initiative of the private sector. It is the duty of the banks, and with the banks, that of big corporations in industry and trade, to make ready the measures that appear necessary to overcome the catastrophic consequences of the collapse of currency. This is in their own interest, and also a service to society as a whole. Mises then gave the details of his plan. He proposed to take measures to replace the krona with a foreign currency. If the inflationary process was sufficiently slow, he argued, no further measures would be necessary. The krona would then be replaced in a continuous process without threatening a disruption of business operations. The danger lay exclusively in the scenario of a sudden collapse that would leave the citizens without money. In this case, disruption could ensue and lead to misery and violence. It was in anticipation of this possibility that he urged the Austrian entrepreneurs to seek a credit of 30 million Swiss francs, that could be used for the payment of one month's worth of wages and for retail payments. Moreover, it was of utmost importance that this sum be available in very small denominations, lest it be useless for the man on the street. Austrian law did not allow this, but in the emergency scenario underlying the Mises plan, such legal considerations would be secondary, and he urged his readers not to despair about the possibility of such an emergency but to see it instead as an opportunity for political improvement. Political ideas that have dominated the public mind for decades cannot be refuted through rational arguments. They must run their course in life and cannot collapse otherwise than in great catastrophes. One has to accept the catastrophic devaluation of our currency as foregone. Imperialist and militarist policy necessarily goes in hand with inflationism a consequent policy of socializations necessarily leads to a complete collapse of the monetary order. The proof is delivered not only through the history of the French Revolution, but also through the present events in Bolshevist Russia and a couple of other states that more or less imitate the Russian example, even though they do not display the atrocious brutality of the Jacobins and Bolshevists 
but prefer less bloody methods instead. As unbecoming as the collapse of the currency is in its consequences, it has the liberating effect of destroying the system that brings it about. The collapse of the Assignat was the kiss of death for the Jacobin policy, and marked the beginning of a new policy. In our country, too, a decisive change of economic policy will take its impetus from the collapse of the currency. Without knowing it, Mises had spelled out here an idea that many years before him Karl Menger had stated in a private note, saying that ideas must run their course. Eva Hayek discovered this note at the beginning of the 1930s, when he worked on a new edition of Menger's works. Mises later referred to this note in his, the historical setting of the Austrian School of Economics. Vienna Circles Mises's main occupation was still that of a commerce secretary, in which capacity he profited from the government's attempt to democratize Austria. The egalitarian wave reached the Kammer during the year 1919 and was eventually voted into law on February 25, 1920. The Kammer was now renamed the Lower Austrian Chamber of Trade, Commerce and Industry, and all members now had equal voting rights, irrespective of their tax bill. The internal organization of the Kammer's executive office was also changed. The new law stipulated a stronger emphasis on giving the different branches of the economy a more equal representation within the executive office, even a level of autonomy within its confines. A new Department of Transport was set up, and also a new Department of Banking and Credit. Mises became the executive responsible for questions of money and credit. In his new function, he exercised leadership far beyond the borders of Vienna and Lower Austria due to the privileged status of the Vienna Kammer. He also remained a professor of economics both at the University of Vienna and briefly at the Export Academy. The Export Academy would later become the Hochschule für Welthandel and then the Wirtschaftsuniversität, under which name it is still known today. He resumed the regular discussions of economic theory that he had organized before the war. These meetings attracted the small number of economists in Austria and Germany, sharing a genuine interest in theoretical problems of the social sciences. Mises' group, the nucleus of what would soon after become the more formal Nationalökonomische Gesellschaft, enjoyed a virtual monopoly on Vienna's top theorists, especially because Wieser, who was still the most renowned theorist in Vienna, was not interested in this kind of exchange of ideas, and so attracted no such group about himself or his precepts. The Mises circle thus became a crystallization point for the dispersed and isolated theorists in the German-speaking world. Their attitude toward the Vienna group is beautifully summed up by Schumpeter, who, Having to cancel an appearance at one of the group's meetings, said he had dearly wished to speak to our circle and graze in congenial company on a theoretical meadow. The most time-consuming of Mises' intellectual endeavors were the seminars he taught at the University of Vienna, but the activity also gave him relief from the tiresome workdays at the Kammer and from hopeless political affairs. He loved being a professor. He loved intelligence and intelligent debate. No amount of political turmoil could deter him from offering his second university seminar as Professor of Economics in the winter of 1918-1919. When the first session started, the seminar members were the subjects of a monarchy. When the discussion resumed after a fortnight, they were citizens of a republic. 
the students must have been impressed by the presence of Dr. Ernst Zeidler, who had been one of Imperial Austria's last Prime Ministers. Zeidler probably knew Mises from common pre-war Chamber of Commerce activities. Most of the same members assembled for a summer seminar on the issue of free trade versus protectionism. Among the participants was apparently Siegfried Rosenbaum, the president of the Anglo-Österreichische Bank and sponsor of Walter Federn's Österreichische Volkswirt. Mises's plan for the seminar was to highlight the importance of the theory of value for the analysis of market phenomena and to stimulate discussions of the major competing theories of value, the subjective theory of value, Marx's theory of value, value in mathematical economics, and Franz Oppenheimer's objective theory of value. He sought to entrust the presentation of each of these doctrines to one of its adherents. The seminar also featured discussion sessions on the measurement of value and on the differences between classical and modern economics. Rather than taking into account only the most recent articles published in the most prestigious journals, Mises used the seminar to introduce the students to important classical authors. He also encouraged them to do outside research and write articles on particular topics and offered his assistance with these tasks. He urged them to read broadly without any specific goal or particular agenda, a principle he advocated all his life. He tried to be helpful in various ways, from lending books out of his personal library to finding suitable employment for his students after graduation. Despite the war and its aftermath, Vienna had remained a great centre of learning. Besides the Austrian school of economics, which continued to thrive under Wieser, Mises and Meyer, there were Austrian or Vienna schools of theoretical physics and philosophy, Moritz Schlick, of law, Kelsen, psychoanalysis, Freud, Adler, history, Dopsch and young Otto Brunner, and art history, Max Vorjak and Josef Strigovsky. But while Mises's classes at the university were a great opportunity for students to become acquainted with theoretical economics, the lectures and exercises were necessarily limited to an elementary level. Starting in 1919, the University of Vienna offered a new degree in government sciences with a strong emphasis on economics. Students had to attend six semesters of courses in economics, public finance, economic history, statistics, general theory of the state, public administration and international law. To obtain the PhD in government sciences, they then had to write a dissertation and undergo two thorough exams. Mises therefore sought to establish a private seminar for the discussion of more advanced problems. Many such private circles existed in Vienna and their characters differed widely depending on those involved. Some pioneers of various disciplines had instituted private seminars to train their followers in small group sessions. This was the case, for example, with Sigmund Freud, who had already started a group before the First World War, and also for the post-war circle of Hans Kelsen. Other private scholarly circles did not feature central figure. For example, the student circle that Mises had set up with the Prebram brothers and Emil Perus in 1908, and which would eventually become the Nationalökonomische Gesellschaft or the Geistkreis, a student group that Herbert von Fürth and F.R. von Hayek founded in the early 1920s. Some scholars had membership in several circles at once. For example, Felix Kaufmann, a student of Hans Kelsen's and later an assistant professor under him, was a member of the law-oriented Kelsen Seminar 
the Social Science-Centered Mises Seminar, and the Philosophical Vienna Circle. Mises, too, took part in several groups. In spring and summer of 1919, he was a member both of the Nationalökonomische Gesellschaft and of a seminar discussing the writings of Marx. This last group met on Monday evenings on the premises of the Staatskommission für Sozialisierung. Most of its members were Marxists, or people with communist leanings, such as Lederer and Käthe Pick. Pick had been a member of Mises' seminar already during the 1918 theoretical exercises in the economics of banking. She also took part in his subsequent university seminars. It was probably here that Mises confirmed his less-than-favorable impression of the socialist intelligentsia. Here he learned that the party Marxists consisted of two groups. One, those who had never studied Marx and who knew only a few popular passages from his books. And two, those who with all the literature in the world had read as self-taught men nothing except the works of Marx. Max Adler, for instance, belonged to the former group. His Marxian knowledge was limited to the few pages in which Marx developed the superstructure theory. To the latter group belonged especially the East Europeans, who were the ardent ideological leaders of Marxism. The only exception he refers to was Otto Bauer. Mises's own private seminar started on November 26, 1919, with a talk by Elisabeth Efrosi on Carver's theory of interest. Subsequent speakers included Striegel, Tugendhat, and Sommer. Efrosi was probably the heiress to the Efrosi Bank. Margit von Mises mentions Ludwig's occasional joking remark that he could have married a rich heiress had he not met Margit. He was probably referring to Elisabeth Efrosi. The sessions of the Privatissimum, as Mises called it, probably took place in his offices in the Kammer. In any case, this is where the seminar met in later years when admission would be limited to participants with a doctoral degree. The degree could be in any science. The purpose of the requirement was only to assure the person's aptitude for scientific research. He wholeheartedly supported his female students as a matter of course, placing, for example, Marianne von Herzfeld and Hélène Lisa as economists with the Association of Austrian Banks and Bankers. Hélène Lisa was the first woman in Austria to obtain a doctorate in government science. She went on to become secretary of the International Economic Association in Paris. Another female student, Martha Stephanie Braun, who later taught at Brooklyn College and New York University, recalled, Professor von Mises never restrained any participant in the choice of a topic he or she wanted to discuss. I have lived in many cities and belonged to many organizations. I am sure there does not exist a second circle where the intensity, the interest, and the intellectual standard of the discussions is as high as it was in the Mises seminar. In these discussions, Mises openly espoused not only classical liberal economic policies, but a complete classical liberal worldview. This at a time when the majority of intellectuals in Vienna and the rest of Europe were socialists. Thus, Mises was known as Der Liberale. In today's English, we would say he was Mr. Libertarian, the living embodiment of classical liberal ideas. One of Marianne Herzfeld's letters is most revealing in this regard. Fräulein Herzfeld's parents were acquainted with Mises and had him occasionally at their house for dinner. Many years later, his former student Fritz Machlup would highlight the role of Mises' convictions for his impact on others. 
That Mises could be the center of a school is evidence of his qualities as a teacher. Not that he is a great orator or a brilliant classroom actor, but it is the conviction with which he expounds his ideas which arouses the student's interest, partly by convincing them, partly by provoking their criticism. And then Mahloub went on to point out the flaws of his former teacher. He is usually too reserved, and all buttoned up, so to speak. Someone who meets him for the first time may be repelled by his apparent coldness, or some lack of sympathy. People who know him better know that he is fully sympathetic. He is a man unwilling to make compromises, even if such compromise might be to his material advantage. He will stick stubbornly to his convictions. Although I feel this is really a merit, it sometimes antagonizes people. Mises did occasionally show his anger, addressing a view that he opposed, but apparently he did not let intellectual disagreement turn into personal resentment. He realized that progress must necessarily involve disagreement between the newcomers and the establishment, and thus he encouraged talent regardless of orientation. For example, at the end of the 1920s, Mises recommended mathematical economist Eval Shams for a Rockefeller Fellowship, praising him as one of the ablest younger economists of our country. In May 1931, Shams was a in Vienna. Before that, he must have spent some time in Paris, maybe on a Rockefeller Fellowship. He also recommended Paul Lantersfeld, the director of a small private outfit dedicated to research into economic psychology, the Österreichische Wirtschafts Psychologische Forschungsstelle, of which Mises was a board member who advocated methodological and political views almost the opposite of those cherished by Mises. The names of some of his Vienna Junior Research Associates have indeed become legendary in the post-Second World War period. Hayek, Haberler, Machlup, Schütz, and Morgenstern, to name just a few. Although these men were usually the official students and collaborators of Meyer and Spann, it was in working with Mises that their theoretical work developed and flourished. It is characteristic of their relationship with Mises that they approached him without any submissiveness. Spann, Meyer, and Kelsen seem to have dealt with their students in a very different way. It is in this regard very revealing to compare Murray Rothbard's biography of Mises with Rudolf Metal's biography of Kelsen. In those days he also witnessed the ascendancy of his great rival, Ottmar Spann, who was appointed as a full professor of economics and gave his inaugural lecture on May 5th, 1919. Ottmar Spann's lecture was printed in the same year under the title Vom Geist der Volkswirtschaftslehre and later reprinted as an appendix to the third edition of Fundament der Volkswirtschaftslehre. Spann professed a worldview diametrically opposed to methodological individualism. His method, which he called universalism, claimed the importance of starting social analysis with the contemplation of larger wholes and treating the individual elements of human society as secondary. Such rivalries and disagreements were commonplace and were not limited to the university. The intellectual organization of early 20th century Vienna was a network of dozens of teachers professing their views to disciples and followers in private settings. The system exemplified the intellectual abundance that results from a free market of ideas. It produced Austro-Marxism, psychoanalysis, legal positivism, logical positivism, and praxeology. But for international reputation and lasting impact, 
three of these circles stood above the rest, the psychoanalysts, the logical positivists, and the Mises circle.